This is Audible. Odium Publishing presents The Spear of Stars, Book Five of the Cycle of Galand, written by Edward W. Robertson, performed by Tim Gerard Reynolds. One. The ship rose like a black phantom from the gray of the fog. A cold wind blew off from the sea, as if the ethereal vessel had brought a host of dark spirits with it. Dante pulled his arms tighter to his body. They were still dressed in their jabats, which had been well suited to the warm and stagnant swamps of Tanaratain and a blessing in the baked heat of the hell-painted hills. But now that they were on the coast, with a dense fog blowing past them, the short tunic left his legs dreadfully exposed, to say nothing of other paired and much more sensitive organs. A dim shape detached from the ship, low-slung and hauling landward. Longboat. A sudden sense of foreboding swept over Dante, giving him a second round of goosebumps. It felt as though, now that they were so close to leaving, the white lich would emerge from the sagebrush, laugh his copper kettle laugh, and then smite them dead with towering columns of pure ether. The same mood seemed to take them all. As Dante reached for the nether, he felt Gladic do the same. Naron stood taller. Blaze lifted his arms behind his head, grasping the back of his right hand and bending it inward. It looked like a relaxed, almost bored pose, but he was stretching his wrists in case he needed to wield his swords. The longboat ground into the coarse sand. Three sailors hopped out. Naron clasped their hands and climbed aboard. Dante and the others followed. High-stepping through the surf, the sailors pushed the boat clear of the sand, then slung themselves in over the gunwales. Soon they were rowing steadily, pitching up and down through the chop, cutting through the breakers with bursts of bracing spray. The shore grew hazy behind them. The fog was too thick to see any hint of the miles-distant, hell-painted hills. The anchored ship, once a ghostly suggestion, cohered into the sleek body of the Sword of the South. The longboat came along beside it. The sailors took up the ropes dangling down the sword's side and tied them to the longboat's cleats. Up on the deck, men turned cranks, lifting the small boat up to the rails. Dante stepped down onto the deck. Despite its exposure to the wind, he immediately felt warmer. Naron took a deep breath through his nostrils, chest swelling. By the gods, it feels good to be back on the sea. Dante tapped the deck with his sandaled foot. I could be clinging to a burning plank, and I'd still be happy to be away from Tanaritane. Enjoy your relief while you can, Gladick said. We may try to leave the swamps behind, yet they will soon come for us instead. You sure know how to celebrate a happy moment, don't you? Blaze shook his head. If the White Lich does come for us, we should just let you depress him to death. Naron strode down the mist-slicked deck, bawling orders to his men. 
Sailors piled into the rigging and began turning the great winch of the anchor. The sword of the south came free, tugging forward on the wind and heaving about to the northeast. Dante and the others went below decks for more appropriate clothing. He and Blaze were given light doublets and trousers, while the sailors were able to provide Gladick with an off-white robe. Blaze looked the old man up and down. Where'd they find that? Grandman Naron's footlocker? You look like a scullery maid getting ready for bed. I am glad you think so. Gladick ran his left hand down the wrinkles on the robe's front. The more humble I appear, the less likely a god will take notice of me and smite me down. They reconvened at the helm, where Naron stood with his hands folded behind his waist. The captain frowned, squinting into the gloom. These are strange currents for this time of year. We'll need to sail close to the coast. It was Dante's turn to frown. How much longer will that take us to get to Bristol? By my calculations, significantly less time than if we were racked on a shoal and forced to swim there. Aha. Uh -huh. By all means, proceed. Blaze tossed himself on a chest nailed to the deck and sprawled out his legs. How certain are we that the lich is going to come for Bressel? I would stake everything on it, Gladick said, for that is where the Drakebane has gone. Some personal enmity between the two, is there? The Drakebane and his ancestors have worked to oppose the lich for centuries. The lich will find nothing more satisfying than enslaving the Drakebane and all his blood as blighted. Ah, of course, if I was an ancient sorcerer who'd had centuries to develop my wicked schemes of total conquest, the first thing I'd do would be to settle my personal scores. Gladick's right, Dante said. A dark hand seemed to squeeze his throat tight to stop the words from getting out. When the White Lich took me under his power, we spoke of his vision of the future. He saw the Drakebane and the few remaining knights of Odosain as the only power that could pose a significant threat to his blighting of the world. He believed that once he'd conquered the rest of Tanaratain, he would be able to wield overwhelming strength against the Drakebane and Bressel. That silenced everyone for a second. Blaze was the first to bounce back. Well, do you think he's right? He has more than enough power to smash the Drakebane. But he wasn't accounting for the force we're bringing from Narashtovic. Gladick, how likely is it that we can convince your fellow Ethermancers to stand with us against the Lich? Gladick smiled, amused. About as likely as the idea that I will be delivered to paradise when I die. If we don't stand together, the Lich will slaughter us all separately. Besides, the Drake Bane launched his coup in Bressel because the Lich was taking over his homeland. If we kill the Lich, the Drake Bane can return his people to Tanaritain. I'd think the Malish might be in favor of that. Surely the priesthood will fall to its knees in awe of the Drake Bane's kind-hearted benevolence. You are asking them to side with the same people who assassinated King Charles, Tame's voice upon the earth. You have spent too long in the degeneracy of Narashtivik to remember that in Melon, the king is the pillar bridging heaven to earth. 
By usurping him, the Drakebane has severed our connection to the divine. The clergy will never side with such a criminal. We'll see about that, Dante said, because their alternative is for me to hunt them down and purge them from the city before the lich arrives. You speak as though you believe I agree with the priesthood, and take pleasure in explaining to how you will be thwarted. I am merely describing reality. It is your choice whether to accept it, or to rage at the one telling you what you don't wish to hear. I don't see why I can't do both. Dante moved to the starboard railing, and gazed at the dim impression of the shore. I'll find out whether Rorschach and Sorowan have penetrated the resistance. Once we arrive in Bressel, our job will be to recruit as many local resources of power as we can, and to neutralize everyone and everything who could threaten a united defense. He asked for, and was shown, to a cabin. Once he was out of the wind and spray, and away from the eyes and ears of curious sailors, he opened the loon connection between himself and Sorowan. Lord Galland! The boy's voice was eager. How can I be of aid? By telling me that you and Rorschach have finally made inroads with the Malish loyalists. Yes, my lord. Not two days ago. Wait. You did? How'd you pull that off? Well, it wasn't easy. Anyone with a working set of eyes and ears can see that Rorschach is a disgusting northerner. As for me, well... Seeing as I don't dare show them I can use the nether, on account of they'd hang me, and even showing them I can use the ether is a risk these days, well, Sorrowen, Dante said, if you have a point, would you mind getting to it? Yes. It's just, well, I'll tell you later if you want. For now, Rorschach got us hired on as mercenaries by a group called the Golden Hammer. The Loyalists, we think. You think? How do you manage to get them to take you aboard? I think it was when Rorschach snuck into their headquarters, put a knife to the leader's throat, and told him that unless he hired better guards, somebody was going to wind up killing him. That sounds pretty reckless. I tried to tell her the same thing. But it worked, didn't it? Which means we're wrong and she was right. What I need now is for you and Rorschach to learn everything you can about this group how big it is, who's leading it, whether it's working with any other loyalist factions, what their plans are for fighting back against the Drakebane, everything you can give us. To them, we're just common armsmen. Do you think they'll tell us very much? No, Dante said, wondering if it was possible to engineer a loon so that he would be able to reach through the connection and deliver Sorrowan a firm slap. So I expect you to eavesdrop on what the leaders and officers are saying to each other, and to keep note of who they're meeting with. If you're feeling really ambitious, you and Rorschach might even use the shadowy talents you've kept hidden from your employers to spy on them. Oh, Sorowan said. Right, we can do that. He paused. When you get here, are you going to kill them? That depends entirely on what they plan to do. Let's just say you shouldn't get too attached to any of them. He closed down the loon and went back above decks. They'd boarded the ship early in the morning, and as the sun climbed higher, it burned away the fog beneath it. A mile to starboard, 
The shoreline of Alebolgia rose from the sea, rocky black cliffs topped here and there with old towers or weather-worn fishing villages. The cliffs were sheer and all but unnavigable, but the locals had solved this problem by encrusting them with ladders, scaffolds, and ropes of all kinds, allowing the brave to climb down to their fishing boats and crab traps and so forth. Suddenly, and inexplicably, Dante wished that they weren't in the middle of fending off a threat to all creation, so that he could go ashore and spend a few weeks with the Alibolgian fishermen to live as they did. A few larger ships were now visible as well, white sails gleaming in the sun. It felt odd that life here was carrying on as normal, while everything in Tanaritain had been changed forever. After a while, Naren moved beside him, nodding to the sky. Is that one of yours? Dante visored his hand over his eyes. A large bird was circling high above them. Now, why do you ask? Because it's been following us for the last few miles. Then let's pray it's not one of the liches. He got out his knife, ready to draw blood from the back of his arm, if anything untoward was about to drop on them from out of the sky. The bird gained altitude, soaring over a pair of sloops to the south, then banked back toward the sword of the south. It circled twice more and began to descend. Naren laughed. It was a rich, deep sound, and after the last few months, it was more than welcome. That's no Tanarian spy. It's an Alabolgian sky courier. Dante squinted against the sunlight. A courier? It's bringing us a message? Maybe it's heard of our great deeds and has come to pledge its service, Blaze said. The bird lowered, hardly having to flap its long, slender wings as it kept pace with the swift ship. Its feathers were bright blue, and its beak and feet were snowy white. All the sailors looked up to watch it descend through the masts and rigging. It extended its wings like a pair of billowing blue sails, landing on the railing between the aftercastle and the midship below. A small crimson tube was tied to its left leg. Naren approached it. The courier watched him, but didn't so much as twitch as he untied the tube, removed its cap, and tapped the rolled piece of parchment into his hand. He examined the writing, then extended it to Dante. It's for you. Dante scanned the short note. It's from Vita Oseda. She wants us to meet in Cavana. It's regarding the White Lich. If the weather held, I was going to cut across the sea to Bressel, Naren said. But the trip to Cavana will only cost us a few extra hours. The White Lich will need weeks to finalize control of his country and come for Bressel. We can spare the detour. Naren nodded and called out the new destination to his sailors. Ever hateful of wasting writing instruments, Dante used the back of the parchment roll to inform Lady Vita that they accepted her invitation and would be in Cavana by nightfall. He secured the tube to the sky courier's leg. As soon as it was in place, the bird pushed off from the railing and soared to the north. The ship continued to parallel the rugged coast. As evening neared, 
the white houses of Kavana shined from a hillside, golden red in the sunset. Though it was much smaller than Bressel or Norashtovic, Kavana was the largest city they'd seen along the coast, and currently held sway over the entire strip of Alebolgia, granting it and its merchant captains outsized influence. The hill had been carved into concentric rings to maximize the use of its defensible space. They ran all the way down to the port, where two arms of rock hugged the bay, guarding its busy piers against the tossing of the ocean. As they neared, a merchant galley navigated its way past the jetties, obliging Naren to wait until it was through before he ordered the Sword of the South into port. By the time Naren brought them to a dock and began to haggle over the entry fee with the harbour master, it was fully dark. The air smelled of seaweed, mingled here and there with the scent of roasting chicken and tomatoes wafting down from the city. They stood on the dock, waiting for negotiations to wrap up. Blaze watched the sailors and stevedores at work. Are you as excited to be treated to Lady Vita's hospitality as I am? Last time she met us, it was in the middle of the night on a cold rock, with her guards threatening to kill us. Dante gazed up at the pale stone houses looking down on the port, lanterns flickering from their verandas. As I recall, the subterfuge was due to the fact that we were looking to conspire with her to undermine the ruling house of Alabolgia. Given that, he was expected to be slipped a note from a passing stranger that would provide the secret location of their latest rendezvous. Instead, a man dressed in knee-high stockings and an orange coat with silver buttons strode down the dock toward them. He stopped before them, lifting a manicured brow. High Priest Dante Galland. That depends on whether I'm about to be stabbed, Dante said. The man bowed. I am Estin of House Osedo. There is a carriage waiting for your convenience. Dante went to invite Naren, who had finally wrapped up his haggles with the harbour master, but Naren opted to remain with his ship, which he seemed extremely protective of, after having been away from it so long. Dante, Blaze, and Gladick followed Estin to the white carriage trimmed with orange. The three foreigners climbed inside while Estin took the reins, leading them up from the piers and into Cavana's winding, narrow streets. Now and then, a gap opened in the otherwise contiguous houses and shops, offering them a dizzying look at the plunge down to the now distant bay. Clouds were galloping in from the sea, and the air smelled of ozone. As they neared the top of the broad hill, the houses pulled away from each other, separated by yawning lawns and gardens. The lairs of the aristocrats. Eston led them down a side street to an iron fence where four-minute arms allowed them through. The horses clopped onward, delivering them to a proud manor of white stone. As soon as Blaze opened the carriage door, rain began to fall from the sky. Eston led them inside the manor and through a series of hallways and stairwells. At last, they stood in a round room near the top of a tower. Lady Vita will see you shortly. Eston backed from the room with a subtle bow. Blaze rested his arms on the sill of an open window. We'll have to get that one sacked for sure.
Of what? Dante said. Dressing better than you ever do. What kind of a servant doesn't offer you something to eat? Within a minute, the door opened. Vito Osedo swept inside. Her long dark hair was piled atop her head and held in place by an armory of silver pins. The shadows cast by the lanterns made her cheekbones look as high as the tower. She was quite young, though not as young as Dante had been when he'd been named high priest of the Council of Narashtovic, and was so startlingly pretty that if Dante had been her age, he probably wouldn't have been able to speak to her at all. Lords Gallant and Buckler. Her eyes jumped to Gladick. You are. Once I was an Orden of Bristol, the old man said. I doubt if that remains true. If so, I am simply Gladick. An Orden of Bristol in the company of the High Priest of Narastivik? The end of the world must be just as close as I have heard. Things are not yet so upside down as you may believe. Before the two of us met, I was still in possession of my right hand. Vita's eyes dipped briefly to the stump of his arm, which ended halfway below the elbow. Lightning flashed from the windows, sparing her from the need to find a graceful response to this. We have had rumors of upheaval in Tanaratain, she said, of awful powers, long dormant, returned to so chaos. The hell-painted hills protect us somewhat, but Tanaratain remains our neighbor. What has happened in the swamps? The rumors are true. Dante said. The White Lich has returned. We did our best to fight him, but it wasn't enough. He's driven all resistance from his land. It will only be a matter of days before he's conquered the last of it. How? To what end? How did you attempt to fight back? I would hear all of it. That would take days we don't have. And if your knowledge helps me save my people, those days will be well spent. Not when the loss of them means I don't have enough time to prepare to fight the Lich, and so I get killed, and so all of your people wind up getting turned into his monster slaves. Lightning flashed outside again, casting sparks into Vita's eyes. What was your current course when my messenger came upon you? We were heading to Bressel. The Drakebane has conquered it. We think the White Lich will strike there next to root him out. So? You were not coming here to protect my land, although we are closest to this threat and could easily be the enemy's latest prey. If you are leaving us to defend ourselves, then I demand you tell me what I need to know to safeguard my people. I'll write you a letter on the way to Bressel. That's the best I can do. He moved to the door. So be it, Vita said. Then I assumed wrongly when I thought you would want to see the grimoire. Dante stopped rocking forward on his feet. Grimoire? What grimoire? You would have no interest in it, as you already know everything there is to know, don't you? Only a less perfect man would find it useful. For it details how to wage war against the Vampire of Light, and to defeat him. The Vampire of Light? Is that another name for the White Lich? Oh, I am not wise enough to know that. Now go, run off and save Bressel. Dante nodded. You might want to take a seat. This is going to take a while. They seated themselves. The clouds had broken open, and rain smashed the stone walls with uniquely coastal strength. 
Dante opened his tale with a brief summary of their pursuit of Gladic, which had taken them to Tenaritane, and how they had been deceived into helping the righteous monsoon launch a rebellion against the Drakebane, who Gladic had been aiding. From there, he explained how the monsoon had been working to unleash the White Lich to help them seize Tenaritane. When Gladic had seen that the situation was hopeless, he had released the Lich himself, hoping that he would at least kill Dante and Blaze, or that the two of them might find a way to kill the Lich instead. They hadn't, of course. And once the Lich had shrugged off the initial attempts to destroy him, he'd gone into the swamps to assault isolated villages and steal the life spark from within their people, converting them into blighted under his control while also building the stock of ether within himself. Dante finished by cataloguing the many ways they'd tried to kill him, including the attempt to isolate and destroy his prime body, and then to wield the sorcery-negating powers of the Odosein against him. There were several times we came close, Dante said, but he's unlike anything I've ever seen. At this point, he's yoked tens of thousands of souls to him. He's become the most powerful sorcerer alive— he might be closer to a god than a human. Vita furrowed her smooth brow. If that is so, then how do you mean to defeat him? By throwing thousands of soldiers and scores of sorcerers at him. He may be half god, but he's not a mortal. We may be able to overwhelm him. Failing that, we'll wear him down bit by bit, then land the killing blow. And if that fails, Blay said, we intend to stack so many of our bodies around him that he trips and breaks his neck. Vita looked down. The rain was still assaulting the tower roof. Another flash of lightning illuminated the chamber, turning her olive face as ethereal pale as the lich's. You could not beat him with all your strength, she said softly. Now you do not know if you can beat him with an army of sorcerers. Alebolgia has few who know the ways of your priests. If the leech comes for our cities, what chance do we have? None, Gladick said. That's a bit harsh, Blaze said. That is because it is true. Then I must hope that what is contained in this book can help you make your stand. Vita stood and crossed to a shelf set against the wall. She withdrew a bundle removing the cloth that wrapped it and returning to the table. She bore a tome thick enough to brain a sheep with. She held it before her, gazing down at it with a look of spooked reverence. She hardened her jaw and extended the tome to Dante. Behold, the book of what lies beyond the land of Cal Avin. Two. Dante accepted the book with the same reverence he felt when conducting ceremonies at the Cathedral of Ivars. The covers were textured leather, dyed a striking orange. The front bore a depiction of an icy blue eye. He opened it. The pages were vellum and smelled of fresh skins, with no hint of mustiness. The first page was an illustration of a powerfully built figure towering over a field of cringing and dead victims. The art was in a jagged style Dante had never seen before, but there was no mistaking the figure of the lich. 
He turned the page. An account, Dante read slowly, of the appearance of the vampire of light and the many strange travels provoked by his troubles. This dialect is bizarre. Where is it from? Vita stood beside him, watching the book like it might rise up and strike him. When the rumors began of the white leech and his dealings, he sounded much as the folk tales of vampires the peasants still tell here in the street. So I wonder, could there be more than folk tales? I asked among the other houses, among the merchants. With the reward I offered, I had enough books brought to me to found a vampire library. That sounds like a lot more fun than the normal kind, Blay said. Most were simply more folk tales of the type I'd heard growing up. This book is much more. Dante flicked through a few more pages. This is a copy. Vita gave her head a little shake. It is the original. I paid so much for it, I should charge you rent to read it. The seller duped you. This book looks like it was bound within the last year. You can still smell the ink. I doubt this greatly. The seller was convinced it had been in his family library for at least a century. Gladig leaned forward. Pure white light glowed from the tips of his fingers. He brushed the book's open pages. The light flowed down his fingers across the vellum. A grid of blue-white glowed from the pages. The book is sealed in ether, Gladig said. This will protect it from age and decay. It cannot be said how old it might be. I don't care if it's so young, it still wets its covers, Blay said. Will you just read the damn thing and tell us how to kill the lich? Dante paged forward to the book's opening chapter. He cleared his throat and began to read aloud, still hampered by the odd dialect. My name is Sable. I am a sorcerer. There are some who say I am the greatest one to walk these lands. On some days, I agree with them. Yet, for all my talents, six weeks after the Vampire of Light came to Elada, every man, woman, and child had been converted into his starving servants. This included my wife, Trinia, and our four children. My efforts to revive them would require a book of its own. I already know its title, The Tome of Ceaseless Failure. Once it was clear that there was nothing more I could do, I fled north, along the coast, seeking passage away from the havoc. I told myself I meant to seek answers elsewhere, but the truth was that I could no longer bear to look on the pale undead that had become my family's new family. Sometimes, though, the gods have their own plans. I booked passage on a slave galley. Though I took pains to disguise myself, rumor pierces all facades. I was soon approached by a slave named Leb, whose gray skin and white hair I took to be signs of an exotic mariner's disease. He had heard that I had been working against the vampire, and claimed that people in his own land had once fought a similar monster. 
If I would free him from his bondage, he would lead me to his homeland where I could seek the answers that had eluded me. Freeing him was trivial. I didn't even have to kill anyone. I was all but certain Lab was playing me for a fool, but as soon as we had slipped away into port, he found us another vessel headed for eastern lands. This would take us all the way to Mas Pesos. There, Lab intended to find another ship that would transport us the remaining distance to his homeland of Cal Avin. Again, however, the gods' plans and mine did not overlap. Dante trailed off, sensing that a long and picaresque tale of sea travel was about to ensue. He skimmed the next few pages and confirmed that this was true. Vita, if I try to read this whole thing now, the only question is what will die first, my voice or Blaze? Is there a part that's more... relevant? She made a flipping gesture at the book. What do you think the ribbons are for? To make it look pretty? There were, in fact, a number of thin orange ribbons tucked among the pages. Dante skipped to the next one. But Sable and Leb were still at sea, dealing with horrible creatures on a remote island. At the next marker, they had shipwrecked and were beset by cannibals and pirates. At the ribbon after that, however, Dante's eyes locked on the words Cal Avin. He resumed reading. And so I entered the port of Had Lin, entry to Calavin, weighing thirty pounds lighter and wearing no more than a few twists of rag. I wish I could say it was the first time I'd arrived somewhere in such disgrace. Leb had told me about Had Lin, but nothing could prepare me for the sight of it. The mobile islands, the towers of uncut rock, the birds that perched on idols and judged you with eyes that looked perfectly human. Though the birds looked human, the people didn't. Like Leb, they were gray-skinned and white-haired, too tall and too slender. Even the sky seemed a different color than the home I'd left a bleak green that had no obvious cause. I have no words for the smells. You should be grateful for that. Leb, my faithful companion, looked happier than at any time since we had met. I feared he would rush off to old friends or lovers he hadn't seen in years, abandoning me to the alien city. I should never have doubted. We had begun our acquaintance as pure strangers, but since then we'd been through far too much together to betray one another. He made his inquiries. By nightfall, he returned with the name of a sorcerer who knew of the vampire, Ghent of Ada. We spent the next day provisioning ourselves in the markets, the stalls and tents sold wares our language has no words for. I was goggling over strange roots and powders when the watch came for Leb, arresting him for the years-gone crimes that had caused him to flee Cal Avin in the first place. Could I have stopped them from taking my dear companion? I think so. 
Yet I was stayed by fear, fear and the foolish hope that if I soldiered on to find Ghent and the vampire's secrets, I could still restore my blood family from their undead curse. So I found myself alone in a foreign city. It was then that I saw the full wisdom in Leb's insistence I learn his language on our long journey at sea. Far too canny to have been a slave. And I had abandoned him to the predations of the state. But the die was cast. I gathered my things and made for Ad, vowing to return and free Leb for a second time once I had learned the vampire's ways. This had the makings of another travel interlude. Dante was now more than curious enough about Calavine to read every detail, but that would have to wait. He glanced over the next few pages, finding them full of bandits, wild beasts with wicked horns, and whispering spirits looking to lure Sable to his doom. Dante flipped forward to the next ribbon, after Sable had found Ghent and been allowed in by the wizened master. It was now clear that Ghent hadn't agreed to see me out of a desire to rid the world of the Vampire of Light, but to learn my foreign sorcery, and then cast me out of the caverns of Ada. I confronted him. If you don't teach me your secrets, all of my people will die. And if I had known the vampires were reading the world of stinking barbarians, Ghent answered, I would never have had any quarrel with them. There was no convincing him, not with words, but in his love for his country, I saw another way. From there, Vita interrupted, Sable embarked on a string of feats to prove his worth and valor to the scornful sorcerer. It is most fine to read, but since you are in a hurry, you will want to skip forward. What kind of feats? Blaze said. In one case, Sable built a bridge across the river to Ada, which was filled with evil fish that had stopped all previous attempts. In another, he tracked down the great bear of Ang that had been devouring children who wandered into the forest and brought its skin back to Ghent. After that, he set warring bandit tribes against each other so that they wiped themselves out and made it safe for travel. Not bad for a stinking barbarian. So what finally convinced Ghent to apprentice him? When Ghent had been but a child... His father had entrusted him with the care of the Chain of Years, a family relic. Some time later, Ghent lost it while swimming in a lake. This happened fifty years before Sable came to Ghent, so Ghent meant the task of finding the chain to be impossible. That's how he would finally be rid of the pesky foreigner. Let me guess, Sable finds the chain? No, Vita said, almost dreamily. But he swam so deep, searching for it, that he lost his breath. It took Ghent all his powers to save him. Ghent was so touched by Sable's devotion that he agreed to teach him his ways. She tapped the next ribbon. That story begins here. Dante turned to the next marker, which was the start of a new chapter.
With the lake's water still leaking from my ears, Gent looked at me with eyes like two graves. You came to Calavin for answers, he said. But what you need to fight the Vampire of Light can't be found here. Oh, in that moment, I wished he'd let me drown. I'm sorry to have troubled you. Please tell me where I can find my answers, and I will leave you in peace. The realm of the Nine Kings, but you'll never get there on your own. You could search for a hundred years, and you'd never find it. So it is a good thing for you that I am such a kind old man and will show you the way. At last, Ghent told me how he had driven a vampire of light from Calavin. He hadn't achieved this through any sorcery, but rather through the acquisition of a weapon of terrible might, the Spear of Stars. Long ago, the gods had divided the spear into nine parts and handed them down to the care of the rulers of the realm of nine kings. With the vampire at hand, Ghent had traveled to this land, earning the pieces of the spear through contests, gambling, thievery, and trickery. Once he had completed it, he returned to Calavin and used the spear of stars to smite the vampire. With the threat removed, the gods had compelled him to return the pieces of the spear to its nine guardians. If I wished to wield the spear, I would have to retrace Kent's steps into the realm. Thus began the greatest quest I had ever known. Dante stopped and looked up at Vita. Do they find the pieces of the spear? And does Sable use it to drive out what he calls the Vampire of Light? Yes, to both questions. A stone of sickness lay in his stomach. Then we're screwed. How can that be so, when the book you now hold tells you how to defeat the White Leech? Because it's telling me that if I want to beat the Leech, I have to travel to a land I've never even heard of. Depending on how old this book is, Calavine might not even still exist. Calavin is still there, Naren said. It lies beyond the five Medanlan Way. Hang on, you've been there. It is too far and the route too dangerous to interest me, but I have known others who claimed to have seen it. Blaze leaned back in his chair and rested the heel of his boot on the table. So, theoretically, you could get us there. There is no reason why not except that such a trip would take months, if not years, Dante said, allowing the White Lich months, if not years, to run wild across the continent. We don't even know for certain that this Spear of Stars really existed, or that it's still there today. Blaze set his boot down at the exact moment thunder peeled overhead. Counterpoint. The Spear can be used to destroy the Lich. Counter-counterpoint. We can be used to destroy the Lich by staying right here. The spear is a total long shot. I'd only chase after it if we had no other hope. We do not all have to chase after it, Gladick said. Captain Naren can make the journey to Calavine on his own. 
Once there, he can seek to discover whether the spear is present. Blaze frowned. Are you still trying to get Naren killed? There is a chance that he and his ship would be lost on such a long voyage, but he is a skillful man. I have faith in his ability to return. Not long ago, I was lamenting my inability to be of use against the Lich, Naren said. If I can bolster our hope of victory by sailing to Calavine, that is what I must do. Dante glanced across the table, afraid they were about to sign Naren's death warrant. What if we don't have to travel to the realm of Nine Kings to get the spear? Vita, is there enough information in this book for me to be able to make one for myself? She shrugged her thin shoulders, scrunching the collar of her ornate shirt. I cannot say what might show you how to do this. How many times must I tell you I am no wizard before that fact will enter your stone-like brain? The possibilities worth exploring. If this weapon was made once, it can be made again. It is not said to be made by man, Gladick said. It was forged by the gods. Do you really think that's true? How many divine relics have you seen? From what I can see, the gods made the ether, the nether, the world, and all that lives upon it. But everything else was made by people like you and me. Do your people know the leader of their faith is a heretic? I doubt it, Blaze said. They haven't even caught on that he's an idiot yet. Dante shook his head. I've seen the afterworld for myself. The golden stream showed us a past our holy book tells us nothing about. The world and our history within it is much larger than anything we've been taught. Gladick snorted. You fool! If the world is vast and full of mystery, that should make you more sure the gods and their works are still among us. The gods may be out there, Naren said, but I have seen too much of the sea's cruelty to think they are watching out for us. Hence, we must always watch out for ourselves— Meaning no disrespect to your abilities, Dante, but it does not seem likely that you will be able to match the gods in forging this so-called Spear of Stars, especially with no more to go on than a few passages in a book. That is why I will travel to Calavine anyway. Dante turned on him. No disrespect to your abilities, Captain, but finding the Spear apparently took the combined efforts of two powerful nethermancers. If you try it, you'll surely be killed. Then I will die in the service of my homeland and my friends. What is so wrong with that? The part where you die. Are you ordering me to stay in Brussels? What if I did? Naren raised an eyebrow. Then you would need to keep a very close watch on the port. Blaze tossed up his hands. Lyle's balls! If sailing off to die in a land of orange skies and... Talking frogs is what it takes to make Naren happy. Who are we to stop him? Fine, Dante said, but I'm still going to try my way. With any luck, I'll replicate the spear before you sail out of loon range, Naren. Lady Vita, thank you for getting this book to me. It could change everything. She cocked her head, drawing a tight circle with the point of her chin. Who says I'm giving you the book? Me, because of the lich and how he intends to murder us all. I will give you the book. But I will only do so under one condition, that you promise me your protection 
Okay. I promise to go fight the White Lich and stop him from destroying Kavana. Oh, yeah, and the rest of the world, too. No. I ask your personal protection. For myself and House Osedo. I can't do that. I'm going to need all of my attention on the Aiden Rane. Then you cannot have the book. He gave her a steady look, feeling his jaw tighten. Lightning flashed through the glass of the window. I could lie to you, promise my personal protection, but I won't. What I can say is that I'll do what I can for you if you stick close to me, although you'd be in more danger in Bressel than you would if you stayed here. My duty is to fight the White Lich. That's what I'm going to do. Vita extended her slender arm, pointing at his chest. Just make me your oath, and the book is yours. Wrong. It's already mine. He marked his place, closed the covers, and picked up the tome. Are you stealing from me? Guards! Vita made a swooping motion with her arm. The two burly soldiers who'd accompanied her detached from their positions against the wall and closed on Dante. He shook his head and called to the nether. It came in a dark rush, as if stirred up by the storm outside. He sent it streaming to the guards' feet and rooted them to the ground. One man yelped in panic, while the other toppled awkwardly to the side, catching himself on the stone floor and pushing himself back upright. On a lark, Dante moved into the stone beneath them. It smoothed out, liquefying, then climbing up their legs in a way water never should, let alone rock. It flowed past their hips and up their shoulders. They whipped their necks back and forth in panic as the stone covered their faces and scalps. Dante left only a small hole for their mouths, and a proper one for each eye, allowing their helpless terror to shine as brightly as the lightning beyond the window. As I told you, Dante said, sticking the book in his pack, I'll do whatever I can for you, but my duty comes first. After what he'd done to her guards, a lesser woman would have scurried away. But Vita stopped in front of him, fists held at her hips like she might draw her thin sword. There is something different about you, she said. Something colder. He looked up. I didn't tell you everything that happened in Tanaratain. When we were defending Ardisosis, the lich took me under his power. When this happened, I saw what he thought. I thought what he thought. He is cold, beyond all understanding. The only hope we have to prevail is to be as cold as our own nature allows. Vita's lips were slightly parted, her brows drawn in confusion. Then she yanked back her head as if she'd been slapped. Take the book. Take the book and kill him. Dante waved his hand. The stone dropped from the two guards like water, settling back into the floor. The nether, rooting their feet, seeped away. The men jerked backward, eyes wide, nostrils flaring. The Aedan Rane fights for the end of everything human, Dante said. He dies, or I do. He descended the tower and walked back 
into the storm. 3. The city was quiet in a way cities shouldn't be, as if it was hunting something, as if it was being hunted. If Rorschach had just showed up in Bressel that night, she would have stayed in her room until she understood what was driving its mood. For she was a child of the streets, and when she listened to what Bressel was telling her, she heard one word. Violence. See anything? she said. Saruman hunched forward. It looked like he was examining the broad avenue that led to the staggeringly tall tower of the Odellian. Except his eyes were glassy. The tell that he wasn't looking with his own eyes, but through the sight of the dead bugs he'd sent to scout the way forward. Yes, he said. Two men. Armed? No. I mean, maybe. But I don't think it will matter, because one of them's throwing up, and the other one looks asleep. Right, she said sarcastically, though he wouldn't pick up on it, which was one of the ways she'd learned to tolerate his overly literal and often irrelevant responses to simple questions. Let's check it out. She twisted halfway around, removing a glass lens from her pocket and tilting it back and forth to catch stray light from lanterns and the moon. This done, she turned back to the gigantic cathedral and walked toward it at a perfectly casual pace. The thing was huge, even taller than the Cathedral of Ivars, and several times wider, and guarded by enough gargoyles to make you seriously curious about what kinds of treasure Tame was hiding inside. You would expect a place like that to be lit even at night, but it was currently dark probably on account of the fact the local priests had recently been violently displaced. She and Sarwan made a quick pace of the outer grounds. Seeing nothing out of the ordinary, and definitely no hordes of foreign soldiers ready to spring from the darkness, she got out her bit of glass and flashed it down the lane again. It was a good trick, the signal glass, but it would have been better if it was disguised as something harmless, so when the city watch asked you what it was, you could shrug your shoulders and show them it was just a toy, or a lid, or what have you. She might have to make something like it for her people when, and if, she got back to Narashtovic. Footsteps from down the street. They were all wearing plain trousers and long, loose shirts to deal with Bressel's warm, damp summer air but only someone who'd never been arrested before wouldn't be able to make out the squared shoulders and disciplined steps of the soldiers. As for the other two, anyone who'd robbed as many aristocrats as Rorschach had could spot their practiced grace from three miles away. The first of the fancy lads was Bilton, the malish priest who'd hired her and Sorowan on as extra blades. He was looking a little less haughty that night, probably because the man with him was obviously and in every way his superior. The other man's black hair was shot through with white streaks and spots that didn't look like the product of normal aging. A distant, observing intelligence animated his dark and recessed eyes. Deep lines bracketed either side of his mouth, like everything he said was a side note within a set of parentheses. He was fairly tall, but seemed even taller, with a build like an ironwood staff. 
There was a sense that just seemed to roll off him, like it was a bad idea to take your eyes off him for too long. Bilton glanced at her and Sorowin. Watch the perimeter. Roshaw nodded, heading off several paces before slowing down and stopping next to the cathedral walls, still within earshot. Who is that? Sorowin whispered. Don't know, Roshaw said. And we won't find out if you don't shut up and let me listen. The two men moved toward the cathedral's front steps. Bilton tilted back his head to take in the height of the spires. Well, Arden Adain, what does it augur? The Arden, so he was a priest and an important one, gave Bilton a brief look of disdain. He reached into the pocket of his breeches and withdrew a small object that glinted when he held it up to the moonlight. A glass figurine of some kind. Rasha was too far away to see what it was, but from the way its facets were shining, it was worth more than most men earned in months of labor. Orden Adain twitched his hand upward, then whipped it down, smashing the figurine against the cobbles. Rasha flinched, more from the senseless destruction of wealth than from the sound. The priest lowered himself to one knee, hands lifted in benediction above the shards of glass. Light glowed from his fingers. Then it glowed from the shards, too, rising from them in narrow beams to form a web of strange geometry. We can't meet the usurper here, Odain said, or the gods promise us death. Death? Milton looked up at the church's spires again. But there is no holier sight in all of Malin. These grounds should protect us. Why would our gods protect us when we have betrayed them, Bilton? Betrayed them? But we're the ones who've been betrayed. You are a servant of Tame. Tell me your understanding of his ways is not as shallow as you make it sound. Bilton's head had been lowered, but he now lifted his chin. I am imperfect, Lord but I am always ready to be enlightened. Is that so? Then look into the light and tell me what you see. Adain lifted his hand to Bilton's face. Ether glimmered, then intensified, pouring into the lesser man's eyes. He flinched away from the glare. Adain arced his fingers into claws. Bilton's head snapped forward as if Adain had hooked him by the mouth. The Orden leaned closer. Do you see? I see the light, Bilton said. But I don't understand what- Do you see? The light brightened further, searing across the cathedral steps. Tears flowed from Bilton's eyes. Rasha would have sworn she could see the man's skull through his skin. He began to shudder, then to shake, as if gripped by a great angry hand. His tears turned red under the pure light of the ether. Ribbons of blood snaked from his nose and ears. You do not see. With a disgusted chop of his hand, Adain cut off the ether. The steps went dark. Hilton collapsed, limbs curling and spasming irregularly. The King of Malon is the pillar connecting heaven and earth. Adain's voice was now perfectly calm. 
When the king was murdered, that connection was broken. We have no more claim to heaven. Thus, we can't use the temples of heaven until the pillar is rebuilt, yes? Bilton pushed himself up on his hands, choking and snorting, blood and drool falling from his face. I understand. Do you then understand how, in letting our link to the gods be cut, we have betrayed them? The question that then arises is this. Did the connection break because it was corrupted by outside forces, or because King Charles broke it himself? Through his pain, Bilton looked horrified. Warden, that is heresy. Yes, obviously. But if we are to restore order, it is a heresy that must be answered. Adain clasped his hands and turned his back to the cathedral. The doors of heaven are closed to us. We must look for earthly houses instead. Let us meet this Drake Bane in the most earthly place in Bressel, the Exchange. Yes, Lord. Adain glanced down, as if surprised to find that his subordinate was still on hands and knees. Heal yourself, Bilton. We don't have time to waste. The lesser priest did as ordered, then stood and turned on the soldiers, barking orders to the exchange. The lot of them marched through the streets. Once they drew near the exchange, Bilton ordered Rorschach and Sorowin to proceed ahead to make sure it was clear. Sorowin darted a glance over his shoulder. Are we sure we're working for the right people? We're not working for them, Rorschach said. We're working for your master. And if these creeps don't do what he wants, I'll bet you as much silver as you can fit in your mouth that they'll wind up just as dead as their king. They got their orders the next morning. The Drakebane had refused to meet the priests of Bressel himself, but had offered to send his lieutenant in his stead. The meet would take place that night at the exchange. Bilton rousted them as the Odellian's bells announced they had two hours until the meet. Like the night before, the dark streets seemed to be waiting for something. After the rage and chaos of the first few nights of the Drakebane's takeover, this new silence felt sinister. The exchange was a fat, round building five stories high and wide enough to take up most of the block. Prior to being closed down by the takeover, it had been used as a central locale to trade currencies, sell and swap excess cargo, and seek investment in various shipping ventures. Most of its top was flat, but two strips of peaked roof ran down its center. Orden Adain wasn't there yet. Rasha didn't know if he was going to be. Bilton seemed to relish being top dog again, rattling off orders about who was to stand sentry where. He assigned Rasha and Sorowin to an intersection a block away. Not surprising, they were newcomers, mercenaries. Nobody was going to post them at a Dane's side during the negotiations, or blustering session, or whatever it was that was supposed to take place that night. After all, Rasha had only used her knife to talk their way into the Golden Hammer a few days ago, and they'd only just been transferred to Bilton's command. But being posted down the street would run directly counter to the plan of learning what was going on, and how to deal with the two sides going forward. She waited for Bilton to finish. 
then approached him with a half bow, hoping to soften up his ego. Lord, but- You have your orders, he said. I suggest you perform them. Yes, my lord. She drew closer, dropping her voice and glancing around to make sure no one could hear them. But I've seen a flaw, and the only thing I fear more than violating your orders is seeing our people get hurt because I was too cowardly to speak up. The commander served by cowards won't command for long, Bilton said, sounding like he was quoting someone, and also that he was reluctant to agree with her. Speak up, and be quick about it. Nearly every avenue of danger is covered, all except for the roof. He sneered at her. That's because no one can get to it, you Gascon simpleton. I can, sir. And if I can climb up to it, then maybe the Drakebane soldiers can too. Bilton glanced at the sheer sides of the building, his face darkening. I see no scaffolds, ladders, or staircases. You're so certain you can reach the peak? I am, because I've spent most of my life skulking across roofs to rob people like you, and running back across them to escape people like your soldiers. She gave her little bow again. My lord. The corner of his mouth and eye twitched. If you can attain the roof, I will take it as proof of the wisdom of your counsel. But if you cannot make it, I'll have you flogged and chained for false boasts. Hurry on with you. She turned away letting herself grin, only to drop it immediately when she realized there was no way Sorrowin was going to be able to follow her to the top. Well, either he could find a way to magic himself up, or he could stay down in the street. Once she was right up against the walls of the exchange, she could see the source of Bilton's scorn. The walls were gray granite, sanded smooth. There were a few windows and arches, much fewer than your average manor or tenement. She stepped back, examining the hole for roots up. There weren't any, not without a lot of special gear she didn't have. If she went to Bilton for it, the only thing he'd give her was a lashing. She swore, then swore again. She had a way, or thought she did. She'd never had to use it before. But if she messed it up, she'd be praying she'd opted for the whip instead. She bounced on the balls of her feet and jogged toward the wall. Nearing it, she picked up speed, then launched herself upward. Her outstretched hand found the edge of a windowsill. She grabbed it, flattened herself against the wall like a lizard, and pulled herself up. The arch above her was close enough that she didn't have to stand on her toes to reach it. No sweat. The window after that was high enough she had to jump, which always got her heart dancing, but she'd made jumps scores of times and pulled it off without a hitch. The next twenty feet looked impossible, but she'd learned to read walls the way monks read their folios, and she was soon forty feet in the air. Two-thirds of the way up, there was just nowhere else to go. No ledges, no cuts in the stone, just smooth, featureless wall. She'd been hoping to see a foothold or something once she got closer to it, but that hope turned out to be so much night soil. She gritted her teeth. Nothing to either side of her either. 
She got the distinct idea the architect had been warned that burglars and prowlers might just have some interest in infiltrating the fabulously wealthy interior of the exchange. Backing down meant failing Galland and getting a beating from Bilton. Still the generally preferable option, considering that trying to go up meant falling to death. But Rasha had the curse of talent, which meant she did have a way up. Or a chance at it. She'd never actually tried it, because if she was wrong about it, it could mean the instant loss of her hands, feet, or maybe even the entire building. But compared to what was coming for them, those were all pretty small losses, weren't they? She glanced down, making sure Bilton wasn't looking directly at her, and shifted into the shadows. Nether sprung up, appearing as silver-black sparks and gobs lurking within the wall of the exchange. Rosha lifted her right shoe from the ledge she was standing on, brought her knee to her chest, then extended her foot directly into the rock wall, which seemed to offer no resistance at all. She reached up and pushed her left hand into the rock as well, whispering a prayer to Carvajal, the lord of all thieves and troublemakers she shifted back into the real world. She held her breath, expecting to see her hand bitten off by the stone. It was buried to the wrist in the wall, stuck fast. She gave a slight tug, then a hard one. Nothing popped loose. Her right foot was embedded in the wall, too. She now had two better anchors than iron pins. Using them, she pushed herself upward, her left foot and right hand now pressed against sheer rock, with nothing to support them from beneath. Next came the other dicey part. She bounced back into the nether, everything going all eerie and silver-lined. This time, she lifted her left foot and right hand as high as she could, inserting them into the rock, then dislodging her other foot and hand from it back into the world of things again. She'd switched anchors, allowing herself to rise another yard higher. Sweat popped up across her back. She grinned. Two more quick repetitions, and she was up to a narrow window. A few seconds after that, she was rolling over the lip of the roof. She looked down to discover that all six men still in the street below were looking up at her like she'd just committed a feat of magic. Roshar held still, waiting for them to begin yelling for her capture. Bilton's face was too far below her to read in the darkness. He lifted his right hand in salute. Roshar let out what she hoped would be her last sigh of relief of the night, and walked across the roof toward the two raised, pitched portions of it. She'd spent enough time breaking into expensive buildings to have a makeshift apprenticeship in architecture, and just like she'd hoped, the two strips of roof had been elevated to provide sunlight to the large central hall of the exchange, where the meet was to take place. The windows were paned with quality glass, almost perfectly clear but for a few ripples. A narrow catwalk ringed the interior. She headed back to the edge of the roof, hunting for Sorowan, but she didn't see his silhouette among any of the soldiers Bilton had posted in the streets below. The Dane showed up a few minutes later, entering the exchange in the company of multiple bodyguards, 
and the handful of stuffy-looking guys Rorschach was almost certain were priests. The foreigners came around five minutes after that. Rorschach was used to seeing outsiders in the streets of Narashtavik, merchants and pilgrims from Gask, Galador Rift, the Western Wodens, and so forth. But these guys were really foreign, almost as much as the Norin. They were pale even by Narashtavik standards, with night-black hair above faces that looked like, well, Russia couldn't decide whether they were delicate-looking men or stern-looking women. They were thin, too, thin like water striders, yet seemed strong despite that. And they weren't all rickety-looking. Three of them were dressed in full armor, stuff that looked like it was welded from dragon scales with helmets like monsters. Slightly curved swords hung from their hips. Shadows slithered around the hilts and scabbards. The Tenarians entered the exchange. Rasha loped over to the windows. Sixty feet below her, Orden Odain waited patiently. But they were inside and she was outside. She moved to a column of stone between two windows and slipped into the darkness. She walked right through the wall and onto the wooden catwalk on the other side. She crouched down and came back to the normal world. The Tenarians were just entering the hall. Adain's men got very alert. Adain himself stood there like you couldn't drag him off with a team of horses. The foreigners came to a stop across from him. The tallest of the outlanders took another step forward. I am Eitan Yoto, known as the Drake Bane, new sovereign of Bressel. You shouldn't call yourself that, Adain said. Yet it is true. Bressel can only be ruled by the line of kings of Melon. And yet, the Drake Bane repeated, it is true. You are Orden Adain? I am. Why are you here? Whether the question is why I am here in this building myself, or the larger one of why I have brought my people to Bressel, the answer is the same. The Aedan Rane has emerged from his iron prison to lay siege to the world. The Aedan Rane, Dane said. We have heard rumors that your homeland has given birth to a dark god. A god? I'm not so sure about that. He was born a man like you or me. He has become something more. But if he was a god, I think that others would have stepped forth to put an end to him. Unless they turned him on your land as punishment? That is not what happened. He was a lone man who, many centuries ago, long before myself or any of my people were alive, pursued black arts in the name of personal power. The Dane chuckled, tilting his head. If the sovereign of Tanaritain is this spiritually bereft, it's no wonder the gods decided to punish you. Is the answer so obscure? The test isn't the Aiden Rane of today. The Aiden Rane has always been the test. You failed it for centuries, one time after another, until your failure grew too much for even the most merciful of gods to deny any longer. That is when they stripped your country from you. Even if that's true, 
The Drakebane's voice was now as sharp as the bone sword. Then why did Bristle fall to me? Have you failed the gods as well? That they take your country from you? The Dane was silent a moment. It is clear that we are now being tested, too. Passing this test will be my life's work. It is one we should both want to pass. That is why I agreed to speak with you, and in person. In time, the Aedan Rane will come for Bristol. It will be sooner rather than later. When that day comes, if every power in the city doesn't stand together against him, then nine-tenths of us will be turned into his blighted slaves, and the remaining tenth will be fed to them. You want me to stand with you? You, who are the only reason the Aedan Rane has any interest in our city? You, who murdered my king, our vessel of the heavens, and replaced him with yourself? Yes, because if we don't stand together, the lich will destroy every last one of you, and your nation will fall just as mine did. This decision must be part of the test. Dane looked up. He seemed to be staring straight at Rasha, but she suspected he was waiting for Tame to punch out the windows with his mighty fist and give a godly thumbs up. Dane took a long breath, then swung his gaze to the Drakebane. If we fight him, if we win, will you return to your own land and forfeit all claim to this one? I am only here for two reasons. To preserve my people and to strike down the lich. The Tenarians belong in Tenaretain. If we cleanse it of our foe, that is where we will return. Very good. Since you admit that you have no rightful claim here, you will step down immediately, allow Crown Prince Swain to ascend the throne, and swear your allegiance to him in mutual defense. The Tenarians rippled. The Drakebane shook his head. That can't be done. I can't give up my people's sovereignty. We are already on the brink of extinction. If you care anything for your people, you will agree to put the rightful Lord of Malin in charge of the Malish defense. My line has been fighting the White Lich for centuries. My knights are trained in battle against him. My advisors know his mind and his powers. Let us lead this fight. You make your case through reason. Reason is human, and human is weak. We'll ask the gods for guidance. The Dane reached into his pocket. The three armored knights stiffened. Rasha felt something stir, but she couldn't say what. The priest got out another glass figure, its cuts winking in the candlelight. He dropped it on the floor and bore down on it with his boot, the crumpling sound filling the wide hall. He withdrew his boot and lifted his hand. Thin lines of ether climbed from the broken figurine. One of the knights took a step closer to the Drakebane, who didn't shy back from the priest's sorcery. Dane drifted toward the light, brow furrowed, lips moving silently. Lips of ether shimmered between his hand and the minute pillars rising from the broken glass. Adain's eyes widened as a quill-thin line rose from the others, climbing higher and higher until it reached the ceiling. The pillar of heaven, he said. 
there is only one way to restore it. Through the restoration of Prince Swain. The light told you that. The Drakebane's voice was a long way from convinced. The light tells me everything. Doesn't it speak to you? We know higher powers in Tanaritain as well. Sometimes they seem to speak through me, but they don't come in the form of dancing lights. The light is the higher power. The light is the way the gods show themselves on earth. If you have turned your back on the ether, the heavens' great gift to us, then I didn't need to consult the light to know that the gods will never support you. The prince must retake his throne. The Drakebane looked down, hiding an unpleasant emotion. Once this is over, I will hand all power to the prince, who can come declare war on me and my swamps, if that's what the gods command of you. Until then, we must put aside all anger for the purpose of saving the Tenarians and the Malish. Do you really think your neutered pragmatism can protect us better than divine backing? If the gods are watching, surely they will agree that the only way to stand against a power like this is to stand together. Oh, I think Tame will protect us. He always has. The Drakebane rolled his lips together, glancing away and then back to the priest. You don't know what is coming for you, sir. The very fact that it has forced me here, where we are now speaking, should tell you everything you need to know. Now that you mention it, I think it does, the Dane said. You were right earlier when you said the gods are now testing the Malish. This is my test, and I will pass it. He swept forth his right hand. The white light coalesced from the air and the broken glass. The room, once dim, flared brighter than daylight as a thicket of ethereal spears punched toward the drakebane. The man next to him cried out, throwing up both hands and striking at the incoming energy with a mismatched blend of ether and nether. The effort was just enough to smash the spears of light into a snowstorm of ether. He attacks the drakebane! One of the guys in the dragonish armor swept out his sword. Purple stuff crackled along the blade. Shadows, but somehow different. He cocked the weapon and sprung at a Dane. A Dane didn't so much as look his way, just made a flicking gesture. Light ripped into the man's armor, sending him spinning to the ground as loose scales flew into the air. A Dane clenched his hand and thrust it at the drakebane. Nothing happened. Treachery! Bilton yelled, practically squealing. They stopped the ether! That's because they're demons. The Dane was perfectly calm. He pulled back the long, loose coat he'd been wearing, revealing a glass rod on his belt, flared head riddled with spikes and star points. He drew the weapon, which glowed with ether despite whatever the knights were doing to stop it. But even demons can be slain. Everything had very quickly gone to hell, and it was obvious that it was about to descend into double hell. Rasha had only signed up to keep tabs on what was happening in Bressel. She absolutely hadn't signed up to leap into the middle of a fight between the Malish priesthood's nastiest ethermancers and the lich-fighting knights of Tanara Tain. Even if Galand would expect her to, when keeping your end of the deal meant you got killed, the deal was null and void.
unsure if she was going to be able to do it, in which case she would have just smashed out a window, she switched into the shadows. The silver light shining from the nether was jumping around like it was in pain. Below her, in the hall, energies snapped back and forth, writhing to free themselves. She stepped through the stone wall and out onto the roof. With a wall placed between her and the fighting, the shouting and bashing of weapons halved in volume. The roof was empty. She took a step toward the ledge. Down in the hall, a young man cried out, his voice both quavering and piercing. She spun around. Through the glass, she watched as Sorowan ran from the side and threw himself in front of the drakebane, his arms spread wide. Two malish soldiers stalked toward him, Bilton urging them on from behind. You dumb son of a bitch, Rasha hissed. Her body felt like it was pulling itself in opposite directions. She yelled out and ran back toward the windows. She passed through the stone. The sounds of battle boomed once more. She angled to her right, vaulting off the catwalk. Sixty feet below her, one of the scale-armored knights cut a malish soldier in half, gore shooting away from the purple nether coating his blade. A Dane swung his mace at the head of an unarmored Tenarian. By all rights, the glass weapon should have exploded. Instead, the man's head did. Rosh's toes hit the railing of the balcony, fifteen feet below the catwalk. In the normal world, she'd have fallen, but everything was lighter in the shadows. She found her footing and leaped to the level below, bending her knees and springing to the balcony under that. She took the remaining thirty feet in a single bound, knees and ankles jarring even in the strange gravity of the netherworld. Sorowan was backing away from one of the knights, who advanced with his sword held before him as Sorowan tried and failed to grab up handfuls of light and shadow, stymied by an unseen power. Rosha charged. She dipped into one of her many pockets, withdrawing a sewn bag that clacked happily as she knifed it open. She stepped out of the shadows and whipped her arm underhand. Hundreds of tiny marbles stampeded across the knight's path. His feet flew from under him, and he let out a most unknightly cry. At least he hung on to his sword. Sorowan gaped. Rosha gave him a hard slap across the face. Run, you goat-brained idiot! Sorowan glanced past her, confirming the drakebane had backed away from the front lines, then turned and ran. Rosha zipped back into the nether. She'd only gotten a step and a half away, when a giant hand reached out and shoved her back into the real world. She stumbled at the sudden firmness of the ground beneath her feet. A second knight moved to block her path. Little golden flecks seemed to spin around his hand. But when she blinked, they were gone. Adain and company were still battling the Tenarians halfway across the room. Rather than blurting out her allegiances, she grimaced at the knight and drew her hand across her neck in a cutting motion. She meant it to be the equivalent of cut it out, but immediately recognized her mistake as the knight leveled his sword at her. The Drakebane, she barked. If you want to save him, get him out of here. She couldn't see the knight's eyes within his visor, but the tip of his sword dropped by three inches. He watched her a moment longer, then turned to cover the retreat of his lord. 
Dane burst into laughter. Ether flared from his hand. He'd gotten loose somehow. He turned it on the closest soldier, obliterating him. Rasha! Sorowan called from the doorway out of the hall. Cursing, she jumped back into the dark world and sprinted toward him. Take them down! Bilton ran after her, hands alive with light. Do not let them escape! Rasha was halfway toward the door when she felt something questing after her through the shadows. She reached toward the presence with a glob of nether. If she'd had longer to work with Galand, maybe she could have put a stop to it. But the presence bashed down her efforts and followed them straight to her. With an audible pop, she was disgorged from the darkness. She ran on. Footsteps thundered after her. Light bloomed from behind her, casting her shadow across the floor, its length shrinking as the ether flew toward her back. A black bolt ripped past her face, passing so close that if it had been an arrow, it would have tousled her hair. It struck the lance of light less than a yard behind her, sending black and white sparks buzzing past her. Sorowan had left the exit and was galloping back to her, shaping another bolt of nether in his hands. Take them alive, Bilton, Adain said, his voice carrying well now that the Tenarians were in retreat and the room had grown quiet. Light shimmered around Rasha's legs. They stiffened like rigor mortis, sending her crashing to the floor. Sorowan yelled out, casting shadows at her with one hand and Bilton with the other, but he was met with a contrary wave of ether, knocking his nether into black dust and wrapping him in a transparent white cocoon. Rosha tried to wriggle loose, but she could barely move. Bilton walked up behind her, gave her what was either a hard nudge or a soft kick, then moved on to Sorowan. You disgusting shuddermonger! If you'd profaned the Odellion with your darkness, I would have killed you on the spot! Adain loomed up behind him. After the skirmish, the Orden's clothes were rumpled and his face was sweaty. But his expression was untroubled. The woman's features are of Narashtavik. The boy's sorcery is of Narashtavik. If I were a less credulous man, I might think my enemy has come to infiltrate me during my time of trouble. We're not here to attack you, Sorwin said. We're here to help. We're all on the same side. If Rasha could have moved her arm, she would have slugged him. Is that so? Adain squatted over Sorowan. What side would that be? Sorowan's eyes darted back and forth, the valor that had been burning in them receding quickly. The side that doesn't want the lich to win. What an incredibly noble goal, destroying my homeland in the name of stopping the terrible and malevolent lich. How kind of you. And now that you've slain my king and toppled everything I held dear, it's downright saintly of you to come and help me further. Adane stood, gazing down on the paralyzed young man. Heavens, I've just had a thought. Those who truly wish you well don't have to work in secret, do they? He lifted his eyebrows. 
Saruman stammered a bit. A Dane motioned to his men. Bring them along. I'll soon find out their true purpose here. And who is working from the shadows to destroy us? Four. Dante meant for them to leave right after his traumatic exit of the tower, but Gladick, of all people, insisted they ask Lady Vita if she could send one of her sky couriers to the Keeper in Colin Basin to warn her about the Lich's victory in Tanaritain, and their fear he would soon take his conquest to nearby lands. Vita agreed to do so, and further suggested establishing a cadre of riders who could spread the news of any invasions or defeats faster than the White Lich could advance. By the time they'd worked this out, it was nearing three in the morning, but Naran assured them the sailors would be rested enough to shove off. Vita saw the four of them to their carriage. There, Gladick turned to her. I knew your uncle, Lord Kalieva. You knew Uncle Eva? He wrote to me often when he was harried by a theological question he nor his library could answer. Though his question often walked the edge of blasphemy, tempting me to report him, I held back. This was one of the finest decisions I ever made, for in time I understood that the purpose of his questions was always to bring him to a higher understanding of the Celeset. His unorthodox piety thus led me to better serve tame myself. The rain was coming down now, but Gladick didn't seem to notice. There was a daring and vitality to him that represented the best of this land. If the power lies within my hands, I will not let Alebolgia fall. He climbed into the carriage. They rattled away down the wet stones. Behind them, Vita watched them descend into the night. They reached the Sword of the South without being ambushed or jailed by any local authorities. They cleared the bay and set sail for Bressel. Naren estimated they could arrive in less than two days. This meant Dante had time to sleep before delving into the book, which he did. But he compromised by waking far too early heading groggily to the deck to take in the air. It was a clear, bright, and windy day, the sun twinkling on the sea. Intolerable. He returned to his cabin and opened the book to Sable and Gent's journey to the realm of nine kings. Gent warned me our travels would be neither brief nor safe. He wasn't wrong. We rode through the forest of groaning pines, where we were beset by hooting wolfmen. Next came a desert of pale green sand. It had a name, but Ghent said that it cursed anyone who spoke it aloud, and I wasn't curious enough to test whether that was mere superstition. It grew hot enough that the horse's hair began to smoke and curl, requiring constant sorcery to keep them and ourselves from burning alive. Our care turned out to be all for nothing, for our traitorous mounts ran off on us during a bandit attack at Lishai Ford on the River Pree. We proceeded on foot through pillars of rock, ambushed regularly by the basilisks that camouflaged themselves among the stone. 
Only once did I voice my growing suspicion that Gant didn't actually know how to get to the realm. He just smirked at me and said, Go on and search for your own way there. See if you can find it before you drop dead of old age. We entered another forest, then into a canyon, the walls growing higher and tighter with each hour. As darkness neared, Ghent came to a stop. We will enter the realm tomorrow, I think. We'll need our strength. I'll make the last of our food. He proceeded to simmer a pot of soup. This was so spicy, my stomach soon resembled a storm-tossed sea. I didn't know how I would possibly sleep, yet I fell swiftly into bad dreams. When I woke, it was still dark, the fire was dead, and Ghent was gone. I sat down and waited. Fog curled at the edges of the canyon. The moon shined dimly above me. It felt like the longest night of my life. When Ghent returned at last, I demanded to know where he'd been, but he only smirked at me, merriment dancing in his silver Avignon eyes, and led me deeper into the canyon. Dawn broke, cool and hazy. Yet, in less than an hour, the sky darkened again. We were heading down, down into a tunnel through the earth. Soon I was obliged to light the way with a sphere of ether, which came readily, as if eager to banish the darkness. I thought we would encounter any number of horrors down in the pit. But we reemerged into daylight without a single trouble. Behold, Ghent said, the realm of nine kings. We stood on the lower slopes of a mountain range ringing a vast valley. Within it lay blue rivers and green vales. Isolated peaks rose from the valley floor as steeply as castle towers. I got out a piece of parchment and began to draw a map of the tunnel entrance. Ghent snorted. Don't bother. You might know the way well enough, I said. But if you should fall here, I'd like to know my way home. The wise sorcerer flapped his hand and tramped downhill. This entrance will soon be blocked off. The lords of the realm never leave its passes open for long. He would explain no more. And so I followed. The air tasted pure. The soil underfoot smelled fertile. In many ways, it was not so unfamiliar, yet there was an ineffable quality to the realm that cannot be fully described. There is something pristine about it, as if it is the mold from which the gods crafted everywhere else. It went on this way for some time, as Sable and Ghent made their way towards the fortress of the first king, Rosgar of Redkeep. The initial going was slow, but they were soon rewarded with a miracle. The return of their horses, which they'd thought long lost. Hastened, they soon arrived at Redkeep, where the king feasted them as guests, but refused to give them his piece of the Spear of Stars unless they could best him 
in a wrestling match. The request was a farce. King Roscar was built like a redoubt, with a chest like a cooper's masterpiece, and arms that would make blacksmiths weep. Once we were alone, I voiced my outrage to Ghent. We'll never get the spear. A bull couldn't defeat the king. A bull? Ghent chuckled and rubbed his hands together. We'll see about that. The bout was scheduled for morning. Sometime after midnight, Ghent woke me from my dreamless sleep and brought me through the warm moonlight to one of the king's cattle fields. There he approached a massive bull and conjured up his foreign magic, and in defiance of all laws absorbed the bull within himself, swelling to five times his own size. Well, he said, turning about and nearly stomping me into the field. How do I look? Like an ogre. Then my work is done. In the morning, King Rosgar looked surprised to see Ghent's bulk, then laughed and clapped. At last, a challenge. Step forth and show your worth. Servants had drawn a ring of salt onto the earth. The two combatants entered it and charged, feet thundering like a stampede of oxen. They slammed together like the end of the world. Yet they were so evenly matched in size and strength that when they struck each other, they stopped cold. For hours they grappled and strained, heaved and shoved, staggered and bled. But in the end, with the earth cracked and broken beneath them, it was King Rosgar who was thrown from the ring. He landed on his rump, mouth open with surprise. Then he laughed his kingly laugh, roaring like a river. You have used sorcery against me, but it gifted me with the only sport I've had in years. The peace is yours. His major domo brought it forth in a golden chest. From it he lifted a bundle of red velvet. Within it lay an object that, like so much else in the realm, defied comprehension. The glowing shaft was thirty-six inches in length, but it was made of no wood or metal. In fact, it had no firm outline at all, as if it was made of perfect glass. Inside its transparent casing, light churned slowly in dense clouds, pulsing and dimming in a steady rhythm, like waves of ether on a starlit shore. Take up the spear, Rosgar commanded. I reached for the haft. When I touched it, invigorating heat shot up my arm. When I lifted it, it was as warm as a rock in the sun, and practically weightless. Had it been forged by the gods? Yet, for all its wonder, our prize was merely one-third of the haft of the weapon, and was just one-ninth of the spear of stars. Thinking of my family back home, and the undead monsters the Vampire of Light had turned them into. 
I wish to seek the next king immediately. Rosgar of Redkeep had other plans. He feasted us for nine days, holding athletic contests of all kinds between his subjects. So holy and beloved were the events that, for that span, a nobleman might box with the lowest peasant, and afterward, even if the noble was bloodied and bested, the two combatants would laugh and hug and limp off to drink together. It was so lively and wholesome that when the feasting ended and Ghent and I were allowed to seek our next piece of the spear, an inner piece of myself asked whether it might not be better to stay there than to continue my doomed crusade against the Vampire of Light. The pair of sorcerers' next visit was to the Tower of the High Well, a blue pillar two hundred feet high, the top of which had once pumped the clearest spring water to run down its walls in a constant sheet, but which had run dry some years ago. There, Queen Orissa tasked them with restoring the well, which required them to descend into the labyrinth beneath the tower and clear out the tunnel goblins that had diverted the spring to starve the people above them. Once they'd taken care of this, the queen rewarded them with one shard of the spear's ethereal blade. It was a wild story Dante was loath to break from, even to break his fast, and put an end to his rumbling stomach. But he was starting to get a bit jittery, and needed something to eat. He thought over what he'd read as he dined. So far, there had been no mention of how the spear functioned, or the hard details of how it had been crafted. From Sable's description, it sounded like it was made of pure ether. But Dante had never heard of anything being formed entirely of shadows or light. Sable and Ghent's next venture was to the Castle of Lead, where King Draylon wouldn't give them his portion of the haft for any price or deed. So they just stole it. At the unbroken rampart, Midra the Nineteenth tasked them with hunting down the Stag of the Wind, earning them a glowing cord which, when wrapped around the wrist, supposedly prevented the bearer from ever being disarmed of the spear. Noble by noble, and piece by piece, they gathered the remaining portions of the weapon. One more piece of haft, two more of the blade, a cap for the butt which, when planted in the ground, would render the spear immovable, able to withstand any charge. At last, they sought the final piece, something called a pure stone, which was inserted just below the base of the blade and transformed the separate eight pieces into a singular, seamless whole. The effort required them to delve deep into a cavern filled with loathsome monsters, find the dragon that dwelled in the cavern's heart, then slay it and return with its three tails as proof. Yet, as they fought the dragon, a rollicking, thunderous battle that nearly brought the entire cave crashing down on their head, Ghent was wounded so badly that he fell into a coma that no sorcery could revive him from. To save him, Sable had to gather from across the realm a number of herbs, salts, and bone marrows, a process more challenging than any of the trials he'd had to endure for the pieces of the spear. But at last, he acquired the last component of his tincture, and used this to wake Ghent. 
So it was that, after one year and one day, the two sorcerers claimed the pure stone and completed the spear. Dante immediately suspected the pure stone was the key to the whole thing, but Sable only described it as a gemstone, even whiter than white, which not only made the spear whole, but which seemed to give it life. The clouds of light now circulated from the tip of the blade to the end of the butt, and there were times when I jabbed or swung that the spear seemed to be leading me. Dante looked up and closed the book. He found Gladick on the aftercastle, seated on a chest and staring out to sea. Dante explained what he'd read and showed the old priest the sections regarding the pure stone. Gladick peered down his long nose at the words. It sounds as though the stone is a construct of the ether. With wisdom like that, I finally understand why you made it so far in the Malish priesthood. Look, it sounds to me like the stone might be what gives the spear its power. Do you know what it could be? If I knew of a way to store the ether as part of a physical object, where it could be used to lend its power to that object, you can be certain that I would have killed you with it long before you came to know of the lich. It reminds me of the Shorden, but for ether. And such things are unheard of. That is precisely why the two of us fought a war over the Shorden. Dante scowled down at the book. Okay, but either this book is all nonsense, or such things can be built. By gods, certainly. Hence the solution is simple. If you'd like to build a spear for yourself, all you have to do is turn yourself into a god first. I'm not sure that's true. Impossible things only remain impossible until the moment someone comes along and does them anyway. If we're able to bring Bressel's priesthood onto our side, I want you to devote part of your time to trying to work this out. A promise easily made, Gladick said, or the priesthood will never join us. Oh, good. Then we can just skip the whole defending Bressel and, by extension, the world thing, and move straight to surrendering ourselves to the White Lich. My brothers consider you and your shadow worship hardly less of an abomination than he is. I suppose I'm naive enough to think the priests will set aside our differences once the Lich starts turning their friends and family into blighted. They have sought to destroy you and your kind for centuries. Do you truly believe they will overturn their ways so quickly? You did. Indeed, Gladick said. So all you will have to do to bring about a similar change of heart in them is to best them in two different wars, then follow them to a forbidden land, foul up all of their plans, and bring them to the brink of death. Our time is short, so I suggest we begin at once. Where would you propose to hold the first war? You're just being defeatist and you must begin to think more deeply. As it turns out, I gave it some thought. I concluded I'd rather work with people I don't especially like than for everyone I do like to be murdered by someone who hates everyone. You are so enamored of your pragmatism that you cannot accept that it isn't common. Belief rules, Dante. The very fact that you do not understand why they will not ally with you is precisely why they won't. Dante brushed his hair from his eyes, an act that was instantly negated by the fluttering wind.
If you understand the priesthood so well, it sounds like convincing them should be your job. Perhaps it should. Anyway, there's one more thing I've discovered about the spear. Look at this. He hunched in the lee of two strapped-down barrels and sketched out the spear as it had been described. The long shaft, the blade, which was asymmetrical, with one half longer and broader than the other, the cord dangling from the middle of the shaft, and lastly, the pure stone, a short way beneath the tip. Before he was done, Gladick was already laughing. It is Gashen's pike. That's what it looks like to me. Nine pieces of the spear, nine stars. It's an exact match for the constellation. And what do you take to be the significance of this? I have no idea. I feel like I'm going to need a lot more pieces before I can put them together. Yet this small piece suggests something significant. Which is? That the spear of stars was indeed a gift from the gods above, and cannot be duplicated by mere man. Dante didn't like this idea one bit, so he went back to his cabin to continue reading the book in hopes of finding evidence to the contrary. With the spear in hand, Sable and Ghent trekked forth from the realm of nine kings. Like Ghent had said, the route out was different than the way in. But they had no trouble leaving, and soon found themselves crossing the wildernesses on the way back to the port of Arda. There, Ghent said it was time for him to return to his home. On seeing Sable's sadness at this, however, the cantankerous sorcerer realized, to his shock and dismay, that he and the vile barbarian had become friends. He agreed to accompany Sable on the long return to his homeland. The voyage was much less eventful than on Sable's prior trip. The only snag came at the very end, when no captain would agree to deliver them to Sable's homeland, forcing Sable and Ghent to complete the journey on horseback. When we crested the hill, we looked down on hell. Farms had been ripped up to rot in the sun. Villages had been dashed into boards and straw. Cities had been smashed into piles of stones like broken teeth. Skeletons lay on the land like gruesome snow. All was still, silent, dead. Seeing this, I fell into despair. There is nothing left to save. All our efforts were for nothing. Gant placed his hand on my shoulder. This is the same horror that befalls all lands blighted by the vampire of light. I have seen it myself. You cannot save the land now. Then what is left for me? The old sorcerer smiled. Vengeance. They rode onward into the devastation. They were soon set upon by a horde of blighted, and then by a squadron of lesser liches that would surely have overwhelmed them if not for the protective order and wicked punishment of their divine spear. And then, at last, they came to the Vampire of Light. Sable spoke heroic words, damning the vampire for what he had done. The vampire just laughed moving to take their souls with a wave of his hand. But the spear protected them. 
The battle lasted for even longer than Ghent's wrestling match with Rosgar of Redkeep. What little hadn't been destroyed by the vampire's ravages was now blasted apart by tsunamis of nether and ether and the radiant power of the spear. Both Ghent and Sable suffered one wound after another, healing each other the best that they could. Then came the moment when the vampire knocked Ghent down, and Ghent did not rise again. The vampire turned on Sable, ether flowing from his hands. Sable reached for the shadows and found he had none left. Death stood before me, as it had stood before so many others. Light glowed from the vampire's hands. I only had one weapon left. If the spear left my hands, it would be over. Yet, to stand empty-handed was my only hope of salvation. I threw the spear with all the strength of my arm. The vampire assaulted it with ether, which the spear drank like a panting dog. Thwarted, the vampire tried to step aside, but the spear followed his movement. Lastly, he roared out with the sound of clanging kettles, loud enough to deafen the world. But nothing he did could stop the spear's blade from taking out his heart. The lich died, then. For real died. He wasn't just locked away again or something. The light of the pure stone faded, then the spear of stars broke into its nine parts and vanished. The death of the lich didn't restore the land to vitality either, and after Sable revived Ghent, they spent a long time searching the countryside for Sable's family. It was months before they found the bodies, still blighted and warped. When at last my tears were all gone, and I had accepted what had befallen me, that there was nothing left in my homeland, indeed nothing left of my homeland. I accompanied Ghent back to Cal Avin, making one last treacherous journey across seas full of storms, monsters, and hatred. Yet my quest was not yet over. On landing in the city of Hadlen, I swore to make good on the vow I had made and forgotten over two years ago to find and rescue Leb, the poor slave who had given me two great gifts, first, my hope for the future, and second, his friendship. But that, my fellow voyagers, is a story for another time. The book ended there. There were no end notes or afterwards. Dante leaned back from the small desk he'd been reading at, his mind readjusting to the fact that he wasn't there with Sable, but was on a boat, and the sun was about to touch down on the western sea. He didn't know what to make of Sable's tale. He couldn't even say when or where it was supposed to have happened, other than some time ago, and maybe in Alabolgia, but also possibly somewhere else altogether. For all its length, very little of it even had to do with methods to combat and defeat the White Lich. But if Sable's story was true, that meant the Lich could be killed. Even if it took a divine spear handed down by the gods in a land so far away he'd never even heard of it, still, it could be done. 
He fell asleep early, and woke to the idea that something was wrong. At first, he thought he'd uncovered some new insight about the book in his dreams, but the true source of his anxiety soon came to him. He activated the loon connected to the one Sorowan carried. There was no response. He waited a minute, then tried again, and a third time. Sorowan and Rorschel were going to a meeting with the Golden Hammer last night, he told Blaze after locating him out on the deck. I haven't heard from them since, and they're not answering me now. Blaze yawned without covering his mouth. Maybe they just don't want to talk to you. They were there on my orders. If they were your orders, you probably got them killed. That could actually be the case. The meeting was between the Drakebane's authorities and the Malish resistance. Right now, those two are about as friendly as a rattlesnake and another rattlesnake that had its country stolen from it by the first rattlesnake. Blaze scratched the spot where his ear met his head. If something went wrong at the meet, the Drakebane's people will know about it. Weren't we going to speak to them as soon as we made port? Maybe they'll know what happened. Unlike everything else in the world at that moment, the skies were peaceful and clear, and they cruised across the waves even swifter than Naran had estimated they would. The green of the Malish coastline was visible by late morning. As they neared Bressel's waters, which were unusually, almost freakishly deserted of shipping and commerce, they were hailed by a sleek Tenarian military vessel, its crew dressed in the green of the Drakebane. Not at all sure he could trust them, Dante met them with Nether in hand. But on hearing they had the Drakebane's old ally Gladick with them, and that they had news of the White Lich, the vessel's captain escorted them directly into the harbour. Somehow, word spread faster than they were able to tie up. They were just stepping off the Sword of the South when the Drakebane himself arrived in the company of several advisers, and the intimidating knights of Odosein. Over the years, Dante had met his share of kings, queens, emperors, and regions, and had been amused to discover that even the ugliest of them carried an inherent regalness that stood out like a candle in the dark, as if their connection to the divine not only made their souls something more than human, but which elevated their appearance as well. The Drakebane was no exception. His strong features were thick by Tenarian standards, and his black hair was streaked with the blondes and reds that so often marked his people's nobility. Though he had to be approaching sixty, he still had the build of a warrior, his face weathered but not yet starting to droop, although the bags under his eyes suggested he could use a lot more sleep than he was getting. My lord, Gladick bowed, at one time the men with me were our enemies seeking to stop us from preventing the Aid and Rane's release. But I vouched that they were deceived by the righteous monsoon into thinking you were a great tyrant who oppressed and slaughtered his own people. The Drakebane looked Dante up and down, then Blaze. Oh, I remember you very well. Yet it must be remembered that whenever the Lich appears, all that was ordered becomes jumbled and dangerous and those who attempt to navigate the waters of the swamp must— Drake Bainyota made a small gesture, silencing the priest. There's no need for pretty words and prettier excuses.
I've heard much of what has happened. You stood against the Aiden Rane to save my nation, even after I had given up on it. All of you are true patriots of Tanaratain. As long as you live, I will honor you for it. Wonderful, Blay said. Tell me, does this honor come with any sort of cash prize? Yoto took on an amused look. Whoever you are, you must be very, very useful, if this is how you're allowed to speak to kings. Please forgive us, Dante said. His station is normally quite evident, but we must have lost his dunce cap during the voyage. The Drakebane was very eager to hear the full story of their adventures in Tanaratain, which they related as the Emperor's guards stood watch over them and Naran's crew offloaded the cargo of Tenarian goods they'd taken on at Aris Osis. Yoto was both heartened and sobered by the tale. When they finished, he could only shake his head. Valiant, but ultimately doomed. I know that feeling well. It's my fear we'll experience it once more when the Lich comes for us here. You think he'll come for Bressel, too? Dante said. As long as the Knights of Odosein continue to breathe, there is a chance, however small now, that he will be thwarted. Even if his death is too much to hope for, it's possible we can imprison him in a new relays. He may wait to gather even more power, but I believe he'll want to give us as little time to prepare as possible. That was the impression I got when I was under his control. We came close enough to killing him to spook him. He wants to stomp that out as soon as he can. So, what's the situation down here? Blaze gestured to the docks and the city beyond. Now that you've killed their king and seized control of their capital, have the people of Bressel flocked to your banner in joy? Drakebane Yoto exhaled sharply. The city remains heavily divided. The priests and bureaucrats we ceded the city with over the years stand with us, as do their personal followers. But the royalty stands against us, along with the loyalist priests and most of the mob. Have you considered exposing their brains to the light of day? I've been hesitant to initiate further violence. In my experience with the monsoon, that will only harden their resolve to fight us. At the same time, what good does it do to weaken both sides when we need every hand we can get to bear arms against the Lich? We have to unite the city, Dante said. If we're still fighting each other when the enemy gets here, we might as well deliver him our own severed heads. If you know how to charm a hostile foreign leadership and populace to your side, I'll not only listen, but have one of my scribes write the deed down for posterity. I thought you people didn't believe in writing things down. That the best ideas proved themselves by continuing to live on without the need for any scrolls or books. Yoto smiled. There are always exceptions for rulership. Hypocrisy, you will object. Yet, if it serves to sustain the empire, what's wrong with a little hypocrisy? The fact it's hypocrisy. Regardless, there are two time-honored methods to bring the people to your side. Love or fear. Talk, trick, and bribe them to your side. Or purge a few of their more visible leaders, preferably in bloody fashion, to frighten the others into bending the knee. 
I fear we won't get far with words. Last night I made an offer of peace to Orden Dane of the Golden Hammer, which seems to be the strongest of the opposition groups. He rebuffed my offer. This rejection came in the form of an attempt to kill me. Dante perked up his ears. Was there a young man and woman from Narashtevik at this meeting, possibly practicing sorcery? Yes, and they helped me disengage and remove myself from danger. They were your agents? Did they live? They were taken by the Malish. I don't know what happened to them after. I'll want to know everything. But before that, we need to work out our high-level strategy. I'd really like to have a general idea of the goals we're shooting for before I rush off to do something that would ruin our chances of achieving them. Like cutting out Adain's guts and using them to lace his own boots? Blaze said. Yes, Dante said. Like that. Gladick rested his hand on his robe's rope belt. What was Adain's objection to forming an alliance against the Aiden Rani? That in killing King Charles you had destroyed the alignment between heaven and earth? Just so, the Drakebane said. He is a peer of yours. Do you have any insight into how we might convince him over? You can't. That is the core of his faith, and his faith is at the core of himself. I do not fault him for this. He is, in this regard, a better man than I. He cannot be corrupted. Hence, our only choice is to kill him. I have greatly missed the warmth of your counsel, Gladick. Most of his acolytes will have to be killed as well, Gladick went on, as if he hadn't heard the Drakebane's little rebuke. Or maybe he simply knew his assessment of the situation was correct and didn't care in the slightest if someone called him cold for holding it. But I would first seek to undermine him, tempt and bribe some of the lesser priests. Let them know that there is a path to survival, if they wish to take it. That way, when we rip out the core of the resistance, the remainder may defect to us. Yoto paced to the edge of the dock. Sunlight bounced from the calm waves. Since our coup, we've inflicted as little violence as possible. This has kept the mob uncertain, unwilling to march against us. I fear that if we move to gut the priesthood, the mob will turn on us. If the Lich isn't planning to march on us, if he sees us riven by civil war, he'll strike us immediately. We must worry about the interior of Malon as well. Civil war in Bressel will likely provoke the nobles of the other counties to level armies to march against you. You have created the perfect situation for an ambitious duke to lay his own claim to the throne. Here's an alternate plan, Clay said. You guys should just defect to the Lich's side. With talk like this, the Blighted will get so demoralized they'll soon commit mass suicide, leaving nothing standing between you and the Lich. Dante shooed at a seagull that had wandered too close. Maybe it would be better for us to make our stand somewhere less hostile. The Colin Basin, maybe. Or even Kavana. Oh, yeah. Those guys will jump at the chance to be besieged by the White Ledge. If it gives us a better chance than defending Bressel in the midst of a civil war, we have to consider it, even if we have to lie to them about what's happening. The Drakebane rubbed his beardless mouth. I couldn't even keep my own nation from splitting in half. 
How can I expect to unite these foreigners to my banner? Maybe it isn't enough to go to Colin or Cavana, Dante said. Maybe we need to go back to Tanaratane. Blaze spat. Gods, no! I just got the smell of fish out of my hair. That would be a most curious choice, Gladick said. As the years advance, my memory has grown duller, yet I seem to recall that we just fled Tanaritane in defeat. This time, we wouldn't be trying to destroy the Lich, Dante said. We'll fight a war of distraction intended to buy time and keep them away from our cities, as Naren set sail for Calavine. Calavine. The Drakebane tilted his head, smiling wryly. You seek the Spear of Stars. How did you hear about it? How did you? My sorcerers have the idea that a weapon designed to fight liches might be of some use to us. But you couldn't find it. Yoto shook his head. One of my sorcerers spent three years searching for it. But he could never find the place the spear was supposed to be kept in. The Realm of Nine Kingdoms? Yes, that's the one. If this man has learned enough about the spear, there's a chance I can make one for us. Where is he now? It seemed to me that he knew a great deal, the regent said. Unfortunately, that knowledge is now gone. He died during the taking of this city. Dante swore, then repeated the oath more loudly, drawing a look of reproach from a grimy stevedore rolling a cask out of the Sword of the South. Well, that was mighty daft of him, Blaze said. Why didn't anyone warn him? We were about to arrive with incredibly obscure knowledge that was just given to us the other day. Gladick frowned at a ripple in the water below the pier. Do you know if he had any writings on the matter? I'm certain he did, the Drakebane said. My line has always allowed our sorcerers to maintain a library, as long as it was kept secret. But any writings would have been in our archives in Darabode which is now in the hands of the Lich. Indeed. Dante gestured to Naren. Knowing the Drakebane's scholar couldn't find the realm in years of searching, are you still willing to travel to Calavine? Not so long ago, I would have thrown back my head and laughed at such a foolish suggestion, Naren said. But we're now in need of a bravery that borders on stupidity, aren't we? We crossed that border long ago, Blaze said. Then his eyebrows tried to jump in two different directions. Don't shove off just yet. Emperor Yota, how long ago did this sorcerer of yours die? A few weeks ago. That's right, the Drakebane said. It was only a few days after we struck against the king. Blaze made a flourish. Then our man isn't really gone. Oh, he's just a little dead, is he? Dante said. Maybe we can just shake his corpse until he wakes back up. You can try that if you like. Or we can try the way that we already know works just fine. Gladick laughed loud and hard, smacking his palm against his thigh. There are many times, Blaze, when I wonder if you are merely here to sop up any loose ale that threatens to distract the rest of us. Yet at moments like these, I understand. Dante sighed. What am I missing? Do you not see? There is no need to travel to Calavine and beyond when we can simply travel into the mists to speak to the sorcerer. 
but that would require dream flowers. Dante snapped his gaze to Naren, which you can bring back from the plagued islands in less than a month. Naren rubbed his jaw. That's no time at all in comparison to what it would take to just reach Calavine. You'll need to bring Wyndon back too. One of the harvesters, at least. Someone who can make sure the flowers stay alive during the journey. The Drakebane was looking at them like they were proposing a cannibal feast. The man is dead. How do you intend to speak to him? We know how to get to the afterworld, Dante said. There's a small chance he's already gone to the part of it where the living can't follow, but I doubt that's happened. People typically spend at least a few years in the accessible part, and usually decades. You're quite serious. Yoto put his palm over his mouth, as if afraid to breathe in dark spirits. What lies beyond this life? I'd be happy to tell you about it at a time when two of my people aren't being held and possibly tortured by our enemies. Naren, make preparations for a trip to the Plagued Islands. Everyone else, let's go find Sorowan and Rosha. If that means you've decided on a strategy to pacify the city, I would certainly like to hear it. Dante paused. Once upon a time, he would have taken the Drakebane statement at face value, but he'd ruled for long enough to recognize this was in fact a tactful, yet still threatening way for the Emperor to warn him that he wasn't in charge. In response, he gave a slight nod. We don't seem to have one yet. Since the situation has turned out to be too complicated for us to figure out here on the docks, I'd like to go find my agents before they show up face down in the bay. This could be one of those situations that sorts itself out, Lay said. If we can talk the two of them free, maybe there's hope for diplomacy. But if our swords have to do the explaining to a Dane's neck, I suppose we'll just have to kill the rest of them, too. Gladick made a murmuring sound. If confronting a Dane risks eliminating all diplomacy, perhaps what best serves our interests is to understand that these agents of yours were merely tools who have served their purpose and are now better discarded. We don't leave our people behind, Dante said. Loyalty is the only principle that can never be violated. Everything else depends on it. Dante pulsed Sorowin's loon, but the boy still wasn't responding. Dante unhooked the loon from his ear and delved into the nether within it. It had dabs of both his and Sorowin's blood in it, meaning he should be able to use it to track Sorowin down. He cursed. We have a problem. I thought I could use the loon to track Sorwin, but I was stupid and wrong. Either his blood's gotten too old, or it's become part of the loon instead. We're going to need a different way. Blay shrugged. If all you need is some blood, might I suggest checking the place where they slopped it all over the floor just last night? Where did the meet take place? The Great Hall of the Exchange the Drakebane said. My men will show you the way. There is no need, Gladick said. I have lived in this city since I was a child. I know its ways still. The old priest stalked forward. Dante gave a nod to the Drakebane and a wave to Naren and followed after Gladick. Blaze flanked him, taking a deep breath through his nostrils. No matter how much time I spend in Narashtivik, Pocket Cove, or 
whatever ridiculous place we've been dragged to most recently, somehow this place still smells like home. Dead fish and sailor sweat. Still better than the swamps. There was no arguing with that. As they exited the piers, which were quite active with both Tenarians and Malish, Dante drew his antler-handled knife and nicked his arm. The nether wandered close, ready to be fed and put to use. Once the docks were behind them, the city grew as quiet as Narashtavik during a midnight blizzard. A few people speckled the afternoon streets, but far more lurked in open windows. Small groups of men crouched on stoops, muttering to each other. It had always been legal for commoners in Bristol to carry weapons other than knives or small clubs, but judging by the staffs, spears, axes, and in some cases swords propped against the walls behind the muttering men, that law was no longer in force. Whatever the quiet unease boded for the city's future, it allowed the three of them to reach the exchange without hassle. Dante motioned them to a stop and sent two dead beetles flying inside the building. It was empty. The front door was locked and bolted. But Gladick brought forth the ether, his fingers plucking at the air like harp strings. With a series of dense metal clicks, the doors opened. They came into the great hall, where the battle had broken out. The ceiling hung a dizzying sixty feet above them. Sunlight filtered down from the windows set into the roof. It was still a bit dim, and Gladick lifted his index finger, filling the space with the pure light of the ether. The walls of the great room were a grey and quite expensive granite, but the floor was white marble, veined with blue and green. Dante drifted up to a stop and turned in a circle, blinking in dismay. Uh. Blay said, was this one of those bloodless sword fights? Dante paced across the floor, hunched low to search for bloodstains. Maybe some idiot came around and cleaned the place. There will still be traces of blood in the grout, though. Then it's just a matter of figuring out which belongs to the Drakebane's people and which will lead us to this Adane fellow. He tugged the skin of his arm, reopening the small cut he'd made earlier and sent the nether into the floor. After a few moments, he pulled back his head and took a long breath through his nose. There isn't any blood here. At all. That's impossible, Blaze said. I can't get the tea stains out of my floor with anything short of a hammer. But the maid's got this place completely clean of blood in less than a day. What kind of magic is that? That is precisely what it is, Gladick said. Sorcery. If Adain captured Solomon and Rosha, then he would know that there are Nethermancers operating against him. He anticipated that the blood spilled in the skirmish might be used to trace him and sent an underling to scour it from the room. Dante gritted his teeth. Wonderful. Then I suppose we'll just go around to Adain's house and knock on the door. And if that doesn't work, we can try his temple, which he'll definitely still be at after the Drakebane mounted an invasion and turned half the clergy against itself. He always claimed he could speak to the gods through the language of the light. Gladick walked slowly across the room. 
his robes hanging from him like a shroud. Perhaps they warned him we would be coming for him. Then we'll have to bribe them, Blaise said. Does anyone have a fatted calf? Gladick continued his course across the room. He uttered a pleased chuckle and swooped to pluck something from the ground and hold it up to the light. Those who are not fond of a Dane would sometimes call him Old Scrape behind his back. This moniker was on account of the noise he produced when walking across stone floors. The noise itself was caused by the shards of glass that were regularly embedded in the soles of his boots, left there by the figurines he stepped on in order to better hear the messages within the ether. You found a shard, Dante said. Indeed. You can track somebody's blood through the nether because it was once part of their body. Can you use the ether to track a piece of something to the larger object it was once part of? I would not think so, or else I would have expected my order to know this trick already. But perhaps this trick only works on objects that have been thoroughly infused with ether, because I have already attempted to open a link between this shard of glass and the rest of it, and there is a signal. Well done. Dante paused with his fist mid-pump. Wait a second. What's this connection actually going to do for us? Lead us to the other bits of broken glass in this room? Yes, Gladick said. But I assume we will be much more interested in following the ones that are still embedded in the bottom of a Dane's shoes. Better hurry. He's just had his city taken from him. If he thinks they were involved, there's no telling what he'll do to Sorwan and Rasha. Without another word, Gladick jogged toward the doors, out to the street. Five. Adain sat in a chair, and the interloper sat across from him. She was bound in blessed iron chains, and she was giving him a look of utter contempt you would normally reserve for a pile of dog feces upon your doorstep. This was highly inappropriate. He was the displaced one, overrun by foreigners from the south and infiltrated by foreigners from the north. By all the rights of man, he was the one who deserved to rage. She was simply being held to account for her treachery. For a moment, the fury did rise in him, the cheer of the ether washing across him like a leap into a mountain lake. But that anger was chaos, and chaos was what he was fighting. He smoothed the front of his robe, gently clearing his throat. You're from Narashtavik. There's no point denying it. It's written in the features of your face. Your accent, too. Your young friend looks and sounds malish, but he isn't, is he? He uses black powers that no true malisher would touch, knowing he'd be damned for it. He stopped, giving her the chance to respond. She didn't take it. He continued calmly. You walk for Dante Galland, don't you? The woman smiled. If you're that sure, why bother asking? Why are you working for him? What is your purpose here? You're right. She lowered her eyes and bit her lip. I do work for Dante Galland. You see, for years he's been envious of Bressel. 
Everyone knows your gardens are the greatest in the world. That just tears him up inside. After years of spying, he's finally figured out why. Because you have the best guano in the world. That's what I was doing on the roof. Galand wanted me to steal your bird shit and smuggle it north. She laughed again. She had a nice laugh, if a bit rough and mean, and a face to match. He gave himself a moment to admire them both. It was always important to admire beauty when it was in front of you. For one thing, it was easily lost. That was the same reason why, rather than holding this conversation in the spire of a church, they were currently in a rather plain stone room. Even so, the lighting was nice, spilling in through the slits near the ceiling, dust tumbling in the sun's rays. Nature often provided beauty when men could not. And for another, beauty was a virtue in itself, arguably the very first of them. Thus, to recognize it was to pay recognition to the gods. You're a criminal, aren't you? He said. A cut purse. Or is it a common highway thug? She lifted her chin, interest shining in her eyes for the first time. What makes you say that? You have a pretty face, clean, graceful. Yet there's something malformed about it. Your features have been misshapen by your deeds. It's a shame. Her eyes flashed. She tried to scoot forward, but the chains arrested her with a clank. You don't know me. Don't pretend that you do. Adane laughed, examining her more closely. Why has that got you so angry? Is it that I impugned your beauty, which is to a woman as his strength is to a man? Or is it that you know I'm right, and that you're a fallen spirit. You've taken me prisoner. You're interrogating me, and you're probably going to kill me. Maybe it's that. No, it runs deeper than that. Then again, everyone from Narashtivik has a deformed look about them. But that's the natural result of worshipping a figure like a Ron, isn't it? She looked his embroidered grey robe up and down. Look at that. A priest who doesn't believe in a god. Adain laughed again, putting some scorn in it this time. You don't think I believe in Aron? Isn't our faith in Aron the reason you people hate us? Yes, but it's not that I don't believe in him. Your faith doesn't bother me just because it's different. That would be ridiculous. You see, I know your faith better than most of your own clergy do. I am disgusted by it because I know it so well. We practically believe the same thing, don't we? The same Salaset, the same set of gods. It's just that you guys think Tame's the best of them, and we'd rather bow to Aron. Adain crinkled his eyes in deep pity for her ignorance. Do you know what you worship? You worship death? Yeah, but Aron doesn't want to kill people. He's just there to collect them when their time comes, completing the cycle of life. I already told you I know exactly what you believe. Now listen, when Aron's mill fell from the pole star, it cracked. After that, instead of grinding ether, it ground nether. And instead of living forever, 
humanity became mortal, cursed to die. And how did you savages react to this fall from grace? You decided to worship it. He got to his feet, because there were some truths that could only be fully captured by a body in motion. Ether is immortality. Nether is mortality. Ether is life. Nether is death. Ether is that which is pure, whole, and ideal. Nether is that which is flawed, weak, and decaying. We worship the strive toward the ideal, while you worship its ruin. The woman had long since stopped looking interested or even angry. Look, I'm sure you find this fascinating, but I don't care. At all. So why don't you just stick a knife in me and be done with it? The Dane scratched his cheek. He hadn't shaved in more than a day, and he didn't like it. You're here to destroy us, aren't you? You can't stand life, our reach toward perfection. In your jealousy, rather than letting us exist, you must try to snuff us out. So there's no more beauty remaining in the world to remind you of how ugly you are. The very root of your being is corruption. As long as you exist, you will work to corrupt others. She rolled her eyes, sinking back into the chair. I barely know what's going on here, okay. I'm just a hired knife. But what I do know is that we're not here to destroy you. We're here to stop you from getting destroyed by the White Lich. Don't ask me who he is or what he's about. All I know is he's terrible and he's coming for you next. Uday nodded in thought. It was the first real answer he'd gotten from her, and he thought it was at least partially sincere. Yes, I've been told about this lich. You're all very afraid of him. But I wonder why I would trust the judgment of the corrupt. Not so long ago, your people tried to bring your god out into the world. Perhaps what you call the Lich is an incarnation of Tame come to stop you from trying again. You know what? You should go and ask him in person. Again, you are a warped person. But there is a way out. He leaned forward. Will you convert? What? Set down the decay of Aron and take up the pursuit of virtue that is tame. Convert to the Church of Malon. Why would I want to do that? Your beliefs demean the soul. Mine expanded. Come on now. Even a person with the soul of a thief yarns for something more. Her mouth tightened, brow wrinkling in uncertainty, a state she seemed uncomfortable with. I don't care about your faith. I hardly give a damn about my own. But it's what I was born with. You might as well ask me to step out of my own skin. Ah, so you won't convert. I have the niggling suspicion High Priest Galand won't convert Narashtavik either, even if I tell him I would then be honor-bound to unite with my new brothers in faith against this white lich. Nor will the Drakebane step down from his false rule to yield to the crown prince of Malon. It's a funny thing. At every level, you that are here to help me insist that I knuckle under to your ways and give up my own. 
but you will never, under any circumstances, agree to take on my ways, even though you are in my country, my homeland. You tell me you're here for the good of my people, but everything you do weakens and undermines them. If I can't hear the message you're actually sending, then I'm not listening. The wrinkles of uncertainty in her face deepened. Surprisingly, few people understood that, along with ether and nether, there was a third form of magic in the world. Words. If you combined and formulated them in the right ways, you could change people with them. You could even change the way they saw reality, which, in a sense, was the same as changing reality itself. Adain liked exploring this form of magic, and in the same way that he practiced with the ether every day, he would often pick arguments with his peers and inferiors that he didn't believe, just to sharpen his abilities. But it was still true that the truth, along with what a person wanted to believe, was strongest of all, and thus made the very best magic. You're right about me. Okay. She leaned into her restraints. I'm just a thief. A criminal. I don't give the orders, I take them. But I can tell you this, if you don't let me and the kid go, they will come for you. Oh, your friends are already coming for me. They're on their way right now. Huh? How do you know that? Because I believe you when you tell me that they're dangerous. You can't hide. They'll find you. When they get here, what are you going to do? Oh, the same thing I always do. He got to his feet. Whatever the gods tell me to do. He lifted his hand, fingers crooked at the angles that would best channel the light. Ether gathered in the space between his fingertips, growing brighter and brighter. At last, he saw fear in her face. Gladick exited the exchange with long strides that showed little stiffness despite his advanced age. The effects of a lifetime bathed in the sorcery of the world, which had kept Callie alive past a hundred and twenty, and continued to preserve the keeper, who was even older. How far? Dante shielded his eyes from the sun as they jogged from a narrow street and into a plaza. I cannot say. Gladick's robes swirled about his thin legs. This power is new to me. Does it feel like you need to pop your ears, but for your brain? Or does it feel more like a smith is pounding a spike directly into your forehead? It feels as though the spike is dull and the smith's hand is unsteadied by some debilitating illness. He's a couple of miles away, then. Let me know when it starts to hurt enough to become a distraction. Blaze hopped over a trail of horse manure. Just how popular of a fellow is this Adain, Gladick? There was a time when many thought he would succeed the Eldar himself, Gladick said. But he grew too mystical, too arrogant in his claims of hearing the voice of Tame himself. For that very reason, however, he retains many admirers. They are fiercely loyal to him. So, how many ethermancers could he have with him? He will not be alone. If many of the other Ordons have been slain or fled the city, leaving the priesthood bereft of other leaders, 
there is no telling how many of the clergy might have rallied to a Dane. In times of uncertainty, people always look to prophets for answers. It sounds like you're saying he could have his own army. It sounds like that because that is what I'm saying. Then it sounds like I'm saying you should go in first. The blocks surrounding the exchange had largely been colonized by the city's guilds, wine, textiles, goldsmiths, and so forth. But as Gladick led the way to the west, the neighborhood soon shifted from the contemporary style of contiguous buildings to houses that were more like little towers, just large enough to house an extended family or two. They had heavy iron-banded doors, grilled windows, and stout, no-frills designs. There were plenty of gardens around each building, with little paths snaking between them and hedges separating one plot from the next. Each block was surrounded by proper roads, and most were enclosed by fieldstone walls, though many of these had been disassembled over the years. Supposedly, there was a network of tunnels between many of the tower houses, which had allowed people to travel between them even when they were under siege. These defensive features would have sounded ridiculously paranoid, except that they had been adapted during the Valesian turmoil, a time when malish weakness had coincided with an ascendance of the Western Kingdoms, and Bressel had been under regular siege for a generation or so. In fact, the residents of the Redoubt district, as the area became known, had made a heroic last stand against the Westerners, saving Bressel from total capitulation. This had been about three centuries ago. Dante's knowledge of Malish history was poorer than it should have been, considering the nation was among the largest ongoing threats to Narashtavik. But to this day, most of the current residents of the Redoubt could trace their direct lineage to those same freedom fighters, and were quite proud to do so at the slightest prompting whenever they got drunk. Blaze gave a subtle nod to the people in the street ahead of them, who were working their gardens with well-maintained hoes, mattocks, and pitchforks. They had the distinct posture of people pretending so hard that they weren't looking at something that it was immediately obvious that they were. A little livelier over here, isn't it? He said. People still going on with their lives and such. Dante grunted. I wouldn't call that a good thing. What? Not looking forward to all the witnesses you're going to have to clean up? Why aren't they afraid to be out on the street when the rest of the city is hiding out like they just kissed their older brother's sweetheart? Because they believe that someone is protecting them, Gladick said. Let us hope it is not the same people we are looking to find. They carried onward, slowing a little to defray suspicion. The redoubters continued to watch them from the corners of their eyes, but nobody was dashing off to inform on them. Then again, if the locals were using the tunnels to get about, Dante would never know about it. As they neared the center of the district, they crossed a small moat that smelled of silt and pollywogs. Ahead, a group of taller and prouder towers stood against the sky. Many had cords running between them for the passing of messages, goods, or even people, giving the structures a look of an old fence that all the pickets had fallen out of, leaving only the thick posts and the cobwebs strung between them. 
As soon as they walked into the shadow of these larger buildings, Gladick grimaced, slapping at his own forehead. Either he's stroking out, or I'd say he's founded, Blaze said. That tower there, Gladick inclined his head toward a white spire. A Dane is inside. Or at least his shoes are. They withdrew half a block, putting a few of the tower houses between themselves and the building. Dante set one of his dead beetles high into the sky over the tower, and a second bumbling slowly past its windows. Neither one seemed to draw any ethereal probes, so he sent them circling closer. Gladick, he said, do your former colleagues know I can do this? Gladick lifted a white brow. Do they know that you can reanimate the dead as your playthings? Yes, it's one of the reasons they hate you. Dante uttered a wordless sound of dismay. Well, we can't go in blind. We're not even sure they're here. I have to risk it. He sent the beetles closer yet, mind embedded in the nether that tethered them to him. He didn't feel the slightest twinge of ether as he landed them on the tower's windowsills, one on the ground floor, the other near the top. The insects folded their wings and scuttled through the windows, which were unshuttered on account of the warm summer day. The beetle on the top floor nearly walked straight into a sentry gazing through the window who was set back just enough so his figure wouldn't show to anyone watching from below. The room held four men in all, each keeping watch on the city. I'd say we found the loyalists, Dante said. Now let's see if I can find their captives. Sentries held the reinforced doors on the ground floor as well. The rest of it was kitchens, where servants cut up fruits and vegetables harvested from the garden, while another plucked a chicken in an adjoining room hardly big enough to do the work. Dante sent the beetle at the top downward, and the one at the bottom upward. The second floor was sleeping quarters, currently empty, and a barracks of bored soldiers. The penultimate floor was as quiet as a monastery, which was exactly what it seemed to be. Monks sat at wide, tilted desks, studying manuscripts, turning away to make the occasional note. Heart beating harder, Dante stilled the beetle, withdrawing from it until his sight tunneled. No one seemed to notice its presence. The second beetle ascended to more luxurious living quarters. The floor above that had been converted into a chapel, with stations of prayer for all twelve gods of the Malish Selicet. A single man was there now, his face long, handsome, and haunted. He wasn't much older than Dante, and Ether climbed up and down his fingers in intricate patterns, as if he were trying to craft runes or to spell words. Then came another room, full of monks at work. Above it, however, he finally found the prison. Dante partially withdrew. Third floor from the top. They're being held in separate rooms, both locked up in chains, which wouldn't be a problem, at least not for Sorowan, except that they're both being watched over by a pair of priests, and that there are another dozen priests on the floor above them. Oh, right and another dozen on the floor below them. It's been a while since I learned my figures, Blaze said. 
but thirty seems like a lot more than three. That isn't even counting the soldiers. This is a bad situation. It might be better to wait for them to move Rorschach and Sorobin somewhere else. Better hope the place they're moving them to isn't a graveyard. If it's crazy for us to go in by ourselves, we can solve this problem by not going in by ourselves. We'll go back to the Drakebane, come back with an army, and storm the tower. So we unite the city behind us by declaring war on half of it. Remind me how you were allowed to be put in charge of Narashtivik. By murdering half its council, Gladick said. I didn't kill them, Dante muttered. Not most of them. Blaze is correct. It is self-evident that if we launch a frontal assault on the Golden Hammer, we will forfeit all hope of swaying them to our side. And we will alienate much of the mob as well. So what does that leave? Sneaking in and smuggling the two of them out? How do we do that when the entire tower's filled with ethermancers? Allow me to propose an insane idea, Blaze said. We go up and talk to them. I know it's not as fun as chopping people up, but I've heard it sometimes works. This forfeits us all advantage of surprise, Gladick said. More for negotiations to work. There must be something we can give them in exchange. What have we to offer? We could offer to not blow their tower into rubble, or we could just kidnap some of them and set up a prisoner exchange. A more cunning solution. But if anything goes wrong, it's likely to lead to war. Yes, that tends to happen when you invade another nation's capital and assassinate its king. We are operating on the assumption that we must take this chance despite the likelihood it will set back the pursuit of our objective, Gladick said. But the two assets held in captivity are just that, assets. There is a point at which they must be considered spent. Dante felt his face darken. I told you we're going after them. They're our people. This is so. Yet what kind of people are they? Brilliant generals, perhaps? Charismatic leaders? Indefatigable warriors? No. One is an acolyte, and the other is an outlaw who terrorized Narastovic. I have heard you are a skilled player of the Norin game of Nolodun. What's that got to do with anything? If you have won a single game, you must have learned that the role of the skirmishers is to be sacrificed to protect the sorcerers and heroes. Dante might have objected that Nolodun was just a game, but that fact only seemed to make Gladick's argument stronger. If you lost a game of Nolodun, the only consequence was that you then owed the winner a favor. Yet, if sentimentality caused him to lose the chance for a united Bressel, countless lives would be lost to the White Lich. He lowered his eyes to the dirt, then jerked up his head. Three sparks of the golden stream fizzled away from him. You know what else is key to winning Nalladun? A skillful use of the terrain. Do you know the history of this place? Bressel, Lay said. Well, for a long time, nothing about it was very good. Then I was born here, and a brief golden age ensued until the day I left, after which everyone was sad all the time. 
I'm talking about this neighborhood, the Redoubt. It has been famous ever since the Valesian turmoil, Gladick said. The city would have been lost without it. Perhaps the entire kingdom. Do you remember how many people held out even when the Valesians besieged them? Gladick pursed his mouth in annoyance, as if insulted by the basicness of the question. Then smirked. You mean to use the tunnels? It would be a shame to let a good tunnel go to waste. He closed his eyes. Shadows swam toward his hands. He sank them into the dirt, making a slow zigzag toward the white tower housing the small army of Ethermancers. He came upon a hole in the ground, following it onward. At first, the walls were bare dirt, partially collapsed in places, but they were soon lined with bricks. He traced the passage to the base of the tower. The tunnels are still there, he said. At some point in history, someone piled up a plug in the one leading to the tower, but I can clear it out in a matter of seconds. That covers getting inside the tower and getting away from it. Blaze made a twirling gesture. Now, what about the parts where we have to sneak past a score of sorcerers? Well, Dante said, you'll see. And what about the guys they have watching Sorrowin and Rosha at every second of the day? We'll distract them. With what? The volume of our blood after they rip us to pieces? With anything. It doesn't matter what. Except that it can't be sorcery, or they'll know they're being attacked by sorcerers which is the same reason you can't use sorcery to sneak past them, since they'll feel what you're doing, and then you won't be doing any sneaking anymore, will you? Then we won't use nether. Although, maybe we can get away with ether. Dante swung his head toward Gladick. Does the priesthood know we've been working together? Gladick thought for a moment. Prior to the unexpected turns of events in Tanaritain, we were waging war against each other for a year. I expect it is still widely believed that we are mortal enemies. So, they think you're still on their side? They would have no reason to think otherwise. Then we'll use the tunnels to get inside the tower. Once we're in, we'll head straight up to where Sorowin and Rosha are being held. Gladick, you tell the priests watching them that you're there for the prisoners. Then we walk right out through the tunnels. Surely the priest will inquire with a Dane before allowing the prisoners to be taken from them. Then we create an emergency. As we're going in, I'll knock down a nearby building. Then you tell the guards they're needed outside immediately. Because the horrid Dante Galand is attacking the city, Blaze said, and he has to be put down like the ravening dog that he is. This could work, Gladick reflected. Yet it still does not strike me as a wonderful idea. Dante tightened his mouth. If you hadn't noticed, that tends to be how we do business. If the two of you are coming inside with me, you should be dressed as priests as well. I know a chapel nearby. It should have the proper vestments. Go grab them while I open the tunnel. We'll meet back here in a few minutes. Gladick nodded, took a look down the street, and headed away with long strides. Dante closed his eyes and moved back into the earth. The tunnel leading to the White Tower was connected to another tower nearby. There, a bit of smoke was rising from one of its chimneys, strongly implying it was currently in use.
working on the assumption that breaking into someone else's home was counterproductive to the goal of subterfuge, Dante headed down a winding path between the two towers until he came to a hedge a few feet to the right of the tunnel hidden below. He reopened his small cut, which had scabbed over, and moved into the earth. Dirt loosened and flowed away, excavating a tight tunnel slanting down to the main one below. He climbed inside, then widened the access tunnel a little more, in case they wound up needing to exit it in a hurry. He whistled to Blaze. Once he'd climbed down through the rich, fresh dirt-smelling extension, he got out his torchstone and blew on it, illuminating the three-hundred-year-old tunnel. Smells like old, Blaze said. Well, lucky that's all it smells like. I'm surprised they haven't filled these with trash. Or worse. Dante headed toward the white tower, which was perhaps fifty yards ahead. A few rats skittered away through damp leaves and other piles of stuff too old and decayed to tell what it was or even to have much of a scent. Beetles stopped to stare at them, antennae twitching. Messages had been scratched into the brick walls long ago, but most were utterly cryptic. Numbers, times, a handful of words. Once upon a time, these messages between the defenders might have been responsible for saving the city, but the meaning within them had been lost long ago. He came to the plug spanning the tunnel. He stopped to sense for any trace of sorcery in the air, then used the shadows to bore a man-sized hole through the plug, which was a simple matter, as it was nothing more than dirt and rocks packed tight by time. The way to the White Tower was now clear, but they backed up and returned to the surface, which was painfully bright after the dimness of the underground. There was now the matter of setting up the emergency to justify them taking custody of the prisoners. They began a brisk walk around the neighborhood, and were still in bowshot of the White Tower, when they located a crumbling tower with sagging shutters and its front door ripped off. Dante sent his beetles flying through the interior. Satisfied that it was abandoned, he moved his mind into the ground beneath the foundation. He opened up several pits there, round spaces with thin bottlenecks leading upward under the building. Dirt began to trickle into the pits, like sand into an hourglass. Dante dusted off his hands. All set. Blaze squinted. Isn't it supposed to collapse? It will in a few minutes. Probably. Ah, then we'll probably not get caught as infiltrators and then executed in town square. I can read Earth, and this is going to collapse soon. If you don't believe me, you're welcome to wait in one of the pits I just dug beneath the building. I'm sure it'll be much safer there than trying to sneak into the tower. They headed back to the spot of the meat. Gladick returned within another five minutes. They waited to get back in the tunnel before donning the grey robes the priest had brought back for them. Blaze twisted his neck, frowning down at the shapeless garment. Do you guys really think the gods feel flattered to be worshipped by people who dress like twenty pounds of potatoes? You should be glad we wear robes, Gladick said. It is said that the early priests worshipped naked so that nothing might stand between them and the gods. They headed down the tunnel, 
Dante's every instinct was to hold the nether close, but he kept it at bay, where none of the monks and priests in the tower might sense it. He was grateful that his boots were oiled and watertight against the things squelching beneath them. The tunnel began to slant upwards. It leveled out into a room so squat it induced Gladick and Blaze to stoop their backs. The walls were piled with moldy chests and rotten sacks. A hatch was set into the ceiling. Dante tried and failed to push it open. Blaze gave him a disdainful look, braced his palms against it, and pushed up with his legs. Dante would have sworn it was nailed shut, but it opened with a hard squeak. Blaze pulled himself up, then reached down for Gladick. Dante followed them up into a dim storage room. He found a candle, lit it, and blew out his torchstone. He hadn't explored the whole tower and was afraid they'd have to wander around like idiots, but he recognized the hallway the storage room opened to and pointed Gladick to the stairwell. People were clinking about in the kitchens down the hall, but Gladick threw back his shoulders and stiffened his neck, donning the mantle of the Orden of Bressel amongst the highest religious authorities in the nation, and stepped up the stairwell. Dante kept behind him, head bowed within his hood. Just one flight up, they passed a pair of gabbing servants who hushed themselves and bobbed their heads in deference to Gladick. As they ascended past the sleeping chambers, a chaotic roar sounded from outside the building. It went on for several seconds before stopping abruptly. Alarmed voices sounded from the bedrooms, as well as from the study above them. Dante smiled. That would be the other tower collapsing. Gladick, make a note, Blaise said. Gladick furrowed his brow. Of what? Our location. This is the first time Dante's ever been right. Gladick continued upward until they reached the floor where Sorowan and Rasha were being held. Dante pointed him toward one of the doors. Gladick lifted his gnarled knuckles and knocked. The door practically sprung open. A priest in grey robes, rather finer than Gladick's, eyed them from the other side. Yes? The man's eyes flew wide. Arden Gladick, we thought you were dead. There have been times recently when I have thought the same, Gladick intoned. You have a prisoner inside? Well, yes, Arden, a spy from Narashtovic. Gladick nodded gravely. It appears we did not expose their treachery in time. Narashtovic's heretics are attacking the redoubt as we speak. That crashing sound? Indeed. You and your fellow believer are to travel to Parcel Square. There you will mount a defense and drive out the invaders. A Dane has entrusted me to relocate the prisoners to a safer location. Are the foreigners expected to strike here? There is no telling, is there? Now move, before a Dane is obliged to come find out why you have chosen not to secure the city against the heretics. The priest inclined his head and stepped outside, motioning for his brother in faith to follow. You will come with us, young intruder, Gladick said to Sorowan, making sure his voice carried out into the hall. The steps of the two Malish priests diminished as they entered the stairwell. Gladick advanced on Sorowan, who jerked back his head, clunking it against the back of his chair. Please, sir, I haven't done— 
Blaze closed the door. Too late for that. Now hold still and prepare for judgment. Dante lowered his hood. Sorrowin swayed in his chair, groggy but shocked. He had a few cuts and bruises on his face, but nothing to indicate serious torture. Gladick pinched the fingers of his hand together, then splayed them wide. The heavy locks closing the chains around Sorrowin's wrists and ankles popped open with iron clicks. Sorrowin gaped. Dante! Dante clasped his hand over the boy's mouth. He's going to throw you out the window if you say his name again. Can you stand? Yes, I think. Maybe. And how about you try it and find out? Oh, yeah. Sorowan stood. He looked shaky, but that seemed to be more due to the surprise of sudden rescue than any injury or weakness. Are you going to get Rasha? Yes, and then we are going to go downstairs and get out of here. If anyone questions us, we're Malish priests and you're our prisoners, understand? Sorowan nodded, wide-eyed. Good, Dante said. Then let's get out of here before everything goes to hell. He returned to the hallway, with the others in tow. There was some clamor and chatter above and below, as soldiers, priests, and servants tried to understand what was happening outside. Dante could feel the ether flickering distantly. He crossed to the door to Rasha's cell and pressed his ear to it. Silence. He tried the handle and found it unlocked. He swung open the door. Release! A man yelled. Ether poured from the hands of ten priests and crackled toward Dante's head. Six. The light of the ether cast harsh shadows to all sides. Dante flung himself to the right of the doorway, grabbing at the nether as fast as he could. The ether struck the entryway, blasting it into gobbets of wood. Sorowin yelped in surprise. Blaze dropped into the nether, ducking out of harm's way. Gladick lashed back with a wallop of ether. The doorway exploded with light. Dante blinked, dazzled, and hit back with a swarm of black bolts. The priests stood their ground, three of them countering each strike, while the remaining seven assaulted the hallway with a rush of ether so dense it felt like the formation of a new world. Gladick hammered at the incoming energy with a geometry-defying tangle of ether, his face as stern as a betrayed king. Sorrowin joined him with the nether, his shadows plentiful but poorly controlled. Dante supported them on the fringes, mopping up any arc of ether that tried to dart past their defenses. Sons of Tame! The man who'd given the initial order to attack threw back his dark-haired head. He wore the robe of an Orden, and his voice resonated unnaturally, as if the tower itself was speaking his words. The enemy is within. Come to the aid of your brothers. Dante fired a shower of ethereal spears into the room, craning his neck to spot Rorschach among the snowstorm of black and white sparks. A few golden asterisks were flying about as well, but Dante was far too caught up in not getting slaughtered to try to put the stream to use, stopping the enemy's connection to the ether. Blaze, who had just crept through the wall in an attempt to backstab the priests, was ejected from the shadows as roughly as a spitball from a reed. He popped to his feet. I don't see Russia. Shall we run? Even more of them will be on us in a second, Dante said. We have no choice. 
the stairwell was out of the question. It would be thronged with priests on their way up to kill them. Dante yelled at the others to withdraw, blasting indiscriminate clouds of nether behind him, as he made a dash for the room they'd rescued Sorwan from. They piled inside and slammed the door. Gladick waved his hands, bracing the door with a cage of glowing white lines. Hoping they'll get bored and run away, Blay said, or are we about to jump? Just a short one. Dante ran to the window, right hand outstretched. It was too narrow to crawl through, but a flick of his wrist sent the rock jumping back from its edges, expanding it enough for grown men to crawl through. He leaned out. It was a fifty-foot drop to the ground. He'd actually survived a fall of much, much greater height, involving an absurdly tall tree in Wesley. But during that incident, he hadn't had to worry about a legion of enemy ethermancers disrupting him. Instead, he reached into the rock below the window, pulling it out into a narrow shelf, curled up at the outer edge. He extended the shelf along the curve of the tower, declining it at a thirty-degree angle so that the ledge began to wrap itself around the building in a downward spiral. Behind him, something rammed into the door so hard its boards began to splinter. With a grimace, Gladick restored his faltering wards. It will not hold. Dante had barely gotten started on the ramp, but if he didn't move now, he'd never have the chance to finish it. Everyone, after me. He rolled out the window and landed on his artificial ledge, bracing himself in case it cracked under his weight. It held, but he didn't, sliding down it with rapid acceleration. Heart thumping, he threw his mind back into the rock, extending the slide downward around the tower's face. Behind him, Sorrowan gave an unsteady wail, and Blaze laughed. Wood burst apart clattering across the room they'd just vacated. Gladick brought up the rear, robes flapping as he slid downward. The rock slide was as smooth as glass, and Dante was soon shooting down it at the speed of a galloping horse. By keeping his full focus on his work, he was just able to keep extending the slide in front of him without overtaking it. Sorrowan was making noise again. Dante chanced a glance up translucent white arrows flew from the windows. Gladick lifted his hand, spraying ether to deflect the attacks. Dante curled around the tower, removing himself from sight of the assault. He was nearing the bottom, and hastily drew the slide to the ground, gentling the angle at the end. Light flashed overhead. Gladick and Sorwan yelled out. Rock snapped apart. Dante shot from the end of the slide, rolling over the grass. Blaze was right behind him and somehow managed to somersault twice and jump to his feet. Unfortunately for them, Sorrowan and Gladick were tumbling down in a hail of broken stone. Still dizzied from his landing, Dante sank his mind into the ground, sloppily converting it into a mud pit. Gladick and Sorrowan slapped into it with the dignity of a trebuchet-launched pig. Blaze helped yank them to their feet, as Dante fended off another barrage of light from above. The same priests they'd tricked into leaving Sorrowan's cell were now charging across the grass toward them, looking significantly more furious than during their initial meeting. Dante ran in the opposite direction, lobbing black bolts behind him. Against the brown of the mud coating them from head to toe, Gladick and Sorrowan's eyes shined as whitely as ether.
Build a slide like that in Narashtavik, and you could charge for it, Blay said. Although, you might want to leave out the mud part, and the score of angry sorcerers trying to rip you apart part. They scampered across a winding path toward the main road, ringing the central towers of the Redoubt district. As soon as they ran from behind the hedge that marked the border between the dirt path and the cobbled street, they came face to face with a crowd of men and women carrying staffs, wood axes, and rocks. Them! a man screeched, jabbing his finger at them. Them's who did it! A roar arose not unlike the hurrah of an infantry charge. Then dozens of stones took flight, not unlike a barrage of crude arrows. Dante reversed course down the street. The mob kept up with the four of them enough to tempt him to kill a few on the front lines, which would have scattered the others in fear, but which would also have had the rather less desirable effect of whipping up a bristle-sized army against them. That appears to be an angry mob, Blaze said. Where did the angry mob come from? Gladick wiped mud from his face. Perhaps they were enmaddened by the unprovoked destruction of their neighborhood. It was hardly destroyed, Dante said. It was just one old building. There probably wasn't even anyone in it. No one respectable, anyway, Blaze said. A rock thudded at Dante's heels. He cursed as a group of ten people ran at them from the side, pelting them with stones. He thought of yanking up a blockade of earth behind him, but the mob would simply divert through the gardens to either side of the street. We'll circle around to the entrance I opened to the tunnel, he said. Once we're inside, I'll seal it behind us. He veered left in the general direction of the hedges, where he dug his way into the old passages. A few more rocks landed behind them, but trailed off as they opened ground on their pursuit. Hey now, Blaze pointed down a fork in the road. Isn't that Rasha? Down the fork, a group of men in grey robes hauled a trussed-up and muzzled Rasha away from the central towers of the redoubt. I'm only seeing five of them, Dante said. I like those odds. They ran down the fork. Dante was bleeding from being struck by splinters during the fight in the tower, and the nether zipped to join him. The crowd was still yipping and baying, covering the approach of their footsteps as they closed on the burdened priests. Blaze knifed into the shadows with a ripple so subtle Dante might not have felt it if he wasn't already wrapped in them himself. One of the priests glanced back, fixed on them, and uttered something to the others. They picked up speed, but carrying Rasha between them, it soon became clear that they had no hope of outrunning Dante and the others. They cast Rasha onto the cobbles and swung about, ether glinting from their fingertips. Hit them as hard as you can, Dante said. If they break, we cut Rasha loose and run like hell before this gets any worse. The street was a wide one, big enough to have been a boulevard. Trees and greenery adorned it to the left, while the right was lined with a mixed block of freestanding towers and the more common formation of buildings jammed shoulder to shoulder. Dante felt ether stirring from one of the towers and whirled to face it, but when no attack came, he pivoted to face the priests, who were just launching their initial attacks. Dante slung his arms forward, unleashing a crackling wave of nether large enough to dim the street. In the next instant, he bored into the earth beneath the priest's feet, prizing it apart. A balding, portly priest flung himself to the side with surprising grace. 
Another slipped, falling into the ravine and catching himself on its edge, face reddening with panicked exertion. The portly man rushed to his aid. One of the priests stood nearly a head taller than the others. He was lean-bodied, and though he wasn't much older than Dante, his long face was deeply creased from his cheekbones to his jawline. He crushed something fragile in his hand and cast aside its ruins. Ether speared forth with the paralyzing squeal of two pieces of sharp glass rubbed against each other. It slashed into Dante's wall of nether, cutting it into ribbons that disintegrated in the sunlight. Orden Gladic! The man sounded so reproachful it was impossible to tell if he was mocking. You've thrown in with the enemy, too. I have a Dane, Gladic said. Does this at last show you the gravity of the far greater enemy mustering against this city? This city that I still love? Do you? Is that why you travel to Tanaratane? To conspire with the Drakebane as to how to conquer Bressel for yourselves? Such a claim is too ridiculous for words. I was there to learn how to destroy the greatest threat to Malish dominance. The Dane's eyes moved to Dante. Now you stand side by side with that threat, while you bark in the employ of the man who stole our city and murdered our king. There is no need to convince me of the great darkness of the swamps of Tanaratane, Gladic. It's more than clear you've already fallen under its spell. With a snapping gesture, as quick as a striking snake, Adair drew a glowing pattern in the air in front of him. The ether pulsed forth, assaulting them like a whining storm, so intense that for a moment Dante, Gladic, and Sorowin were all obliged to defend against it. During the initial moments of the confrontation, when everyone had been distracted slinging light and shadow back and forth, Blaze had been circling around on the enemy, but he'd stopped during the brief conversation hardly rippling the nether. Now he sprinted forward and vaulted free of the shadows. One of his Odosain blades held at an angle above and behind his head, its black blades snapping with silvery-purple energies. He swung at the rickety priest who'd been pulled out of the crevice. The weapon cut right through the man's ribs. Both of his halves thudded to the pavement. The upper half screamed while the lower half wriggled. The portly priest gagged, eyes watering as he lashed at Blaze with ethereal whips. Blaze stooped as if entering a low door and ducked back into the shadows. The fat man uttered a high-pitched cry of anger and shoved Blaze back into the physical world. But before he could try to kill Blaze, he was called to the aid of a Dane, who was struggling against a counter-onslaught from Dante and Gladick. A fog of shadows hung in the air in front of the malish ethermancer its leading edge boiling away as the Danes struck it with steady streams of light. Yet the fog continued to advance toward him. His face grew focused, the brackets around his mouth deepening while sweat broke out across his forehead. Men of the redoubt, his ether-amplified voice boomed across the street. All good people of Melon, come to our aid. Drive out the usurpers and punish the heathens. Dante took a quick look around. The street seemed empty, except for the nine living people and one dead body currently contending for control of it. Yet, as the energies continued to grind against each other, inching closer to Odane and his priests, first rivulets, and then rivers of people poured into the street, waving makeshift weapons above their heads and howling for blood. 
Keep the priests at bay. Dante pivoted, dropping to one knee and slapping his palm against the ground. Thirty feet away, well ahead of the closest member of the mob, a ditch opened in the street, starting from the buildings and cutting across the cobblestones into the yards on the other side of the road. Men skidded to a stop at its edge, mouths hanging open. A few began to hurl rocks. Dante extended the ditch to the nearest building ahead of him, cutting off all immediate approaches. It would only buy them a minute or two, but that would be all that they'd need. He pushed toward Adain again, striking at him with dart after dart of nether. All three of his surviving priests fell into defensive postures to fend off the swarm. Gladic, meanwhile, was still driving straight at Adain with both ether and nether. Aided by Sorowan's much lesser power, his blows drew closer and closer, until the sparks of their deflection were falling right at Adain's feet. Adain took two long steps back. Power flickered to Dante's right. Stone groaned against itself. A tower, the same one he'd felt the ether stirring in earlier, came unmoored from its foundation, tipping toward the street. And a smear of darkness connected him to the tower. The crowd began to scream. They tried to run, but they were packed too tightly against the ditch Dante had carved through the dirt. The shadow of the tower moved across them. Men and women screamed as they began to spill into the ditch. Some tried to jump across it, but they only joined those who'd been jostled into the depths. The tower smashed down like the hammer of tame. The ground shook. Dante threw his arms across his face just in time to protect it from the cloud of dust blasting away from the impact. People shrieked in pain and panic, pushing at broken stones, pinning down their mangled limbs. The tower's top had landed across the ditch, stuffing it with rubble. Dust-covered men and women picked themselves up and staggered back from the scene. The northerners have come to slaughter you, a Dane bellowed. Fight for your lives or flee from them, but you cannot stand helpless. We must make the same choice, Gladick said. We save Russia, Dante said, and if we can kill the priest, so much the better. He jogged toward the ethermancers, blackening the air above him with shadows and channeling them toward Adain in a black swirling tube, a horizontal tornado. Adain attempted to parry it, but his ether crumbled. He dropped back three steps, his priests retreating with him. One of the priests gasped, stumbling back and clutching his side, bleeding from a stray blade of nether. Without his strength, the others were obliged to fall back further yet. Rorschach now lay alone on the ground. Blaze tumbled out of the shadows and pounced on her, slinging her over his shoulder. He'd taken two whole steps, when a crowd of people shot from the alley like water from a pipe, rushing him with sticks, knives, and bare hands. Behind Dante, people were clambering over the wreckage of the tower, hurling bits of broken masonry at the intruders. Ahead, Blaze drew his sword and tried to wave off the crowd, but they pressed closer, smelling blood. Blaze bared his teeth and made to run through them, waving his sword dramatically, hoping to scare them off without harming any of them. The crowd pulled back in fear, opening a small ring around Blaze. Then a woman twisted her face in anger, skipped forward and threw a rock. It hit the back of Blaze's skull, blood spraying from the gash. He grunted, 
and pitched forward, losing hold of Rasha. She fell to the ground. She wasn't moving. Blaze straightened, brandishing his sword anew. Rocks flew at him from all sides. Men jabbed at him with wooden poles sharpened at the ends. Blaze cut off the tips with his sword, sparks of nether shooting away from the contact, but others pressed closer, knives in hand. Blaze yelled out in pain. Someone had jabbed him in the back and dropped into the shadows. Dante broke into a dead run, drawing his Odosein sword with his right hand and filling his left with nether. A man kicked Rorschach in the ribs. Another struck her with a staff. Dante sent the shadows screaming toward her attackers. Their heads ceased to exist, blowing raggedly across the faces of those cheering the attackers on. A wall of people ringed Rorschach in. Dante hacked his sword across them, the charged blade ripping through them with little resistance. There was screaming now. He didn't care. Two men stood over Rasha, gaping dumbly, knives in hand. Dante disintegrated them both. The mob dispersed like water down a drain. Dante crouched to pick up Rasha. Blaze reemerged from the shadows, grimacing as he helped lift her. Dante touched her with the shadows. Her heart was beating, but it was as if she'd been tranquilized. Gray robes flapped down the street. Adain and the surviving priests were in retreat. So were the crowds, leaving behind dozens of dead and a smattering of others watching Dante in horror as they dragged the wounded away from the street. Gladick and Sorowan jogged over to join Dante and Blaze. Wordless, they retreated too. But Dante already knew there would be no escaping the carnage of the day. Seven. That night, the city burned. They watched from the towers of the keep that had once housed the kings and queens of Brazil. Drake Ben Yoto, the keep's new ruler, watched with them. The fire started near the borders of the redoubt, little sparks in the darkness, but soon grew broad and orange. The smell of smoke hung in the air, plumes of it blowing out to sea and hazing the stars. Dante had healed Blaze's numerous wounds, which had been bloody but unserious. Rorschach was awake. Adain had used the ether to put her into a comatose state, but Gladick had undone her condition easily. Rorschach rested her arms on the parapet. This is a shit show. You should have left me captive. Probably, Dante said, but we didn't. She turned with a snort. Because of it, they're rioting, burning down their own neighborhoods. You got any plans to stop them? Well, we just killed scores of them, Blaze said, so we could turn ourselves over to be killed by them. Personally, I'd rather let them burn their own city for a while and see if they get tired of it. We didn't kill those people, Dante said. Then what were you doing when you blasted through them in a quite literal storm of blood? Examining their innards for harmful disease? That was after Adain dropped the tower on them. If he hadn't done that, they would never have been worked up enough to assault us. Yes, and they think you smashed them with the tower. How are you going to prove it was Adain? 
Torture him with hot pokers in the public square until he declares your innocence? His treachery runs deeper than you comprehend, Gladick said. After examining the events of the day, I have concluded that a Dane set them all in motion intentionally, with the express purpose of turning the city against us. He didn't know I was going to drop the abandoned tower, Dante said. That's what stirred up the mob in the first place. Rorschach flicked a bit of gravel off the parapet. But he knew you were coming for us. Gladick nodded. Then I have no doubt it was intentional. He may even have warned the citizens that foreigners would shortly be coming to attack them, which is why the mob were so swift to form, and so angry in mood. Dante pressed his lips into a thin line. Even if he had the foresight to do that, how did he know we'd escape from his ambush in the White Tower? Or that if he and his priests took Rorschach into the street, we'd somehow find them and kick off a fight he could use to attack the mob and blame it on us? How did he know all these things? Gladick said. It is very simple. He speaks to Tame. Dante sighed noisily. I have decided what we'll do about the riots, Yotta said, breaking his long silence. We will do nothing. Blaze raised his elbows on the wall. And you have my unwavering service in accomplishing that. That's probably the best move, Dante said. They'll never listen to us until they've had time to spend some of their anger. Then let's hope they run out of anger before they run out of city. They were all silent for a time, listening to the shouts from below, the smashing of glass and the dull roar of the fires. You can't deal with the mob. Rorschach said, but you might be able to deal with the Dane. Dante gave her a look. If we murder the acting leader of the priesthood, the priests will take to the streets as well, except there'll be a mob with the power to blast things apart by pointing at them. I meant strike a deal with him. He's not crazy, just a perfectly reasonable fellow who will slaughter his own people the second it benefits him. Have you talked to him? Because I have. I have as well. Yoto said, I found no room for compromise. Rosha folded her arms, staring straight at the emperor like he was no more than a laborer who'd jostled her at a pub. Can't imagine why he's unwilling to work with you when you insist on keeping control of his city for yourself. The emperor stood taller, staring down at her with a force that only a lifetime of authority could bequeath. Who are you to question me? Someone who hasn't yet met a blue blood she wouldn't throw out a window. For you, such an act is a fantasy. But at my command, you would be sailing from this tower in a second. In contrast to his lordship, Lay said without missing a beat, I am just a humble idiot. But might I suggest that, as the city erupts with infighting, we not follow its lead? The corner of Yoto's mouth twitched, but if he was about to smile, he suppressed it. He made a small gesture of dismissal or forgiveness. I can't give up this seat, he said. Not when my homeland has been erased of my people. The few thousand I brought with me to this city are all the Tenarians left alive in the world. I can't entrust their survival to anyone but myself. Dante scratched his thumbnail across his brow. What if there's a compromise? You could even split the city. 
Keep a district for yourself while restoring most of Bressel to the Malish. If we give up everything but a fraction of the city, that gives the Malish power over us. You're insane if you think they won't seek immediate revenge. A Dane might put his revenge on hold if we bring him to see the army on its way to destroy us. You don't understand. Even if I hadn't harmed his king and his people, and had good reason to think he'd keep his word, I still couldn't trust him. He's a follower of the Eleven and One Gods. The Salaset, Dante said. So what? Yoto made his conciliatory gesture again. It's not the fault of the Salaset. It's the fault of any order that puts the words of the gods over that of its people. Ruling humans is sort of what gods do. That's what makes them gods. But the gods aren't the supreme authority. Not when they can be made to say whatever the priests who speak for them want them to say. What? You've got a better system? Of course we do. And you spent long enough in Tanaritain to have seen it. You refer to the notion of the body? Gladick said. Yoto nodded. For the people are of one body. I am the crown, my ministers and mayors are the head, my clergy the heart, and so on. Everyone has a place within the body, be they the lowest peasant or all part of the same whole. The righteous monsoon thinks it oppressive to slot people into these roles, and that this is just a way to justify my own wealth and power, but in truth it's a grave responsibility. For if the head doesn't take care of the rest of its numerous parts, the body will weaken and then soon die, and the head will die with it. So, I am responsible for the lives and well-being of all my people, down to the lowliest frog-catchers and snail-pickers. I always have to do what's right by them, or I'll harm myself, too. This forges a sacred covenant between the ruler and his people. Adain is under no such covenant. All he has to do is follow the decisions of the gods. So if I put my faith in Adain's hands, and he decides that Tame wants my people put to the sword, there's nothing to stop him. The last people of Tanaratain will die. That is why I am bound by my strictest duty, to keep the portions of my body safe from the whims of outside control. Then there is no cutting this knot. Gladick said, for it is the stance of the priesthood, and the stance I myself hold, that guidance cannot be found in the flawed minds of men, but only in the laws of the gods. Any ruler who turns his back on the guidance of the divine will inevitably lead his people to doom. That is his own business, and yours, if that is what you hold. Dante watched the crowds moving through the street. From that high up, and in the darkness of the night, they looked less like a gathering of individuals and more like amorphous tendrils, almost like the nether itself, probing forward in search of the blood that gave it life. You're missing something here, Yoto, he said. You think that by taking charge of Bressel, you're keeping your people safe, but you're missing the trade-off at play. If holding to your position means we're stuck with a divided Bressel, our chances of defeating the White Lich plummet. So which is really the greater danger to you? Temporarily entrusting your people to the rule of the Malish, allowing us to stand together, or insisting on perfect sovereignty, knowing it could mean the death of us all? Sovereignty, 
That's the only choice a just ruler will ever make for his people. The Drakebane's voice held no doubt or hesitation. We have chewed this matter to the gristle. What's clear is that anything we try to do now will only make the flames hotter. For now, this remains my city, and it's my command that all of you step back and wait for the fires to burn out. Only when the mob has calmed can we hope to undo what we've done this day. With a flap of his cape, he left the rooftop. After a minute, Rorschach announced she was off to find a drink, although Dante had the odd suspicion she really meant to check in on Saruman, who had exhausted his powers during the battle and was currently resting. Gladick observed the streets a little while longer, as if he was a haruspex, looking to glean meaning from watching the city gut itself. At last, he straightened, hand pressed to his stiff back. I believe I preferred the swamp of Tenaritain to the one we find ourselves mired in now. He shuffled off. Blaze took a seat on the parapet, idly sharpening one of his knives. Does this whole thing strike you as a little strange? What, Dante said, that we came here to strike an alliance, only to inadvertently kill a bunch of people and get everyone mad at each other instead? No, that part feels completely normal. The part that isn't so normal is that you and I are malicious by birth. So what are we doing helping the Tenarians seize the capital? The ghosts of our ancestors are going to have some choice words for us. This hasn't been our home for ages. If they could have, these people would have destroyed Noreshtovic a long time ago. Are we sure we're backing the right side in this? Even if Malin's our enemy, at least they're mostly like us. The Tenarians don't even believe in the Selicet, and they're the ones who invaded Malin. Like them or hate them, for once, the Malish are innocent. We're trying to save them both, Dante said. That means it isn't a matter of who's wrong and who's right. It's a matter of who's more likely to win. The Drakebane, the Odosain, know how to take down the Lich. We have to back them. What happens if we reach a point where the Drakebane's doing more harm than good? Or what if he does win the day, and then decides he'd rather stay in his nice big city than go back to his wretched swamps? His use is as a weapon against the lich. If your sword breaks, and there's no fixing it, you don't keep carrying it into battle. You cast it aside, and pick up a new weapon. Dante glanced down into the streets. For a moment, he would have sworn he'd heard someone calling his name from far below. He didn't hear the call again. Naren and the Sword of the South set sail for the plagued islands at dawn. Assuming typical summer weather, and no special setbacks at their destination, they could be back within a month. In the early morning hours, with a summer haze creeping in from the forests around them, the city sounded as placid as it had on their arrival. Yet, there was a different quality to the piece, like a raging sailor who has finally drunk himself to sleep, but will wake up by afternoon and be back at it by dusk. The streets were scattered with refuse and loose rocks. Yards had been trampled flat. Pockets of the city had been scorched and would likely still be burning, if not for the efforts of a more moderate group of ethermancers within the Golden Hammer, who had put their skills to use, dousing the flames and restoring what they could. 
One of these priests, a Spalder named Corson, had gotten in contact with Gladick over the course of the night. They were old friends, and he had pledged to meet with Gladick shortly to see if there were ways to reconcile with the Golden Hammer through back channels. With no courses of direct action open to him, Dante turned to administration and organization. Two matters loomed foremost. One, coordinating with Nack and the troop of Nethermancers the council was bringing down to the front, and second, finding a way to figure out what the Aiden Rane was up to. One of these matters was much simpler to get out of the way than the other. Dante took a cup of Galadie's tea to the roof, found a seat in the shade of a leafy trellis, and signaled Nack's loon. Hello, most enlightened leader. Despite the early hour, Nack sounded as bright-eyed as always. As Dante grew older, he was only getting more impressed with Nack's ability to strike an uncanny balance between light mockery and genuine deference to his superiors. How can I be of service? How far away are you from Brussels? Oh, another eight or nine days' march, I'd say. We were delayed by a Malish militia to the east of Wharton. Quite annoying of them to try to prevent us from coming to their aid. Then again, everything is very confused these days, isn't it? One can hardly be surprised that the locals were eager to defend themselves. Please tell me you didn't kill them. Oh, no. We were quite scrupulous in avoiding a conflict, which is more than can be said for them. But it was our very scrupulousness that caused us to lose time. Do you need us to arrive sooner? Just the opposite. I don't want you to come to Brussels at all. Ah. Oh. The furrows on Nack's bald brow were almost visible across the loon. If we are no longer required, I feel as though the troops might have appreciated that knowledge before we outpaced the militia or made the mountain crossing. I'm not telling you to turn around. If anything, I wish I'd told you to bring more troops. But now is not a good time for a bunch of Narashtivik infidels and soldiers to show up in Brussels. Having troubles, are you? It turns out that stuffing groups of different people with incompatible beliefs into the same city, while one side assassinates the other side's divine ruler, and a third party shows up to mediate, except they've been your sworn enemy for centuries, well, it doesn't make for the most productive negotiating environment. Just how bad has it gotten? Are things burning? Not all of it, Dante said. But now is not the time to make the locals think an army of northern death-worshippers is about to march into their city and start roasting firstborns on the altar of Veron. I want you to stay off the roads and away from settlements. When you get within fifty miles of Bressel, find somewhere secluded and make camp. In fact, it might be best for you to cross over into the Colin Basin until I call for you. That will put us two days' march by road away from Bressel— Three days, if we have to come through the wilds. What happens if this white lich of yours shows up with less notice than you expect? Then I'll have made a dreadful mistake, and will have to plug my ears extremely hard to avoid the screams as I flee from the city. But things are far from ideal right now. That makes all of our decisions less than ideal, too. Yes, of course. The former monk made some thoughtful noises. Are you sure he'll come for Bressel? What if he's content with taking the swamps and considers the whole conquering business done with? I've seen his mind, his vision. 
He wants to blight the entire world and start over with everything under his rule. That's a little ambitious, isn't it? Most people have enough trouble running a single kingdom. I'll find a way to get eyes on the lich and his movements soon enough. Although, at the rate we're going, there won't be anything left of Bressel for him to take over. Get our people somewhere hidden, Nack, and stay out of trouble. I'd advise you to do the same, but I don't think you know how. Dante closed the connection. As he finished his tea, he mulled ways to get spies into Tenaritain. The problem was that any humans who entered the swamps would be exposed immediately for the simple fact they weren't blighted. Also, anyone who wasn't a Tenarian would have no idea how to get around. They'd be more likely to end up in a swamp dragon's large intestine than to get anywhere near the lich. That left sorcery. But the spying eyes of dead dragonflies or the like could only range some forty or fifty miles from the one commanding them before the link stretched too thin. And the lich was particularly good at identifying enchanted spies. Dante had the strong feeling that any nethermancer he sent to the swamps would wind up captured and belitched. Getting nowhere, he switched his efforts to strategies for defending Bressel. This started, in his opinion, with a proper map. Throughout his travels, he had discovered that the quality of a society's maps correlated extremely highly with the quality of the society itself, and so it spoke to the locals' favor that the palace already had detailed maps of the entire city. But these were somewhat outdated, and didn't always include the particular details he needed. So he set to making his own, sending dead moths high into the sky and drawing what they saw. He had expected to be done with the project by noon, but two realities intervened. His own insistence on getting things as accurate and to scale as he could, and the simple fact that Bressel was very, very huge. He didn't finish until the very last minutes of sunset, and even then he wasn't satisfied with the job he'd done. But it would do. He found something to eat, then dispatched messengers through the extremely large palace to inquire if Yoto had time for an impromptu war council. Dante met the Drakebane and his coterie of advisers and servants in a large hall overlooking the northern sweep of the city. The windows were open, stirring the flames of the candles and allowing them to hear the hubbub of a growing riot somewhere in the streets. Blaze showed up with a golden mug full of something that smelled potent enough to curl his eyebrows. Gladick arrived, looking better rested than at any time since their fateful encounter at the Riolais. Once everyone seated, Yoto smiled. It might surprise you to learn that, anticipating the Lich will be coming for Brussels, we've already developed a strategy to resist it. Okay, Dante said. Let's hear it. Yoto broke down a fairly standard defense of a walled city that involved holding off the blighted as vigorously as they could, ensuring the lich would eventually be forced to step forth and combat the defenders directly. That's when we press at him, with everything we have, Yoto concluded. As powerful as the Aiden Rane may have become, he's still vulnerable to the skill of the Odosheim. Dante looked down at the table which was a very nice table, then lifted his eyes. 
Unfortunately, that's no longer true. During our training at the Silent Spires, we learned a way around the Odyssein. When the Lich enslaved me, I was compelled to teach him this. Anger flickered across Yoto's face. Then we've lost the one weapon that's always been able to defeat him. That depends on whether the story of the Spear of Stars is true, and if we can find a way to make a new one. Even if we can't, we'll have something on our side that you never had. A complete shitload of sorcerers. But we'll still need a strategy. Based on my past experiences, we're going to need a lot of walls. Then you will be pleased to learn the city already has one. It needs more. One strong blast of sorcery and the wall's blown wide open. I've seen it happen myself in Narashtavik. Once that happens, the attackers will flood inside. And if they're fast enough, they'll cut off most of the people we've got posted on the wall, too. Thus the need for many walls. Yet I doubt we'll have more than a few weeks to prepare. With such little time, how sturdy can we really expect these new walls to be? To a decent sorcerer, there's not much difference between an ancient block of stone and some wooden boards leaned against each other. The blighted are a much different story. They're not going to be coming at us with catapults and siege towers. A wooden wall will stop them well enough. I'd like to set up at least three or four additional rings around the city. The goal is to make them pay for each step they try to take. To thwart any sudden advances, we'll need a way for our sorcerers to move through the defenses as quickly as possible. I'm thinking of raising ramparts running perpendicular to the walls, acting as spokes for us to run across. Running doesn't sound very fast at all. Blaze quaffed his cup and slammed his fist on the table. If only we had some sort of beast specifically bred to carry people around at high speeds. But don't you people have that very thing in horses? Yota had no sooner said the words than he tightened his eyes and mouth. I've been made a fool, haven't I? Don't worry, sir. My knowledge of horses will never be a match for your mastery of fish. Blaze took a thoughtful swig. Cavalry in general would be an asset. Too bad the blighted are likely to spook everything but the meanest destrious. Dante drew his finger across the fields outside Bressel, through the existing wall, and into the city's various quarters. If we're pushed back from all our walls and into the city, we can use the stouter buildings as fortresses against the blighted. They're not exactly tactical geniuses. Gladick stirred. And what if the enemy deploys the same tactics he used at Arisotis? and simply smashes down any building we attempt to use as a cornerstone of our defense. Our little setback in the redoubt gave me an idea. We can excavate tunnels between the most defensible buildings. If the lich comes for one of them, or it gets swarmed by blighted, the defenders will have an escape route. Layers of walls, Yoto mused, with quick transport against enemy sorcery, and tunnels for escape if a district becomes overwhelmed. He narrowed one eye at the large map, then looked up at Dante. Do you see the flaw in your plan? Dante nodded. The chancet. Indeed. The river cuts down the middle of the city. For you people, a river would typically be a defensive advantage. But the blighted flipped that blade on you. 
They can use it as a road. Worse yet, a road you can't travel on yourself. Potential surprise attack. That's one of the other things that screwed us in Arisosis. Our troops can guard it where it flows into the city, but we'll have to blockade it where it exits to the sea. I'm not sure how much you know about rivers, Blaze said, but when you stop them up, they tend to form something called a dam. And the thing that forms behind the dam is known as a lake, which would, in this case, be Bressel. Maybe I can put the river underground. I'll figure out a barrier that water can get through and blighted can't. I'll take a look at it tomorrow. Right now, all I know is that our previous encounters with the White Lich have given us something critical. Experience. If we don't put it to use, we'll lose just like we did before. Blaze flicked the rim of his chalice. Suppose the big pale bastard will bring the prime body with him? I doubt he'll keep it right next to him, the Drakebane said. He might leave it floating out to sea, safe from harm's way, or in a nook somewhere outside the city. We will search for it nonetheless, but for the same reasons we'll be trying to find it, he will put all his cunning into keeping it safe. They spoke a while longer yet, identifying which streets and buildings would be most defensible and where the tunnels might best be put to use. They also discussed, at length, whether it would be possible to simply overwhelm the Lich with the combined might of all their sorcery, but there was no answer to this, because no one knew how powerful he had become, or how much of Malin, Tanaritain, and Narashtavik might actually stand as one in the field. Less of the city burned that night, but if anything, that seemed to be because the mob was more organized, marching down the streets with lanterns and torches, waving knives and farming equipment. Rather than the senseless arson of the night before, they targeted suspected turncoats, burning down the manors of three nobles suspected of working with the Drakebane. Two of the noblemen fled, but the other was hanged in the street, along with his family. A dozen other citizens were killed in brawls and vigilante executions. In the morning, the air seemed to smell of blood, with the promise of more to come. They were slated to meet with the Spalder Corson that day to hear more of the intricacies of the Golden Hammer. Dante had expected the meeting to take place at night, the typical time of secrecy and treason, but Gladick said that it was for that exact reason the priest would be coming to see them that morning instead. He could be coming here as a double agent for a Dane. Dante said. How can you be sure we can trust him? We have known each other for nearly thirty years. During those thirty years, was there any other time you conspired with an enemy force to conquer Corson's homeland and slay his king? I did not know the shape of Drake Benyoto's plans, Gladick said. Yet your point is taken, and must be answered with a story. When we were both younger men— it came to be that Corson's wife became quickened with child. Over the course of her pregnancy, she experienced no more than minor and typical difficulties. Yet, when she began her labor, she at once began to bleed heavily. Corson was able to staunch the bleeding, but he could not find the underlying harm that threatened both his wife and their unborn child. 
he sent for me, as I was the most skilled healer at hand. By the time I arrived, his wife was moments from passing through Tame's gate, and the child showed no sign of life inside her. When he was born, he was born blue. When she saw her unbreathing son, her own heart gave out. Yet I was able to revive them both. They wound up naming their son for me. At the time, the gesture embarrassed me. But as I age, I consider it one of my few transcendent achievements. Gladick gazed across the palace courtyard. His wife was grievously injured during her labor. She was never able to conceive another child. But we have been friends ever since. That is why I know that their son lives to this day, and that his wife recently delivered Corson's third grandchild. That, then, is why I trust him, and would do so with my life. Fair enough, Dante said. Then let's go talk to him, shall we? Corson smuggled himself into the palace in a barrel in the back of an ox-drawn cart. Erring on the side of paranoia, they didn't let him out of the barrel until a trio of porters had hauled it up to the tower. Corson clambered out, smoothing his robes. He was about fifty years old, with bits of silver streaking his brown hair. He carried himself with the visible dignity common among members of the priesthood, yet there was an earthiness to him that suggested he was just as comfortable working with his hands as with the ether. He knocked on the side of the empty barrel and crooked his mouth at Gladick. I never understood how hard wine had it before now. Gladick smiled. It is good to see you, my old friend. The same. Corson turned, looking Dante up and down. You're him, aren't you? Dante Galland. Dante nodded. Didn't Gladick tell you I'd be here? I'd say it was more like a warning. But there's nothing that can prepare you for meeting a devil. If I'm what passes for a devil, you should pray for your city to be possessed by them. The Spalder chuckled and bowed his head. You'll have to forgive me, Lord of the North. For more than ten years I've been told that any day now you'll sweep down from your frozen wasteland to kidnap our women and nail our children to posts— so it's a curious thing indeed to see you walking free in the palace of the late King Charles. Feel free to arrest him, Blaise said. Just make sure the cell isn't made of stone, and that it doesn't have any rats in it. In fact, it might be safer to skip the arrest and go straight to decapitation. The four of them seated themselves. Corson cleared his throat. The less time I spend here, the better, so I'll get down to it. The Golden Hammer's strategy is pretty simple. They're going to keep rioting. They're going to keep stringing up their enemies. And they're going to keep spreading their message. Dante folded his arms. And if we decide to restore law and order to the city, then they'll be delighted. There's nothing they want more than to goad you into another massacre to solidify their power. I don't know what you heard, but we didn't kill those people. Oh, so it was some other nethermancer who used the shadows to crush the mob with a tower. That was a Dane's work. He made it look like us to rile up the mob. Can't be. All the geniality left Corson's face. 
I just told you it was Nether that brought that tower down. And it was a Dane who wielded it, Gladick said. I was there, and I saw it myself. Holding eye contact, Gladick lifted his left hand. Shadows rippled to him from the corners of the room and swam around his fingers. It is forbidden to us, yes. But as the power of the Nether grew beyond our borders, there were those of us who believed that the only way to defeat it was to understand it. That required learning to use it. I am sorry, my friend. The world taints us all. Corson laid his palm on the table, nodding at it. After a long moment, he gave a single huff of laughter. Well, say what you will about the world, but at least it's full of surprises. Perhaps we are right to consider the nether tainted. Look at the situation it has placed me in. I might testify to the golden hammer on this matter, exposing a Dane, but to do so would expose me as a heretic as well, and they would never join forces with a heretic. Expect not. In any event, the hammer is also working to gain support from the nobles and towns outside Brussel. So you got that to worry about, too. Gladick tapped his chin. What has become of the Eldor? If I could convince him of the danger of the Lich, he might persuade the others. The Eldor exiled himself from the city when it became clear the coup would succeed. He said he needed to travel into the wilderness to learn the will of the gods. He left because he thought he would die. Gladick's white eyebrows jumped. Did he know what was coming? Had he been working with the Drakebane? Seems like a question for you to ask the Drakebane yourself. No, I do not think that he was. If he was, and knew of the coup, the Elder would only put the blame on me, and sell me out as the scapegoat. You're insulting the Elder now. Gladick, my friend, what's happened to you? Gladick waved a gnarled hand. It is neither criticism nor insult. It is merely the truth. As for what happened to me, he motioned to Dante, my battles with this man, and with the aid and Rani, have stripped me of all illusions. Once your illusions are destroyed, the truth appears to you without effort, but will disturb those who still possess them. Ha! Huh. Well, enlightenment couldn't have happened to a better man. Are there more like you within the hammer? Dante said. Is there any hope of convincing them to fight at our side? Let's say that Marlon finally quit talking about invading Narashtivik and got up and did it. Then, when we were occupying your city, someone else marched on it too. At that point, how eager would you be to fight by our side? What if we can convince the Drakebane to step down and restore sovereignty to the crown? Corson snorted. Try that, and you might as well slit your own throats. Prince Swain is foaming for vengeance. If he's installed over the Drakebane, he'll turn on you. Kill the lot of you. Shit, Blaze said. Did the Drakebane honestly think he could stab the king with his left hand and shake the hand of the prince with his right? What is in the waters of the swamp to make them so delusional? Dragons, man-eating fish, and hordes of the undead, Blaze said. So you can see why they're all a little batty. 
Gladigan inclined his head. Those who planned the takeover of Malin did so as a last-ditch effort to survive the return of the White Lich. It did not matter how slight the odds were, or the new challenges they would face instead. It would still be better than what they would face if they remained in Tanaratain. Corson rubbed his mouth. Is this lich really as fearsome as you make him out? No, he is even worse. Perhaps the worst thing that has ever been. I'll do my best, Cladic. I'll keep you up on the hammer's moves and seek a way toward a truce. But I now fear for us all. Corson stood, straightening his grey robe. Now, if you'll excuse me, my peril awaits. They got him inside the barrel and downstairs to the wagon. Gladick left to make a report to the Drakebanes. Dante inquired among the palace staff and was brought two fishermen's hats, wide-brimmed and floppy. The dried scales and smells adhering to them proved they'd seen use in the past. He gave one to Blaze. They disguised themselves in commoners' clothes and headed out into the street, making toward the river. There was some traffic about but in the reversal of all that was natural, a state that had become very common since the appearance of the Lich, the city's nights were now more busy than its days. The fishing hat covered most of Dante's face, and he'd scrubbed some dirt on to further disguise his features, but he still felt conscious of every stare directed at him from the windows. Yet they reached the banks of the chancet without being stabbed, bludgeoned, or ensorcelled. It was a clear day, and the sun warmed the banks, lifting the smell of mud and clams and fresh water drying on mossy rocks. Dante crouched and reached down into the water. It was cold enough to only feel good on hot summer days. According to Corson, Blay said, the entire city's hanging by a thread, and the Golden Hammer is looking for any opportunity to snip it. Dante drew the nether from the unseen places beneath the rocks, blackening the water around his hand as if with ink. So what? So, if you go and dam up their river, thus flooding their city, or making their source of water disappear entirely, the locals might get the ridiculous idea that you're here to harm them. I'm not going to shut it off right here and now. I'm just going to map it out to figure out what to do with it. Ah! Blaze picked up a round, flat stone and flipped it into the air. He caught it on the fly and sent it skipping across the current. If you're not even doing anything, then what am I doing here? Watching my back. City dangling by a thread and all that. You could have warned me the idea was that I'd sit around while you go for a splash. I would have packed rum. Dante sent the nether coursing out into the river, following the contours of its bed. Close to the shore, it was a jumble of boulders, patches of pebbles, and flats of loose, thick silt, fostering thickets of slimy, undulating weeds. It remained relatively shallow at first, but once he got thirty feet from shore, the bottom fell away starkly, plunging to twenty feet deep, then forty. From there, the decline grew more gradual, yet it continued to fall. Dante remained quite safely on shore, yet the sensation of all that water passing above his consciousness sent a chill down his spine. 
and he had to fight the urge to turn and walk quickly away. There was rubble and litter down there, too, old barrels and twists of metal, the decaying remnants of small boats, while on the surface intact ships glided by in perfect ignorance, unaware of the things lost below in the mud and the dark. On an existential level, it was horrifying. On the level of his more immediate aims, however, it simply provoked a feeling of defeat. The river was nearly a mile wide and ran deeper than a hundred feet. There was no simple way to dam or redirect that much water without running the risk of flooding the city. Covering it over with rock wouldn't work either. The blighted could still march in through the opening to the sea. If they were accompanied by a single lesser lich, who would have no need of air at all, he could lead them to whatever spot in the rock covering he liked, then blast a hole through it and let his horde overrun the city. A physical barrier was out then. But that didn't mean they had to be taken by surprise. Dante brought his mind back toward shore, moving into the nether within the water and following it toward the nearest life. Locating a school of fish, he deftly slew three of them, reanimating them with strings of shadows. The others rushed away in ichthyotic panic. He instructed his three fish to swim downstream, parallel to shore. They moved so cleanly, it was almost as though the water was parting for them. Dante ordered them to swim as fast as they could. They shot downstream at the speed of a galloping horse. They couldn't keep such speeds up for long, but even their casual swimming pace was much, much faster than the blighted could walk along the bottom. They could probably patrol the river from one side to the other with as few as twenty fish. That could be handled by a single sorcerer, and not even a very good one. Feeling better, Dante turned the fish about to swim upstream and test their speed against the current. This slowed them, obviously particularly their trotting speed. But they swam past the rocks and weeds with the grace of birds in the air, or, well, fish in the water. Ahead, something white shifted in a copse of dark green weeds. Dante sent the closest fish in for a better look. A body rested in the waving fronds. Its wiry limbs were as pale as milk. Dante's experience with corpses was deep and varied enough to know the water had a way of bleaching them, but this one had none of the blotching or mottling that came along with that. He sent the fish in closer. The fish's dead brain noted that the body's smell tasted funny, more like bones than rot flesh. Dante was standing in the shallows, and his toes had gone half numb, but the chill had nothing to do with his shiver. Step back from the water. Blaze frowned. Why, is it about to get mysteriously warm? Because for all my skill, I still don't have the ability to regrow lost feet. Blaze grunted and backed up through the clattering pebbles until he stood in two inches of water. Dante forged a spike of nether, dipped it under the surface, and jammed it into the corpse's forehead. The man's eyes flew open. They were almost as red as the blood that sprayed from his wound. He thrashed spasmodically, reaching for the surface, and died. The body had jerked its way loose of the weeds, and was now floating downstream a short way below the surface. 
Dante extended a limb of rock from an underwater boulder, grabbed the body by its ankle, and towed it into shore. Son of a bitch, Blay said. That's a blighted. He swiveled his head, taking in the river. Are we about to be invaded? We'll know in a second. Dante sent his three fish downstream at full swim. They reached out into the water, slaying a small school of them and dispatching them in all directions. The sun twinkled on the calm surface of the river, but Dante's heart roared like a waterfall. Several minutes passed. At last, he took a deep breath. I only see a handful of them in the river. There's no sign of an army marching through the sea either. I don't think an invasion's here yet. I think the lich is just using them to spy on us. Implying that he's about to invade us. So why do you sound so happy? Because he just handed us the means to spy on him. The first thing I need to do is purge the river. Then you and I are headed back to Tanara Tain. Eight. There was no light beyond what was grudgingly shed by the stars, and the horizon was as black as the waters beneath them. But after four days at sea, Dante could sense they'd come back to the swamp by the smell alone. Blaze wrinkled his nose, catching the same wind. Why did we ever think it was a good idea to step foot in a place that smells like they wear fish for shoes? I recall getting used to it, eventually. I'm starting to suspect the White Lich was just a massive conspiracy cooked up by Drake Bane Yoko to give him a reasonable excuse to relocate to somebody else's country instead. With the swamps at hand, Dante went to confer with the captain. The ship, a small but swift Tenarian sloop, loaned to them by the Drake Bane, heaved about, angling toward shore. It had been five days since they'd found the blighted hiding in the waters of the Chancet. They'd left Gladick in Bressel to handle any developments with the Golden Hammer. Corson had been working on the sly to identify a block of priests who would form a united front with the Tenarians on two conditions. First, that the threat of the Lich was real, and second, upon any victory against the Lich, the Drake Bane would remove all his people from Bressel, never to return. So far, Corson had gotten less than a quarter of the clergy to come around to this position, but it was still progress of a sort, and at least things hadn't gotten obviously worse. Nack, meanwhile, had been scouting locations for the force from Narashtivik to make camp in, and was less than two days out from doing so. All in all, it was a period of quiet, which had allowed Dante to spend most of the voyage studying the book of what lies beyond the land of Calavine. The latest read-through invoked no earth-shattering revelations, but he did manage to make some new notes on the Spear of Stars, along with all the references he could scrape together as to where the realm of nine kings lay in relation to Calavine. It was Dante's hope that, if they were able to travel into the mists and speak to Yoto's deceased sorcerer, even if the man didn't know how to forge a new spear, Dante would be able to combine the man's knowledge of Calavine with the geography in the book, allowing them to find their way to the realm and win the weapon as Sable had. 
The sloop edged nearer to the coast. In time, Dante could make out the ragged cacophony of the forest that grew from nearly every square inch of swamp. He had several fish scouts swimming through the water near the ship, and he sent four in toward the brackish beaches. They didn't see any blighted hiding in the waters, but then again it was so dark the white lich could be throwing an underwater Fallmax Day parade, and Dante would never have noticed. It was nearly three in the morning when a sailor rousted Dante from his hammock below decks. The ship had anchored in a small cove a few miles north of the city of Arisosis. Dante explored the vicinity with some fish and bugs to ensure they were alone, then moved to the large chest at the stern. He'd assured the sailors it was perfectly harmless, but they'd made him chain it shut anyway. He removed the absurdly large padlocks and opened the lid. Inside, six reanimated blighted lay still, eyes open, awaiting his command. Dante ordered three of them to climb out onto the deck. The sailors stepped back, uttering oaths and words of protection. Dante gave the three blighted a silent order to walk off the side of the boat. They stared at him a moment, their red eyes almost black in the darkness then dropped over the railing, landing with a limp splash. He directed two on to land and the other one to ten-foot-deep waters, where it turned to walk parallel to the shore, sticking beneath the surface, lightly buffeted by currents and waves. The three undead obeyed his commands, but there was something off about them, as if a part of their blightedness remained conscious. As they made their way toward Arisosis, he kept a close watch on his bonds to them. The two traveling overland made good time, scrambling across the small islands that made up the territory of Tanaritain and swimming through the copious lanes of water separating them. The one slogging through the sea was significantly slower, but part of the purpose of sending it that way was to learn how fast they could march underwater and to patrol for any legions of lich-controlled blighted that might be doing so at that very moment. Before, it had been common to see canoes and boats plying the waterways, even at night, especially close to major settlements like Arisosis. But over the course of their journey, the two landward blighted didn't see a single crude ship of any kind. The boats they did see had been abandoned on the shores of the islands, or were half-sunk and jutting from the surface, slowly succumbing to the water's rot. There were no camp or cook fires, nor lights of any kind. The few huts the blighted saw looked abandoned, and the only people they saw along the way were dead, little but picked clean bones and hairy scalps wrapped in the sodden remains of their jabots. The insects and rodents, stirred by the blighted's passage, hurried away as quick as they could. The forest gave way, opening to a vast clearing. Across a stretch of shallow water, countless towers rose from behind a city wall. They've reached Arisosis, Dante murmured. The sky grayed with the approach of dawn. The two blighted crossed through the waters, if there were any Ziki Oko present, they had no interest in the undead. Like the swamps, 
The city was free of smoke, and the only sounds were the birds, crickets, and frogs. The blighted came to the city wall, moving along it until they came to a gate, which hung wide open. Once, Arisosis had been the only port into Tenaritain, and its canals had thronged with commerce. People had strolled back and forth over its many bridges and lunched on the terraces of its towers. The canals and bridges were now empty. The docks were desolate. There weren't even any boats moored at them. They'd all been used to evacuate the citizens during the battle. The towers and bridges that had been knocked down in the fighting remained where they'd fallen. The Lich's only interest in the city had been to convert its people into blighted. Once he'd gotten that, he'd left it behind like the rind of a scooped-out fruit. As the third undead continued to tromp across the ocean bed, Dante ordered the two blighted in the city to search for any sign of the Lich. The morning brightened. The sun broke free of the treetops making the canals glimmer pink and orange. Crossing a bridge, both blighted stopped and lifted their noses. They changed course, loping toward a squat tower of plain gray stone. This, along with the wide bridge leading to the island, suggested it had once served as a warehouse. Normally, Dante's reanimated subjects expressed little to no desires at all, likely on account of the fact that they were dead but the tingle he felt through his bond to the blighted felt distinctly like the anticipation that something paining them was about to be brought to an end. Hoping they were about to be reunited with their kin, Dante allowed them to run toward the tower. They beat and pried at the doors until they flew open. The only thing that could have rushed in faster than the blighted was the sunlight, it illuminated a sprawl of bones, higher than a man. The two blighted dashed toward them, skidding over the remains, dropping to their knees to chew on fleshless ribs and tarsels. Dante swore, retreating from their vision to rub his eyes. We might be screwed. What's the matter? Blay said. Did we get our countries we'd recently spurred a war in mixed up? I was really, really hoping to find the Lich here, or at least some evidence to point us in his direction. But I'm not seeing anything. After this, we can try abode, but there's no guarantee he'll be there either. Which means searching the whole swamp. Right. The swamp full of fish, dragons, and dead people that want to eat us. Also right. Well... I'd like to express a profound no to that. There's nothing at all in the city. There's not even any blighted. It looks like the place hasn't been touched since the battle. My blighted got so bored, they're currently gnawing on a bunch of old bones. Blaze tapped the rail, then looked up. Human bones? Yes. I'm going to go out on a limb and assume they're the ones left over from that time the Lich killed everyone here. So, they were once attached to the flesh of the people who used to have these bones inside them? That's the general nature of skeletons. So if that flesh had been eaten by something, like 
Oh, say, a slavering pack of blighted, you might be able to track the bones to the meat. Extremely unlikely, Dante said. It would have been digested, absorbed, and incorporated into the body of the eater, destroying their previous connection. He shifted his sight to the two blighted, who were still gnawing with muted anger on the bones. Except the blighted aren't really alive, are they? They might not even be able to digest things. This is worth a shot. Sounds like you and I are headed to Arisosis. I immediately regret this suggestion. The Tenarians lowered a canoe into the water. The men selected as paddlers didn't look happy to be going with them. They paddled from the cove into the swamps and made way for Arisosis. Dante scouted ahead with his insects and fish, but by the time they arrived in the watery clearing surrounding the city, he hadn't seen anything unusual, discounting, of course, the freakish species of fish and crustaceans that were found everywhere in Tanaritain. They paddled through the gate in the wall. Dante directed them toward the island hosting the squat tower. Passing through the depeopled city, the Tenarians kept a stoic demeanor, but their eyes never stopped roving. They put in on the grassy banks of the island. Blaze climbed out and turned in a circle, taking in the empty surroundings. What if they've already left to go slaughter some other country? I almost hope they have. Dante stepped out beside him. That would give us time to search for the Spear of Stars. If the gods were to stop hating us for a second, we might even be able to resolve the situation in Bressel. He directed his two blighted to exit the tower and keep watch. As he and Blaze passed them and headed for the tower doors, the two undead watched them with what seemed to be jealousy. Blaze stopped inside the entrance and whistled. Now that's a lot of bones. Picture a hundred of these piles, all stacked next to each other, and you'll have the measure of what's been done here. I can't imagine it's pleasant to have your mind. Dante kneeled and picked up a femur, figuring it would have the most marrow, and hence the strongest connection to what else, if anything, was left of the body. He quieted his mind and reached into the shadows inside the bone. There weren't many there, at least not of the lively variety he was looking for, but the body had only been dead for a few weeks, and several signals sprung up. Most of them were thudded in his mind like they were right next to him, which they were. The bone was linked to all the others in the room that it had once shared a body with. Dante walked outside, to the north end of the island, putting the tower to his south. Of all the signals competing for his attention, only one now pointed in a different direction. It was quite faint, but it pointed northeast, inland. I've got something, he said. I never thought we'd be looking for a map to the rancid gut of a blighted. It's possible someone carried off a piece of this skeleton for some reason. Let's try it a few more times first. He returned inside and took three skulls, ensuring they'd all be from different bodies. He touched the nether within the bones and walked back to the point of the island. 
They're pointing in the same direction as the first one. I'm betting they'll lead us right to the Lich's army of blighted. Blaze rested his hand on his stomach. Either that, or the world's most gluttonous swamp dragon. We're really going to do this? Spy on the enemy we spent days traveling here to spy on? It had crossed my mind. Travel out into the swamps? By ourselves, and try to sneak around a guy so powerful he knows whenever an ant stubs its toe. We won't get anywhere near him. My blighted will take care of that part. As long as they're not running around right in front of his face, I don't think he'll notice there's anything different about them. Dante returned inside the tower to swap out the skulls for smaller bones he could carry in his pocket. Whatever they were pointing to was many miles inland. Facing the prospect of a days-long journey, they returned to the sloop for provisions and to make arrangements with the captain. The captain asked for volunteers to go with them. When no one offered, he drew lots. The three men chosen said their goodbyes like they never expected to return. They got in the canoe and traveled northeast. Dante was starting to think there wasn't a single human left alive in the swamps, and that if so, being seen by any of the blighted would tip the lich off to the presence of intruders. He thus had to spend nearly all of his time and focus managing a small army of reanimated scouts both below and above the water. Despite this effort, as they passed beneath the willows and pale little flowers shed their petals into the stagnant water, with the steady swish of the paddles and the whir of the frogs, he couldn't stop himself from remembering how Volo had guided them in the early days after their arrival, when their biggest concerns had been the freeing of Naren and the bringing of Gladic to justice. Was she still at the silent spires, still locked in the strange and catatonic state that had befallen her? He wondered, too, about Bel Ara and how safe they truly were. For as much protection as the hell-painted hills provided, if the Aid and Rane had the strength to conquer the full swath of the swamp— it was only a matter of time until he came for the hills, too. That afternoon, he spotted a group of blighted traveling in the direction of the coast, the first they'd seen since entering the enemy's lands. They detoured around with little loss of time. The day was muggy and long, and though it was too dangerous to travel by night, Dante was still glad when darkness fell. They encamped on an island setting up a watch. There were no disturbances in the night. They resumed travel at dawn, avoiding another group of blighted just a few minutes later. The pressure in Dante's head had increased noticeably since striking out from Arisosis. Whatever they were heading toward seemed to be staying in the same spot, which was probably good unless it turned out to be another pile of bones in an empty city, assembled for reasons only the soulless blighted could understand they saw three more small groups of undead on the day. It didn't seem like much, as though the Lich was unconcerned about any intrusions other than a full-fledged army. They woke on the third day to a bank of low clouds that soon began a quiet, steady rain. This hampered Dante's insects and cut overall visibility, requiring them to slow their passage to walking speed. 
thunder rumbled broodingly. The pressure in Dante's forehead grew acute. As they closed on their target, he pulled back his long-range scouts and sent forth his blighted instead. They seemed intrigued, eager, their eyes unblinking against the fall of the rain. The crew paddled on as the undead ranged ahead. The pulse in Dante's skull became insistent. Ahead of the foremost blighted, the undergrowth thinned as the trees loomed taller, strangling everything beneath them. Through the haze of the rain, a white wall stretched across the swamp. Found something, Dante said. I don't think we want to get any closer just yet. The Tenarians brought the canoe into the banks of an island. Dante had a pair of blighted creep closer to the wall. It looked to be fifteen feet high, and even from a distance it was clearly built of grimstone, the bone-like rock he had previously only seen in the deep swamp and the wound of the world itself. More unusually yet, the ground in front of it was actual ground, which was to say solid earth. It stretched at least a quarter mile in either direction before disappearing into the forest and rain. Dante described it to the three Tenarians. What is this place? Giza, the oldest of the three sailors, shook his head. Don't know. What do you mean you don't know? There's a serious wall here, along with more dry ground than I've seen anywhere in Tenaritain outside of the wound, and you've never heard of it. Giza insisted it was true. So did the two others. Annoyed, Dante sent one of his dragonflies ahead, soaring hundreds of feet in the air, where he thought it would be beyond the lich's reach. It flitted in and out of the misty underbelly of the low-slung clouds. From above, Dante could see that the wall wasn't a straight line, but a circle roughly three miles across. The ground within wasn't wholly solid, after all. A wide canal split the macabre city in two. Grimstone buildings filled the space within the walls. And in the street... Thousands and thousands of pale figures stood motionless despite the pouring rain. This is it. Although they were miles away, Dante felt the urge to keep his voice low. It's a city, and it's filled with tens of thousands of blighted. Giza bent his thin black eyebrows. Can't be. There's no city in this part of the swamps. Correction. There wasn't a city here, until the white lich built one. The Tenarian licked his lips. All in the last few weeks? How'd he do that? Likely by virtue of the fact he's the white lich. A lich with tens of thousands of happy slaves, Blaze said. Dante nodded. There's something more. Here's what the city looks like from above. He got out his quill and made a quick sketch. Remind you of anything? Uh, Blaze leaned over the drawing. That's your map of Bristol. Not quite. It's a lot smaller. Everything's condensed, but overall, yes. There's the walls, there's the chancet, there's the palace. Why would the lich build his own Bristol in the middle of nowhere? Is he jealous of our great works? Practice. 
for the invasion of the real Bressel. He's fought battles in Tenarian cities, but he's never fought one on dry land. I'm not surprised he'd want to test conditions before committing himself. Blaze batted at a fly that had decided to join them beneath the cover of the tree. I suppose that answers the question of whether he's coming for Malin next. Does that mean we're free to get the hell out of here? Almost. I want to take a closer look at the city, and to see if my blighted can walk among the others without notice. If they can, they'll make perfect spies. And what happens if it turns out they can't? I'll drop my connection to them at the first sign of suspicion. Then, just to be on the safe side, we'll also do the running like hell. Blaze gazed into the rain. You're sure this is worth it? Think about what it would mean if the Lich can't tell my blighted from his. We could infiltrate the enemy. We might even be able to find the prime body and put a knife in its ancient heart. Saving thousands of lives, if not the world. Let's do this. Blaze motioned to the Tenarians. But you guys make sure to stretch out your paddling arms in the meantime. Dante drew the dragonfly away from the city and cut his link to it, letting it tumble down into the forest. Having removed all other traces of himself from the area, he sent two blighted forward across the patchy ground before the walls, their bare feet splashing through the rain. As they neared the open gates, four ghostly heads poked up from the wall and stared down at them. Heat crept up Dante's neck as he was filled with the sudden conviction he was making a mistake. The enemy blighted stared unmovingly, water dripping from their bare heads. As Dante's two proxies slouched through the gate, the blighted sank back behind the wall. The pair of false blighted now stood in a small plaza that was uncannily similar to Marnie Square inside one of Bressel's eastern gates. Except, of course, that there were no merchant stalls, and the row houses were made of something halfway between bone and rock, and all of the people were partly or wholly naked, as white as the grimstone and as furious as the winter seas north of Narashtavik. Dante instructed the blighted to cross the square. They did so. The only glances they drew were brief and disinterested. No alarms were going off, no masses of blighted were rushing in to rend the interlopers apart with their bare hands. A very good sign. If the other blighted couldn't recognize the difference, there was little chance the lich would pick up on it without good reason. He now had something like fifty thousand blighted answering to him. No matter how vast his powers, he couldn't keep close track of more than a small fraction at once. The two undead continued through a winding street, coming to another small square where teams of blighted were building a line of stone houses, or perhaps rebuilding them after a mock battle. Looking more closely, several of the buildings showed slight mismatches in coloration, as if they'd been damaged and restored. The blighted came to the mimicry of Royal Boulevard. In Bressel, this was a pleasant, tree-lined lane that ran straight to the gates of the palace. But here, the trees were hasty growths of grimstone, like grotesque cancers spurting from the flesh of the earth. A pale imitation of the palace waited down the road. What if he could infiltrate it, sneak through its walls, 
find the prime body and throttle its half-mummified throat. Or, to be slightly less bold, just integrate his blighted with the ones in the city to participate in the next mock attack, thus learning the Lich's strategy for the coming war. Yet, even as he had this thought, the distance between his blighted and the palace seemed to shrink. Lightning flashed across the sky, followed by the roar of thunder as if the heavens were warning him against hubris. He instructed the blighted to turn about and head back toward the city walls. A presence swooped forward like an eagle whose wings were the sky. It grabbed hold of the hidden tether between Dante and the two blighted and clutched it in iron talons. Little sorcerer. Though the voice was only in his mind, its coppery ring was exactly as it would have sounded if the white lich had been standing right in front of him. Have you returned to beg me to take you back into my service? The lich's mind shot like an arrow along the connection between Dante and the Blighted. 9. Dante uttered a stupid gasp and grabbed at the nether, hacking crudely at the cord of awareness tying him to the Blighted. His shadow struck the cord and bounced away without so much as denting it. He gathered himself, honing the nether into a blade sharp enough to cut itself, and sliced again, this time with the care of a surgeon operating upon the king. The connection held fast. The lich sensed me, Dante said. In another moment, you'll know exactly where I am. We have to move. The Tenerian sailors went rigid and wide-eyed, then took up their paddles and thrust madly at the water. They pulled away from the island they'd berthed at and flew southward, sending birds cawing away from the lower branches. Dante drew his knife and pricked his arm. He summoned the shadows from the silt and the bones resting within it, and came down on the bond to the blighted like tame crushing an invader with his maul. The cord shivered, but didn't so much as crack. The presence of the lich shot along it, as bright as the lightning around them as cold as the peaks of the Wodens. Damn it, Dante said. He's following me through the tide of the Blighted. Blaze twisted to look behind him. So cut them loose. Can't. He's protecting the connection. Then it looks like our only option is to cut you loose. Dante couldn't cut the bond to the Blighted, but he could still make use of it. He ordered them to turn on each other and rip themselves to pieces. In the ghastly, grimstone recreation of the Royal Boulevard, the two undead bared their teeth and leapt on each other, biting and clawing. Scraps of white flesh slapped to the ground, watery blood leaking from the copious wounds. They fell to the ground, grappling for each other's throats. Claws sank into flesh. At once, both undead stopped moving, not because they'd slain each other, but because the white lich, striding down the boulevard toward them, froze them in place with a storm of ether. He stood over them in victory. A bolt of lightning reflected from the ever-changing blues of his eyes and the pale angles of his beardless, ancient face. He seemed even taller than before, at least twelve feet, with the build of an arctic bear. A cunning effort, little sorcerer the lich projected into Dante's mind. But as with all you have tried, 
and we'll try next. It wasn't enough. The blighted fight had distracted the aide and Rane for a few moments, but the enemy lunged forward once more along the nethereal cord, crashing up against Dante. The lich chuckled. He picked one of the paralyzed blighted, tucked it under his arm, and ran south in long bounds. Scores of blighted ran after him through the rain. He knows where we are, Dante said. He's coming for us. We're dead men. Giza's voice was as flat as the water. We're all dead. Shut up and paddle. I'll find up. His body jerked as the lich moved past the ethereal bond and into Dante's mind. It felt as though the enemy was quite literally digging his fingers into Dante's skull and prying it open. Dante did some more gasping and writhing, sweat breaking out across his entire body. The lich rooted through his thoughts like Blaze would root through an enemy lord's wine cellar. Memories flipped past like shuffled cards, paddling into the ghastly city, sailing to the Tonarian coast, finding the blighted within the chancet. A new image flashed across Dante's vision, an illustration from the book of what lies beyond, with Sable lifting the shining spear of stars against the vampire of light. The rooting and shuffling stopped. Dante could feel the white lich drawing back in contemplation. He seized the chance to hit again with the ties between himself and the blighted, but the lich brushed away his efforts as easily as a man at work in the field would brush off a gnat that had stuck to the sweat of his arm. More rooting. So fast Dante's mind blurred with it. The lich laughed his ringing laugh. Please go and search for your spear. I will happily claim all the world while you are gone, and laugh when you return with hands as empty as the mouths of the starving. Things like you have been destroyed before, Dante thought. I will find the way to do so again. I have let you witness the perfection of the world I will create. No more war nor strife. Only the harmony of a united people. Why stand against what must come? You have already taken all of Tanaritain. You could build your perfect empire there. Your drive to take everything and turn it into some grey hole is why I will kill you. The lich said nothing more, resuming his search. This time he honed in on everything related to Bressel, especially how they intended to defend it. Dante's eyelids fluttered, his sight swimming with silver specks that soon faded to nothing. He jerked up his head. Blaze, make me some stream. What, right now? It's not going to do me much good when I'm dead. Right. Blaze closed his eyes. Well, I can't go when you're looking at me. Dante grimaced in pain and turned away. The lich sifted through conversations with the Drakebane and Gladick, their struggles with the Golden Hammer. Dante tried to pull away, but he was as helpless as when the Lich had bent him to servitude. But the bond the Lich had opened between them ran both ways, and Dante had known the Lich's mind before. Rather than resisting, he dived forward into the head of the Aiden Rane, grabbing up all he could. There, Blaise said. Dante swung his head around, 
The motion dizzied him so badly he collapsed against the gunwale of the canoe. Between him and Blaze, a scatter of golden motes hung in the air like the silver ones he'd seen in his days a minute before. Dante grabbed at them before they could fade, melding them into a small chain. He focused his mind like its contents were a yard of fallen leaves, then raked them together and blew everything he could across the bond between himself and the lich. Thoughts, memories, visions, the older the better, a complete snowstorm of mental clutter. He had heard tales from sailors about how octopuses, when troubled, would eject a great cloud of ink into the water, overwhelming and confounding whatever was chasing them. With the flood of thought, he hoped to do the same thing. He took up the chain of stream. Instead of turning it against the lich, who was much too far away, or the connection to the blighted, Dante turned it on himself. The nether around him went as still as the solid ground of the islands they were passing by in the canoe. At the same time, all his active links to it went dead, including his links to the blighted. The mind of the lich withdrew from his own like an arrow from a wound, or like a cyst being popped. Dante sagged against the canoe, breathing hard and drenched in sweat. I killed the connection, he panted. The lich knows where we were, but he can't tell where we're going. Giza turned, gazing blankly. What my friend is trying to say, Blaze said gently, is you should change course right fucking now. Giza started, then grunted a command to his men, who swung the boat ninety degrees to starboard. After a few minutes of all-out paddling, they made a smaller adjustment in the same direction. They were now headed west-northwest, and were actually slightly decreasing the distance between themselves and the Grimstone City. If the Lich followed their original course, he'd wind up miles in the wrong direction, but Dante had no way to tell. After what he'd been through, he wasn't about to put any more spies into the air or the water. All they could do was pray and wait. By nightfall, they still weren't dead. They traveled on despite the dark, paddling and sleeping in shifts. Dante drew on the nether to ease the weariness from their muscles. Between that and their even more potent fear of being found by the lich, they were still traveling onward, now mostly south toward the coast as dawn dyed the clouds pink. That afternoon, a full day since fleeing the artificial city, they came to the coast. They found the sloop, climbed aboard, and collapsed into their hammocks. The Tenarians wanted to get away from their homeland as fast as they could sail, but Dante woke and made them stop as they came to the hell-painted hills. He got back in the canoe with Blaze and two clearly uncomfortable sailors. Once they'd drawn near enough, Dante sent a pair of dragonflies into the Black Hills. Heat backed from the naked rock, making the red and orange streaks waver like actual fire. After crossing miles of wasteland, the dragons came to the oasis of green and the heights of the silent spires. Passing into the influence of the Odosein, the undead insects reverted to simply being dead, 
tumbling down into the grass below, and, with any luck, delivering the rolled-up message Dante had tied to them. This done, they left the swamps and struck out to sea. With twelve days having elapsed from the moment Dante had decided to make the voyage to Tenardetain, the port of Bressel congealed from the seaside haze. Dante eyed the outskirts with interest, then with a deepening scowl. Do you notice anything about the city? The Golden Hammer hasn't burned the place down in our absence, Blay said. If you're that upset about it, you could always cause an earthquake or something. The Tenarians were supposed to be fortifying the outskirts against the attack. All I see is a couple of ramparts and a single string of pickets. I see. Good thing we've kept our arms strong with all that paddling. I sense the need to dispense many whippings. They docked, taking the carriage that awaited them and making straight for the palace. Drakebane Yoto had been informed of their approach and had prepared the hall in the tower. Dante cleaned off the worst grime of their travels, then convened with the others in the hall. We survived, he said. Other than that, nearly all of our news is bad. Yoto grimaced. Spare us no details. As we'd suspected, the Lich has taken all of Tanaritain. He's amassed an army of tens of thousands of blighted, with some number of lesser liches for support. He has also constructed a model of Bressel to practice assaulting a foreign city. One would assume the point is to practice assaulting the specific foreign city of Bressel. One would assume. Then, when I was testing how well I could infiltrate them with the Blighted, the Lich sensed my presence. He used my link to the undead to access my mind. Doing so, he learned how we intend to defend ourselves— along with the potential numbers we can field against him. Gladick chuckled. You travel to Tanaritain to glean the Aedenrani's plans, only to deliver ours to him instead? Rub it in, why don't you? Dante said. As it turns out, that's the sort of thing that happens when you're working against the most powerful sorcerer in the world. Unfortunately for him, the link he opened between us ran both ways. Gladick laughed again, this time with some actual mirth. Tell me you fished the Lich's plans from his head. He means to march soon, before summer's end, if he can. He'll bring the Blighted through the ocean, and unless ill conditions force them from the water, they'll march straight up the mouth of the Chancet to flood into the city, bypassing our defenses and throwing the citizens into terror. If we attack aggressively, he'll swarm us with blighted and batter us with sorcery. If we choose to retreat to fortifications, he'll target the citizenry, blighting them and turning our own people against us. That sounds... Yoto tapped his fingers on the table. Effective. Unless we do something about the river. That would force them to attack through conventional tactics— i.e. across solid ground. That means we need a hell of a lot of walls. So my question to you is, where the hell are our walls? The emperor lifted an eyebrow, perhaps not used to being addressed so bluntly. As a swamp-bound Tenarian, he had no experience with discussions with foreign rulers who could speak to him as a peer. 
I ordered my men to the outskirts to begin the fortifications the very day you left, Yota said measuredly. Maybe you can guess what happened next. Blaze tapped his chin. They didn't do their jobs, so you locked them in stockades and pelted them with fruit? The mob arrived. They harassed my men all day, minimizing the amount of work they could complete. And when the laborers retired for the evening, the mob ripped everything down. This mob? Did you try beating them? He can't, Dante said. Not without turning the city against us. Yoto nodded. I found myself in a bind. I could either put down the mob by force and so tear the city apart, or I could forsake the fortifications and let the city be torn apart by the Aedan Rane. I can raise ramparts. Those will be a lot harder to dismantle than the palisades. Will they be enough to stop the army? That depends on how much I get done in addition to closing off the river. Drake Bane stood, pacing over to the window. What if your barriers work well enough to repel them, and the lich decides to siege us out instead? Dante shrugged. Then I'd say we're doing pretty well. You don't understand. When we set forth from Tanaratain, we could only bring so much food with us. We have already gone through most of our supplies. I've assigned many of my men to fish and others to forage, but to weather a siege, I would need to enact a tax. Which would then require you to weather a rebellion. Dante pinched the bridge of his nose. I can grow food, whole fields of it. I've done so before, but this would further limit the work you can put toward the fortifications meaning there won't be enough in the way of the Blighted, who will save us from starvation by killing us all within hours of their arrival. Silence overtook the table, as stifling as the still humidity of a summer thunderstorm. Blaze took a silver coin from his pocket, flicked it into the air, and caught it. With the city locked down like this, the mob isn't exactly up to business as normal. Has it occurred to any of you that they might be getting hungry, too? You want to give them food, Dante said. That would be my first suggestion. If that fails, you can massacre them and raise them into a zombie army to stand against the one the White Lich is bringing. That would stop the Lich from being able to turn them into Blighted, too. Blaze's mouth fell open. Don't tell me you're actually considering it. Of course not, Dante said. I could never control that many zombies at once. Hungry men are angry men, Gladick said, but they are not so much more complicated than dogs. Fill their bellies with bread and see if they stay so unruly. Dante leaned back in his chair. Am I mistaken, or do we have a real plan? Get me some wheat, and I'll start growing more at once. I can have the first batch ready for harvest in minutes. That means you can fire up the palace kitchens and start cranking out bread. We'll bring it with us to the fortifications tomorrow and see if it's enough to convince the citizens to let your men get to work. The Drakebane ordered soldiers to the palace granary to gather a few sacks of wheat. Within minutes, Dante sat in a cart, dressed in a brown robe of no particular significance, and rattled toward one of the northern gates. 
The streets held much less traffic than normal, but they looked grungier. They exited the gates, passing through the slums just outside them, and then the small farms beyond that. The cart turned down a dirt trail and delivered Dante to an open field. He hopped down. Birds chirped from the trees at one end of the field. One of the porters brought down a sack of wheat, which Dante sliced open. With the help of the porters and some handcarts, they walked up and down the field, casting grain onto the weed-spotted soil. Once everything was thoroughly, if sloppily sown, Dante moved near the center of the field, gave his arm a nick, and brought the nether up from the soil and the spindly dead roots permeating it. He sloshed the shadows across the ground like water from a bucket. The seeds began to wriggle. A few extended pale tendrils into the dirt. It had been some time since Dante had used his harvesting skills in a large-scale manner, and being relatively recently acquired, he found that he was rustier than expected. He shrank his focus to a small patch of seeds, slowly feeding them nether. They put down roads, then sprouted, making a quiet rippling noise as they grew upward, protruding thin leaves and then spikes that flourished into a seedy head. The next section of the field was a little easier, and the one after that was easier yet. Within ten minutes, Dante had remembered his skills to the point where he could walk slowly among the ragged rows, uplifting new wheat as he went. It wasn't long before the entire plot, once bare, boasted a wavering spread of golden-yellow stalks. Lyle's balls, that's a full field. The porter took off his cap and rubbed the bald spot on his crown. Should have brought more men. It's ready to harvest as soon as they can get here, Dante said. Just save me enough seeds to make the next crop. He returned to the palace and inquired after Gladick, finding him in one of the king's studies where he was engaged in battle with a legion of books. There's something I forgot to mention earlier, Dante said. When I entered the lich's mind, I saw something else. It was like an hourglass, but it was made of light. And it was enormous, stretching from the ground up into the clouds. It was twisted near the middle, too, like someone had grabbed it at each end and given it a quarter turn. Gladick set down his book, but didn't close it. What about it? Do you know what it means? Are you truly this ignorant? Just wait until you see the list of all the other things I don't know. Within our theology, it is known as the Mirror Bridge, and it is a symbol of the saying, As above, so below. The idea that the order of the world is influenced by, or as some argue, determined by the order of the heavens. Why would the White Lich be dwelling on this? You are the one that saw his mind. Do you expect me to be able to read yours? They spoke a while longer, yet nothing Gladick told him shed any light on what Dante had seen. Dante left the study and, feeling piqued, summons Sorowan and Rorschach to his quarters. They arrived together. Rorschach looked appraising while Sorowan appeared tucked in and apprehensive. I have a new task for you, Dante said. 
I need you to return to Narashtavik and get the bone sword. Rosha's head swayed back. What about our deal? I've just renegotiated it. Are you sending us away because we screwed up with a Dane? Do you think we're a liability? You've been cooped up ever since your fight with him. Your cover's blown. I can't use you as my spies anymore. Dante gazed between them. Or maybe that's just a story I'm telling you, and this is a test of your loyalty to me. Or maybe I just want my sword back that you stole from me so I can use it to cut the stupid lich in half. Sorrowan nodded, eyes downcast. But, well, what about when the lich comes? We could help you fight him. This is how you can help most. Now do as I say, and try to get back here with it before we're all dead. Sorrowan reddened for no obvious reason, bowed, and left. Rorschach looked like she might say something, then turned and followed him out. That night, Dante dreamed of baking bread. When he woke in the morning, he discovered the entire palace smelled like fresh loaves. He hurried through his morning routine to get to the serving hall, where impatient lords could take their fare, and found that Blaze was already there, tearing up a steaming hunk of bread and smearing it with butter. Dante requested his breakfast from a servant and seated himself beside Blaze. Strange days when you're up earlier than I am. Do you really think, Blaze said, talking around a mouthful large enough to choke a goat, that I'm going to just let them feed all this to the peasants? It was only bread, but it was fresh, which hadn't been true of all the tack they'd eaten on the way to and back from the swamps. Blueberries were at their peak, and Dante helped himself, along with multiple slices of bacon. Halfway through his meal, he stopped and gazed down at it. If they came under siege, it could be a long time before he ate like that again. The bakers had been working through the night and were soon finished. Women wrapped and loaded the bread into baskets and piled them into the wagons. Once this was done, a band of Tenarian soldiers and laborers marched forth from the palace gates bringing with them wagons full of cut lumber, thin trunks of smaller trees, and all the tools necessary to entrench these in the ground. Dante and Blaze rode with them, dressed in plain brown robes. The procession had barely exited the palace when people began to turn out from their houses. Nearly all of them were men, and most were Dante's age or younger. As the wagons rolled on, some of the men followed a short distance behind, but most ran down the streets, their calls echoing between buildings. There's about to be a riot, Blaze said matter-of-factly. I can see that, Dante said. Let's make sure the commander sees it, too. He nudged his horse forward, coming alongside Commander Sito, a man in his mid-twenties whose red-flecked hair marked him as a Tenarian noble while the flint in his eyes marked him as one who, despite his somewhat tender years, had already done his share of killing. I see it, North Lord, Sito said, without turning his head, as if he'd heard their conversation. It will be their choice whether they taste bread or steel. The Tenarians passed through the outer walls and through the slums, which were even slummier than usual, 
now that the city's offal collectors weren't doing their job. Dirty-faced, shoeless children watched them pass, then ran inside their shacks. The crowd of citizens trailing them grew in size. The slums ended quickly, disgorging them into open fields. The Tenarians had dug out some earthworks and ditches here, but the tops of the low ramparts had been trampled and ripped open. The mob had removed the palisades too, either to take the wood for their own use or simply to destroy the efforts of the invaders. Sito turned his horse awkwardly, strange for a noble, until Dante realized the Tenarian was still learning how to ride, and addressed his men. As before, we are here to work, not to fight. If the crowds return and will not go, we will depart. The left corner of his mouth pulled down, as if he were fighting to swallow something rotten. He lifted his chin. Until then, we take on the role of the skin, sealing the body away from outside harm and illness. Get to your labor. The soldiers and workers took up shovels and mattocks. Some went to work extending the ramparts, while others gouged holes atop the existing earthworks, and others yet planted spikes and pickets in the holes, champing them firm. Despite the cause of the need for this labor, there was always something comforting and encouraging in witnessing people at hard and honest work, and Dante began to feel mildly guilty that he wasn't helping. Ah, Blaze said. I was starting to wonder how long it could be before everything went to hell again. He had turned to gaze behind them. Dante twisted in the saddle. Two hundred citizens had followed the Tenarians to the site and had been watching from the road, yammering to each other, but causing no particular disturbance. Now, though, hundreds more streamed from the edges of the city, carrying clubs, rakes, knives, wooden spears, and hunting bows. Where the floor of the bay was sandy, the water was teal and empty. Where it was rocky, the water was darker blue, and the fish thrived. The surf was so calm, it washed on the shore like the snore of a sleeping child. In the shade of the palm, with the steady wind from the sea, it wasn't even all that hot, not unbearably so. Sir! Jonah stepped beside him, boots sinking into the thick yellow sand. Lady Wyndon's just waiting on your word. Should I go and fetch her? Naren stared at the Sword of the South at anchor in the royal blue water where the sea ran deeper. Do you ever think about how we got here, Jonah? Well, sir... My mind isn't half as sharp as yours. Jonah removed a cube of doyle stock from his pocket and tucked it between his gum and his lip. But I believe it was through the sails of the ship now occupying your vision. Captain Twill agreed to bring the northerners here in exchange for a cure for the disease that was positioned to kill her. The priest cured her, but striking this deal entangled Twill in a web of dangers that soon got her killed regardless. Since then, all I have wanted was to avenge her, to deliver justice to Gladic. But that option is long gone.
I'm afraid your point and my understanding have passed each other like ships in the night, sir. I am like a man overboard on typhoony seas. I am not a sorcerer, Jonah. I'm not even a great warrior. What am I doing pretending that I have a role in this war? This is a war between great men, between titans. The only role in such a struggle for sea captains and their crews is to be fodder and to die. Hmm. Naren had been standing still for long enough that the crabs were beginning to emerge from their holes in the beach. There are many lands besides Bressel. The continent itself is only one of many. Malin isn't even my homeland, in truth. In climate, and in many ways in the temperament of its people, this island is closer to my old home than anything to the north. So why must we return to Bressel? Captain, if you're trying to get me to explain why we ought to sail back into the teeth of a war, you'll need to bring someone around to convince me of it first. Jonah, there is no one else with us. You can drop the sailor who's been struck on the head by one too many yardarms act. Jonah looked at him sidelong from beneath Brambley eyebrows, beginning to go grey. Aye, we could sail away. We've got a ship, and that's what ships were meant to do. But we're merchants, sir. Or that is, we're merchants whenever we've no need to be pirates. As merchants, most of our lives are spent bringing people trinkets, spices, wines, and so forth. We make their lives a little brighter, and they make our pockets a little fatter. It's honest work, excepting, of course, the odd need of piracy. But there's no part particularly divine about bringing people things they like. But every once in a great while, we have the chance to bring people the one thing they need. Naren thought on this. Send for Wyndon. We sail by hour's end. Jonah bobbed his head and walked away. Naren stepped from beneath the palms, closing his eyes and letting the sun warm his face as the surf rustled like mice in dry leaves. He gave himself just long enough for the moment to crystallize in his mind, then opened his eyes and stalked toward the longboat waiting on the sand. An hour later, the Sword of the South weighed anchor and struck north from the bay. On their way out through the northern gates, the city guards gave Rorschach such a long look, she was afraid she was going to have to stab someone. Then a local scumbag made one of the sloppiest pickpocket attempts she'd ever seen, and a fight broke out, and the guards ran over to beat everyone until they calmed down, and Rorschach and Sorrowin rode free of the city. They passed through some fields, yeoman farms and things. After that came a forest. Judging by the fact that almost none of it was chopped down, it had to be the king's forest, out of general principle, Rorschach stopped in it to cut some walnuts from a tree, knifing away the green pulp surrounding the inner shell as she rode. As soon as the woods were too dense to see the city behind them, a black mood fell on her. Her whole time in Bressel felt... stupid. What had they done, really? Let Galand know about the Tenarian takeover? 
big deal. It's not like it was a secret. He would have found out soon enough. After that wild success, they'd been booted out for incompetence. Amazing job, that. She'd let herself get dragged out of her element. Wars and politics were for fools and kings. She was a being of the night, and that was what she would return to. Once they were a few days out from the city, she'd wait for Sorowin to fall asleep and ride out on her own, go back to Narashtavik and take the sword for herself. From there, the smart move would be to lead the order right out of Narashtavik. They could raid northern Malin for a while, see how the war played out. Wars were always good for people like them. A kingdom's chaos was their opportunity. The thought put a smile back on her face. You were who you were. Stick to yourself, and you'd always be happy. Try to be something else, and the soul starts to rebel. They rode on. There were messengers going back and forth on the road. Bandits, too. By the second day, after having to hide or detour seven different times, Rorschach said to hell with it, and led them away from the river and across a plain toward another forest. She hadn't known it was there, but they soon found another northbound road. It was narrower, without any ruts in it, and the spider webs spanning it and the vegetation growing from its shoulders showed it didn't get much use. They traveled for miles without seeing another soul. But, as dusk fell, they came to a T-shaped fork, with one prong turning eastward while the other one bent dead west. Sorowin stopped his horse, slowly swiveling his head between the two options. He looked so dismayed, you'd have thought someone had stolen the necklace that was the only thing he had left from his dead mother. Which one do we take? Beats me, Rosha said. This is your country. Yeah, but I was never out here. How can we tell which way to go? Doesn't matter. But if we take the wrong one, we'll get off track. I'm telling you, fool, it doesn't matter. The road doesn't dictate your course, you do. If we wind up going the wrong way, we'll figure it out, and then we'll fix it. Before he could do any more indecisive blabbering, she took the left fork, just because she thought most people would have taken the right. Sorowin lingered behind a moment, looking down the rightward lane, then spurred his horse to catch up. You're right he said. We don't have to follow the road. If we don't like where it's going, we can just, well, step off it. Why didn't I think of that? She was about to tell him it was because he was a naive, over-hesitant dummy, then stopped herself to spare his feelings. Then, for the very reason he would stay like that as long as people kept biting their tongue, she said, because you're a naive, over-hesitant dummy. You've spent too long in the monastery. We're in the wilds now. It's time to start acting like it. He gave her a spooked look, like he might turn around and run all the way back to Bressel. Then he began to laugh. I'll do my best. It's easier when I know that, even if we get lost, you're here to get us home. She grunted. They'd ridden another hundred yards down the trail before it hit her. He believed in her. Damn it. Oh, 
they'd go back to Narashtavik together, and when they got the sword, they would return together too. The mob walked slowly down the street, letting itself congeal. Some men shouted slogans about invaders, while others hollowed about king killers and usurpers and whatever else they could think of to whip up the anger necessary to get a motley crowd to attack a group of trained and well-armed soldiers. Apparently, they'd already brought plenty of anger with them. Within a minute of emerging onto the road, the mob gave a roar and marched toward the Tenarians. Oh, Blaze said. Yeah, Dante said. Are we going to step in here? We have to leave this to the Tenarians. They're the ones who need to learn how to work alongside the Malish. Blaze shifted in the saddle. If we're lying on the Tenarians, it's a good thing these robes have hoods. I hate getting blood in my hair. Commander Sito yelled to his men, ordering them down from the earthworks and into formation. He trotted forward alone, halting his mount aways in front of the crowd. Citizens of Bressel! Like most well-bred Tenarians, his malish was almost flawless. In fact, it had an aristocratic Brazilian accent, which seemed to surprise the crowd because it was obvious from his slight features that he was not one of them. We have come to this field to work to defend your city. Without the barriers we mean to erect, the armies of the White Lich will tear apart everything you hold dear. A tall and broad-shouldered man advanced from the safety of the crowd. His shaggy hair was blonde. There seemed to be a rebel streak in every coroner, and he was carrying a heavy woodsman's axe. Bullshit, you skinny little foreigner, he said. None of us never heard of this lich before you got here. Seems to me he's coming for you. You're the reason we're in danger. Why don't you walk out of our city and take your troubles with you? You're right, man. If we left, the lich would follow us for now. But it's as you said. You haven't heard of the lich. You don't know his ways. If we leave this place and he conquers us, it won't be long before he returns for you. And you will fall just as we did. We stand and fight together, or we all die alone. The blonde man spat in the dirt. Why not let's try it and find out? You don't know what he's like. Sito lowered his voice, as if he and the man were standing face to face rather than thirty feet away. The crowd hushed. When the Drake Bane abandoned our home, I stayed behind, not for glory, but to find my family, who had been taken from the quiet of their village by the rebels. Through the rumors of other survivors, I tracked them to the Iboran, one of our holy sites. There, I found my family, but they weren't like me anymore. The White Lich had turned them into unsold demons. The Blighted, his army. I called the names of my wife and children, and stood frozen on the turf as they loped toward me. But I could see in their eyes they didn't recognize me. All they had left was hatred. I turned to flee to my boat, but they were too fast. They caught up to me. They began to claw at me, to bite me. 
I cut them down. I cut down my family, and I left their bodies there on that island. Sito's voice rose again, more ragged than before. The lich will come. In time, he'll come for everything. And since you are among the closest and largest prizes, you have less time than most. When he gets here, you will be made to join his demons, or else be fed to them. The blond man stood silent. His axe was still in his hand, and his jaw was thrust forward, but his eyes were softened with doubt. The mob seemed to sway like stalks of wheat in an unsteady wind. Drake Bainyoto understands we are not welcome, Sito said. He knows our presence has caused you hardship. Today, we have brought you bread. Every person here may have some. If you return with your family, they will be given more. And if you lend your hands to help us, you will be granted full rations for your day's work. All those who are hungry, or those who wish to work, come with me, in an orderly manner. Gripping his axe mid-haft, the blond man lifted it and gave it a shake. Do you think you can buy our obedience with a bit of bread? Sita turned his horse and trotted toward the bread wagon, calling to his soldiers to begin allotting the fare. The crowd murmured like a hive of bees on the swarm, then moved forward at a genial walk, tucking their weapons into their belts where they could. The Tenarian soldiers guided them into several rough lines. The Malish shuffled forward, keeping one eye on the well-armed foreigners for signs of deceit. When those at the front of the line were handed their bread, they retreated rapidly, condensing into small knots to eat, gossip, and watch for any eruption of violence. Once all the members of the crowd had gotten their share, however, many began to wander off back toward the city, and a small portion headed back to the soldiers to register as laborers. The blonde axeman did some grumbling and orating to those who would listen, but his once defiant gestures now carried the air of defeat. Madness, Blaze marveled. That actually worked? Just talking to them? And bread. Don't forget the bread. Think what they'd do if we brought them beer. They'd pledge their lives to us. The mob dissolved rapidly. A small portion remained, watching curiously as the Tenarians and a few local volunteers went to work on the defences. After Dante was reasonably sure no massacres were about to happen, he left to grow another field of wheat. He stopped harvesting once he'd exhausted roughly half his shadows, intending to return to the fortifications late that night and add to the earthworks under cover of darkness. The day concluded without any serious trouble in the streets. Nax's troops had encamped outside Bressel during Dante's return voyage from Tanaritain, and two days prior to rolling out the bread wagons, Dante had summoned a small number of soldiers and monks to leave the camp and come to the city. They arrived that night. Dante forged four sets of loons and told the men to get some sleep. He hopped on a horse and rode out to the fortifications, where a crew of Tenarians guarded the work against sabotage.
Dante gathered the nether and sank it into the earth, scooping out ditches and piling the fill into ramparts. Between his and the Tenarians' efforts, they did more for the fortifications in one day than they'd managed in the week before. In the morning, he set his loon-bearing monks on boats bound for the coasts of the swamps, where they would watch for any sign that the lich was on the move. He got word that a team of Brasilians had shown up in the earliest hours of the morning to sabotage the palisades, but the Tenarians had arrested some and driven the rest off. The soldiers and laborers breakfasted, then set off for the defenses. This time, there was no band of angry citizens following them, yet a crowd soon appeared a few hundred feet up the road from the earthworks. Beneath his hood, Blaze squinted. Notice anything different about them today? Dante scanned the mob. They aren't carrying as many things to beat us with. I was thinking they looked less like a swarm of angry hornets and more like a flock of hungry gulls. Sito rode forth to invite them to take bread. Yesterday, hardly twenty of them had agreed to help, but that morning, more than sixty malishers joined the Tenarians in their efforts. With everything in hand, Dante returned to the wheat field. It could have been his imagination, but on his way back through the streets, it seemed as though more people than normal were out on their stoops, sitting and chatting. He napped, then rose for dinner, seating himself at a table with Blaze and Gladick. Bread is all right and all, Blaze said, tucking into some of it. But would it kill you to learn how to grow venison? Dante reached for a bowl of bean stew, suspecting it would contain bacon grease, if not bacon itself. Good suggestion. After I'm done learning how to make new deer, I'll make a team of new myself, and make them do all my work while I drink the beer I order them to make from the wheat I order them to grow. Blaze got a startled look on his face. If you could learn how to make animals, could you do that? Grow new versions of yourself? I have never, until this moment, thought about it. Would they think like you too, or just look like you? There would only be one way to find that out. But if they did think like me, and if they had my memories, then every time I started to get very old, I could just nether up a newer, younger me. Blaze was now thinking hard enough that, for perhaps the first meal in his life, his mouth wasn't full of food. But it wouldn't really be you, would it? You wouldn't have any control over what it thought or did. When you died, you would still be dead. But the avatar of me would still exist. It would be a bit like being a god. Gladick was shaking his head in disgust. You are a nethermancer, the actual high priest of Aron. It is at the very core of your faith that all people are born and thus must also die, for that is the cycle of the nether that permeates us all. Then why are you so obsessed with defying the law of your god by living forever? Well, Dante said. He stirred his beans, which had not yet yielded any bacon. There's nothing in the cycle that says when you have to die. If you are born, then lived a long, full life before dying at the age of twenty thousand, you'd still be within the bounds of Aron's laws. 
this path of argument, which is in obvious violation of the spirit of your God, is the path through which corrupt priests destroy their own faith. Dante felt himself reddening. Speaking of paths, we've completely lost the one that's relevant, which is that we're finally getting the locals to trust us. If the Brasselians and Tenarians are ready to work side by side, it's time to start thinking about how to best put that alliance to use. We shall see what the future brings, Gladick said, but I will not trust the strength of this newfound friendship for some time more. In the morning, a few score of citizens were already waiting outside the palace gates. They followed quietly in the wake of the wagons to the growing defences, the first line of which the Tenarians were about to extend to the southern shoreline. Another crowd waited at the dig in reasonably orderly queues. Commander Sito greeted them and began passing out bread. More than a hundred people joined the lines for labour. Dante crossed his arms. At this rate, I'm going to have to start harvesting more wheat. Blay smiled. When you are risking your life chasing after forbidden books and spending years of study and practice to master your art, did you ever imagine that it would all be so you could become a better farmer? Not really, no. The soldiers were dispensing rations with military precision, but as quickly as they could process those waiting in line, more arrived to join them. A commotion arose from the rear. The crowds divided down the middle, opening a lane forward. Through this, a gang of men strode forward, grey robes swirling about their legs. Spit out what they have fed you! A Dane led the way, his arms spread wide above his head. They tell you that you are eating bread. But what they have put in your mouths is dark poison. Ten. The crowd went silent. Those who had been in the act of eating stilled themselves. Many spat out what was in their mouths. A Dane turned to face the people, pointing behind him at the wagon full of food. Do... Any of you know where the bread they've given you comes from? A woman holding her loaf in front of her with both hands bent her eyebrows. A field? A field, yes. What is grown in this field to make this bread? Uh, wheat? Wheat, yes. Wheat, as intended by nature, grows from the ground as little sprouts. It takes months for it to be fed and nourished until it's ripe enough to feed and nourish us in turn. Now, do you have any idea how the wheat these men milled for your bread was grown? He looked across the crowd. Every person he met eyes with seemed compelled to respond, shaking their heads. Nether. A Dane spoke the word with the care he would use to step past a venomous creature. They cut themselves and feed their tainted blood to the shadows. Then they feed those shadows to the wheat. Last, they harvest that wheat and feed it to you. 
so the sickness of blood and shadow, of the corruption of Nether, becomes you. At this, he threw his arms wide with a snap of robes. Around him, those who hadn't yet spat out their bread did so now. Others bent over and gagged. Some ripped their loaves into stone-sized pieces and hurled them at the Tenarian soldiers. The soldiers backed up, hands on their weapons, but not yet drawing them. I told you they meant to buy us off. The blond man stepped out from the mob, knuckles whitening around the handle of his axe. Excepting it was even worse than I thought. These foreigners meant to work us to the bone at the same time they poisoned our flesh. Don't you see? They'd use your blood and sweat to build these walls, then bury you under them and claim our city for themselves. Sito nudged his horse forward from his troops. He wore a breastplate of swamp dragon scales, and the scabbard of his subtly curved sword was covered with beautifully clear and bright Tenarian glass, lacquered to protect it against breakage. It all looked very formidable and lordly, but in that moment it also looked terribly alien. That is not why we are here, Sito said. We offer this bread to bolster your strength, to maintain the health of your children. We have no wish to hurt you. Don't you understand? We need you. Only in unity can we stand against... A dazzling white bolt shot from a Dane's right hand, whistling toward Sito's throat. Dante had been waiting for a strike. He'd already bitten the inside of his lower lip and loosed a dark counter. It flew towards Sito like a bird on the wing. The commander, seeing only the incoming spear of light, stiffened his posture and lifted his head high. But he didn't move, knowing there was nothing he could do to stop what was coming. The two forces slammed into each other two feet from his face. Sparks dashed against his cheeks and the brow of his steel helmet. Adain laughed. Do you see? Even now they walk among you. If they want so badly to help you, why do they cover their faces, eh? To conceal the shame of who they really are? Or so they can laugh in secret as you swallow their poison? The only question I have for the shadow worshippers is whether they are more arrogant or more cruel. The blond man shook his axe and began another speech but it was drowned out by a distributed roar of taunts, insults, and general wordless anger. I'm well versed in the language of angry mobs, Blay said, and what I think they're saying right now is, it's time for you to run before we find out exactly how many shreds a man's body can be torn into. Dante glanced into the tree-spotted field behind them. If we leave now, everything we've established over the last few days will fall apart. Counter-argument. If we stick around, we're going to have to kill a whole bunch of them, which isn't likely to do wonders for our popularity either. Edain had turned his back to them to address the crowd, but the masses hardly needed the encouragement. The mob divided itself in half, one bunch heading towards Sito and the bread wagon, and the other half tromping toward Dante and Blaze. Dante grimaced. We're only making it worse for the Tenarians. Time for a tactical retreat.
keeping the nether in hand, he backed away through the grass. Look at them go, Madame pointed after them. Exposed, they run, like criminals, like rats. Some of the mob bent to pick up rocks and throw them at Dante and Blaze. For now, the stones thudded short, but they'd soon need to turn and run to avoid getting bashed to death. At the breadwagon, Sito ordered his men away from it, abandoning it to the angry throngs of Malish. Men scrambled up into the bed of the wagon, stomping on loaves and hurling them down to the others, who ripped them apart and threw them into the dirt. People of Melon! The voice that rang out from behind them was elderly, but it bore the arresting quality of authority. People paused in the act of picking up bread, straightening to peer up the road. Gladick walked toward them in his worn grey robe. Dante didn't see any ether in his hand, but he seemed to be surrounded by an aura of light. Gladick stopped, standing across from the waiting people. The man who has persuaded you to these acts would make you fear to feed yourself with bread. But the only thing he feeds you is lies. Madame strolled forward, shaking his head and smiling sadly. Ordon Gladig, have you come to us to defend your dear friends, the Nethermongers? What corrupt force tainted you in the swamps to bring you to side with the enemies over your own people? There, I was waylaid by the harshest force of them all, Adain. The truth. Is this an admission? You're one of them now. I am not, Gladick said. I still hold tame to be fast among the Selicet, and the ether to be a power of purity and goodness, the heavens proof that there are higher ideals to strive for, and that perfection can and should be pursued even by mortals. Yet, I have also come to learn that the nether is not something to be feared. Then you should shed that robe right now, you disgusting heretic. The nether is death, and death alone. No, the nether is death, but it is also rebirth and growth. Look at the grass and trees in these fields. Look at the grain and the bread that feeds you. The ether teaches the seeds what form they are to pursue, yet it is the nether that provides them the nourishment to allow them to fulfill that form. Adain, mocking just a minute ago, took on a thoughtful scowl, pacing in a semicircle around the older man. You realize this is completely opposed to your faith, to my faith, to the faith of every Malish man and woman here? I do. Our faith states that the nether is corruption, decay, death, the opposite of ether, the darkness that would extinguish the light. That is the simple way to see it. For everyone welcomes the light and fears to walk in darkness, just as everyone welcomes life and fears to walk in the shadow of death. But since the day when Aron's mill fell and cracked, there has been no escape from death. The world changed, and with that change came the nether.
for the purpose of the nether is not to corrupt and kill us. No, it is the means through which our fallen world can regenerate itself from the decay and death that must inevitably come to every person and thing that comes to exist. So, reject death, reject imperfection and entropy and destruction, deny the shadows and love the light that gives us the higher forms and the power to preserve them. When I examine the world, it seems to me that these are the laws the gods have set for us. If the laws are to be changed, it is not men who can change them, but the lords of the Seleset. Adain turned his back to Gladig and tilted his head until he appeared to be staring straight into the sun. That is precisely what the Aurora Knights believe. The Thames Order of Light cracked and tumbled down and was replaced by the Way of Shadows. This means the Shadows now have precedent over the Light. Primacy. Don't you understand the implications of your little revelation? The only implication I see is that we have been wrong about some matters and that those who wield or even worship the Nether are not our enemies due to that fact alone. Ah, you're getting pretty close to it there, maybe even closer than you want to, because you accept that Tame's original rule has been thrown down by the way of Aron. Then you place Aron at the head of the Seleset. You worship him. So why have you come here? to tell me that everything I believe is wrong and that the Aronites are right all along? Gladic, just how mad have you become? All of the crowd had wandered away from the now-forgotten wagons to form a wide circle around the two speakers, as if they weren't exchanging rhetorical jabs and logical hooks, but were physically boxing. With the Danes' latest flurry, they exhaled a collective, Ooh like Gladick's nose had just been flattened. Gladick hunched his shoulders and tucked his chin, thinking, I am no Aronite, for I do not feel it in my soul. In full fact, I do not know if there is a word for what I have become. Yet I know that even with all I have come to accept, so much that would be called heresy, there remains a rightful place for Tame at the head of the Seleset. For Tame granted us the measures through which we can understand the world he and the others crafted for us. More than this, he is the Lord of the Ether. What can be grander than that? But the Ether has been replaced. So must your worship. Not so. Where there is no need to worship life, its cycle, and our death. All of that will happen whether we approve of it or not. The ether, as ruled by Tame, gives us ideals. It gives us purpose, a higher form to strive for, much as small seeds strive for the forms of wheat and trees. How nice of the ether! But under your scheme, it is still subservient, Gladick. It was replaced. That means it was flawed. It wasn't right. The Nether replaced it. The Nether is still here. 
Therefore, the Nether is right, and therefore it rules both us and the Aether. This is what you believe. The audience uttered another communal sound, a disappointed murmur aimed at Gladick. Gladick assumed his thinking posture once more. Perhaps what is not right is us. The Aether failed, not because it was flawed, but because we are. The ether for the gods, who are without a single flaw. The nether for us, who have no end of them. So why would we worship the substance of humanity as the Auronites do? Why would we not continue to worship the substance of the divine? The Dane broke into laughter. You've just walked into your own trap. By your own terms, the ether is for the gods, not for us. All that is left for us is the nether, the shadows, the darkness. Gladick bent his head. I do not know the answers to every question, Adain. I only know what I have seen, and I no longer believe the nether to be evil. Adain drew back furrowing his brow and pacing around Gladick some more. It's a funny thing. You spend countless words to convince me that, oh no, you couldn't possibly be one of them. So how is it that everything you say winds up supporting their faith? Hearing you speak, what sane man wouldn't conclude that you're just a crypto-auronite here to undermine our faith and convert our people to the damnation of your dark lord? For the hundredth time, I am no auronite. For there are grave mistakes in their beliefs as well. Oh? Perhaps you could name me one. The graver the better. Gladick's features condensed into a scowl. What of the afterworld? Is that grave enough for you? For our conception of what the gods hold in store for us upon our deaths is much closer to the truth than what the Auronites tell themselves. The Danes sputtered, laughing. Now you're claiming to have seen the afterworld. I have not seen it, but they have. He lifted his left hand palm up toward Dante and Blaze. During the impromptu debate, they'd been all but forgotten, but they now found themselves the attention of every set of eyes in the field. Gladick nodded, as if someone had asked him a question. They have traveled to the lands beyond this one, where the dead seek their peace. Soon enough, I shall visit these lands for myself, and return with their wisdom. The other Auden grimaced, exposing his teeth. His jaws were working as if he had to literally chew over what had been told to him. You have gone mad, Gladick. The world beyond us for the dead alone. That is not so. There are those in this world who have discovered the means to travel to the beyond. Adain's voice softened. If this is true... Then what is it like there? Gladick gestured toward Dante again. I will let those who have seen it speak of it. It's not just one world, Dante said slowly. 
He didn't know if it was at all wise to be revealing this truth now, in front of a malish crowd, but he didn't see another way. It's three, which you pass through in sequence. We've only seen the first two. In the first world, you don't even know you're dead. It's like a labyrinth for the mind. One that prepares you, that leads you to accept that this world, the world you knew, is now behind you. Once it's prepared you, you pass into a world much like this one, except there's no real strife or hardship. Everything just sort of... is. I think it's a sort of second chance at life, a way for people to experience anything they might have felt cheated out of the first go-around. And it just now occurs to me that, in its way, this is a subtle labyrinth of its own, a way to prepare you for the final plane. As I said, we haven't seen the third and final world. The living can't see it. But we were told by the dead themselves that when you pass into it, you become a part of everyone who's ever lived and forget that you have ever been alive. Everyone was watching him again. The field was utterly quiet except for the buzzing of insects. So Gladys right then, Dante finished. When it comes to what comes after, the truth is a lot closer to what you believe in Malin than what we believe in Narashtovic. Adane gave a snort. So, on the matter of what comes after this life, perhaps the most fundamental tenant of all faith, you admit that we have hit the mark while you have badly missed it? And you think this is an argument in favor of the Aurorite's beliefs? It is only to say that their faith has strayed as well, Gladick said. We now have the chance to reform ourselves to what is true. The closer we model our worship on what is handed down to us by the gods, the more divine we shall be. For as above, so below. Gladick kneeled, picking up a hunk of bread and examining it. I have traveled far. I have seen both beauty and horror enough to break me and I no longer fear the shadows. He lifted the bread to his mouth and ate. Then you have revealed yourself. Adane's voice was as wary as if he'd stumbled into a predator's den. First you will be judged here in this world, and then you will be judged in what comes after. Dante tensed, calling the nether to his hands but a dame turned with a flourish and hastened back up the road in the company of a coterie of priests. The crowd spoke in whispers, glancing between the sorcerers. A few started to back away. As with so much of group behavior, this small act kicked off an avalanche. Within a minute, nearly all of the mob was on its way back to the city. A small fraction remained, however. And when the others were too far away to see, those who'd stayed hurried to the bread wagon, scooping up what little was left in it, along with those loaves that hadn't been ground into the dirt. Then, looking about themselves as if they'd committed a crime, they hurried away too.
Commander Sito made his way toward Dante, Blaze, and Gladick, his hand holding lightly to the hilt of his sword. What have I just seen? And what happens now? I cannot say. Gladick straightened his robe. But for the moment, the mob has gone. I suggest you take the opportunity to do what work as you can. That night, the city lay still, although for all they knew it was the stillness of a monster lying in wait. In the morning, the Tenarians and their wagons made way for the fortifications. In time, the mob came there too. They were smaller in numbers. The ones there collected their bread as if nothing had happened the day before. Dante departed to grow another batch of wheat, then rode back to help deal with any surprise attacks from the Golden Hammer. But the day's work concluded in peace. When they returned to the palace, they found that Corson was there waiting for them. The tower room he'd been shown to was guarded by two of the Odosein. Orden Gladic. Corson rose from the table as they entered. His face was pale, and he seemed disheveled, as if he'd just been chased through the streets rather than sitting quietly in a well-guarded tower. I've got news from the Golden Hammer. Gladic scowled. When do they intend to strike? I couldn't tell you that much. The more interesting question, or leastways the only one I can answer for you, is which of them intend to strike? And the answer to that, dear Orden, is far fewer than the day before. If you are trying to be unintelligible, you have succeeded. I am only playing up my moment. I don't get many of them. You see, there's been a schism in the Golden Hammer. Adain and the Loyalists still want to hang the Tenarians like skinny wind chimes, but more than half of the priesthood is now willing to fight next to the Drakebane. On the condition, of course, that he leaves and makes various restitutions as soon as we've won. I doubt that we will do that. Leave? When? Corson opened his mouth halfway, brows lowered, then shook his head. And let's pray this realignment among the loyalists proves you most wrong, sir. Gladick extended his arms, as if to tent his fingers on the table, his eyes glinted with amusement when he saw he was missing half the hands he needed to do so. How has this split come to pass? Word of your dialogue with the Dane has spread far and wide across the city. That's how. This convinced them. Not so long ago, I would have executed any man who spoke as I did. I was also what you might call a little surprised by this but there are still many here who respect you. Do you understand that? They know you've seen some strange things in your travels. Now you've got questions, and that gives them pause. Men do not throw away beliefs they carry in their deepest heart after hearing a single argument to the contrary. It is more likely that the Golden Hammer has discovered your deceit and is feeding you false information to destroy us. Corson chuckled. If so, then they also staged a full-blown fight between Adain and the Moderates, where Adain near as got his face ripped off. The whole thing's made his followers more extreme than ever, so you will want to watch out for them. At the same time, they've shrunk to where they can't control the mob anymore. 
Not all of it, leastways. No, Carson. This is beyond the realm of belief. It is one thing to step forth and deliver words to soothe an angry mob. It is quite another to schism the faith with a few minutes of argument. Is this really that surprising? Dante said. You run yourselves hoarse preaching about the evils of Nether, but half of your highest priests seem to be learning it in secret. Edain's fellows didn't show much surprise when he used it to drop that tower on the crowd. Maybe you just finally said things people have been questioning in private for a long time. Gorson shrugged. Could be. I've heard more than one rumor of the superiors doubling in the darkness. And there are times when some of us meet to raise questions that can only be asked in the presence of darkness and wine. Either way, I can't say as I understand. But they already have a name for it, you know. They're calling it the Dialogue of Death and Bread. There are calls for a convocation once the war is over. There are times I feel that all is an illusion, Gladick said, right down to the earth beneath our feet. How else to explain how an edifice that seemed to be so sturdy could fall apart with a single push? We are feeble creatures, unable to grasp reality or even to define it. That is why it so often tricks us. We never understood it to begin with. Sure, Lay said. Either that or Tame struck the chisel one too many times when he was carving your brain. Gladick turned back to Corson. Continue to keep us apprised. Every day matters now. The slightest disturbance from Adain and the Loyalists could rob us of what slim chance we have. I will do that. Corson stood, then arrested himself. Orden, I must know. Is what you told Adain true? Have these, he gestured searchingly, men from the north truly seen what lies beyond? It is always possible that they are lying to me, but I will soon have the chance to see for myself. I do not expect to find that I have been deceived. Corson nodded, face distant. He made us goodbyes and was escorted out by the Odosein to be smuggled out from the palace. Morning arrived after another uneventful night. After checking in at the earthworks to make sure no angry masses were about to tear everything down, Dante rode off toward his field to grow the day's wheat. Gladick soon caught up to him. The old man gazed down the trail. After several seconds of silence, Dante muttered something under his breath. What an odd coincidence that you should have business out in the exact same part of the middle of nowhere that I do. Would you show me how to do this? Ride the horse you're riding right next to me right now? What you are on your way to do? The art of harvesting. You want to learn to harvest? Dante's surprise shifted to something closer to suspicion. I'm not sure that it's my place for it was taught to you by the Candaeans, a people I once sought to enslave or destroy. You can see why they might not look kindly on teaching you their most sacred knowledge. I expect they would be outraged by it. Yet, if not for my intervention at the Plagued Islands, your path and mine would never have tangled.
and I would never have traveled to Tanaratain. Thus, the Aiden Lane would have taken the swamps in secret. He would be in the same position he is now, poised to assault Bressel, then sweep across the continent. Only we would have no inkling of what was coming, and would be taken completely unawares. Yet, I did meddle in the islands, and because of it our lives were brought together, first in bitter battle, but now with the chance to avert a second coming of the apocalypse that took the world so long ago. So perhaps my campaign against the Candaeans was fated to happen. Perhaps it was even the will of the gods. Yeah. Or maybe it was just you trying to conquer a group of innocent people in the plagued islands so you could use their resources to conquer another group of innocent people in the Colin Basin. Gladick smiled like a grey-muzzled wolf. Maybe so. Yet I am here now, and the lich will soon be too. So what harm can be wrought by teaching me how to grow food for those who might starve? Dante rode on a moment hoping the motion of the horse would jostle loose some morally sound answer. I'll teach you, but only because it's an emergency. You have to keep it secret, too. I don't want the Candaeans to ever know about this. Secrecy. The surest sign that we are doing wrong, despite all our attempts to rationalize that it is to the good. I will not tell a soul. They rode to the field. It had started with a single patch of wheat, but under Dante's instruction, the Drakebane's laborers had sown multiple plots of it. The idea being that Dante could rotate his harvesting between them, allowing the other fields to grow naturally in the meantime, and save Dante some small measure of nether that could be used on the earthworks instead. Dante found a spot where a few green sprouts had just started to break from the black-brown earth. He brought forth the nether, and Gladick observed. To Dante's private satisfaction, Gladick was less skilled with the nether than he'd been when he'd only been twenty years old, but the old priest was a quick learner, and something about harvesting seemed to be suited to him, just as all sorcerers found more felicity with some talents than others. That very afternoon, Gladick was able to coax the first sprouts from the soil. Dante left to raise more ramparts around the city. When the two of them returned to the harvesting grounds the following day, Dante found that Gladick had learned to grow full stalks of wheat. With the city no longer on the brink of open rebellion, rapid progress being made on its defences, and Gladick taking over the production of grain, Dante was at last free to head down to the river to try to figure out how it might be defended. It was called the Chancet, meaning grey waters. But under the light of the summer sun, it was as sparkling blue as a sapphire. Dante beckoned to the nether. The banks and bed of the river were awash with death, and the shadows came happily. He sent them across the earth beneath the waters, mapping it. He was near the river's mouth, and the bottom was shallow and silty, with multiple islands and sandbars, along with deeper channels dredged for shipping lanes. Stout stone walls flanked the exit to the sea. 
He drew the river's contours on a broad piece of parchment, then sat in the shade, considering his map and the real thing it represented. How to close it out from the blighted? The first problem was that it was really, really big. The second problem was that it would always be big. There was no shrinking the water itself. It had to go somewhere. After a while, he noticed a group of fishermen watching him. Wary of being accused of sabotaging the city's waterway, Dante returned to the palace. At the stables, they had a screw pump used to bring water up from the underground spring, which Dante used to form a little reservoir in the dirt. Employing the nether, he extended a small channel from the reservoir, curving it into a circular course. This done, he experimented with damming it and otherwise manipulating the waters, meaning to use his observations as a miniature model of the chancet. What are you up to now? Blaze had appeared behind him, as silently as if he'd shadow-walked. Did working on real walls get too hard, so you thought you'd go build sand castles instead? You caught me. But once I'm done playing, I'm going to build a second model identical to this one to figure out what the hell to do about the river. Oh, figuring that out should be a snap. Really? So what's the answer? Just think about how you'd stop a school of invading fish. Press gang the Weaver's Guild to craft me a river-sized net. Dante motioned to his model. I already thought about growing a stone grate across it to let the water flow while keeping the blighted out, but the lich will knock that down as soon as he realizes it's there. We've already ruled out damming it up or rerouting it. So far, the best I've come up with is to raise the bed of the river's mouth while widening the whole thing until the water's too shallow for them to hide in. But that would destroy the walls currently protecting the mouth— and it would take so much work, I'd barely have time to add anything more to the fortifications outside the city. Meaning they could just charge in through the non-existent walls instead? Right. This is a tough one. Who put that river there anyway? He should be sacked. The best solution would be the one that takes our foreknowledge of their plans, that they're going to invade through the river, and uses it against them to booby-trap it so that when the blighted are on the march, I suddenly crush them under a landslide or something. Blaze nudged the bank of the little canal, caving it in on one side. You can't even think of a good way to stop them from using the river, and now you want to turn it into a secret weapon against them too? You're trying to be too clever. Well, what should I do? Blaze eyed the half-collapsed section of the model. Some water was still flowing into the system from the little reservoir, and it was starting to back up behind the partial blockage. Have you ever considered using the water to stop them? Of course! I'll simply use my vast might to freeze the entire river. Turning it into a solid road into the city will surely stop the blighted from using it as a road into the city. Oh, hell, turns out I can't freeze things like that, but maybe I can just diminish the sun's light instead, freezing the entire world. Yeah, you could try that. Or you could realize that the blighted are going to be walking up the river. The current will be fighting against them. Which means I can stop them by making the current run faster than they can walk against it, 
So how do I do that when I can't raise the land to increase the current speed? He motioned to the cave-in Blaze had caused on the model. Where the water was forced to shoot through the gap, it rippled with quickness. I can squeeze it. Then the same volume of water has to pass through a tighter space. It's forced to flow faster. It will still back up on the other side, though. There'll be flooding. Better a little flooding than a whole lot of getting eaten. This was undeniably true. Dante passed the daylight hours fiddling about with his model, scaling it up to get a better idea of the impact of various changes on the water. Once night arrived, he headed down to a dock on the eastern shore, where a Tenarian flat-bottomed boat was berthed. While they prepped the ship, Dante dropped down to the riverbank, broke off three sticks from a tree there, and stuck them in the water, embedding them in the mud so their tips were just level with the surface. They made their way out toward the middle of the river. Dante directed the boat to one of the small islands of accreted sediment. He placed a dab of glowing ether on the end of a reed, handed it to one of the Tenarians, and hopped down onto the squishy island. The boat then traveled a short way upstream to the southern end of another island, directly across from Dante. The sailor dropped the reed into the water. The ether gleamed brightly from it. Dante counted from when it hit the water till when it came to the northern end of his island. Thirty-three seconds. He made a note of this, then went to work on the landscape, lifting the earth on the eastern shore until it broke the water, then angling it downstream and toward the middle of the river, as if to form one side of a funnel. Yet he didn't extend it too far, just a hundred feet or so. He repeated the process on the western bank, building a second arm. Once these were in place, he extended them south toward the ocean. This done, they headed back to the dock. Dante climbed out and watched the water for several minutes. Only once he'd assured himself that no cataclysmic floods were about to take place did he head back to the palace. He hopped out of bed at first light and was on horseback to the dock by the time the sun cleared the eastern buildings. The first thing he did was take a long look at the river for signs of disaster, of which there were none. The second thing he did was check the bank for the sticks. This took a while, as they were now submerged under several inches of water. A new crew guided the boat out to the northern island Dante had used for his test the night before. He repeated the experiment. This time, the reed took just thirty-one seconds to travel downstream to the other island. So, the concept worked. The next question was, how much faster could he make the river without flooding the city? And whether that maximum speed, whatever it turned out to be, would be enough to stymie the blighted. To get a better handle on the latter, he drove a stake into the southern island, tied a string around it, then boated to the northern island, unreeling the string as they went. Once there, he marked how much of the string had played out, then went back to the southern island to collect it. Measuring the string, he now knew how much distance lay between the two islands. Comparing that to how long it had taken the reed to travel between them, it was a matter of simple math to work out exactly how fast the current was traveling. 
and how much he'd increased it since his first test of the reed. It turned out the current was sluggish, barely two miles per hour. He thought he might need to double that to significantly hamper the blighted, and triple it to stop them from using the water altogether. He wasn't sure if the former was physically possible, let alone the latter, but somehow it had to be done. He'd just have to experiment with it until he got it right. As it turned out, he didn't have time. He was woken up the very next morning by a loon from his scouts at the swamps. Blighted had begun to pour out of the forest and gather in the shallows of the sea. The enemy was coming. 11. There can be no mistaking it. The white lich is mustering his army. Dante's voice carried across the hall of war. Drake Benyoto and his advisors watched from one side of the long table. On the other side sat a mixture of Brasilian officials and generals, who had agreed to coordinate with them on the condition that the Tenarians leave the city shortly after it was secured and then pay ongoing tribute for the damage they'd inflicted. Blaze and Gladick were there too, along with three priests representing the large faction that had broken away from the Golden Hammer in the wake of the Dialogue of Death and Bread. It should have inspired hope to see them all together, but Dante couldn't find much hope left to be had. Thousands of blighted have already gathered in the ocean, he continued. It will take them time before they're ready to march, but no more than a day or two. Yoto rubbed his hand over his mouth. How long before they're here? Do you have any estimate? Fortunately, it's not hard to guess their route. Dante stood, spreading his hands over the table. Employing a simple illusion of nether, a large square of wood turned white. Using the shadows, he quickly drew in a basic map, starting with Bressel on the southern coast of Malin, and following the coast as it ran east past Colin, curved southeast along the strip of Alabolgia, traversed the empty, hell-painted hills, and arrived at last at Tanaritain. Now, they could come for us in a straight line. Dante used the ether to draw a sparkling line between Tanaritain and Bressel. But I extremely much doubt they'll brave the full depths of the ocean. It's infinitely safer to follow the shallows. That means they'll move along the coastline. Using the ether, he started at Tenaritain and traced a path toward Bressel. I can't see this taking more than ten days. It wouldn't surprise me if they can cut it down to eight. They can advance that quickly. This came from Fidditch, the most senior of the three priests. The Blighted don't need much rest. They can walk twenty hours a day. And you are certain that they will come for us? That's what they've been practicing for. They had spies in the Chancet, too. Their target is Bressel, and they'll be here in as little as nine days. This led to a rapid exchange of glances. Yoto stared down at the map. That isn't enough time. No, it isn't. As it stands, we might not even have the chance to attain the Spear of Stars before they're overrunning the defenses. Don't tell me that's still part of your plans. Even if you managed to speak to my sorcerer, it would take you a year or more to travel to Calavine, find the Spear, and return with it. 
I wasn't hoping to dash off on some wild quest. I'm hoping to learn enough from the sorcerer to make one for myself. The drakebane raised an eyebrow. That's an incredibly long shot. But if we take that shot and hit the mark, we don't have to worry about the lich's army. We can simply kill the lich. Dante unrolled his map of Bressel on the table. Using the nether, he filled in the ramparts and palisades they'd added to the city since he'd first made his drawing. If the Spear of Stars is a long shot, our walls are our safe bet. I was going to have four or five layers before the Lich came. As it stands, we'll only have two. We simply need more time. How do you intend to buy it? There can be no facing them in the open field. That's the very reason we're girding ourselves with earthworks. Gladick shook his head. There is no call for open battle when distraction and sabotage might suffice. We know they will proceed across the coast of Alabolgia, most of which is high cliffs. If we were to locate one that was weakened and crack it loose, it could smash a portion of their army. While the chaos the landslide inflicts upon the currents might scatter the others. That's a thought, Dante said, but I doubt it'd delay them more than a day. We can't commit enough sorcerers to mount an effective harassment action either not without running the risk of losing them all and leaving the city too weak to resist. He threw the floor open to other possibilities. The priests, generals, and tenarians offered one suggestion after another, but nothing mustered much excitement. The enemy had no supply lines to disrupt, and you couldn't stall them by taking out bridges or fortifying key roads. They were just inexorable. At last, Blaze uttered a drawn-out sigh, resting his elbows on the table. I've been waiting ten minutes for one of you to come up with this idea instead, but you're going to make me say it, aren't you? What's that? Dante said. That a round of strong beer might feed our inspiration? Now that you mention it, that was exactly what I was going to suggest, and once my cup's empty, I'll pretend the beer generated my actual idea. We dump a cliff on the Blighted, like Gladick said, but we make it look like it was the Alabolgians. Gladick chuckled. Just as a Dane dropped the tower on his own people and placed the blame on us to spark war against us. For the longest time, I thought the most wretched deeds to come from Narashtivik were the brain children of Dante, but just as many came from you, didn't they? Jealous you didn't come up with it yourself? You know... If my plan's too soft for you, you can always feed the Alabolgians directly to the Andrak instead. Gladick smirked. Dante leaned back from the table, as if something unspeakable had just smacked down on it. The idea is to get the White Lich to go after the Alabolgians. We can't stop him, Blay said. We can't directly slow him down much either. The only way to buy ourselves time is to get him to take a detour where detour means trick him into running off to slaughter someone else instead. We want them to evacuate. From the rumors I've heard, a lot of them have already done so. Think about everything the Lich will have to go through just to take one town. Find or make a path up from the cliffs. Order the Blighted out. Not just a few of them, but all of them. Because if they're going to make an attack, they're going to want to feed. The Lich will want to blight the new captives, too. 
Then he'll need to recover from that, regroup, and get everyone back down into the sea. Which sounds like it might not take all that long, but when it comes to time, his numbers are working against him. I bet it would take him three or four days just to sack a single town. It could even take a full week. Military operations always drag out like you wouldn't believe. There were some murmurs of agreement from the generals of both Malon and Tanaritain. Dante tapped the table in thought. An extra week would make a big difference. Two weeks would be even better. But what happens if the Lich discovers he likes stomping Alabolgian so much that he decides to take the entire strip? I suppose we'll have to dupe him into coming back to attack us instead. Dante looked around the table. Are there any objections to this? Yoto shrugged one shoulder, gesturing with his palm up. What other choice do we have? It's very easy to sacrifice a people when they aren't your own. Fittich held the emperor's gaze. Isn't it? Should I repeat my question? If this is what it takes to save Bressel, may the gods forgive us. We'll send out a team at once. Dante turned to the city's lords and generals. Now, as to when they get here, the same factors that make the Blighted hard to delay on the march will make them hard to fight in the city. They're fearless and relentless. They'll keep coming at you no matter how hard you hit them. The sorcerers will do the best they can to help you hold the lines against them. But we'll probably have to throw everything we've got at the Lich. You'll need to hold each wall as long as you can, retreating to the next layer only when it gets hopeless. Discipline will be essential. You'll need to train your men to deal with what's coming for them. Lord Pressings, an esteemed commander with victories in both Colin and the border with the Western Kingdoms, considered Dante with open scepticism. You wish me to train them to do battle against fearless monsters? How do you suggest that might be done? I'm not sure. The Tenarians will probably have a better idea of that than I do. Pressings gave the Drakebane a sidelong look. Is that so? There's no more time for mistrust, General. If we can't stand together for the next few weeks, we'll be forced to spend the afterlife together instead. The Lord watched him, then gave a single sharp nod. The council ended. They got to work. The next few days were the sort where each minute crawled by, yet the day itself seemed to vanish in a snap after it had begun. With Gladick taking over the harvesting duties, Dante split his attention between the river and the walls. By narrowing the river just behind its mouth, he'd increased the current there well past three miles per hour, and was now nearing four, but it was starting to function as a dam, backing up onto the banks. City folk were put to work piling up the levees at the more vulnerable points, freeing Dante to spend his nether on the fortifications. These proceeded, for the moment, without setbacks. The Tenarians completed the second layer of defense and moved on to the third. As Dante extended more ramparts and excavated more ditches, Lord Pressings brought his men to the second layer, drilling them for hours to hold position against a determined foe, then to cover each other as they fell back to the next position.
In practice, they looked quite good at it. But any soldier who'd seen combat could tell you there was a world of difference between your performance while drilling and how you acted once the blood began to flow. His spies at the swamps reported that the entirety of the Lich's army had entered the sea to begin the long march north. The spies had to keep their distance, making it hard to get a good count, but they believed the Lich had between forty and sixty thousand blighted. Dante had never seen such numbers in the field, not even during the Gascon siege of Nareshtivik at the end of the Chainbreakers' War. But the blighted weren't the only thing on the move. Dante's team of saboteurs had left the city, sailing southeast with all speed. They weren't yet certain they would beat the enemy to the cliffs of Alebolgia. The outcome was still up in the air when a runner came in from the port. The Sword of the South had returned from the plagued islands. They had brought Wyndon with them, and she had brought tropical flowers, their petals a bright and vibrant orange under the unfamiliar northern sun. Dream flowers. Twelve. When the news came in, Dante was measuring the river in preparation to make another adjustment. He dropped his project like a hot coal and ran down to the docks, not so much for the joy of seeing Naren and Wyndon again, but to make sure that no harm came to the dream flowers. Naren was still on board, directing the unloading of the cargo they'd brought back with them from the tropics. Wyndon stood on the dock, mouth agape, as she gazed across Bressel. Her hard blue eyes looked quite malish, hardly a surprise given that her people were descended from Malish settlers, but her skin was deeply tanned, much more so than the desert-dwelling colonists or the Alabolgians of the sunny southern shores. When he'd met her on the islands, her curved sword and her bone and steel braces had looked quite sophisticated compared to her countrymen, who tended to arm and armor themselves in bone, wood, and lacquer. Now, standing among the tall-masted ocean-plying vessels of Bressel, with both the majesty of the Odellian and the palace overlooking the city, she looked distinctly barbaric. Lost in wonder, she didn't see Dante until he was upon her. She beamed in surprise, and they embraced. He'd anticipated seeing her again, but now that she was in Malin in the flesh, he found himself unexpectedly happy. Perhaps it was because they'd shared a time in his life that had been personally tumultuous, yet which now felt quite simple, almost innocent by comparison. She drew back and gestured widely. Your city! It is as big as our island! Dante laughed. How are the islands? Any more troubles? No trouble. The islands, they are at peace. This confuses us very much, but in time, we will live to learn with it. What about Dresh? The Dresh live well. There is some exchange. They teach us old ways, and we show them what we have learned for ourselves. And when we visit the mists, their resentful dead have moved on. He nodded. A burden he hadn't known was there, lifted from his shoulders. What they'd helped accomplish in the plagued islands had been a miracle, but... It had felt fragile, too. He was glad to hear that it had lasted. Thank you for making the journey here. 
your help might make all the difference. The threat the sailors speak of, is it as great as they say? Are they saying that it could kill us all terribly, and mean the end of everything we know forever? Yes. Then it's as they say. She examined his face. You do not joke. The power that's coming has ended the world before, so long ago that no trace or memory of it remains, and the only way to see it is through sorcery that had been forgotten as well. This end of everything, how is it that you are at the center of stopping it? I'm not sure, but that fact should stand as evidence that the world is a very shoddy and incompetent place. At that moment, Naren appeared on a gangplank. He scowled at a team of stevedores, beckoning them onward as they wheeled a cart bearing two large barrels toward the docks. The cart swerved toward the edge of the plank, threatening to topple into the water, and Naren let loose with a stream of invective so blue it could have dyed the sky. The stevedores wrestled the cart back and came to a stop on the dock. Naren, now grinning, beckoned Dante over. I have delivered what you asked of me. I have also brought you a gift. He lifted a crowbar and inserted it under the lid of a barrel with a deft jab. With three swift cranks of his arms and a squall of nails, he prized it open. Dante leaned over the barrel. It was too dark to see inside, but the smell of salt was unmistakable. Gallons of seawater? Naren, you shouldn't have. I hope your men didn't put themselves at too much risk to collect an object of such rarity. Naren snorted. He rolled up his sleeve and plunged his arm into the barrel. Smiling, he withdrew a black conical shell that filled his hand. Shorten? Dante swooped down for a closer look. How many did you bring? Three score. I thought you might find them useful. I can't believe I didn't think of this myself. We should send you back to gather up as many as you can. Don't bother, Wyndon said. These Shorden, they are all we can spare. There are not as many lately. No one knows why. Probably because Gladic drove them halfway to extinction, Dante muttered. Let's take them to the palace. The dream flowers too. I'll escort you myself. He summoned a wagon. Once it was loaded, they made their way for the palace. He and Wyndon sat in the back to keep watch on the dream flowers, which she'd brought in a red clay pot. But it turned out that Dante did nearly all the watching, as Wyndon was lost in the sights of the city. He was bemused for a minute, then understood that the sickness of the Ronone had prevented her from ever leaving her homeland, and she'd never seen any settlement bigger than the Tauran city of Dilardi, nor any building bigger than their high tower. There in Bressel, everyone living in the plagued islands could fit into a single one of the city's many districts, and the high tower would have been just one of dozens of such structures. Word of their coming beat them to the palace. Blaze, Gladic, and Yoto were waiting for them in the courtyard as they stepped down from the wagon. Blaze swept Windon up in a hug. Should I be happy to see you, or sorry to have dragged you away from paradise? When you call, I answer, she said. Without you, there would be no paradise left. Dante introduced Drake Benyoto, who offered her a bow of his head, and Gladig, 
who bent at the waist. Gladik. Her eyes seemed to light with flame. That name. That is the name of the man who brought the war to our islands. Yes, he said simply. Her face reddened beneath her tan. Well, this, yes, this is all you have to say? Should I apologize? What apology can I make to undo what was done? Wyndon's jaw bulged. Try one and we can find out. I am sorry, my lady. There. Has the slightest difference been made? Gladick waited, then made a thus-it-is-demonstrated gesture with his left hand. I do not seek your forgiveness for a simple reason. I know that there can be no forgiveness. You should not want an apology from me, for at its heart to accept an apology for an act of evil is to accept the existence of that evil, to tolerate and indulge it. Yet you did not accept what I brought to the plagued islands, did you? No, you fought it. Yes, we fought you, and we would fight again against anything like it. As you must, for I am no longer certain that the gods believe in justice. Gladic lifted his face to the sky. Either they test us, or they have abandoned us. Wyndon frowned, her eyes shifting between his. You are a strange man. That's an exceedingly polite way to put it, Blay said. Anyway, should we go say hello to the dead? Yoto tilted his head. You intend to go right now? Why not? It's much too hot here. It'll be a lot cooler in the mists. I was under the impression such trips could take a day or more. We don't yet know if the saboteurs will have the chance to distract the Aedan Rane, or whether he'll fall for it. If they fail to slow him down, how can you afford to sacrifice so much of what little time we have left to prepare? Easy, Dante said, because if they can't buy us more time, then we won't have enough time to prepare, and the Lich will murder us. Unless, say, we happen to learn the location of the magic weapon that can murder him. Yoto tightened his mouth. You're pinning everything on little more than a dream. A dream with a small chance of coming true is a hell of a lot better than a rational plan that's fully hopeless. Wyndon, are you coming with us? It is best if I keep watch on you, she said. The afterworlds, we have only traveled to them from our land. It could be different here. Different how? She motioned around them to take in the sprawl of the city. If the land of your living is this mad, what might the land of your dead be like? The Drakebane told them the dead sorcerer they'd be looking for was named Palo, and that he was about forty years old and missing one eye. Blaze grew quite curious about this, but Yoto explained the eye hadn't been lost while defending the Empire from rebels, or while questing about for the realm of nine kings, but rather because Paolo had once slipped in the bath and bashed his eye socket. With the knowledge of their quarry in hand, they headed up to the room in the tower they'd been using for private meetings, with Blaze carrying the potted dream flower. Dante had the Book of What Lies Beyond the Land of Calavine with him, 
meaning to bring it into the afterworld so that he could compare notes with Paolo. Servants hurried up with three bedrolls, which they spread over the floor. We'll only need two, Dante said. Wyndon's staying here. Two, Gladick said. Are you under the impression that I am not going with you? That's not a great idea. If an emergency happens and all three of us are under, we won't be able to help the Drakebane deal with it. Then you may stay behind. That makes no sense. I know my way around the mist. I've already been there. That is precisely why I should be the one to go. Just so you can see what's there for yourself. You can do that later, Gladick. Right now, our priority is the salvation of the city. Dante folded his arms. But if you'd rather screw this up for us, the Lich should be quite happy to send you on a permanent trip to the mists. Gladick's mouth contorted. He was a tall man, but he seemed to loom even taller, face falling into shadow. I have dedicated my life to the truth of the gods, and I have discovered that much of that life has been wasted on falsehoods. I will see what lies beyond, and you will not stop me. His voice carried such force, Dante would have been certain he was using the ether to project it. But Dante didn't see a single wink of light in the air. Blaze plopped down on one of the bedrolls. Oh, let him come along, will you? If the Golden Hammer goes and ruins the city while we're under, just think of the I told you so you'll be able to hit him with. Fine. Dante seated himself on a bedroll, which exuded a musty smell into the air. But when we get there, the only thing we're going to do is find Paolo. No messing around, and no exploring. I only wish to witness it with my own eyes. Gladick took the third bedroll. I shall see you on the other side. Wyndon plucked three dream flowers from the plant, handing them each one. The taste, it will not be good, but you must swallow it all. Dante took the flower and placed it in his mouth. The texture was nice, silky, yet a bit crisp. But the taste was so vile and bitter, his throat clamped shut while his mouth flooded with saliva. After several attempts, he swallowed. Blaze sat up and stuck out his tongue. Gods, I'd almost forgotten how bad these things taste. Winton, can't you harvest us breed new plants over time? Why don't you grow a dream flower that doesn't taste like the inside of my own rectum? The taste is meant to be foul, she said. That way the flower will never be taken by accident, or by animals. Warmth spread from Dante's stomach. The other's speech had a tinny quality to it, like a fainter version of the metallic ringing of the voice of the lich. He swallowed at a lump in his throat. For a time, nothing seemed to be happening. But then he realized he couldn't feel the bedroll beneath him. The ceiling rose away from him, darkening as it climbed beyond the sunlight spearing through the windows. He gasped. He was falling, and he tried to reach for the floor, but his arms wouldn't move. The ceiling was now too far away to see, and he was falling down a hole, and the circle of light above him shrank smaller and smaller until it vanished to nothing. He dreamed.
He was in bed. It was barely morning, and he didn't want to get up, but he knew that if he didn't, someone would come round and yell at him. With a grumble, he sat up. He was in a small, plain room. For a moment, it felt like he'd been here before. But that made no sense. Of course he'd been here before. This was where he was staying while his father was out searching for his mother, who'd gone lost. This was the monk's house. Todd, that was the monk's name, and he was much friendlier than any other monk Dante had met, and Dante liked him very much. He walked out of his room, past the low-burning hearth, and onto the porch. Todd was sitting there, as Dante knew he would be. The full moon hung like an ornament against the washed-out blue of early morning. Todd glanced up from his book. Finally awake, are you? Finally, but it's barely light out. Bright enough to see, bright enough to study. And you have a lot of studying ahead of you, if you want to grow wise before your father returns. The monk handed him a cup of small beer. It was yeasty, but it was good. Dante gazed out into the woods beyond the small clearing around the cabin. Todd chuckled. Woke up with wanderlust. You can spend the morning exploring if you like, but be back by noon, and be ready to begin the complete history of the kingdom of Eritropolis. Dante grinned, hurrying through his breakfast of sausage, tomatoes, and oats. Done, he picked up his staff from next to the door and jogged into the woods. His legs felt light, like he might be able to keep on running forever if he wanted to. But running made the birds go quiet, and he liked the birds. He slowed to a walk, dewy ferns dampening the legs of his trousers. Mice scampered across the disused trail. In time, he came to a pool fed by a small but strong waterfall. Dragonflies flitted above the water. A soft mist hovered around the falls. He waded into the shallows which he was allowed to do, but stopped before the water went past his knees, which was what Todd limited him to when he was alone. The minnows and tadpoles fled from his motion, but once he'd stood still for a while, they drifted toward him again. A red-winged blackbird trilled from the falls. Dante glanced toward it. For a moment, the slant of the sunlight seemed to cut through the falling water, and into a cave behind it. He felt the sudden urge to explore it, but he didn't have time. Not if he was going to be back by noon. Anyway, he would have to swim to it, and if Todd found out he'd been swimming by himself, the monk would ban him from exploring for a whole month. The morning went fast, faster than it should have. Dante had to run back to the cabin to get there by noon. They studied until supper then ate. Feeling suddenly tired, Dante went to bed. He woke early in the morning. The little room felt like somewhere he'd visited before, but that was because it was his home now, wasn't it? He went out to the porch where Todd sat in his chair, and the moon hung like a pale ornament against the washed-out blue of the sky. Most mornings he was free to roam through the woods. 
afternoons were spent studying works from Todd's library, which never seemed to run out of books, even though it wasn't very large. After a week, Dante looked up from The Tale of Jimothy Collins and frowned. Todd, I forget. Why is it that I'm doing so much reading again? The monk frowned back. His close-cropped iron-gray hair looked like a helmet. Because it's good for you. What more reason do you need? Dante tapped the corner of the book. He was sure he was missing something, but the memory of what it was wouldn't come back to him. He shook his head to clear it and went back to reading. He spent a few days exploring the quiet meadow to the south, then the birch forest to the west. One morning, running back to return to the cabin by noon, he splashed through a puddle and disturbed a veritable swarm of tiny little frogs, sending them hopping in all directions. He'd forgotten all about the waterfall. How? It was his favorite place in all the woods. He kept it in mind as he ran home, then thought about it as he read, cementing it in his head. He feared he'd forget it overnight. So, before he went to bed, he scratched a crude picture of it into the wood of the wall behind the chest he kept his things in, then set his shoes beneath the drawing so he'd be sure to see it when he put them on. In the morning, the marks were still there. For some reason, this surprised him. He dressed and ate, then ran north to the falls, the full moon watching him from above. He reached the pool and stood on its bank. There was a cave behind the waterfall. He was sure of it. With his certainty came a memory. He was waiting for his father to come back. That's why he was doing so much reading, to put his dad's absence to good use. Why didn't Todd want him to know that? He unlaced his leather shoes, took off his shirt, and emptied his pockets. He waded into the water. It felt much colder than before, like it didn't want him in it. He made himself wade on, careful not to bang his toes on the mossy, slippery rocks underfoot. Once the water neared his waist, he dived forward. The water was so cold, he inhaled in shock. He rose, sputtering, coughing for a long time. He waited until he was calm and ready, then pushed off and swam forward. But no matter how well he swam, the rear of the pool barely got any closer, as if there was a current working against him. Clenching his jaw to keep his teeth from chattering, he swam harder yet. He shuddered hard, not from the cold, but like a giant dog had picked him up in its jaws and given him a shake. He treaded water a moment, collecting himself. The mist from the falls thickened until he couldn't have told what way he was facing without the roar of the falling water to guide him. He was jostled again, knocked below the surface. He tried to swim upward, but the water had somehow gone thin, and he could no longer pull himself up through it any more than he could pull himself up through the air. Everything felt gauzy. The crash of the falls dimmed until it might have been a mile away. For a moment, he felt like he was falling, and then it was like something gripped him, tight as a vice, and tugged him like a tooth being pulled out by the roots. He woke, 
but even before he was conscious, he could tell he was in a different place. Instead of old wood and cool mornings, the room smelled like stone and a humid summer. He opened his eyes. He was back in the tower. They'd eaten the dream flowers in the morning, but it was now dark outside. Gladick crouched over him, shaking him hard, looking as mad and disheveled as a half-drowned cat. Dante! Gladick's voice was hoarse. You must awaken! I'm up, Dante said. What? The Aedan Rane has come. The city is under siege. Thirteen. Dante sat straight up. Blaze's bedroll was empty. He and Gladick were the only ones inside the tower room. Light flashed outside the window. It had the color of lightning, but rather than the boom of thunder, the noise that came with it was the cracking of stone and the screams of men and women. The lich is here. Dante scrambled to his feet, bringing the nether to him. How is that possible? I do not know. Gladick said. Perhaps we were... The light flashed again. The tower shook so hard Dante fell to one knee. The stone burst apart somewhere below, clattering to the courtyard. The tower swayed beneath them. It felt as though it would soon hit the apogee of its swing and then tilt back like a young tree bent by the wind. But it continued to slide, the floor visibly askew beneath them. The building is falling, Gladick said. We must get out. Dante took one step toward the stairwell, but they were eighty feet up. There was no chance the tower would hold on long enough for them to take the stairs. He dashed toward the window instead. Seeing what lay below, his breath caught in his throat. Milk-white bodies thronged the streets by the thousand. The blighted surged inside buildings like a tsunami of the undead. Whales followed them wherever they went and outside the palace gates, a glowing figure stood twelve feet tall, like a statue of a god, or perhaps the avatar of one. The tower leaned harder. Loose objects were now rolling across the floor. Dante bit the inside of his cheek, tasting coppery blood. He meant to craft a slide onto the side of the tower, the same way they'd done when they were freeing Sorowan from Adane. But the way that broken rocks were raining down from above, Dante didn't think the structure was going to hold together more than a few seconds longer. The tower slipped another few degrees. Dante had to brace himself to stop from being tossed out the window. Jump, Gladick implored. It is our only hope. Dante ignored him, reaching into both the cobbled ground and the stones tumbling down from the point near the roof where the tower had been struck. Both became liquid, the cobbles flowing up, while the rocks flowed down. The latter swept past the window as a broad plain. Dante flung himself out on it. Gladick thumped down behind him. He slid downward, but he barely had any speed. At the moment, the upper part of the ramp was falling as well, although not quite as fast as he was, since he was still making it flow at an angle toward the other ramp rising up from the ground. The two halves met with a hard clack, Dante wasn't entirely sure what would happen at that point. Unanchored at the top, the whole thing might snap in half like a stick. But somehow, it held. He gained speed, zipping towards the courtyard. The ramp shook. Rocks were striking its upper end.
With a great crack and groan, the tower broke wholesale, smashing through the ramp and tumbling toward the ground. Dante reached the bottom, skidding over the cobbles and scraping his hands. Gladick came right after him, grunting in pain as he landed awkwardly. Ether lit his hand and flowed to his right ankle, healing it. Dante stood and ran from the falling rubble, dust blowing past him, holding his arms over his head. What now? Gladick said. I'm thinking we run in whatever direction is away from the lich. Dante took off across the courtyard. There wasn't a gate in the wall he was headed toward, but he'd simply open a doorway through it. Behind them, archers screamed from the walls. Dante glanced back in time to see the front gates vanish in a blinding strike of ether. The debris was still falling as the blighted poured into the courtyard. He reached the wall, opening a hole to the other side. The two of them ran through, and he sealed it behind them. The city is lost, Gladick croaked. We must get out before the lich finds us. He'll find us a hell of a lot faster if we try to run through tens of thousands of blighted everywhere. Then we will use the river. I saw no sign of fighting at the docks. We will find a ship there and sail away. Dante wanted to scream. He wanted to find Blaze. Naren and Wyndon would be with him, he knew. But there was no possible way to do so in the midst of such chaos. He would have to trust that they had gotten away and try to find them later. He and Gladick ran toward the river. The streets were filled with screams and smoke, with bodies and blood. Behind them, the lich tore down the palace piece by piece, the light of the ether shooting up to illuminate the clouds. They came to the river. Its banks were quiet. They ran through the grass as the city fell to flames, sorcery, and blighted. Do you know where the others went? Dante said. What happened? I awoke just a few minutes before you did. Everyone was already gone. I was only able to rouse you through a surge of ether to your brain, which I believed restored it to its original state prior to the consumption of the dream flower. Dante reached out into the nether, as if that might help him make sense of the attack. He found nothing there. Had he and Gladick been trapped in the past lands that long, or had the lich deceived them, finding a way to transport his army to the city in a matter of hours, either through some magical haste or a portal of some kind. They came to the docks. These were almost empty. Everyone else had already chosen to flee. A single crude boat remained, but it was already unmoored, heading to sea. Dante waved his arms and yelled, but it showed no sign of stopping. They're moving faster than we can swim, Gladick said. Pray that I am not about to get us drowned. He dropped to one knee. Ether shined from his hand. He placed it on the water. The surface shimmered, then froze solid, steam wafting from its edges. A trail of ice unspooled toward the departing ship. They ran across it, slipping as they went. Somehow, they reached the boat without falling into the water. Dante used the nether to cut a rope from the stern so it dangled down where he could reach it. He and Gladick hauled themselves up over the top. They hid there, crouching against the railing. The ship was miles out to sea before they could no longer hear the screams on the wind. After they made themselves known to the captain, they argued for a long time over what to do.
Yet, in the end, two things were perfectly clear. Bressel had fallen, taking all of their defences with it. And there was now no hope of stopping the White Lich, not with anything less than the Spear of Stars. They would sail to Calavine. No matter how long it took, they would find the route to the Realm of Nine Kings. Once they had the spear, they would return to make their final stand. The ship sailed southeast, keeping out of sight of land, and, hopefully, the Lich's spies. Dante stared behind them. There was no chance they would return with the spear before the Lich came for Narashtavik. He tried to loon Nack and his spies, but the connections were dead. He found Gladick below decks, where the priest had gone looking for reading material from the crew. Gladick looked dismayed with the results, which were largely illustrated and illegal in most places other than the open sea. They couldn't wake us up, could they? Dante said. So they left us in the tower while they went to fight the lich. That is likely so. But how could the Aedon Rane have arrived so quickly? The only thing I can figure out is that he made his march out of the swamps at the same time we did. When I sent our spies to watch him, they didn't really see his army. They saw an illusion meant to trick us. His army was already marching through the sea toward Bressel. Gladick nodded at the waves. We have made so many mistakes. I wonder if this new journey of ours is merely the latest of them. Look on the bright side. If it is a mistake, at least it'll be the last one we get to make. They sailed on, the weather growing a little warmer with each day. To keep himself busy, Dante treated the sailors' diseases, which they seemed to collect like woodsmen collected antlers. He also fooled about with the small stock of potatoes and squash they had among their provisions, attempting to harvest more of them. They wouldn't grow from thin air, but they would grow somewhat from water. He thought about asking the captain to have the sailors save their soil, then reflected on what he'd seen of their illnesses and made no such request. The shores of Tanaratain lay long behind them. They now voyaged through waters Dante had only seen in old maps. They passed a lush island, but the captain gazed at it darkly, muttering words of protection. One night, Dante woke to the thump of hurried boots. Men called back and forth above decks. Gladick's hammock was empty. Dante rubbed his eyes and climbed the stairs. On deck, sailors climbed and wrestled with the rigging, moving with a haste born of panic. Faster, you sons of bitches, the captain bawled from the forecastle. Don't you dare slow down until we've got dirt beneath our feet. Dante jogged up the steps. Captain, what on earth? The captain looked past Dante's shoulder, eyes flying wide. He uttered a strangled cry and threw himself to the deck. Dante spun. There was only half a moon to light the waves, but the night was brightened by an eldritch light pulsing from the gigantic eyes of something climbing from the water just thirty feet to port. A tentacle rose, taller and thicker than the mast. It cocked back, then whipped toward the boat. Dante scooped up all the nether he could get hold of and flung it at the enormous limb, hammering the shadows into a bent blade. They hit the tentacle right in its middle. 
It should have been enough to cut it into bloody ribbons, but the nether burst apart instead, showering into the choppy waves. Dante ran toward the bow. The tentacle slashed through the rigging, dragging sails behind it, and hit the deck so hard it broke the hull in half, driving the center down into the water and jolting the bow and stern sharply upward. Dante was flung into the air. He got one good look at it. Those two glowing eyes, each the size of a carriage, slitted nostrils or gills, and then the mouth, a heaving canyon filled with rows of teeth like bladed tombstones, its breath as foul as the bodies that would lay beneath such graves. It was too dark to know, but he got the impression that, for as large as it looked, the portion of the leviathan he could see was only a small part of what hung beneath the surface. Still tumbling through the air, broken boards slammed into Dante from the side. Something struck his head. His body went warm. He blacked out before he landed. If he dreamed, he didn't remember it. Then, someone was calling his name. Light flared behind his eyes. He opened them. He was in the water, draped over a chunk of splintered wood. The ship was gone, at least as a ship. Barrels, sails, and flotsam bobbed in the moonlight. He swiveled his head, but the leviathan seemed to have vanished. Something splashed into the water behind him. Dante jerked back with a shriek, grasping feebly at the nether. Grab hold! Gladick kneeled in a rowboat, holding fast to a rope. The other end swayed in the water next to Dante. He grabbed for it, but he lacked the strength to pull himself toward the rowboat. Gladick reeled him in, hand over hand. Dante rolled over the gunwale. They sat in the boat, bobbing on the now gentle waves. There was no sign of any other survivors. The ship is lost, Gladick said. We will have to strike eastward in search of land. But even if we find it, these realms are foreign to us. I fear our path will be treacherous and long. Of course it will be. Gladick folded his hands in prayer. Yet we must not give up. If we persevere, I am certain that, in time, with the blessings of the gods, we can once more find ourselves on the way to Calavine. Gladick, Dante said softly. Since when did you have two hands? The priest gave him a quizzical look. Since the day that I was born. Yeah, and then you lost one of them at the Riolais. I remember it quite well because I was the one who cut it off. Look, you are bleeding. You have suffered a blow to the head. It has caused you to become delusional. No, Gladick, you're trying to delude me. You're not even real. None of this is. Gladick stared at him. The old man opened his mouth to speak, but then his eyes went dark, receding into his head. Gladick withered and collapsed on himself, hardening into a small stalagmite of papery matter, like dried-up algae at the edge of a pond. The rowboat rocked. The flotsam sloshed about. Dante's stomach lurched as though he were falling. His ears felt it too, it was several seconds until he understood. The ocean itself was draining. Down and down he went. With no land around to provide perspective, 
he had no idea how far the water sank. A soughing sound arose, climbing quickly to a great sucking roar. Small islands broke the surface like the backs of whales. With a bump, the rowboat came to a rest on the ocean floor. All the water was gone except for ponds and puddles. The ground was featureless muck, studded here and there with long white bones. Dante stood unsteadily. To his right, an endless stairway climbed into the sky. He began to ascend. The ground diminished beneath him. The stars sparkled overhead. A long time later, light peeped from the top of the stairs. It grew a little with each step, shaping into a rectangle of light. He came at last to a shining doorway. Shielding his eyes, he stepped through. He stood in a blank land. Mists swirled around his knees. Next to him, Blaze and Gladick stood up from the table they'd been playing cards on. Blaze placed his hand on the small of his back and stretched backward. What took you so long? We've been waiting here for... Well, I'm not really sure how long, given how this place works. Emotion to the playing cards. But if we'd had money to play with, by now Gladick would owe me about three kingdoms. The past lands tricked me. Dante said, checking and confirming he'd successfully brought the Book of What Lies Beyond the Land of Calavine. Even worse than they normally do. It was like they had no intention of ever letting me leave. Gladick nodded, hunger gleaming in his eyes. What did you say? Dante described it to him, both the monk's cabin that he'd been brought to on previous entries to the past lands, and then the false awakening, the siege of Bressel, and his journey from it. The shipwreck alone was set to delay us from reaching Calavine by weeks, Dante said, and I'm sure it was only the first of countless setbacks. Most likely, I was never going to reach Calavine, and was intended to forget all about it in the course of other adventures. But what is the purpose of these delays and forgetting? What have the gods arranged the past lands to accomplish? Before, it seems to be a way to work through your most powerful wishes and fears, to prepare your mind for the acceptance of death. But this time felt different. I'm not sure what it means. Dante reached down and stirred a stray tendril of mist. What about you? What did you see? Something much different. I found myself in a simple room. It looked not unlike the study in a monastery. At the end of the room were two doors. Although they were unmarked, their meaning to me was immediately clear. The door on the right was to live, and the door on the left was to die. Then what? I dwelled on the question for some time. Then I stepped through the door on the right and found myself here. What? That's it. No tricks. No diversions. I can only tell you what I saw and I am convinced that if I had taken the second door, my death would have been real, and I would have passed into the mists not as a visitor, but as a man arriving at his new home. The more I learn about you, Lay said, the more I reach the inevitable conclusion there is something very wrong in your head. What about you? 
Dante said. See anything unusual? Nope, same as always. I was a kid again, and I was saving the younger kids from the trouble they can't seem to stop getting themselves into. Well, we're here. Have you started looking for Parlo? We have not moved from this spot, Gladick said. We were not certain that we would be able to find you if we should remove ourselves from the place where we arrived. Blaze swept up the playing cards. Plus, it hardly seemed fair for us to do all the work while you were goofing around in a fairy tale. I suppose we have no idea which direction to go. Dante gazed about the cloudscape. It was spangled with small stands of trees and outcrops of rock, some of which were high overhead, while others seemed to somehow be far below their feet. But I further suppose that if Paolo was killed in Bressel, then he'll be in whatever the here equivalent of Bressel is. We'll just will ourselves toward the city, if there is one, and start asking around. He started off toward the only cluster of pine trees he could see, intending to use them as a landmark. As he walked, he gathered his will and insisted they arrive at Bressel. Their previous trips to the mists had all been in the plagued islands, and the landscape had been tied to that of the area, with no hint of other geographies. In fact, some of the dreamers believed the mists were unique to the plagued islands, and that if you were to die in Bressel, say, or Setevan, or Call, you would experience an altogether different version of what lies beyond. Yet, at first blush, the mists of Malin seemed to be more or less the same. Sure, the trees were pines and birch, rather than palms and boat trees and the like. But just as they'd seen in the islands, this place had the seemingly random patches of landscape, not to mention the ever-present mists themselves. The mists in front of them parted, revealing a shallow stream bedded with small round rocks of every shade of blue. They waded across it, sending silver insects skating across the surface and golden fish streaking beneath it. When they reached the other side, Gladick turned to look at it a while longer. Did you trip and fall into the water without us noticing? Blaze said. Or are those tears running down your face? This place. Gladick's voice caught. In my deepest heart, I never believed that I would be admitted to Thames Garden, for I had committed far too many wrongs to face anything but punishment. But I am here. I am seeing it. It is not what I was told that it would be, yet it is beauty itself. Tears ran freely down his cheeks. He watched the stream another moment, then turned and carried on, smiling beatifically. His expression was nothing short of rapture. And why not? He was being allowed to witness one of the gods' deepest mysteries. His reaction was a natural one, wasn't it? That Dante hadn't felt the same way on first seeing it only implied that he was too earthly by comparison. Perhaps that was the nature of those who followed the nether. But perhaps Dante took too much for granted. How many of the living had been allowed to see this place? A few dozen in all the world? Next, they passed through patches of grass with wildflowers whose petals shined like translucent gems. Now and then, strange animals seemed to cavort at the edge of Dante's vision, but whenever he turned to look at them, they vanished into the swirling vapor. 
they hiked up a ridge of clouds. At the top, they stopped and gazed down at a vast city, bisected by a river that looked like flowing mercury on its way into a crystalline blue sea. At first glance, it very might well have been Bressel, but that illusion only lasted a moment. Instead, it looked not like one city, but like a score of them, all chopped up and tossed together, with each district as distinct from the next as the redoubt was from the rest of Bressel. Suppose this is it, Dante said. Blaze peered down at it. It looks like a big fat city. And it also looks a lot like Bressel. But if you'd rather play it safe, we could spend a few weeks wandering around the mists, looking for something that looks even more like Bressel. They descended the hill toward the city. Now that they had come to a settlement, the mists largely dissolved, reduced to occasional tendrils. A road opened underfoot. At first it was rutted dirt, but the next section was cobbled, followed by a portion of red brick and then flat black stones. Instead of slums, the houses outside the city were simple farmhouses with small plots divided by fieldstone walls, a yards filled with lush green gardens. The city gates were wide open, and there was no sign of any guards. The plaza beyond held numerous merchant stalls. These were busy with people, as they'd be at any major city, yet something about them made Dante pause. They all spoke Malish, but there were multiple accents Dante had never heard before. Some of them dressed strangely, too, Rather than the doublets and trousers common among burghers and nobility alike, or the blouses and tough shin-length pants often favoured by labourers, many of the wealthier-looking types were dressed in tailored robes with cinched waists and wrists, while the peasants were draped in shapeless frocks. Blaze cocked his head. Are those men wearing dresses? They are frocks, Gladick said not unlike a longer and looser jabot. Well, they look awful. Maybe that's what got them killed. Foreigners, Dante said. Gladick shook his head. Brasselman, for that is how they used to dress two hundred years ago. At a second glance, their faces did look malish. Noticing this, Dante kept his eyes peeled for the pale elfin Tenarians, but he saw none on their way across the square. Anything strike you as odd about these fellows? Blaze gestured to a group of men and women discussing the price of carved little wooden boxes. Aside from their gruesome taste in fashion. Dante nodded. For people arguing about how much things should cost, they seem remarkably not mad at each other. There's hardly any shouting at all. I suppose there's no getting worked up over a few pennies when you have infinity years to earn more. Still walking forward, Blaze turned in a circle. I'm not seeing any Tenarians. Suppose we should ask where they're hiding? You're going to ask? How? I've been giving it some thought, and I think I would walk up to him and use a few of my sentences. Given that the Tenarians just conquered this city, and may have killed some of the very people we're about to talk to, the locals might not leap at the chance to help us. Interesting theory. Let's put it to the test. Blaze strolled up to an awning 
where a man was selling bins of berries of all colors of the rainbow, many of which were not, at least in the physical world, ever in season at the same time. Hello, sir! Blaze smiled broadly and bobbed his head. I was wondering if you could tell me whether there's a Tenarian neighborhood in this city. Tenarian? The man screwed up his face. What in nine ways is a Tenarian? A person from Tenaritane. It's down south along the coast. I wouldn't recommend visiting, though, not without something to keep away the mosquitoes. And the liches. The merchant looked down at the ground, smiling like he couldn't figure out whether Blaze was putting him on. Ah, yes, Tenarians. Heard something about them a few weeks past, but I can't say as I've ever seen one of them. Blaze tried a few more questions, but the man had nothing to offer. Blaze walked away, looking confused, but that didn't stop him from approaching the woman at the fishmongery two stalls down. She said that she hadn't so much as heard of a Tenarian in the city, either. Gladick met this news with a furrowed brow. How can this be so? No fewer than a thousand Tenarians died in the upheaval, perhaps twice that many. Those here should at least know of their presence. Could they have already passed into the world, see? That doesn't feel right, Dante said. Almost everyone spends at least a few years in the mist, and lots of them stick around for decades. Surely some of the dead would still be here. Blaze glanced up at a passing flock of black-headed gulls. Unless the Malish decided to kill them all a second time. Maybe they keep to their own district. Let's take a stroll and see what we can find. They exited the square and made their way through the city streets. The buildings around them were whitewashed wood that looked more or less like those in contemporary Bressel, but after a short walk, the architecture changed in a snap to stout brick structures. There was still a fair amount of these in Bressel, but they were time-worn, whereas these looked like they'd been erected within the last year. After this came a section of smaller, humbler, wooden houses with thatched roofs. Almost all the people here wore the shapeless frocks they'd seen earlier, and spoke with an accent almost, but not quite, like anything Dante was familiar with. It isn't just the buildings that are different, he said slowly, thinking it through by speaking it aloud. The people are from different eras, too. It's like they share the city as a whole, but when it comes to their homes, their customs, they stick with what they knew in life. Blaze continued to make inquiries with anyone who looked willing to chat, including shopkeeps, a fellow out sweeping straw from his stone porch, and a woman leisurely pushing an empty cart on some errand. But they just shook their heads, or looked down with puzzled smiles, as if Blaze was blabbing sheer nonsense. Region by region, they made their way across the city. But no matter how far they walked, they got nowhere in finding a Tenarian. For all the walking they did, Dante's legs were much less tired than they should have been. After a while, he got so lost in observing the different architecture, fashions, sculptures, murals, and customs, that he almost forgot what they were doing there. For it was one thing to realize, as did everyone who set foot in Bressel, that it was a thriving city in a mighty nation, 
a metropolis of hard-working and creative people. Yet it was quite another thing to see, in person, how it had been like that for centuries, how much history and culture they'd given birth to, how much work and how many lives it had taken to attain the state that most people now took for granted. It gave Dante no small measure of pride to know that he had been born to these people and traditions. For perhaps the very first time, it also made him sad that he'd been induced to leave them. The daylight waned. They turned a corner and found themselves in the colonist district, with blonde-haired people walking about between buildings of mud bricks. In Colin proper, most of their structures were the same grey as the earth they were fired from, but nearly every shop and house here had been dyed yellow, orange, or light blue, giving the quarter a cheery, welcoming look. Blazer's eyes homed in on a building with a sign bearing a painting of a jackrabbit hoisting a mug. Look at that! I'd been wondering how this place could claim itself as paradise without any damn pubs around. Let's go find out what heavenly beer tastes like. Dante objected, but his efforts were entirely futile. They entered the common room, which was half-filled, mostly by the golden-haired colonists who made up a non-trivial portion of Bressel's population. The air smelled like wood smoke, roasting corn and fresh beer. There were tables, but Blaze made for the bar, ordering a round of red ales. The barkeep poured three tall mugs and slid them across the damp wood with practiced expertise. Blaze took a long slug and clapped down his mug. Now that was worth the trip right there. The barkeep chuckled through his mustache. The trip? Is that what you call it? Oh, we're not dead. We're just visiting. Just visiting? Sounds like it must have been a blow to the head that did you in. Making sport of me, eh? I demand satisfaction. Lucky for you, I'm willing to forego a duel if you'll answer me a question. The barkeep quirked his mouth. What's that, sir? We're looking for a group of people known as Tenarians. Have you heard of them? The Tenarians? The man wrinkled his smudged brow. Thin fellows, well, you can't always tell the fellows from the lasses. Ah, then you have seen them. Not myself, but I heard a great deal of them showed up not long ago. But it was like as soon as they got here, they up and vanished. They left. Where to? The man shrugged. Couldn't say. All I know is that nobody's seen them since. Blaze pressed him for more information, but the barkeep didn't even have any good rumors. They finished their beer. Blaze paid up. He'd brought coins along in his pocket the same way Dante had brought the book, but the barkeep didn't seem to care too much about the color of what he got. Outside, Blaze scratched his head. What's going on here? Were the Tenarians here or not? I don't think the barkeep would have just made that up, Dante said. Besides, he knew what they looked like without us telling him. They were here at some point. We just have to keep searching. They hit the streets again. The sun dimmed. Posts on the corners of the larger streets lit with soft blue light, but this hardly seemed necessary, as there were no urchins or footpads about, 
and even the drunks seemed amiable. As the night deepened, Dante feared they'd need to find lodging, which would be tricky, as it was his understanding that if you went to sleep in the mists, you'd remove yourself from the dream. But none of them were getting sleepy. The streets thinned of people. They questioned the few who were left, but they all answered the same. They knew nothing of the so-called tenarians. Soon there was almost no one out at all, and they were reduced to walking briskly from quarter to quarter, searching for tenarian houses, or their waterways and boats, or any other hint of their existence. Dawn came with no further clues. Dante still wasn't tired, but the sunlight hurt his eyes. He stopped to rub them. I know this might sound crazy, given that we've been searching for hours without finding any indication the Tenarians are here, but I'm starting to think the Tenarians aren't here. Gladick cleared his throat, having not spoken in some time. Then where might they be instead? I don't know, but locations in the mist aren't fixed the same way they are in our world. I think we might be able to will ourselves toward the Tenarians who died in Bressel, and, with any luck, find Parlo with them. No one had any arguments against this, so they headed toward the city wall, following its curve to a gate. They exited and walked through the farms. Once these were behind them, the fog arose once more with most of the landscape blotted out except for odd bits of trees, turf, and ponds. There isn't even proper land out here, Dante said. Just little bits of it. Free floating fragments. Those are some keen powers of observation, Blay said. Have you ever considered opening a university? But back in the city, or even the farms, they were cohesive. Proper things, like our world, if a little stranger. It's like the only parts of the mists that are stable are the parts inhabited by people. Gladick tapped his long nose with his index finger. For this raw matter here is no more than possibility. It is only when it is shaped by the wants and will of minds that it becomes fixed and navigable. A farm is willed into being by the man or family that lives upon it just as the city is willed into being by those groups that live within it, and just as we are attempting to will ourselves toward the Tenarians. All of this had the feel of a great revelation, yet, at the same time, Dante had no idea what to do with it. They walked through the white clouds of ether, detouring around the occasional boulder, wading through cool streams, at all times, Dante occupied his mind with thoughts of Tenaritain and its people, sometimes one-eyed Parlo himself, although he had the suspicion it was more effective to focus on the people as a whole, since they were a much larger target, and he was, in these matters, a rather sloppy marksman. They seemed to be going uphill for a while, then downhill for a while longer. Although it was strangely hard to tell in these lands, where your muscles told you one thing, but your eyes told you another. There wasn't a sun, per se, but the light brightened for a while, peaked, then turned wan, not dissimilar to a dawdling afternoon. A dim pressure arose in Dante's solar plexus. It felt 
oddly similar to the pressure he felt in his head when he was tracking someone through their blood. As they walked onward, moving unnaturally fast due to the exertion of their will, the pressure grew, although it remained light overall. They came to a hill and climbed up to a ridge. An enormous city lay beneath them. Dante clapped his hands, then stopped, letting them fall to his side. What the hell? Blaze wandered another step forward. That's the same city we came from. It was true. It had the same walls, the same green farms outside them, the same quilt of districts and neighborhoods, the same towers and church spires. Dante hunted for anything different to prove they'd found a different place, but everything appeared identical. He punched his thigh. What happened? We were getting closer to them. I could feel it. I did as well, Gladick said. There was a sense of fulfillment, of achievement. I do not believe I was imagining it. Maybe we did something wrong. Willing your way through the mists can be tricky. It's like trying to follow a road buried deep under the snow. We might try again, yet why do I feel so certain we would end up right back at this city once more? Same here. Blaze waved a bit of mist that had drifted into his face. What if the mists did bring us to the Tenarians? Dante gave him a look. Then we would be at a city full of lots of Tenarians, instead of a city full of zero Tenarians. We searched the streets for a full day without seeing or hearing about a single one of them. Do you remember the first time we traveled to the mists, and that Dresh woman kept dumping us into the ocean? And then we asked if she could kill us. She admitted she couldn't, but warned us that if she really wanted, she could will us into a burning volcano and keep us there forever. She also said that would take the constant willpower of every person in the village. How many people lived in that village? A few hundred? There might be a few hundred thousand people in this city, more than enough to send a group of hated foes off to hell. That might explain why every Malish person we spoke to claimed they'd never heard of the Tenarians, but the coroner at the pub claimed they'd been here briefly. Gladick motioned to the city. Imagine the rage the Malish must have felt upon being inundated with the dead of those who had just conquered their descendants. Do you truly believe they would happily share their city with such people? If they'd done this to Narashtovic, I'd want to build a new spire as high as I could, then hang them all from it. So if the Tenarians are here after all, how do we find them? Everything's made of ether, isn't it? Blaze said. Why don't one of you wise and clever sorcerers take a look at it and see if the Malisher's will has left any markers in it, or if anything's out of sorts? Startled by the question, which was so obvious in hindsight, Dante emptied his mind, letting the light leak into it. Next to him, he could feel Gladick shooting into the substrate of the mists. Gladick chuckled. Blaze is correct. There is another city beneath the city. He started downhill, robes tousling about his shins. Dante followed after him, still working his way through the ether. From the vision provided by the light, the city was translucent and shining, its houses and towers more like suggestions or 
ideals than physical objects. Beneath it, the plane of ether that made the ground was bent and warped. Its structure was difficult to make out, but there was no mistaking the pit beneath the warping, or the simple structures that lay within it. I see it, Dante said. But how do we get to it? Gladick smiled. And I thought you would be my guide through this land. Gladick lifted his hand. Before them, the ether bent and warped, just as it appeared to be doing beneath the city. A doorway opened from thin air, or, more accurately, from the ether that formed everything. They stepped through. They found themselves in a watery clearing. Ahead, humble houses rose on stilts, canoes resting beside them in the slack water. 14. Blaze lifted one foot from the water. I don't suppose there are any Ziki Oko down here? Dante delved his mind into the shallow swamp. There are some fish here, but they don't seem very interested in us. If they do show up, just will them to go eat someone else's legs down to the bone. They waded toward the Tenarian village. The water looked clean enough, much cleaner than the swamps had, yet the air smelled vaguely of waste. A woman emerged from the nearest house, though really it was more of a hut and the closest thing to squalor Dante had ever seen in the mists. Her black hair was long on top and shaved at the sides, and she wore a light yellow jabot that hung to mid-thigh. Seeing them, surprise hit her face, twisting quickly to horror. Hello, Blaze called. We're friends of Drake Benyoto, and we're here to see a man named Parlo. I don't suppose he's around. The woman vanished into the hut without a word. Dante stopped, hardening his will to remain in this place should they try to cast him out. It was only a few moments later before an older Tenarian man appeared. He wore a jabot along with a broad banana leaf wrapped over his head, as if this was perfectly normal. He looked them up and down, then beckoned them forward. I have seen your face and our abode, Gladick of Bristol, this way. He led them through the quiet water to another hut set off from the village and enclosed by a ring of banana trees, their smooth trunks packed tightly against each other. They climbed the wooden steps to the porch outside the hut's entrance. The Tenarian man pulled aside a skin hanging over the door and spoke softly to someone inside. And her, a man called. The three of them walked into the single room. It was dark and notably cooler than the air outside, which was quite a bit warmer and swampier than it had been in the city above them. A man was seated on a wad of pillows near the rear. He held a long, thin object that appeared to be a cut reed, but he was smoking from it, producing a scent like earthy citrus. He fixed them with his one eye. So, you found us. Banish you, did they? Blaze said. I've always meant to get banished from somewhere. It felt like I was having a strange dream that lasted for days. And then at last I woke up, and I found myself in their city. Paolo lifted his index finger and pointed up. 
and I knew that I was dead. Bit of a shock, but I got used to it in no more than an hour. The bigger shock came to the mallet. At first, they didn't quite know what to make of us, but as more of us showed up, the mood began to turn. That's when they stuck us down here. Are you actually stuck here? Dante said. Have you tried willing yourselves out? That's how a lot of things are done here. You just sort of want them to happen until they do. Paolo laughed and sucked on his reed, squinting his eye against its smoke. Oh, all we need to do is want to leave. No, not a single one of us has thought of that, wanting to leave. It is good to have such a wise foreigner at hand to help us. I wasn't going to insult you by asking if you tried to just walk away, but now I think I will ask that. Now, that is actually a funny thing. At first, we could wander around some. We were trying to find our homelands part of this place, our people. If it's here, one can be reached. But it's like it's gotten tighter. Can't go far before you end up right back here. Something thudded hard into the grass roof. Blaze looked up. Don't mind that, Paolo said. It's just the shit. The what? The shit. The Malish drop it on us from their city. When you go back outside, you might want to cover your head with a banana leaf. If it's raining shit, I think I'll borrow the entire tree. Paolo puffed on his reed and motioned them to sit. Do you know what the irony of it is? During the time we were allowed to stay in the city, do you know what I saw? No one here has to work if they don't wish. In fact, it is relatively easy to just will yourself to have all that you might want. But people reject that. They find that wealth without work is wealth without meaning. So, they find work, even if it's simple. They earn their place. Many former idlers discover they want to have families to pass on their accumulated trades and belongings and knowledge and love. From this process, everyone around them benefits too. He grew more animated, his reed drawing lines of smoke through the air as he gestured. Don't you see? The behavior supports our belief in the body. We all have our place, our peace within the greater whole. These people throw us out, but the heavens reflect the Tenarian belief. Dante shrugged. This place, as far as I can tell, is here to give people the chance to live out peaceful and meaningful lives, to make up for anything they missed out on, and thus prepare to leave everything behind. Through the body, new Tenarians have just formalized a way of being that we all know, on some level, to be true. Paolo sank back. In the gloom of the hut, his one eye was like a silver coin reflecting the sunlight. You said the Drake Bane sent you to find me. Presumably, getting here would require committing suicide. But I'm going to guess that even if you found a way to pass messages from the land of the dead back to the living, there was no need for three of you to off yourselves. 
So have you instead found a way for the living to reach the dead? The people of the plagued islands came up with it, Blay said. We just recognized it as a very useful trick and stole it accordingly. And you used it to come and see me. Let me think. You're here either to hear about the molar roars or the spear of stars. The latter. Dante got out the book and explained the story that lay within it. The Drakebane says that you yourself traveled to Calavine to try to find the spear, but couldn't find your way to the realm of nine kings. It was my hope that, by comparing what you learned to what I've got here, we could find a way to the realm. Or better yet, that I could figure out how to forge a second spear without the need for a long quest. Paolo chuckled, shooting streams of smoke from his nostrils. I know exactly why I couldn't find the realm of nine kings. It's a very good reason indeed. You see, you can't get to the realm because the realm doesn't exist. Gladick laughed, crow-like. That should have been our very first guess. For why else would the warriors of Tanaritain not have found the spear many ages ago? This can't be true, Dante said. I know it's easy to forget, since I showed you close to an entire minute ago, but I have a book that chronicles two men's travels to the realm. Paolo tapped on his reed, knocking loose some dottle. I searched Calavine and its surroundings for two years. No one there had even heard of the realm. I have news that might startle you. People lie, especially to foreigners. We just had every malisher in the city trying to convince us they'd never seen you or your compatriots. But to be lied to day after day, in town after town, by hundreds of people, young and old, wealthy and poor, from both the rebels and the loyalists who are currently engaged in civil war to destroy each other, why would so many people all tell the same lie? Because to them, you look funny and talk like a fool. How should I know why people half the world away do the things they do? What is more likely, you dumb northern ice-eater, that hundreds of different people across the entire sprawl of Calavine conspired to individually lie to me, or that your book, your only source, is lying to you? I don't know what you're trying to say. The book is a fiction, a story, picaroon adventures of wars and shipwrecks and strange faraway lands. Here, let me see it. Still seated, he held up his hand. Resentfully, Dante gave him the book. Paolo paged through it, sniffed it, then snorted. Is this really how it looks? Yes. What about it? It's brand new. You can still smell the ink. It only looks that way because it's sealed in ether to protect it from aging. The woman who gave it to me got it from someone who'd had it in their library for at least a century. There's no telling how much longer it had been around before that. And this sorcerer who wrote it, this sable who claims he ventured to the mystical realm of nine kings, where was he supposed to be from? I believe he's from Alebolgia. Alebolgia? How interesting. 
Does Sable sound like an Alabolgian name to you? Dante shrugged. It was old Alabolgia. I don't think they even called it that then. Besides, he was a sorcerer. We have an honored tradition of choosing ridiculous names for ourselves. Harlow tossed the book onto the wooden floor with a flat whomp. You came here for my wisdom. Well, my wisdom is that you've been sold a farce. I was there. For two years of my life I chased after the realm. But it's no more than a fantasy. Dante glanced to the others for help, but they were carefully looking away. Then what did you find in Calavine? Is the whole story nothing but lies? Parla, who had been almost delirious with scorn, sobered abruptly. Oh no, the spear is probably real, or at least it was real. The Avenians spoke of what they called the Robus Dorish, which is what your book calls the Vampire of Light, and what you call the White Lich, and what we call the Aedonrane. Although it was almost certainly a different one, since according to them he was slain by the Spear of Stars. So the spear is real. Sure, it was, but it broke when it killed him, shattered into nothing when it absorbed the vast ether the Robus Dorish had stolen from his many victims. Hasn't been another spear since, or any need of it, for they haven't seen another Robus Dorish again. Dante clasped his hands behind his back and paced across the shadowy room. So, you believe the spear was real, but that it was destroyed in the act of killing the Lich of Calavine. Do you know if there were any other spears prior to that? Or in other lands? If so, don't you think I would have brought it back here to gore the Aedan Rane with? Did you ever hear anything about where the original spear came from? No one seemed to know. The most they could say was that it was forged from the metal of stars brought to Earth. Shooting stars. Gladick touched his skin. I have seen their metal. I have seen even swords forged from it. The blades were dark and beautiful, rippled with strange patterns. But I saw no special signs of ether within them, nor powers that might slay one such as the Lich. Paolo waved her hand. Surely it was enchanted or the like. But as for the nature of those enchantments, or whatever else it was that made the spear the spear, I couldn't say, because nobody in Calavine knew. That's all you know about it, Dante said. That's as much as you can tell us. Now, I can tell you one more thing. In all, I spent three years traveling to Calavine, exploring its lands in search of the spear, and then traveling home. And all three of those years were wasted. The three of them stood there, with nothing to say. Paolo fished herbs from a pouch and unhurriedly tamped them into his reed. Well, this wasn't what I was hoping for, Dante said. But if what you're saying is true, at least we know it would be a waste of time to travel to Calavine. If we're going to defeat the Lich... It's going to have to be through conventional means. Paolo puffed his reed, examining the thin quantity of smoke it produced. Is he coming for Brussels?
He's already on the move. He could strike in less than a week. I almost hope you lose, because that will mean the people of Bressel will die as well. Dante watched him a moment, then turned to go. Wait. Paula stood at last, hurrying after them. You're returning to the land of the living. Blaze glanced at the ceiling. It seems preferable to hanging around a place where it rains shit. Dante turned. Have you remembered something? Yes, Paolo said. That my son is still alive, and in the Drakebane's employment. Will you tell him that I'm fine, that I love him, and that one day we'll see each other again? We'll do that, and I'll let the Drakebane know you did all you could to help. Paolo stared at him, as if trying to decide whether this was an insult, then nodded and returned to his cushions. They exited the hut. Outside, Ether glared from the sky, hurting their eyes. Holding one hand over his head, Blaze drew his sword and cleaved through the thick stalk of a banana leaf, catching it before it hit the water. He tossed it to Gladick, then chopped one for Dante and a third for himself. I don't think there's anything more for us here, Dante said, frowning at his banana leaf, which was smaller and much more raggedy than the other two Blaze had cut. Time to go home and return to our preparations. They waded through the swamp. Dante willed no unwelcome surprises to fall on his head. As soon as the village was behind them, they made for a little island, climbing onto it to lie down, fall asleep, and return to the land of the living. As Dante and Blaze kicked away rocks and bedded down on the dirt, Gladig sat upright, gazing off into the mists. On his face was a look of private awe. No need to linger, Blaze said. The lich will probably send us right back here soon enough. Dante folded his arms beneath his head. Within moments of closing his eyes, exhaustion fell on him. He slept, and at the same time, he woke. He stirred on his bedroll, stretching his painfully stiff limbs. The tower room was dark, and through the windows came the shouts and clamor of battle. Heart pounding, he jumped to his feet and ran to the window. A man gave a cry of surprise. It was the Drakebane, who'd been seated in near darkness. What's going on? Dante said. Are we being attacked? Attacked? The emperor looked puzzled, then laughed. We're drilling the men. The blighted are less hampered by the night than we are. I am concerned that's when they will launch their initial attack. Right. Good. Dante leaned out the window, confirming the battlements weren't getting ripped apart by storms of ether. We found your sorcerer, Paolo. Were you able to learn what you went there to learn? Your sorcerer is certain that the realm of nine kings is a fantasy. The spear was used up killing another lich, and there's nowhere to go to get a new one. The emperor nodded. Do you agree with him? You knew he'd have nothing for us, didn't you? I held hope that I was wrong. Bullshit! If he'd had any real information, anything that could actually help us kill the lich, I think you would have remembered. Yoto straightened to look down at Dandy. Would it have mattered? 
If I had sworn on the heart of my own mother that your venture was a waste of time, would it have stopped you from travelling to see Paolo and hear about the spear for yourself? No. Dante forced his voice to go calm. Excuse me. I thought we had the opportunity to stop this war before it reached the city. But now it's clear there's no escape, and that a lot of people will be dead before this is over. But for you, the matter is more personal. You don't just want the lich dead. You want revenge. Do you think that makes me less devoted to our cause? It means your mind is not always as clear as it should be. That's just it. He didn't only enslave my physical body. He enslaved my very mind. And I will destroy him for that. Footsteps rustled faintly on the stone. Gladick was walking toward them. Most likely, he'd been listening this whole time, as had Blaze, who was sitting up and yawning in his bedroll. There remains one slim hope, Gladick said. If we can find the metal from a fallen star, we might be able to forge it into a new spear. Dante wrinkled his brow. No, we won't. What good is it to have the materials if we have no idea how to work them? I think you're on the same page here, Blaze said. You see, when Gladick said the chances were slim, he didn't mean a little bit bad, like the chance that a roll of the dice will hit on your number. He meant as bad as the chances you'll ever find a wife. After a bit more talk, the lot of them went their separate ways. Though Dante felt as tired as if their journey to the other city had been real, before he allowed himself to rest, he rode out to the ramparts to expend his nether expanding them. That night, he dreamed of the second Bressel, the one they'd seen in the mist. The range of the city's history, displayed by those who'd lived there across the ages, had been a revelation an inspiration to become a part of that deep history as well, and ensure that it would continue to survive into the deep future. At the same time, though, it had reminded him that history wasn't a river, but an ocean, and in its grand sweep any one man was no more than a drop. Levin was quite good with sixers, the common term among his cohort for reanimated animal scouts and spies, so-called because they gave you the sixth sense of observation from a distance. His skill was why High Priest Gallant had chosen him for this mission, just as he'd been partnered with Pera for her ability to inflict raw damage on buildings and stone. But for all of Levin's practice with such scouts, he didn't think he'd ever used a fish. They're passing underneath us right now, he murmured, peering down through the drifting fish's eyes at the dim horde walking across the sea floor. Just another minute. Then it's time to drop Tame's hammer. Got it, Perra said. She gazed out at nothing, arms wrapped loosely around her knees. I've been thinking. What? Are we sure this is just? Killing the lich's abominations to live? I think the gods will forgive us that one. What comes after? Luring his legions into the towns? She gestured across the low, rolling hills behind them. These people, they're innocent. So is everyone in Bressel. 
If we don't do this, these people die anyway. It's just a matter of when. She was watching him, her grey eyes pained. I understand that. What I don't understand is how you can be so callous. It has to be done. There's no changing that. What good is it to cry about it? He grunted, jerking his chin toward the sea. It's time. She hunched there, motionless. For a moment, he thought she was going to call off the whole thing. Then she closed her eyes and reached into the nether. They'd spent a lot of time and energy weakening the rocks ahead of time, and it didn't take nearly as much nether to finish the job as he would have thought. Even so, as the cliff gave way with a crack like the breaking of the bones of the world, a thrill of sheer power raced up Levin's spine. A hunk of earth the size of a small hill broke free, rotating slowly as it plummeted toward the water. He and Pera were hundreds of yards back from the cliffs, but when the rock hit the sea, the splash was as loud as any thunder. The spume of water it spat into the air flew so high, he was sure they were about to get drenched. He hopped on his horse and rode directly from the shore, laughing in wonder. It worked! It crushed hundreds of them! The others are scattering in all directions! It's utter confusion! Pera nodded joylessly. Then we did what we had to. Not quite. We still have to leave a few clues to coax the lich into visiting Regatta. He reached into his horse's bags and got out a banner of the town, pre-soiled and rumpled to make the trick a little less transparent. Just as when he was about to cast it into the weeds next to the road, he froze in the saddle, switching back to the sight of his fish, Something was coming toward it through the water. Something frighteningly large. A ring of light surrounded it like a halo. Levin's eyes flew wide. He found his core to the fish, meaning to sever it. But a presence was already rushing up it. A presence with the same unstoppable force as the cliff they'd dumped into the ocean. He hacked at the cord but under the might of the intruder, he could no more break it than he could chop down a tree with his bare hands. The being traveled up the cord and found him. The lich! He could barely squawk out the words. He's found us! Pera wrenched her head around. How? He followed my connection to my sixer. He knows exactly where we are. He gasped. The lich was trying to ram through the cord and fully enter Levin's mind. He could feel that he would be powerless to stop it. But the lich was somehow stymied, as if trying to pass through a doorway that wasn't there. I can't kill the link. There's no escape. He felt Pera questing through the nether until she found the cord between him and the fish. She hit it hard, but rebounded like a toddler barreling into the legs of a grown man. Why didn't Galand warn us this could happen? Tears stung Levin's eyes, and he blinked, hoping the jarring of the galloping horse would knock them loose so Pera wouldn't see him have to wipe them away. Because he knew. He knew this would happen, didn't he? This is the best way to ensure the lich finds and follows the trail to Regatta. He has sacrificed us. Pera rode on beside him watching him from the corners of her eyes. He did what needed to be done, Levin. 
To hell with this. We can ride off. As fast as we can. The Lich's army isn't swift enough to keep up. We can't do that. If he's not fast enough to catch us, he'll ignore us and continue on to Bressel. Everyone there will be slaughtered. It doesn't have to be like this. It's already been decided. We ride to Regatta, and we hope our sacrifice is enough to save the others. A wail arose in Levin's soul, so long and loud he was afraid he'd somehow voiced it out loud. But Pera showed no sign of hearing. Then the wail subsided, and all that remained was the serene calm of resignation. You're right, he said. This is what we're here to do. They hastened along the trail. Behind him, Levin watched through the eyes of his sixes in the sea, and on the heights beside it. Light pierced from the surface of the ocean like sunlight spearing through a bank of clouds. It lit upon the base of the cliffs, slanting upwards at a shallow angle, then reversed direction, still climbing gently, only to reverse course again a few seconds later. The lich was conjuring a path up from the depths, but rather than blasting it from the rock, as he and Pera might have done, it was almost as though he was convincing the cliff to reshape itself in accordance with his will. As soon as it was finished, the blighted began to ascend. They were pale and ghastly, dripping and wrinkled from the water, heaving up one after another until their numbers stretched from the bottom of the path to the top of the cliffs. What's wrong? Pera said, seeing the look on his face. There's so many of them. The way they look, the anger in them. It's like every person who's ever drowned at sea is coming to take the revenge on the living. Levin rode on. The lich's presence followed him all the way to Regatta. In the time it took the white lich to finish ravaging southern Alaborgia, returning his armies to the sea and continue their march, Dante and the Tenarians completed the third layer of defences around the city. With these in place, Dante and the Drakebane ascended a tower near the edge of the city to assess the works from above. Well done, Yoto said. Do you think you will have time to complete the fourth ring before the aid and Rane arrives? Barring setbacks, Dante said. Then why do you look so troubled? I thought you said that should be enough to stave off the blighted. I did, but I'm starting to doubt. Yota's eyes went as icy as the lich's. If we have just wasted weeks of our time arranging defenses that can't even defend us, spare me, Dante said. You invaded Bressel. You couldn't stop the righteous monsoon from freeing the lich, or stop him from swallowing your homeland, and you fled from Tanara Tain while my friends and I stayed to fight. You couldn't stop him at any point of this. If we fail, you don't get to blame us, not when you and your ancestors had centuries to do better. Abruptly tired of the earthworks and the drakebane, Dante headed to the river. There was something soothing in altering its flow, and watching and measuring the effects of his labor play out in front of his eyes. He'd narrowed the channel quite a ways, and had discovered that deepening and smoothing its bottom made the current run faster, too. It had just topped five miles per hour. 
he thought he could raise it another tick before the arrival of the lit. Before he exhausted his strength for the day, he headed toward the core of town, excavating a tunnel beneath two of the buildings they intended to defend if the fighting penetrated in through the walls. With all the work outside the city, he'd only just gotten started on this particular enterprise, and he tried not to think about how much more there was to do in the handful of days remaining to them. Rather than continuing to farm a patch of land outside the city, Gladick relocated his harvesting efforts to various commons and parks near Stark Square. At the same time, he tasked the Drakebane soldiers with conducting a quick census to get a better idea of how many mouths they'd need to feed. Dante's spies patrolled the coast, informing him when the undersea army passed Kavana, which had completely emptied itself out and thus offered the lich no temptation to invade, and when it moved past the strip of Alibolgia and came to the southern reaches of the Colon Basin. It was then that Dante called Knack and his troops in from their camp many miles outside Bressel. It took two days for the soldiers to arrive. To prevent a Dane from declaring it an Arashtovic sneak attack and stirring up the dormant Golden Hammer, the troops and priests entered the northern gate under broad daylight. They proceeded to the royal boulevard and took it all the way to the palace. Seeing them enter the courtyard, Dante's heart managed to rise and fall simultaneously. It rose to watch Nack arrive with two other members of the council, another forty nether-wielding priests and monks of various skill, and close to a thousand well-trained men-at-arms, all of them dressed in the black and silver of Narashtovic, which Dante had seen so little of for close to two years. Marching together, they looked like a weapon one that he had helped forge. His heart sank, however, to think that he should have called for even more, even if it had risked a Gascon invasion of Narashtovic. Yet he had made that decision many weeks ago, before he understood the full threat before them. There was nothing that could be done about it now. Lord Galand! Nack stopped before him and gave a bow. The other council members did the same, while the monks and soldiers kneeled. Dante nodded, allowing his people to return to their feet. Nack smiled, taking in the keep and towers of the palace. He looked genuinely happy to be there, and was as well-fed as always. In fact, aside from a few dabs of grey and what remained of his black hair, he looked little changed from the day Dante had first met him, when Nack had been a simple monk and Dante had been a would-be assassin of Nack's master. I think I understand now, Nack said. Did you decide that you had outgrown the sealed citadel and now required grander lodgings? Dante shook his head. Believe it or not, I had nothing to do with the disposal of King Charles. Believe it or not even further, the locals aren't even rioting. Anymore. I would like to be happy about that, except it seems to me that if the people aren't crying out for the blood of those who took their king, then the threat on its way must be terrifying enough to turn justice itself upside down. Not untrue, which means that if and when that threat is removed, the people's nature is likely to rapidly reassert itself. Max stroked his chin. 
Is that the polite way of saying that if and when the leech is put down, the Malish will want to plumb their fountains with Tenarian blood? And ours, too. If we win this thing, we won't want to hang around and celebrate. Dante greeted the others, saying a quick prayer to Aron in thanks for their arrival and the relative ease of their travels along the way. As the Drakebane's servants led the people to their lodgings, Dante brought Nack and a handful of others up to the top of the keep. There, with a view of both the fortifications and the river, he explained the elements of their defense. Nack gazed across it like a dog that's heard a strange sound in the distance, his fringe of hair ruffled by the sea-borne breeze. These look to be shaping up well enough. But I have the distinct recollection that walls didn't do us much good during the Chainbreakers' War. Yeah, I remember something about that, Dante said. That's why, unless some insane opportunity presents itself, I want all our sorcery to remain defensive— Neutralize any and all attacks from the White Lich and his underlings, ensuring the walls stay fast. Let the soldiers hold out against the Blighted. As for these Blighted, what precisely are they? Zombies? They're more sophisticated than that, capable of acting and fighting autonomously. They're more like a savage animal, though they've still got some human cunning in them. But they're not very smart, either. Are they capable of independent strategy? Sure, as long as the strategy isn't more complex than throw wave after wave of bodies at the enemy until they're dead and we can start eating them. Nack tugged the sleeve of his robe. This would seem to be a serious advantage for us. You have to remember that the lack of brains means they're utterly fearless, too. I'm not sure how that's going to play out on the battlefield. It's a trade-off that's going to be hard to account for until it happens. Nack made squiggly gestures toward the ramparts, as if he was tracing them in the air. It seems to me that if we wind up doing well enough to hold off the enemy's sorcery, that would give us leeway to try out a few tricks. For instance, you could feign a messy retreat, letting a portion of blighted through the outer defenses, then turn about and slaughter them once they've overextended themselves. Use their aggression and lack of caution against them, in other words. Possibly. But I would be very careful about getting too cute with the lich. If we're holding him off, we should consider that a miracle. And you know what you don't do with miracles? Throw them away in a vain, glorious effort to prove how clever you are? Exactly. Now, before we get too deep into what we'll do if we're winning, let me show you our option if we're losing. Dante descended the tower, leading them into the main keep, and then through three basement floors that were mostly storage. At last, he brought them to a blank stone wall and knocked on it. Hollow? Nack smiled, eyes gleaming in the light of Dante's torchstone. You've made yourself a tunnel, just like at the Citadel. It served us pretty well there, hasn't it? Where does this lead? Once it's finished, it will exit into the North Woods. I'll move some supplies out there, too, enough to let us put at least a day of distance between ourselves and Bressel. Nack touched the stone, which had been smoothed by Dante repeatedly opening and closing it to work on the tunnel beyond. Did you build this because of your virtuous need to plan for all contingencies, 
or because you expect we'll have to use it by the end? More the latter than the former. Hmm. Nack patted his belly as if to comfort himself. Well, we made it here, so at least your chances are a little better than they were the day before. The first of the refugees began to arrive. They were Alabolgian, and they carried sacks of valuables and mouths full of rumors. They told stories of the White Lich's short campaign through their lands, consuming and absorbing villages and towns, shattering towers with a thrust of his hand. Supposedly, there hadn't been a single survivor from any of the places he visited. The only ones who had escaped had left before his army had even shown up on the horizon. Within hours of the first Alabolgians entering the gates, the native Malish began to exit through them. They too carried packs and hand-drawn wagons, individuals and whole families. At first, there were only a few dozen, but as word travelled from quarter to quarter, more and more made their way to the northern gate, starting with a stream, and then becoming a river. Hundreds and then thousands of citizens, many of them men of fighting age, disappearing into the forest. Just as Dante feared they might have to shut the gates to prevent the entire city from leaving, the river of departures returned to a stream, then a trickle. From the chatter among the soldiers, the general mood of those who remained was that, if anyone had a chance anywhere, it was in Brasil, where the strength of Malun, Narashtevik, and Tanaratain would combine to stand against the lich. As favorable as that sounded, Somber had accompanied the contingent from Narashtevik, and Dante assigned the spymaster to coordinate with Corson, to determine whether the loyalists within the Golden Hammer were planning any uprisings or sabotage. But the Dane remained quiet, and as for Crown Prince Swain, there were conflicting rumors as to whether he was still within the city or had fled to establish his court in exile. Two days after the arrival of the first Alibolgians, hundreds upon hundreds of coloners came to the gates. Though there were plenty of coloners living in Brussels, relations between the two groups were never good and had been recently worsened by Gladic's war on the coloners that past winter. The mob of Malish who showed up at the gates to greet the incoming colonists did not look friendly, but any thoughts of violence they might have had died as soon as they heard the news from the refugees. The army of the White Lich had emerged from the ocean, and it had crossed the border into Malin. Why would they shift onto land now? the Drakebane said, when they convened to discuss it. That only serves to guarantee we know exactly where they are. Dante shrugged. The cliff we dropped on the Lich's army at Alibolgia might have given him a small hint that we've been watching him all along. The Blighted can move faster over land. Would that be the reason for it? How soon can they be upon us now? Two days, Gladic intoned. Perhaps three, if the Aedan Rani decides the Blighted need more rest before the attack. We'll keep a close eye on them. Dante moved to the tower's eastern window, as if he'd be able to see all the way to the border. Prepare for battle in two days. The city, so recently a divided battlefield of mob anarchy, cohered into a machine with a single purpose. Survival. Axes wrapped from the outskirts, 
as people struck down trees to be brought back for palisades. The Drakebane suspended the law against citizens owning weapons, and both Tenarian and Malish soldiers gave quick and dirty fighting instruction to every citizen willing to bear arms. Dante rushed through the construction of the fourth ring of ditches, ramparts, and palisades. He couldn't complete as many earthworks as he wanted, not if he was going to finish reshaping the river, which he still thought could be vital, even if the enemy had moved onto land for now. But just as he was despairing over what sections to leave open, he heard footsteps from up the road. Commander Sito rode at the head of a column of colonies' refugees. He headed straight for Dante. It looked like you could use some help. I made some inquiries and discovered these men were eager to help you in particular. They are, Dante said. What for? You'll have to ask them. Something about you having saved their country from a legion of demons. Sito turned in the saddle and lifted his arm. The coloners jogged forward, mostly men with a few women mixed among them, farmers and soldiers with strong limbs and bodies, and nearly every one of them with hair as golden as ripe wheat. Several nodded at Dante as he passed, recognizing him from his liberation of their realm. Then one whooped with a colony's cheer of some kind, and all of the others joined him, calling Dante's name in praise. The next day passed so quickly Dante could hardly process it. Soldiers and militia drilled among the defenses, priests, some dressed in grey and wielding the light, and others dressed in black and silver and carrying shadow, rode up and down the earthen spokes connecting the ramparts, learning how to quickly manoeuvre to wherever their skills were needed most. As the colonists dug ditches and piled the dirt into mounds, Dante travelled to the river and made one last round of adjustments to the channel he'd squeezed it into. Watching the blue waters rush past the walls and into the ocean, a cloud of dread passed over Dante's heart. He had a few fish in the water to watch for a sneak attack, and he now sent them rushing up and down the river and out into the ocean. But he found no sign of the blighted, or anything out of the ordinary to explain the tremor in his bones. The afternoon was spent in grand strategy, with Drakebane Yoko and numerous nobles, commanders and priests from Tanara Tain, Malin and Narashtovic. Dante had helped craft the strategy himself, and spent more time watching the foreigners for signs of incompetence or the kind of submerged contempt that would hint at potential treason. But if any of the Malish were plotting against them, they were better at hiding it than he was at spotting it. The White Lich's army covered less distance that day than expected, to the point where it now seemed as though it would be another day before they could reach the city. That night, the entire enemy troop gathered on a hill to the east. Though it was more than thirty miles away, the strange lights that glowed from it were clearly visible in Bressel, with pillars of white, blue, and green flashing upward from the hilltop and others answering from the sky. Dante and Blaze took to the top of the keep to watch. Blaze leaned forward, resting his arms against the parapet. What do you think they're doing? I'm not sure, Dante said. I can't get my moths close enough to get a good look. Yes, but what do you think they're doing? 
Examining the situation as logically as I can, I'd say they're inducing people to ask me dumb questions I can't answer. The Lich could be patching up any blighted who are injured or wore down on the march, or strengthening them with mystical Lich magic. For all I know, he's putting on a pretty light show to boost the morale. Or lower ours with something spooky and strange. Blaze was quiet for a moment, then laughed unprompted. I should have known better at this point, but I really expected that we were going to find a way to get our hands on that damned spear. Me too. But instead, it was just another quivering bow. No, I wouldn't go that far. I had fun not finding the quivering bow. The Norrin were a lot of trouble, but they were good companions. Whereas the Malish are the Malish. Yep. Blaze tapped his fingers on the battlement. So, do you think we'll win? I've never seen so many sorcerers gathered on one side in my life, but I think we have a chance. Which isn't to say a good one. A one of indeterminate but likely small size. Funny, that's the same thing women think when they look at you. Blaze tipped back his head as a new round of glowing green lights shot from the faraway hill. You know what I've been doing the last few days while you've been moving dirt from one place to another? Drinking. No. Yes. Besides that, drinking and then sleeping. The gods have ordained that a good sleep is the natural sequel to a good drink. I think a fellow as pious as yourself would appreciate my devotion to their divine law. What have you been doing? Oiling down your sword? Blaze snorted. I've been looking into the past, with the stream. Dante raised an eyebrow. Ever since he had been taken by the lich and revealed the way for a sorcerer to get around the power of the Odosein, he hadn't given the stream a whole lot of thought, especially not with all his recent duties and worries. Bressel's past, he said. Why? I figured out a lot of great people have lived here and done a lot of big and important things over the years— Maybe they even tangled with a lich of their own at some point, or something like it. But I ran into a problem. As you might have noticed, Bressel is really, really huge. Meaning you have too much ground to cover. I wouldn't even call it ground. More like a giant tangled ball of people and time and things as dense as a wad of chewed-up oats. Maybe Bellara could navigate it, but to me it was like being drunk at night in a strange city. But, as it turns out, I'm actually kind of good at being drunk in strange places. After a while, I found my feet, so to speak. I saw a lot of things, good and bad. Nothing that stood out as especially useful to us, though. Except, I suppose, for the idea that Bressel has been through a lot. More than any of us can conceive. If this place can't last through the lich, then maybe nothing can. Dante thought for a moment. I'm not sure if that makes me feel a little better or a whole lot worse. I'm happy either way. Blaze took hold of his right elbow, stretching it across his chest. I did witness some interesting bits, though. What's the story they tell about how Bressel was founded? The two tribes. No, I mean, tell me the story. You don't know it? 
Some people came around, piled up some rocks until it was tall enough to slap a roof on, and called it good. You don't even know it. This is the story of how your own people began. Everyone should know where they came from. First of all, they're not really my people. My ancestors are from Colin. Anyway, at this point, I've lived more of my life in Narashtavik than I did in Bressel. So maybe I was just smart enough to know that there was no need to learn the history of a place that wasn't going to be home for much longer. Dante tilted his head forward. And you know the history of Narashtavik's founding? I believe the question at hand is about Russell, sir. Dante laughed and shook his head. The story they tell about the founding of Bressel, and with it the founding of Malin, is actually kind of relevant to what we're going through now. It's acknowledged that there were people in this land before the Malish, but none of the numerous tribes that came here lasted more than a short while before being conquered, slaughtered, or simply disappearing. That changed, finally, with the arrival of the Stots. The Stots were from a forest in the west, pushed from their home by civil war. In time, they came here, where the river met the sea. They called the river the Chancet, and their new city, Bressel. They made all the proper offerings to Tame, for they followed their branch of the Selicet, just as they do today, and Tame gave his blessings to the city. For a hundred years, it prospered. But in time, the same troubles that had left the land empty came for them. Barbarians from the north began to enter their land. At first it was to raid, taking plunder in slaves. But the attacks soon grew bolder, more devastating. The city burned, its army shrinking with each attack. Just when it looked like the Stots were doomed, the Helads appeared. This was a group from the eastern woods, probably not much further than those hills the Liches currently encamped on although the Helads were nomads, and it said they originally came from further south. They'd had contact with the Stots for some years, and had even wanted to join Bressel, but they were Aronites, nether users, and the Stots had rebuked them. But their total heresy seemed a lot less appalling now that the Stots were on the brink of extinction, and the Helads, whose pride had been stung by the Stots' earlier rebuke, were willing to let bygones be bygones, since they were also about to be raped, enslaved, and murdered by savages. So they joined forces in the united defense of Bressel. Even then, the barbarians continued their raids. But year by year, the Stots and Helads held their own, slowly pushing the northerners back into the forest until the day came that the raids stopped altogether, and the barbarians slunk off into the north and were never seen again. Needless to say, this was cause for celebration. But after the ale had been exhausted, and the hangovers recovered from, the Stots and Helads faced a new problem. Now that they no longer had a common enemy to fight, they had to deal with the fact they were living together. The Stots suffered the Helads as best they could, so they claim, but living shoulder to shoulder, it became harder to tolerate the former nomads, who were accused of vile deeds like defiling the dead, blood rituals, and animal sacrifice. Blaze looked aghast. But Nethermancers like the Helads would never do any of that. 
Yes, well, I'm sure they have their reasons. In any event, the Stots outlawed some of the worst behavior. But within a matter of months, their fall harvest failed. That winter claimed many lives. And just as they emerged from it and got ready to sow new fields, a plague fell over the city. In its wake, a riot swept through Bressel. The Stots said the twin disasters were the punishment of Tame for allowing the Shadowmongers to live within his once blessed land. So the Stots rose up and drove all of the Helads back into the east. As soon as the Aronites were gone, the plague lifted. The next harvest was the most bountiful in forty years. Bressel thrived and began to spread its influence across the land, founding a new nation known as Malon. That's the story they tell. I have no idea whether any of it's true. Considering its message that Tame is always right, and even if nethermancers are useful in a pinch, they'll eventually always betray you, I have to imagine there are some embellishments. In fact, that's almost exactly what actually happened, Lay said. Except for the part where it was the Helads who settled Bressel first, and the Stots who came to them when everything was about to get burned to cinders. But the rest is right, including the part about when the famine and plague came. The Stots booted the Helads out for their dark practices. Dante blinked. The Aronites settled Bressel first. Why would the Malish lie about that? Why do you think, idiot? To give themselves legitimacy. If you and your dirty ilk were here first, a smart fellow could use that fact to start all sorts of trouble. Honestly, I don't think he could. Not at this point. The Malish built this place, not the Nethermancers, and we went on to build our own places to live. Dante gazed at the hills, which now sparked with symmetrical geometric lighting. It's a pretty sad story when you think about it. We can get along with strangers as long as we're all fighting against a common enemy. But as soon as we win our peace, our differences break us apart again. Do you think it's wrong? I'd like to, Dante said. But after everything we've seen, and all the people we've fought for, denying it would be like denying that things fall when you let go of them. The lights continued through the night. In the morning, the lich resumed the march, the white bodies of the blighted advancing beneath the trees like a river of snow. Dante had to keep his spies distant, or risk getting mind-invaded by the lich again, but he pegged the troop count at fifty thousand, confirming his scouts' earlier estimates. It was the biggest single army he had ever seen. A trained soldier was the better of a blighted, but as for those, the defenders possessed just fifteen thousand. Many fighting men, both local and foreign, had been lost in the Tenarian takeover. They had many more conscripted militia as well, and when you included the reserve force of less fit fighters the city could draw on, they actually outnumbered the enemy. But Dante wasn't so sure that the countless farmers and fish sellers who'd never carried a sword or spear would stand firm against the hungry rage of the undead. Mile by mile, the lich shrank the distance between himself and his great prize. A last flood of citizens gushed from the city, fleeing north and west with whatever they could carry. And then the gates were shut 
and sealed. Scouts and runners dispersed across the city. Drake Bain Yoto brought his men to the eastern fields, digging them in behind the palisades. The Malish, led by the gallant Leonard Pressings, Duke of Wenford, did the same, filling his part of the field with troops that, two weeks ago, might have been mustered against the Drakebane. The Blighted picked up speed, as if they could smell the skin and flesh of their waiting prey, loping down the road until they'd cut the distance to ten miles by noon. Blaze napped, while Dante roamed across the ramparts, palms sweating. Gladick kneeled in prayer, eyes closed, whispering to himself. A cool wind blew in from the east, as if driven by the white lich himself. Impossible though it was, sometimes the air seemed to smell of ice. The blighted slowed to a steady walk. Through the eyes of a dragonfly following far overhead, Dante saw the lich striding among them, the undead parting to either side. Scouts rode in from the eastern woods, their faces pale with fear. Hundreds of blighted were ranging ahead to clear the way for the rest. Within minutes of the arrival of the last rider, men cried out from the lines, pointing to pale figures moving within the trees across the open fields. The Drakebane stood on the third ring of ramparts, one back from the front. Next to him were his knights of the Odosein, clad in the insect-like armor of swamp dragon scales. His few sorcerers were with him too, their hair woven with Tenarian glass charms of all colors that were embedded with small stones and bugs and ancient things. The priests of Bressel left the city gates and made for Duke Pressings. Half were on horseback, and each man's gray robe was trimmed with the color of his station. Orange, dark blue, turquoise, or plain pure white for the rank-and-file monks. They gave no mind to the Tenarians, looking straight ahead to the glimpses of blighted slipping among the trees, half a mile distant. Each one of them wore the hammer of tame on a golden chain around their neck, and the bound Narden on a cord looped about their waists. They were severe and somber men, and though Dante had always considered them his enemy, there was no mistaking their quality. It was only a minute later that Nack led the Aurorites of Narashtavik along the road to the barricades. Like the Malish, at least half of those who could wield the nether were on horseback. They were draped in the silver-trimmed black of their city, with some bearing the white tree of Barden on their chests or backs. Since they were marching to war, each one had a black ribbon tucked into their waistband, embroidered in silver with both dusset, the two parallel squiggled lines of Aron, and also the sigil of their personal secondary lord, be it Carvajal or Leah or Menoch or any of the others. Nack brought them to stand before Dante. Sir, your warriors stand ready. Well done. They look ready. Now spread them out along the spokes of the rampart. Disperse them? But they should be here to protect you in case the lich decides to target you. It's better that they're not all in the same place. But why? So that if the lich does come for me, the rest of you will still have a chance to survive. Nack gave him a long and searching frown. 
then turned to the priests and monks to relay Dante's orders. Once they were on their way, Nack returned to Dante's side. How much longer do you suppose we have? He'll be here and assembled by nightfall. After that, I don't see any reason for him to wait. Well, Nack tucked his thumbs into his belt and rocked forward at the waist. If it's not too much to ask of the gods, I'd very much like to see one more sunrise. If we do, I'd say our odds will look a lot better than they feel right now. My main fear is the lich will overwhelm us within the first few minutes of the contest. If we're able to hold out till dawn, we might have what it takes to make it all the way. The main body of the enemy entered a dense forest some eight miles to the east. The trees were too thick to make out the road, but the blighted were even thicker than the leaves, and Dante had no trouble tracking them from on high. The sun began its long slide to the west. They had cut the eight miles to four by the time Blaze finally strolled up to the earthworks. He had an Odysseian blade at each hip, braces on his wrists and steel on his shins, with light chain over his shirt. There you are, Dante said. Forget the world-devouring wizard was on his way, did you? Blaze rolled his head to stretch his neck. I have no idea why you're all so hasty. He won't even be here for another hour. Meanwhile, I'm refreshed and ready to spend the next sixteen hours chopping anything that gets close enough to be chopped. Blaze was wrong about one thing. The closer they got, the more the blighted slowed down. It took until nearly six o'clock before flocks of crows, starlings, and magpies erupted from the forest across the clearing. The army of the Lich had come to Bressel. Fifteen. The tree line filled with ghastly pale bodies. They stood motionless for a long time. Once the sun wasn't far from the western hills, pillars of light shot up from the trees. The soldiers on the palisades gasped and moaned but no storm of ether arced towards the defenders. Instead, the lights seemed to be of the same variety as the night before, blue and white and green and purple, lancing up into the sky with no clear purpose. They'll open with an all-out blast of sorcery, Dante said to the nethermancers who'd stayed near him, both to test us and to provide cover for the blighted on their way to our walls. Fight defensively, but if you can see the opening to take down one of the lesser liches, or the Aedan Rane himself, hit back hard. Across the field, which they'd stripped of everything capable of sheltering the enemy during their advance, hundreds of blighted emerged from the trees. There was something strange about the way they were moving, hunched and waddled. They were carrying long, heavy bundles wrapped in cloth. Dante squinted for a better look. The blighted set the bundles down on one end, then ripped the cloth from them. Even at that distance, and even before they began to scream, it was clear what the blighted had been carrying. Living people. They had been stripped nude, except for their hobbles. They now tried to flee, hopping awkwardly, but the blighted pounced upon them, 
biting and clawing, blood gushing down the captive's skin. The screams pitched up. Many of the soldiers were gaping. Some were hunched over, shoulders hitching, possibly gagging. Dante realized he had forgotten to deliver a speech of any kind. Little time now. He cleared his throat and turned to his people, using a dab of nether to help project his voice. What they are doing is meant to disturb you, he said, and it should, because this is what they would do not just to your family and not just to your city, but to the entire world. So let what they're showing you disturb you, but do not let it unman you. Let it strengthen you. Let it hammer forge your resolve to fight and not stop fighting until every one of them is dead. This drew a few cheers and whoops, but no sustained, frenzied war lust. That was fine. Most of them didn't understand what they were fighting yet, and thus wouldn't be able to muster that core rage to destroy it utterly. What he was hoping to do instead was to allow them to begin to understand what was in front of them, so that, in time, that rage would emerge. Gladick moved beside him, face creased. When was the last time you saw the Aedan Rani? I don't know. A bit ago. Dante cocked his head. Come to think of it, it's been a while. He's probably keeping back in the trees. Perhaps. Yet look at what is before you, and consider what its true purpose might be. The eerie blue and green lights were still flashing from the trees. The blighted continued to claw and scramble among the increasingly entropic remains of the captives they'd just killed. It was all quite transfixing. And maybe that was the whole point. Dante switched his attention to the fish he had milling about the mouth of the river. He left two cruising back and forth while directing the others out into the ocean at full speed. Once they got a few hundred feet from shore, the water at the depths was almost pitch black. But fish had a strange suite of senses, including the ability to detect motion and disturbances around them. Following the ocean floor, they soon swam into a wide field of irregular vortices. A presence lashed out from the deep, grabbing hold of the fish with the strength of a grown man clamping down on the wrist of a child. Yet Dante had been waiting for this. The instant he felt the lich whipping up from the darkness, he severed the cords tying him to his scouts. His skin prickled. There's a second force. It's heading for the river, and the lich is with them. We have to stop them. Blaze rested his hand on the hilt of his sword. Most of the army's right across from us. What if the march through the water is a ruse to pull us away from the front lines while the army makes its charge? Then they win because we can't risk them coming in through the river. We have to ride, now! He dispatched runners to Drake Bainyoto and Duke Pressings, then turned his horse and galloped along the rampart toward the city, joined by Gladick, Blaze, and half the troops and nethermancers from Narashtivik. The Tenarians and Malish watched in confused dismay until Yoto and Pressings rang out their orders, peeling off additional soldiers and priests to follow. There were already many hundreds of soldiers and a few sorcerers manning the walls at the mouth of the river, but it wouldn't be anywhere near enough to match what Dante had felt walking through the depths. Not if he and the others failed to arrive in time. He crossed through the city walls and dashed through the twisting streets toward the chancet. 
He and the other riders were ranging far ahead of the foot troops, but there was nothing to be done about that. He reached Marine Street and followed it straight toward the docks. Sunset was nearing, and the wind was blowing in from the sea, mixing the smell of salt into that of the wharves and sun-warmed mud. Dante came to the hard earth he'd piled along the riverbanks to dike it against the swelling of the waters he'd caused by narrowing the channel. He vaulted from his horse, landing in a crouch. Blaze hopped down lightly beside him. Look at that. You didn't break any legs. Have you been practicing that? I had the feeling the near future might hold a lot of panicked riding. Dante drew his antler-handled knife and scratched his arm. Netha flocked to him like it was frightened, or ready to be put to use. He jogged down the bank, casting his mind wide for any sensation of ether. Sorcerers from Malin and Narashtavik arrived behind him, following him toward the walls flanking either side of the river's mouth. The ground between the exterior of the walls and the shoreline was a field of broken rock, elevated from the ocean by ten to twenty feet. It had always been a possibility that the Lich would look to attack these walls. There were certainly less of them than the elaborate earthworks, ditches, and so forth around the rest of the city, but Dante had considered it a remote possibility. A successful assault would involve getting the Blighted to scale the short cliffs and then cross jumbled, rugged terrain, which would only get harder and harder to traverse as more of them were killed by the defenders. Slowed at every step, they would be grossly vulnerable to both archery and sorcery. The ground would be both a choke point and a killing field. Rather than dealing with such adverse conditions, Dante had thought it much more likely the Lich would strike across open ground, where his full army could be brought to bear at once, or up the river, where they could move under cover of the water and wade ashore without facing any defences whatsoever. Well, they were about to find out. He ran up the stone steps to the wall, three at a time. Blaze and Gladick were right behind him. Any other man of Gladick's age would have been unable to keep up, but the ether had kept him spry despite his years. Priests in both black and grey hustled after them. The men who'd left the outer defences on foot hadn't yet begun to reach the river, but there were plenty of other soldiers along the walls already. Dante sent one of them running upstream to order half the reinforcements to cross the bridge to the other side. Look! A monk pointed out to sea. A hundred yards away, the water began to glow with light as pure as the ether of the mists. Within moments, it was far brighter than the light of the sun that was now setting to the west, obliging the defenders to avert their eyes. Prepare yourselves, if you can, Gladick said, for what comes next will be like nothing that you have ever seen. The light grew brighter yet. Along the wall, ether and nether emerged from every speck of dirt and wisp of air, the nether flowing in like swift and choppy streams, the ether arriving in straight lines and pillars. Dante's head grew light. He had never felt so much power gathered in one place, causing him to feel both drunk yet more clear-headed than at any moment of his life. Golden motes danced around the stony faces of the two knights of Odosain. Dante felt as though if he were to walk off the edge of the wall, he wouldn't fall. One of the Malish priests began to sing. The others joined him. Within the first few words, Dante recognized the song. 
and those who walk in light, an old malish hymn of steadfastness in times of strife. Beside him, Blaze began to sing, then Gladick. Dante joined them. Light speared from the sea in a column as wide as a road and screamed toward the wall. The soldiers threw themselves flat. The sorcerers stood their ground, gesturing madly, some of them chanting, hurling forward forty different streams of ether and nether, until Dante could hardly tell which was his. These streams burned toward the blow of the lich. The first struck it head-on, chipping away a long spine of ether. A dozen more followed it in, each one showering the air with white sparks, but the column carried forward without slowing. Ten more bolts hit it, then twenty. At last it broke apart, much of it sizzling away while seven discreet pieces flew onward toward the wall. The trailing edge of the defender's counters blasted these to small chunks. Even then, the fragments of ether, none of them larger than a coin, tumbled onward. Dante slung a second round of shadows at them, then ducked behind a merlon. The broken bits of light struck the wall with a soft hiss. Blaze peeked up his head. Did we just survive a direct attack from the lich? One, Dante said, and all it took was half an army. New light gleamed beneath the sea. With a chant of the rarely heard Tenarian language, the two Odosain sent string-thin spirals of the golden stream toward the mounting ether. The light blinked twice, then vanished. After a moment of pregnant silence, a cheer swept across the wall, but it was silenced abruptly when the ether glowed anew. A second column erupted from the water. The defenders met it with another barrage of mingled powers. As before, the column chipped apart, then splintered, tiny fragments smacking into the wall but barely scratching it. The last sparks were still fading when the lich launched his third column. Those on the wall reacted instinctively, pelting it with black and white bolts until it broke apart. The waters now lay dark and silent. The last of the sun dipped behind the hills. Dante turned his head to speak to Gladick, but Gladick was already splaying his left hand toward the river. Light bloomed through the water. The channel ran deep, and the water was silty, yet they could still make out the legions of lean and pale people marching upstream. One of the malish priests cried out in anger. He raised his hands, throwing two bright darts into the water. They staggered one of the blighted and dashed the brains out of the second, a pall of organic matter spreading away from the slowly spinning body. Bolts of light and shadow rained down from the wall, streaking through the river like notions of fish. Everything was flashing, the reflection of ether distorted by the tossing water and spraying erratically in all directions. The bolts ploughed into the blighted, clouding the river with blood and flesh. Within seconds, they'd killed dozens, but others marched on by the hundreds, leaning into the current, unconcerned by the carnage around them. More lights began to streak up the river, the lich moving to protect his army. His ether swooped through the water like birds in flight, ramming into any flicker of light or shadow cast down by the defenders.
Barely any of their attacks now made it through to knock down the blighted, who are currently marching along the walls that lined the entrance to the river. In another minute or two, they'd make it to the channel Dante had narrowed to increase the current through it, and if they made it through that, they could climb right out on the banks and maraud through the city. The dead blighted, Dante yelled. Reanimate them and turn them against the others. He reached down into ten of the drifting bodies, infusing them with nether and tying them to him. Theoretically, this left him open to the white lich, grabbing that connection and following it to him. But Dante didn't see what the point would be, and suspected the lich was currently a lot too distracted to do so, even if there was something to be gained by it. The ten dead blighted shuddered, then stretched their limbs, finding their footing once more. Dante ordered them to engage at will. They flung themselves at their former comrades, biting and gouging. The other nethermancers followed his lead. A picket line of zombies arose, snarling the blighted. The malish ethermancers, who had come with them, watched in obvious shock, but didn't say a word, continuing to blast at the lich-controlled forces. Every time they took one of the blighted down, an ethermancer was waiting to reanimate it and turn it against the others. The advance slowed to a crawl. The lich diverted some of his ether to striking the reanimated blighted down, but that only opened the sorcerers on the wall to pound away at the lich's soldiers and turn them into zombies to replace the ones the Aedan Rane had just removed. To distract them, or perhaps out of frustration, the lich launched another pillar of light at the walls, obliging them to use their full attention to counter it. Despite the current and the zombies arrayed against them, the blighted were still making progress, slogging past the part of the walls where the defenders had first arrayed themselves. Dante called for most of the sorcerers to fall back with him, to stay even with the lich's army. They jogged down the stairs to the lower set of walls that abutted the riverbank there. Not far ahead was the swift-currented channel. Beyond that was disaster. White light flashed from the eastern fringe of the city, stark against the darkening sky. Pieces of bodies bobbed in the current. A grisly charnel smell arose from the river as zombies and blighted ripped at each other. The soldiers they'd brought with them from the eastern ramparts lined the walls and the shores past the channel, waiting. Ether was still flying everywhere, strobing through the river as it sought blighted to kill, or, if it came from the lich, seeking attacks to negate. The defenders had slain at least two hundred blighted already, but there were thousands more in the water, a column that stretched back to the darkness of the sea. The army came to the southern edge of the channel, leaning into the swifter waters. The river was much deeper here, and even with the ether providing light, it became harder to make out the details down at the bottom. The sorcerers were fighting half-blind now, easing the pressure on the blighted. Dante had expected the lich to be forced to make a big push at that point, most likely by hammering away at the channel walls to widen the river and disrupt the flow with debris, slowing it. Yet the enemy commander maintained his defense of his troops, who were still progressing steadily despite the water's increased speed. How do they continue to advance? Gladick said. Was this channel not designed specifically to stop them? That was the idea. Dante said, 
Unfortunately, the Lich refused to lend me his army to test it out beforehand. He leaned over the stone ledge, trying to make out what was happening down in the dark, deep water. It took him some time before the problem became clear. Rather than running against the stream, which should have stymied them, the Blighted seemed to be laying themselves down in a carpet along the smooth bed so that others could use them as handholds to pull themselves forward, minimizing the impact of the current. I see, Blaze said once he explained. Well, have you tried stopping them? Dante drew a pool of shadows to him, reaching down into the riverbed just in front of the foremost Blighted. Some silt had accumulated there already but he'd had to smooth it down to bare rock to deepen it, and he only had to search a few inches into the muck until he found the stone. He ran his consciousness along it, preparing to yank the whole bed apart and send the blighted tumbling. Something rammed into his work from the side, bashing it into a thousand pieces that lost themselves in the water and the silt. He stood, stock still, dazed, unable to summon the shadows as he felt a great swell of ether building somewhere out in the water. It rose up, either to destroy him or the channel. Golden specks spiraled from the air, coming to the hand of an Odosein stepping up next to Dante. The armored man lifted his hand, sending the stream out into the water. The ether there winked off. With that, Dante swayed forward, loosened from whatever had had hold of him. As glad as he was to be set free, he was somewhat troubled by the possibility the White Lich was holding back from his biggest attacks out of concern that the Odosein would disrupt them. Yet the Odosein hadn't even been able to stop him right after he'd been released from the relays and was at his weakest. Dante didn't think they'd have much more influence on the day. The front ranks of the Blighted finished crawling over the carpet of their own people, reaching the slow and shallower waters on the other side, and romping toward the banks. Blaze drew his swords, the purple-white nether fueled by his trace snapping along the blades. Don't let them get a beachhead! Soldiers ran into the shallows to hack at the Blighted as they tried to emerge from the water. Two monks went with them to light the edge of the river. Blaze stalked among the defenders, blades glowing in the gloom of the twilight. Dante cupped his hands to his mouth. Quit carting them in half! We need the bodies! He and the Nethermancers took every blighted that fell, as long as it was still in one piece, and converted them into zombies, which waded out to confront the enemy troops from just beneath the surface. Backed by the soldiers, they soon pushed the advance back into the river and then made way for the channel where they could wreak havoc on the blighted as they pulled themselves against the current. Knack waddled next to Dante, planting his hands on his hips and grinning. Are we actually holding them off? I was assured I'd be in one of their bellies by now. Just one? You're big enough to feed at least six of them. The former monk chortled. For the life of me, I can't remember why I ever agreed to come down here and help you. One of the malish monks was keeping the channel brightly lit. All at once, dozens of dark shapes darted into the far end, swimming up it like arrows in flight. The smallest of them was as long as a man was tall. The largest were three times that length. 
They skimmed over the carpet of blighted and rammed into the zombies, holding the enemy off at the other end. Jaws opened wide. Teeth flashed. The smaller ones bit whole limbs from the zombies, while the larger ones shredded their targets apart, trailing scraps of meat behind them. Some stayed behind to massacre the zombies, while the others streaked toward shore. Get out of the water! Dante yelled. Right now! Soldiers gawked at him, running for dry ground while looking back over their shoulders. The pair of monks who'd been lighting the river splashed toward the banks, bunching their sodden robes in their hands. Eyes going wide, Dante ran toward them, bringing the nether to him. The closer of the two of them was high-stepping through knee-deep water, but the trailing man was still plowing up to his waist. Behind him, a dark fin broke the surface. Dante threw a black blade toward the monks. The one in back gasped at the sight of it, then whirled around. A blunt, triangular head burst from the river. The shark's skin was mottled and bruised, and its eyes were small and white. The monk screamed. Hundreds of teeth closed around his body. He screamed once more, then gurgled, blood spouting from his mouth. An ethereal blade slashed into the shark's head. It cleaved all the way through the skull, but there was very little blood. The beast landed in the water with a heavy splash. Neither it nor the monk moved. Blaze stared, swords sheathed to preserve his trace. Was that a zombie shark? That's exactly what it was. Dante took a step into the water to help the surviving monk ashore. And they're completely destroying us. The zombies at the exit of the channel had all been reduced to a jumble of limbs and guts, which were now being flushed out to sea. Many of the sorcerers had taken aim at the sharks, but the white lich was protecting them from his place downstream, and had only suffered a small handful of losses, including the one Dante had taken out. Blighted were pouring out of the channel into the wider river, but for now they were holding position there rather than charging toward shore. They're gathering their forces, Dante said. In another minute they'll swarm us. Do not let them break through. Swordsmen formed a line along the shore, backed by men with pikes and spears. Sorcerers found bits of high ground to be better able to see where their talents were needed. Dante stayed close to the front. Though he saw no proof of it, he thought he could feel the massive presence of the lich coming closer. A bit of sorcery flashed from the far bank. With the channel narrowed as much as it was, the two shores were near enough for the sorcerers on either side to support each other. But for some reason, the lich was directing all his efforts on the eastern bank. Either it was coincidence, or he was targeting it deliberately, using the initial confusion of battle to try to knock out key opposition, like Gladick or Dante. Blaze craned his neck, angling for a better view of the channel. Do we have any way to cut that off, or disrupt it? If they commit their first wave and we stop them from sending in reinforcements, we ought to be able to massacre them. I'll see what I can do, Dante said. Try not to lose the war in my absence. He picked his way along the shore toward the upstream end of the channel where the blighted were massing, keeping the nether close, but not so close that it was likely to draw notice. The sensation of the white lich grew as he neared the passage, 
a slow pulsing of ether like the breathing of the land itself. Light appeared within the channel, brightening quickly. Dante got down behind a boulder. The blighted who'd made it through took off as a single unit, bounding through the water toward the lines of defenders on the east shore. Incoming! Blaze hollered. Let's make them regret the day they decided to become undead. There were so many blighted moving across the riverbed that it looked like the ground itself was charging toward the defenders. Sharks still patrolled the waters right up to the shallows, ensuring no one dared to wade out from land. As the blighted swarmed through the rocks and weeds near the bank, a column of light erupted from the channel. It arced toward the defenders, but while the sorcerers there were firing their first counters at it, it broke apart into an umbrella of dozens of individual bolts. Balls of nether veered hard to intercept, breaking most of the bolts into harmless sparks, but at least a quarter made it through to crash into the defenders, who scattered and threw themselves to the ground, yelling out in panic and pain. They were still screaming as another column of light burst upward from the river. The blighted poured from the water and into the men-at-arms holding the rocky front. Scattered flashes of light knocked down a half-dozen of the undead, but most of the priests were trained on the second umbrella of ether bearing down on them from above. Which was, of course, the point, for the lich to nullify their sorcery and allow his infantry to punch into the city. Dante watched, helpless, as the second barrage weathered the counters and blasted into the soldiers, tearing holes in their lines. Enraged and fearless, the blighted ran into the gaps, throwing themselves on anyone who moved to engage them. Dante had the strong urge to run back and aid them. With his strength, they might be able to completely nullify the barrages, protecting the soldiers. But for now, the best way to help them was to do his job. As cautiously as if he was creeping through a dark room, he gathered the nether to him. He waited for the next swell of light from the waters beneath him. As soon as it began to rise, he dived into the rock bedding the channel, making no effort to be sophisticated or subtle, but instead just the opposite, smashing whatever he could, cracking it apart, thrusting up spikes of rock into the bodies of the blighted, carpeting it as their makeshift rope net. The water-muffled scrape and groan of stone bubbled from the river. Silt and dust swirled in sudden eddies, along with undead, some of them now quite dead, others simply pulled loose from their handholds, clawing at the water. The pillar of light flew into the sky and blossomed over the shoreline, but there was something distracted about this one, probably due to the fact the lich was already firing up another salvo of ether. Dante backpedaled over the artificially smooth bank overlooking the channel. The light raced upward, angled straight toward him. Rather than parrying it directly, Dante yanked up a fat lip of rock at the edge of the bank. The ether pounded into it, raining boulders down into the water, and only further fouling the terrain. Cloudy though it was, it was obvious the riverbed was now a shattered and ugly mess. Even in the smooth spots, the silt had been flushed away by the disruption, leaving behind bare rock with no handholds to stretch a chain of blighted over. A few hung tight to what they could, but most had been washed back to the channel entrance and were fighting to restore a route across. 
At a glance, it looked like some of them would eventually do so, allowing others to climb across them. But that crossing would be much more bottlenecked than before. Upstream, the blighted had fought their way ashore, snarling the riparian grass with bodies of the soldiers. But they had lost many of their own as well, and there were only a few hundred more waiting behind them to crawl out and join the fray. Blades and spears flashed in the night. With the lich distracted by Dante, the sorcerers there carved into the blighted, halting their advance and pushing them back. Dante hung about the ravaged channel, expecting the lich to try to use the ether to revert the ground to its prior state. Instead, the Aedan Rane gathered another fusillade of light and slung it at the defenders up shore. Dante frowned. Why press on with a neutered attack? It would make sense if it was covered to let the blighted retreat, but the Lich's legions fought on. So what was? A beam of ether seared out from the river toward Dante. He sprinted forward, hurling gobs of nether behind him. The colliding energies roared behind him, knocking him to the ground. Splinters of ether stung his back. Hands and knees scraped. He got to his feet and ran toward the others before the Lich could hit at him again. Blighted and men clashed on the shore. The blighted were unarmed, but they had no problem getting gored or even losing an arm if it allowed them to close on their opponent, and they were giving as good as they got. A cry went out from several of the men. Dante followed their gaze out into the river. V-shaped ripples creased the water, coming fast toward land. At first he thought it was more sharks, but the disturbance in the water suggested something much larger than that, as if an invisible sloop was blowing toward shore. Another barrage of ether fell from above, beaten back by the combined efforts of every priest there. In the same moment, five huge shapes burst from the water, the heads of five gargantuan whales. Like the sharks, their scarred skin was mottled and discolored, their eyes blank and white. They opened their toothless maws and vomited blighted into the shallows, so many that parts of the whales must have been hollowed out to allow for more passengers. The reinforcements loped into battle as the whales beat their fins and flukes, turning about to go scoop up more blighted from the channel. The sorcerers laid into the newcomers, but some of the monks were already showing signs of flagging, and yet another column of ether was rising into the sky, splitting into an umbrella of glowing death. The new wave of blighted pushed into the infantry, slicking their claws with blood. Dante broke into a dead run. Blaze emerged at the front lines, slowly backing up to prevent a total collapse against the onslaught, his purple blades sparking each time they hewed into the flesh of a blighted. The man on his right flank dropped dead, throat torn out by the claws of an enemy. Blaze whirled, gutting it, but the blighted leaned into the attack, staggering him with its weight on his sword. Behind him, a second undead launched itself at his back. Dante flung his hand forward. A shadowy knife flew directly into the blighted's face, knocking the undead from its feet. Blaze turned toward it just in time to be showered with goo. Blaze wiped whale spit from his eyes. The lich brought dead whales too. What is wrong with this guy? Mostly how much work he's making us do. If we don't destroy these things, they'll dump hundreds of blighted on us every minute. 
Blaze patted his pockets. I seem to have left my whale knife in my other trousers. Maybe you death wizards can take care of this problem. A wave of fresh soldiers ran down the embankment to join the fray against the surging blighted, but the undead refused to yield a foot of ground. Dante nor any of the others could lend the soldiers more than token support. Most of them had already spent a great deal of their power, and there was no telling how much longer they'd have to hold out against the lich. Dante gathered a team of them to a shelf of rock overlooking the river. It took no more than a minute for the ripples to return, implying the whales had returned to the channel and gulped up scores of blighted mid-swim, hardly having to slow down. This time, they disgorged their cargo further out from shore, barely breaking the surface. Release, Dante ordered. A volley of black and white sped toward the leviathans, but a slew of ether rose from behind them, as if the lich was right there, or had somehow brought it with the whales in anticipation. Bits of light streaked toward the attacks, casting down sparks like a snowstorm of lightning. The small number of bolts that made it through hit the flanks of the whales with hollow, meaty thumps, but they were much too few in number to take even one of them down. The beasts descended, returning to the channel. Dante gritted his teeth and turned toward Gladick, meaning to devise a new strategy, but the old man was running toward the fighting, which was growing louder and more brutal by the second, as the new influx of blighted stomped up from the waters. Dante found Knack instead. When the whales come back, you lead the attack. I'm going to try to spike them from below. Knack nodded, calling the numerous sorcerers to him. Dante reeled in some nether. Its response was slightly sluggish, but he still had a ways to go before he ran dry. He moved out into the earth beneath the water and waited. The whales were soon on their way back, sending chevrons of ripples behind them. Nack called for a withering hail of nether and ether. Just like the last time, energy spewed up from under the whales, diverting nearly all the damage. The five creatures came to a stop twenty feet from shore and opened their mouths to vomit more undead. Dante felt out into the rock beneath the two closest animals and made to drive it upwards in a spike through their brains. The shock of the lich was like being kicked in the side by surprise. The nether was knocked from his grasp, dispersing through the water. Dante had moved as quickly as a striking snake, but either the Aedan Rane's reflexes were truly supernatural, or the lich had been expecting something like this after Dante's earth moving back at the channel. Whatever the case, he was left reeling, half-stunned again, as the whales spat out more blighted, unharmed. A chill shriek rendered the night, so alien that even some of the blighted glanced up from the fighting. Men yelled in panic turning their backs and running, opening a gap in the battle and revealing an Andrak. The demon unfurled, standing twice as tall as the men and blighted around it. It opened its mouth and uttered a high-pitched bellow of delight. Bright white light shimmered from its throat. The blighted bent their knees, preparing to fight, but the star-eater dashed past them on its long legs, scything into the water with hardly a splash. It beelined toward the closest whale. A second demon ran after it half a second later, grinning and exposing its long teeth. 
A third one bounded after it. One of the blighted planted itself in the Andrax path, spreading its arms wide and baring its fangs. Perhaps it intended to slow the demon down, but the Andrak just grinned, arched its neck, and bit down on the blighted's head, spattering gore to all sides. A few blighted hissed as it ran toward the river, but no others dared to challenge it, although less out of fear, Dante suspected, and more from the understanding that their lives were better spent elsewhere. As soon as the demon was passed, they flung themselves back into the fight, relieving their fury on the flesh of the humans. The whales were still in the process of heaving about. The Andrax swam through the water like something was propelling them. As they neared their targets, they launched themselves from the water, each one landing on the back of a whale. The demons drew back their claws and gouged downward with all their strength, meaty hunks flying away from their frantic scrabbling. Their tactic soon became clear, to burrow straight through the creature's sides. Dante had to remind himself that the whales were already dead. Take command, Dante told Nack. I need to find Gladick. He jogged toward the conflagration, glancing between his footing and the river in case the white lich hit at him again. Blaze was still at the front of the fighting, retreating inch by inch as the blighted claimed more of the shore. Dante found Gladick kneeling in a patch of grass uphill from the shoreline. Are you hurt? Dante said. Gladick shook his aged face. Recovering. From the Andrak? Dante motioned to the river. The whales had submerged, but dense trails of bubbles were streaming away toward the channel. How are they faring? Two of the Leviathans have already been disabled. We shall see how much longer the Andrak have to complete their task. Even as he said this, light flared beneath the surface at the channel entrance, briefly illuminating a massive figure. The ether branched three ways, each fork streaking toward one of the inbound whales. One was lagging behind the others, listing on its flank as scraps of itself fell away and trailed in its wake. Dante glimpsed a star-eater clinging to the back of one of the other two whales, clawing at it hard. Another demon swam after the last of the beasts. The one clinging to the whale's side ducked its head as one branch of the ether hit it in the shoulder, obliterating its whole arm. Yet it held fast, biting a hole in the whale's flank and wriggling inside. A second branch of ether hit the swimming Andrak somewhere in the back. It flailed in the water, leaking nether like blood from a cut artery. The final bolt of light pierced the badly wounded whale, but if it also hit the demon tearing it apart from the inside, there was no way to tell. The worst-off whale's flukes stopped moving. Then so did the rest of it, leaving it adrift on the current. The lich flung another spear of ether at the whale, with the demon in its belly. Judging by the spray of nether that flushed from the whale's wound, the spear found its mark. In the fading light, the lich raised his hand. The river went dark. He is draining the nether from them, Gladick said. It will only be another moment. The priest lifted his hand, moving it in a straight line sideways through the air. Ether blossomed in the channel. The two surviving whales were currently swimming through it. But rather than descending to the bottom to scoop up more blighted for delivery, they passed out the other end, vanishing into the gloom. 
The blighted that were currently crawling into and up the disheveled channel stopped moving, gazing forward in expectation. At the bank, dozens of the undead made a choking noise, as though they'd tried to swallow something too large for their throats. Still swiping at the air in front of them, they backed up into the water, rank by rank, until they had yielded the entire shore. Sorcerers cast light into the water, while soldiers hurried to create a formation at the water's edge to prepare for the next attack. Dante hustled downhill, gathering Nether in his hands. Once the blighted were all below the surface, they turned and marched downstream, and once they reached the channel, the undead there turned about and joined them, heading back toward the sea. Blaze jogged up beside him. His face was sweating and bloody but Dante didn't think the latter was his own. Am I mistaken? Blay said. Or did we just hold off the Aedan Rani? 16. The soldiers began to cheer, at first with relief, and then with triumph. Dante had the feeling the retreat was genuine, but given that it was the White Lich, and that one mistake could get them all disintegrated, he wasn't about to take any chances. He traipsed through the grass until he disturbed a fly, then slew it with a pinhead of nether and sent it high into the sky. To the wounded! Nack waved his pudgy hands, beckoning the nethermancers up the bank to where the injured soldiers had been carried away from the fray. They need your aid! Dante cursed and hurried toward him. He grabbed the shorter man by the upper arm, bending in and speaking in low tones. Has it occurred to you this isn't the time for that? Nack stroked his somewhat shapeless chin. I don't follow you. Should we wait to heal them until they're dead? The lich is just regrouping. He could be back in minutes. The night has only just begun. We'll see a lot more fighting before the morning. You're suggesting we need to conserve our energies. Heal the exceptional ones back to full strength. Don't do more than stabilize the others. Use your judgment, but remember, when the Lich makes his next attack, a few dozen revived soldiers aren't going to save us. But a handful of sorcerers with Nether still in hand just might. Looking more reflective than normal, Nack nodded and bustled after the Nethermancers, who were almost too the laid-out wounded. He caught up to the others and drew them aside. Blaze eyed a human body eddying lazily in the shadows. What's the plan from here? Hang around with the corpses? Can't say they're the worst company I've ever kept, but I thought we'd be a little more involved with the front. First, we watch the white lich for his next move, Dante said. In the meantime, we should probably start gathering up the bodies of our dead. Don't tell me you're going to use them for zombies. I just want to get them out of here so the lich can't do that. But that is a very interesting backup plan. I really need to stop giving you ideas. Dante assigned a crew of soldiers to fetch one of the boats docked upstream and start collecting the dead for transport and storage. As they set off, he silently reminded himself to see that, wherever they wound up stored, the facility could be set on fire at a moment's notice. All in all, over three hundred soldiers lay dead, their corpses fallen between rocks, and face down in the water. The odor of blood and viscera, a nauseating contrast to the mud and fresh water. Two monks and a priest had fallen too. It was hard to tell, 
given that so many of them had been washed toward sea, but he thought they'd taken five hundred blighted in return. It felt like a lot, especially so soon into the siege, yet it was only one percent of what the enemy had brought to bear. Meanwhile, they had suffered roughly equivalent losses, inasmuch as they had anything equivalent to zombie sharks and hollowed-out whale wagons, and they'd been on defense within fortifications and superior ground. It was a victory, but it was a victory of the quality that you didn't want to have to win too often. His fly couldn't see anything, since it was above the water and the enemy was below it. Dante moved to the water's edge, clearing his mind, and called down enough ether to shed light into the shoreline. A few fish were drifting around, possibly to inspect all of the blood and meat that had just been dumped into their home. Dante slew six of them, reanimated them, and sent them speeding down the river. The last blighted were just now making their way out to sea and heading east. Fearing an attack along the shore despite the tactical disadvantages it would cause the lich, Dante rallied everyone who wasn't wounded or tending to them. The sorcerers took to their horses, riding at the head of a column of infantry. Scouts ran along the walls with torches in hand. Dante very much wanted to pin down the lich's exact location, but settled for trailing the rearmost blighted with his fish while having runners with horns fanning out all the way to the eastern barricades. Both groups headed steadily in that direction. Dante and his legion reached the city's eastern wall and continued down the road to the defenses. The fly, traveling high above, watched as a white figure emerged from the sea fronting the forest where most of his army had gathered while he was circling in secret toward the river, and which had apparently stayed put in the woods during all of the recent fighting. There were plenty of blighted in the tree line, but the ground between them and the defenders was undisturbed. There hasn't been a battle here yet, Dante said. Why didn't they attack at the same time the Lich did? Press us on both sides. Blaze regarded the torches and lanterns lighting the ramparts, where thousands of men carried arms and waited. Maybe they didn't like their rods without the big guy. This is one of those things that I hope is correct, but I'm almost certain isn't. He trotted toward the rampart where Duke Pressings kept his command. Of course, if he would have provided the Duke with a loon, he would already know everything that had gone on in their absence, while Pressings would know all about the outcome of the battle at the river. But it hadn't been a power Dante had wanted to share with the Malish, who would almost certainly resume being his enemy if they made it through this. It did make him wonder, however, what secrets the Malish might still be hiding from him. Recognizing Dante, Pressings' guards called out to let him and his entourage through. Dante rode up the fortifications with Blaze, Gladick, Knack, and a small retinue of soldiers and servants. They were met by Pressings, who rode a black horse with a white band across its eyes like a highwayman's disguise. The Duke himself was only in his mid-thirties, but his hair was thoroughly and strikingly iron-gray, lending even more authority to a man who anyone would recognize at a glance as an aristocrat both by training and by birth. He wore a purple doublet with the crest of Wenford on its center, a swooping hawk with its tail feathers spread wide, one of them conspicuously missing. 
He'd been involved in two different military campaigns, one in Colin and the other to pacify an unusual amount of banditry and unrest within and beyond the western border of Malin. He had the reputation of being fair and honourable to those of his enemies who fought with any measure of decency, and utterly merciless against those who didn't. Lord Galand! Pressing's blue eyes looked them up and down. I'm quite jealous. You have seen battle. I'm surprised you didn't. Any thoughts why not? What have they been doing out there? They shined more of their pretty lights about. I think they're meant to intimidate us, but I'm beginning to enjoy them. Twice their troops massed at the end of the clearing as if to make a sally, but soon returned to the cover of the trees. Either they're scared or they're scheming. You face the lich. Dante gave a condensed description of the battle. We did better than I feared we might, but it took a hell of a lot of our strength to hold him at bay. The duke looked amused. I was told this white lich was little less than a god. If you survived his presence, how powerful can he really be? I think he meant to test our strength and see if he could end the battle with the first thrust, but mostly it was an exploratory jab. He's never led a siege on foreign lands before, let alone against so many sorcerers. I guarantee that if he'd broken through, he'd have attacked you on this front too. Yet he hasn't dared attack here yet. You parried his first efforts without suffering over much. What happens if he decides the city is too big of a bite to swallow? Then we wait until we're sure he's gone, and then get very, very drunk. But there will be at least one more attack, one that might not come in the form we're expecting. He's had centuries to plan his conquests. Be watchful. Dante turned his horse around and returned to Narashtivik's portion of the fortifications. He had placed Somber in charge during his absence. The spindly little man was currently standing behind a palisade and chewing his lip as he watched the enemy. The councilman was dressed in plain black with no markings of his station. It occurred to Dante that, if need be, his spymaster could operate quite effectively in Bressel. Between his brown skin and hard-to-place accent, no one who didn't already know about him would think to connect him to Narashtovic. So, you fought him off. Somber kept his eyes trained across the field. Well done. Dante lifted a brow. Do I detect scorn? Not toward you. Toward him. He's been toying with us on this end. The lights, the busy maneuvers that go nowhere. I hear that he fought you with practically all the beasts of the sea. Who's to say he wasn't toying with you, too? Where are you going with this, Somber? The smaller man lifted his right hand and shook it about. When will the games get serious? And will we know it when we see it? Uncertain where to go with this, and starting to feel piqued that no one seemed at all that impressed by his victory over the Lich, which was probably the first one that anyone could claim since the enemy's return, Dante moved down the palisade, inspecting one of the small barrels of Chardon that they'd set up along the lines. It was a strange fate for a snail, being plucked from its home waters and carried across an ocean to serve part in a mad war. But he supposed that was what they got for being so useful. There was a bit of movement in the trees, but nothing that presaged an attack. 
Dante's scouts kept their distance, but were staying close enough to do their job, and had seen no hint of foul play either in the water or the forest. It was a warm, pleasant night, the kind that would have seen young lovers strolling hand in hand through the streets, if those streets hadn't recently been conquered by one invading force and were presently being besieged by a second. Around eleven o'clock, a blue-white light emerged from the trees. Even across the field, Dante recognized it at once. The Aedan Rane. He walked alone, his long glaive in his left hand, his white cape trailing behind him. Everyone went silent, as if the lich had ensorcelled them, freezing them in place. The stillness lasted for three seconds, then five, then it broke like a pane of ice struck by a hammer, with thousands of people whispering intently to each other at once, as if all the grass in a lonely, wind-swept field had just been granted a soul and was asking itself why. The lich crossed a third of the meadow and came to a stop. A cold wind seemed to emanate from him, ruffling his cape. His entire body glowed softly, like moonlight or starlight, the ever-shifting blue of his eyes shining sharply. People of Malon. His voice carried easily across the distance, grave and forceful, but not so loud as to be oppressive. Have those who spur you against me told you what I am? Let me see if I can guess. I expect that they told you I am an ancient and evil sorcerer, driven by conquest and bloodthirst. That my purpose in coming here is to consume or enslave you. Think for one moment about the people who have told you all of this. Now think about where they have come from and what else they believe. The lich paused, the butt of his glaive planted beside him. Had it occurred to you to question the claims these outlanders brought you? Has some doubt already stirred in your mind? Then you will be less surprised by what I now tell you. I am no vampire. No lord of evil. It is in fact the opposite. For I am the messenger of Tame. I have come to deliver you his word. He pulsed with the crystalline light of pure ether. A spire of it seemed to reach all the way to the clouds, but it was gone as swiftly as it could be seen. Shouts rang out across the lines. Those of the Tenarians held a different timber than those of the Norashtavikas, which in turn differed from the Malish. Blasphemy! This came from Corson, who stood among his peers in their grey robes. You're a deceiver! A butcher! You're not worthy to speak Tame's name! The lich swiveled his head to Corson, but did nothing to interrupt him, speaking only once the priest was finished. It is you who have been deceived by foreigners, who care nothing for your beliefs and would be happy to see them smashed. Look upon me, and look upon the light. 
I have spent my life in veneration of Tame, the father of light. You are not him. Look upon me. The lich's voice rang so loudly that those who were standing fell to their knees. Alone in the field, he spread his arms wide, lifting his weapon from the ground. Aether coalesced around him, taking on patterns that were both strange yet somehow familiar, a shifting cage that seemed also, in ways that were wholly mysterious, a projection of his inner soul, as if he'd grasped the remnant within himself and brought it forth for all the world to see. And it was beautiful. The light shimmered and seared, as if it was cutting a portal through the dismal world and into a brighter and better plane of being. Sometimes it almost seemed to take the form of words, or faces, or creatures, bringing forth perhaps the ideals the gods had once used to make all of the things that now existed on the earth. The ether was both the starkest white of virgin snows, but also contained every color that could be painted or seen. Images now flickered within the light. Some seemed to be of the past, while others seemed to be from the future. Both showed eras of glory, one that was now long lost, and one that was yet to come under the rule of the lich. Gladick laughed, harsh and crow-like. More adroitly than his age would seem to allow, he swung himself over the palisade and dropped to the other side, strolling across the rampart toward the distant lich. Tricks of the light prove nothing to no one. I am far closer to the truth of tame than you are, and I am a wretched heretic who may find when I die that I am damned. It was the lich's turn to laugh, the sound like a sheet of copper being shaken about. You are a deceiver, Gladick of Bressel. Nothing more than an agent of the Drake Bane. He turned back to the mallet. The same Drake Bane who would steal your land and your home, and then use you as mere fodder against me. Gladick began to say more, but the lich continued on, drowning him out. Look at all the ways in which the Drake Bane corrupts you. You are men of the light, yet you are now ruled by those who deny the words and law of my master, the lord of the divine realm, tame, father of gods and of you. At the same time, this foreign lord tricks you into inviting the men of shadow into your home. That which you were meant to destroy is now what you fight alongside as false brothers and allies. What sickness has befallen you? He began to pace across the grass, gesturing sweepingly with his massive hand. But do not despair, for I have come to cleanse them. Lay down your arms, and do not interfere, and I will remove those who have invaded you. I will return your city to you. I will scour the worshippers of death from your streets. 
Let my light fall upon you and cleanse you, and let my light fall upon them and destroy them. For one thousand years, my Lord has beseeched those who love the light to purge those who would defile it. You have been unable to complete this task on your own. That is why Tame has now sent me to make it so. Blaze peered over the top of the palisade. Hasn't he been locked inside an iron tomb for generations? And before that, wasn't he just faffing about in the swamp forever? How does he know all these things about us and Malin? I don't know, Dante said, but he's doing his best to use them to break us apart. Well, we should just probably stand here and let him do that then. Not entirely sure what he was doing, Dante pulled himself over the palisade and took three steps forward, raising his voice high. Right, you're just a holy man, sent to dispel the evil from the land. That's why you opened your war on us, with the extremely holy sight of your army of the undead, brutally cannibalizing living people. You speak of the blighted? The lich chuckled. It was an unsettling sound. Do you not see what the blighted are? They are but people who have had all the light drained from their soul. They are what your path would lead us to. The shadow has grown too long. Tame has sent me to take up your power and bend it against you while exposing to the world the void that lives at the heart of what you do. Dante turned muttering toward Blaze. This is nonsense. He's absolutely not some servant of Tame. When I was under his power, he never said a word about this. You saw what you were allowed to see, the Lich said, although there was no natural way for the Lich to have heard him. No less, no more. The Lich turned back to the crowds of soldiers and priests, lifting his hand skyward. Perhaps the sight of me is not proof enough for you to accept what I am. Then I will show you something that very few people have seen, and about which almost no one knows. For they do not want you to know. For it would expose them as frauds and liars, who wish to keep you separate from the truth of the gods who love you. And so I ask you, what do they tell you about what lies beyond this life? Oh, shit, Dante whispered. It is said by your holiest priests that when you die, you pass through Tame's gate. There you are judged and sorted. Those who abided by his law are sent to the Lord's garden, which is walled and protected against the darkness that is always seeking to wend its way inside the human soul. But those who disobey his law are cast into the forest of damnation. Within this forest they will find many trials and torments from which it is uncertain that they will ever escape. Yet, this is not the reality. It is but a story designed to enslave you to those who have turned away from the Father of all things. 
Do you wish to see what Tame has created for you to ascend to? Then I will show you. And I will tell you the truth of it, that it is open not just to the most virtuous, but to everyone. He'd been holding his hand open above his head. Now he clenched it into a fist. Ether shot into the sky in a narrow beam. It pierced the patchy clouds, then began to unfurl, widening near the ground and the clouds to form two vast cones. The upper one tipped upside down, so their tips were set against each other. An hourglass, hundreds and hundreds of feet in height. Once it had attained its full size and stopped expanding, it twisted in the middle until it had taken a quarter turn. That's what I saw in the lich's mind, Dante murmured. As above, so below. The top of the hourglass began to shine like moonlight. The air there seemed to thin, the clouds fading until they were hazy, translucent, then gone altogether. After a moment, fluffy white clouds popped into place within the wide circle, and they were interrupted by pockets of rocks, trees, and streams. Is that the mists? Blazer's voice was so flat it didn't sound like a question. Or an illusion of them? The circle at the top of the hourglass held its position in the sky, but the image within it shifted to the left, as if it was a magnifying lens being drawn across a page. It skimmed across a jumble of tumbling fog punctured by the occasional stand of birches or pines. After a few moments, it came to a road and followed it to east. The spots of land thickened until there was more solid ground than mist. Farmhouses and cottages now dotted the clearings. Next came a sturdy stone wall, and beyond it, the plazas and spires of a great city, one where each neighborhood different from the next so radically that they looked like they had each come from a different place or a different time. That is no illusion, Gladick's voice caught in his throat. That is the same city we visited. With his head tilted back so far, Dante felt as if he might fall over. How can he be doing this? How does he even know about the mists? My answer would only be guesses, and they are no better than your own. A man in a grey robe ran toward them from along the palisade. It was Corson, his eyes wide and his face pale. Orden Gladick, what is happening? Can this man be telling us the truth? Has he been sent here by Tame? Gladick shook his head tightly. It cannot be so. But what's he telling us? What's he showing us? It's true, isn't it? Isn't this the very place that you yourself travel to in search of the Spear of Stars? And I am no avatar of the gods, am I? So how is this proof that he is? There's nothing about him that's earthly. His size, his color, his eyes. Everyone is questioning. They're on the brink of walking away. He's put us in a vice, Dante said. We have to stop him. But if we attack him now, he'll tell the Malish it's further proof we're trying to silence the truth. They all stared into the sky. The lens into the mists was passing between the glorious cathedrals that reached from the city like upraised arms.
This is the land my lord has made that awaits you. Despite its metallic ring, the lich's voice was somehow soothing. There are more secrets beyond these. I will share them with you. But you must depart this field, so that I might cleanse it of those who seek to corrupt you beyond all redemption. During the dialogue of death and bread, Adine suggested the lich was sent by team. Gawson's voice was caught between wonder and dread. Adine has always been said to be able to speak with the gods. What if he heard this from Tame himself? The Malish were arranged on the right flank of the Narashtavik soldiers. Among the Malish camp, their soldiers and priests were busily arguing with each other, glancing between the vision of the mists, the white lich, and the northerners holding the defences beside them. Dante could feel the moment slipping away. They would fracture, and then they would fail. But the lich had played them into a corner. Gladick ran his hand down his face. Gathering himself, he strode along the rampart toward the lich. You are not a messenger, but a murderer. The light that spills from your body is not meant to illuminate the world to us, but to hurt our eyes so that we must turn away from you, rendering us unable to spy the truth of it. For those who would deceive you come dressed in silver and gold, so that by the gleam of their splendor you will not think to question them. Yet also trust not those who would spin their words as if from gold, the lich answered without missing a beat. The truth needs no fineries. It may come dressed in the plainest sackcloth or even naked, for unlike man... When the truth goes naked, it is not in shame, but in virtue. Gladick blinked. Their words had the feel of a ritual of some kind, but although Dante had the sense he should know them, he couldn't place where he knew them from. The priest lowered his head a moment, then returned his eyes to the lich. I walk in the darkest woods, where the foul trees curse me. I walk in the desert, where each grain of sand scorches my foot. I walk in the caves beneath the world, where horrors lurk and wait for me to stumble. At all times I am afraid, and yet I smile. Whenever I rest, I ask the stars and their masters when my passage will end, the white lich replied casually. Yet all I hear back is laughter for the stars alone know the whens of beginnings and ends. To you, as you walk the path, the end is mystery, unknown until the moment it arrives. Gladick's voice was strangled. This is not possible. Did you expect that I would not know the words my lord wrote for you? I know them all, Gladick of Bressel. Bring me quill and ink, and I will write each one of them from start to finish. Dante's scalp prickled. At once he understood what was happening. Gladick had started quoting the Ban Narden at the Lich, assuming he wouldn't recognize it and would thus be outed as a fraud. Instead, the Lich had quoted it back in kind, and was now offering to write it cover to cover from memory alone. 
What if he is a god? Dante said, I don't mean tame, or even his messenger, but a new god, or maybe a very old one we don't know about. How else could he know the entire Bernardin when he's been in Tanaratain this whole time? Blaze rattled his sword in its sheath. Maybe he is a god. In that case, it's time for us to become god killers. You bluff, Gladick called to the enemy. You have used some trick to read my mind and rub the answers from me. The lich chuckled, which was all the more disturbing for its complete lack of concern. It was at this time that the tide returned and came flooding across the salt flats where many of both sides were drowned. As long as the rains endured, the city could not be sieged. He cocked his head, waiting. Gladick scowled. And so the rains went on, one day after another. He paused. Until in the ninth week. He trailed off. A moment. It will come to me. Do you see? The lich spread his arms wide to the malish. I bear his light. I speak his words. I have been sent to free you from the darkness that surrounds you on all sides. Leave this field, and I will save you. To the right, a Dane mounted a palisade. Ether flashed about his head. People of the light, we have prayed for deliverance, and deliverance has come. If we will not heed the words of Tame himself, then we will be swept away with all of the others who deny him. Walk with me. Walk with me away from this field and into the light. The malish soldiers rippled, looking to the priests. The priests looked to Adane. Adane hopped down from the palisade and began to walk west, away from the defences, chanting praise of Father Tame. Now would be a good time to do something, Blay said, like charging at the lich and making him look right about everything and then getting vaporized by him for trying. Dante's heart thudded dully. His scalp and armpits were sweaty. Or should I try quoting scripture I don't know? How can we convince the malice the truth of things they haven't seen? By showing them. Sudden dots of stream coiled around Blaze's head. He wrong-footed us with the truth about the mists, so wrong-foot him with the truth. Show the Malish what he's really like. By using the stream. By using finger paint if you have to. Just show them before there's no Malish left to be shown. Right. Dante walked away from the protection of the defences and toward the lich. The white lich is right. Dante lifted his right arm, pointing up to the lens that showed the city in the mists. That is the afterworld. I should know because I've been there several times now. It's the exact same place we spoke of in the Dialogue of Death and Bread. The Lich is right about something else, too. If you walk away, he'll kill the Tenarians, along with me and my people. But he's not telling you the whole truth. Once he's done with us, he will come for you, too. I should know because I was once his slave and saw everything. 
He had been gathering Nether in one hand and Ether in the other. Now he unleashed them in the sky. Not nearly as high as the Lich's hourglass to the afterworld, but high enough for everyone in the fields to see. And he used them to illustrate a city of spires and islands separated by canals and connected by small bridges. He hadn't used this ability much in some time, and the image was fuzzy at first, but grew sharper as he went along. This is the city of Arisosis, he said. It was a port in Tanaritain. And what he did there is the same thing he'll do here. On a dock in a canal, thousands of people lay piled up like a catch of fish. They were bound and wriggling, but there was no escape from the towering ice-white figure that approached them. The lich lifted his hands, pulling half the soul from nine-tenths of them. Once they had been turned, the lich stepped back and nodded to the other blighted, who had been waiting with the air of a dog told to stay. They fell upon the two thousand captives, devouring them alive, and still bound, until the docks were soaked in blood, and nothing was left but tangles of scalps and well-gnawed bones. But I haven't just seen what he's already done. I've also seen what he'll do in the future. Dante wiped the vision clean, summoning from his imagination a series of images, the blighted coursing through the streets of Bressel, killing or capturing every man, person, and child they found, and then doing the same in Narashtavik and Setevan, and then, when people learned to flee from the cities and take refuge in the wilds, the blighted pursuing through the forests and over the fields as tireless as their hunger. Any sign of smoke or farming drew them, until, in time, there were no people left at all. Just the blighted, milling across every empty land, still as ravenous as they had always been. Perhaps you see this and you think one man isn't capable of exterminating every last soul from the world, Dante said. You would be wrong. I've seen the deep history of the world, a history so ancient that no scrap of it remains today, in ruins or in memory, because nearly every last person alive then was slaughtered. This time, the image he painted across the sky was one the white lich had shown him personally. A city grew from the land like no city seen since, its towers like blades of glass, its streets shining as if paved with gold. Yet into this city the rebels marched, a slave army, and they fought with the sorcerers who had built the city, burning them out of their towers. Yet just as the last of the sorcerers seemed set to fall, something poured from their spires. Demons with long claws and fangs bounded through the rubble, brutalizing the rebels and for each person that fell to the demons, they returned as one. The plague of monsters took the city, ate the very sorcerers who'd created them, then spread from village to village, through town and city, just as the Blighted had done in the vision before, until only a handful of survivors huddled in the high mountains and deepest forests, and the world went silent and dark. Dante let the image linger, then swept it from the sky. Stand aside, if the thing before you has convinced you he's been sent by Tame. 
But if you abandon us tonight, the scenes I've just shown you spell the fate that will come for you once he's done here. The defenders were now as quiet as the emptied-out past had been. Corson was the first to speak. The last thing you showed us. You said this happened? When? No one knows for sure, Dante said. At least twenty thousand years ago, and maybe as many as a hundred thousand. All trace of it was lost long, long ago. Then how can you possibly know about it? Dante glanced sidelong at the Drakebane among his troops. He was quite certain the glimpses were supposed to be kept secret, but at that moment, none of them had the luxury of secrecy. I've spent years of my life traveling to many strange places, Dante said, and Sonara Chain is one of the strangest of them all. There, they have ways of seeing into the past. That's where we learned about what used to be. I don't understand, Corson gestured to the mists printed on the sky. First the afterworld, now this deep history of yours. This could change our very understanding of our place in the world. Why wouldn't you tell the people about this? Why would you hide the truth? I was afraid it would cause chaos. I thought that things might fall apart, like they're so close to doing right now. But maybe it's time for the people to learn the truth. In that sense, maybe the Lich was sent by Tame. Not to destroy us, but to force this knowledge into the open and enlighten us. Corson stared at Dante, then turned to the Malish, lifting his voice. People of Malan, faithful of Tame, we are being lied to. If we swallow that poison, we will die. It's time to save our land, time to save our souls, to war, to war, to war, to war. He thrust his fists above his head, filling them with light. Then he turned and ran along the rampart toward the White Lich. His compatriots stared after him, agog, as if ready to leave the lunatic to his fate. An old man scrambled over the palisade behind Corson, grey robes snagging on the poles. He cursed the fabric, then turned his invective on the others. Come on, you bastards! Or are you just going to let them lie about being sent by our father? He turned and ran after Corson holding his robes high like a skirt. Like the breaking of a dam, the other priests followed, hastening to catch up as Corson entered the cropped grass beyond the fortifications. Go! Dante yelled, windmilling his arms. To the aid of the Mellish! The Nethermancers poured through a gate in the palisade, Nether streaming to them from all sides. Drakebane Yoto sallied forth in the company of his knights and sorcerers. Stop! The lich's voice roared like the breaking of a great bell. You move against your own lord. You will break your path to the heavens. He curled his upstretched hand into a fist. The massive hourglass of light twisted, the lens into the mists blurring and shaking. But the first blur of ether was already streaking from Corson's hand. As if this was the signal fire of a lit arrow, the legions of Malin let loose with all they had. Dozens of lights shrieked through the night. The lich crossed his heavy arms in front of his chest. 
Lines of ether surrounded him, then bent into a sphere. The first bolts struck with a glow of burning metal. Dante released a charge of nether, followed at once by a second. To his right and left, his priests launched a volley of shadows. Each one rammed into the lich's sphere and disintegrated like ashes in the wind. But the sphere's surface dimpled and rippled with a rainbow shimmer. Dante summoned and hurled another ball of nether. Blaze ran beside him, easily keeping pace, right hand on the hilt of his sword. I've never heard so much yammering before a war before. I was about ready to ask the lich to blight me and get it over with. All that talk was a good thing. Dante watched his latest assault dash against the sphere. It's a sign he's not sure he can win. Pretty sound tactic to try to crack us apart, given that the Great Malish Alliance is about as fragile as an eggshell made of testicles. The white lich pulled more ether from the sky, gathering it like a spider spinning her silk, and reinforced the front of the wall he'd wrapped around himself. He reaped another handful and launched one of his arcing multi-point strikes at the Malish. They slowed their assault on him, firing at the counterattacks instead. Golden threads winked from the Odosein. The spherical shield flickered. The Lich seemed to be wholly ready for this, drawing on the power of his remnant to restore his connection to the ether and stabilize his sphere. Yet a bolt of nether, it was impossible to say whose, zipped past the shield in the precise moment of its flicker. Distracted by his effort to undo the work of the Odosein, the Aedan Rane could do nothing but stop the bolt from plowing into his chest. The lich grunted. Silvery white blood sprayed from the wound. He blinked his shifting blue eyes in pain. No sooner had the wound been opened than it sealed itself shut, but the very sight of it, the understanding that the lich could be hurt and thus killed, drove the city's defenders into a frenzy. Ether and Nether seemed to blot out the space between them and the Lich. His shield strobed with all colors. The Lich took a step backward, then another, falling back toward the trees that now seemed a very long way behind him. Everything you have, the Drakebane yelled, before his armies can aid him. Dante's command was starting to quiver, but he grabbed at more shadows, barely pausing to shape them before firing them at the Aiden Rane. A salvo of ether wrought cracks across his shield. He turned and ran, his strides as long as the bounds of a deer. But the shadows were far faster. They pummeled into the iridescent sphere and shattered it. The lich reached behind himself, shooting a river of light at the countless attacks of his pursuers. He sent so much ether behind him that his figure was all but lost in the black and white flashes of deflected strikes. An ethereal dart jabbed into his back, followed by a second. Ether gouged into his broad shoulders. One wound after another opened in his back, faster than they could heal themselves. He roared in pain, running on. But the very next volley sent him toppling into the tall grass. The defenders yelled out, ready for blood. The lich's aura was still glowing from down in the grass, and they didn't let up, hammering the area with light and with dark. Dante's heart boomed in his ears. Nether flew up from the grass, not where the Aedan Rane had fallen, but from a dozen or more different points across the field. 
a smaller host of lesser liches stood from the tall blades, some sending their sorcery to defend their master, others hitting back at the priest. With a snarl of joyous rage, hundreds of blighted jumped to their feet as well, stomachs grimy from crawling through the dirt. Ignore them, Dante yelled. This could be our only chance at the lich. He brought a lance of nether to hand and hurled it at the place where the lich had fallen. He thought the man's glow was starting to fade, but it must have been his hopes getting the better of him, because the white lich stood from the grass, thick blood trickling from a score of wounds, the ether glinting from within both his hands. Seventeen. The blighted sprinted through the grass, teeth bared. The lesser liches closed like a net on the aid and Rane. One of them reached out with his ether, restoring the lich wound by wound. Blaze whipped out his swords and put himself a step ahead of Dante. Are we standing and fighting? Don't know. Dante fired a bolt of nether toward the white lich, arcing it with the intention of slamming it down on his head. One of the lesser liches batted it down as soon as it began to descend. Well, they don't seem to be running, and they are toward us, so I'd say we're standing and fighting. The knights of the Odyssean drew their swords, purple and black light flashing in the darkness, and moved to the vanguard of the Tenarians. Both the Malish and Narashtavik contingents had brought a number of men-at-arms along with their priests. They'd been hanging back, helpless against the lich's sorcery, but they now moved to stand with the priests. To Dante's right, Three of the lesser liches switched from defending the Aedan Rane to targeting a single Malish priest. The man scrambled back in surprise, yelling out as he was beaten to the ground by the flocking shadows. Dante held his focus on the lich. When he'd been running away, the lich had looked troubled, if not exactly scared, but he now looked grimly resolved. Although he was still being attacked by dozens of defenders, none of their efforts were able to sneak through. With the sorcerers deadlocked with the liches, the blighted charged forth nearly unscathed. Blaze held the center of Norashtavik's men-at-arms, weaving between the undead like a well-practiced dance, albeit one that left a trail of severed arms and heads in its wake. More blighted are flanking through the trees. Somber seemed to appear from nowhere, startling Dante enough to send his latest strike of nether veering wildly away from the lich. Under normal circumstances, Somber was twitchy, as if beset by a constant state of nerves, but he was now as alert and focused as a ferret on the hunt. Do we call for the cavalry? Dante clenched his teeth. They're trying to draw us into a battle outside our defenses. Bringing out more men is the last thing we want to do. Then you'd best make your orders before we have no choice. Fall back, Dante commanded. To the walls, hold your discipline. They'd practiced plenty of retreats from one fortified position to another, but rather fewer over open ground. Yet, despite this and the constant press of the blighted, who seemed almost physically incapable of disengaging, they fell back in an orderly fashion. A messenger on horseback galloped back to the defenses to prepare the soldiers there to aid them once they neared. Sorcery flew more thickly than Dante had ever seen, but for all its thunder, there was very little blood. It seemed as though the air was so choked with it that nothing could squeeze through to cause any harm. 
As they neared the bow range of the ramparts, the white lich made a hard push, slowing the retreat to a crawl. But Dante sought for exactly what it was, an attempt to delay them long enough for the flanking blighter to catch them in the open field. Taking a calculated risk, if they got bogged down it could lead to total disaster, Dante called for a surge of reinforcements to meet them in the open. With the help of the new troops, they made it back to the safety of the Palisades, while the second set of blighted were still running at them from the trees to the northeast. The archers loosed two volleys at the undead, slaying many. The lich withdrew to regroup after the chase. Scores of dead humans and blighted alike strewed the turf, but considering the ferocity of the sorcery, there had been very few losses. Dante called for his horse. Blaze put away his swords and stared out into the darkness. The blighted didn't seem to need any lanterns to fight by, and the only light past the fortifications was the glow cast by the liches. Was it my imagination? Blaze said. Or was there a moment there when we were about to win? The mounts arrived. Dante heaved himself into the saddle. Assuming the whole thing wasn't a trap to lure us out and butcher us in the open. I do not believe it was intended to be a trap. After two false starts and waving off the grooms, Gladick wrangled himself onto his horse. Even if it was, it has only worked against the lich. We wounded him, and whatever can be wounded can be killed. For all the power he has accumulated, he remains mortal. Well, that's good news. Blaze adjusted his scabbard on his hip. Except for the part where it means we had the chance to kill him and then completely failed to do that. Dante still had a moth high in the sky, and through it he watched as the lich summoned his full army from the forest. It was not a comforting sight. Once the blighted were all free of the trees, they took to the march. They're not coming for us here, Dante said. They're circling to the northeast. Blaze scoffed. What does he think he's doing? Not attacking our most fortified position like a total cheater? Dante sent runners to the Drakebane and Lord Pressings. There was no time to wait for a response, so he yelled his orders to the soldiers and nethermancers of Narashtovic, who picked up from their positions and streamed north past the Tenarians who had been on their left flank. The Malish, who had been to their right, holding the ground between them and the sea, began to move as well, marching up the dirt path behind the outermost rampart. Once they cleared the Tenarians, Narashtovic's troops hustled to their new positions along the palisades. They would still be in the center. The Malish would leapfrog them, taking the northernmost spot and beginning to curve to the west. Dante ordered one of the monks to pass out Chardon to the Nethermancers who'd fought at both the river and the field, many of whom were about to exhaust their strength, and some of whom already had. It pained him to spend his resources so soon. He liked to treat such things as last resorts, but there came a point where being scrupulous and committing suicide became indistinguishable. He feared the Aedan Rane might try to run them about for hours, taking advantage of the fact the Blighted needed much less rest. But either that hadn't occurred to him, or he was confident he didn't need any such tricks, because the Malish weren't fully in place yet when the Lich pivoted his army about to face the defenders. The Lich made no battle speech, at least not any that Dante could hear, although it was always possible he was speaking it directly to the minds of the Blighted. If so, it was a short one, 
for the moment his legions were arrayed to his liking, they charged toward the city. Rather than the bloody, wordless battle cries of men, the blighted advanced with little sound except the slap of their bare feet and the hisses of their hatred. There was something unnerving about the quiet, and Dante could sense the unease in the men and women around him. Archers! He raised his hand above his head, then dropped it. Loose at will! With a hissing of their own, the archers let fly. Their arrows were immediately lost in the darkness, obliging them to wait to see if their range had been true. But as soon as the first blight had staggered, they launched their second volley. So did the archers among the Malish and the Tenarians. Dozens of blighted fell on their faces, but most of them got up and kept running. Or, if they'd been struck in the leg, limped and hopped onward. Only those who took an arrow to the head or the heart stayed where they fell. That's going to be a disadvantage, Dante muttered. For them, Blay said, if you've never tried it, it turns out it's a lot harder to fight when you've got a three-foot handle sticking out of you. The archers were now firing as they pleased. Ether played within the ranks of the blighted, lesser liches readying themselves. Dante brought the nether to him. It wouldn't be long before he'd begin to need to supplement it with the shadows within the Shorden. The blighted ran pell-mell, closing to within a hundred feet, then fifty. Seeing them coming by the thousands, it was almost impossible not to start blasting them with everything he had. For that was what the soldiers were for. They all had their role now. Breaking from it would only see them all killed. The blighted entered the rim of light spread by the defenders' lanterns. Spearmen braced their weapons. Archers fired relentlessly, hardly needing to take aim. And then the first of the blighted were upon them, flinging themselves against the palisades and pulling themselves upward. Men stabbed down with spears and swords. Some of the impaled undead grabbed hold of the hafts of spears and even the blades themselves, unbalancing the soldiers over the wooden posts, where other blighted grabbed their arms and pulled them down to be ripped to pieces. Screams ran up and down the lines. Hold this ring as long as you can, Dante called to his people. Make them pay for every inch of it. Blaze stood on the earth, piled on their side of the palisade, laying about with his Odosheen swords, pieces of his enemies thumping to the ground in a steady patter. In a surge of spirit, Dante drew his sword with a snap of nether and jumped up beside him, hacking down at the blighted piling themselves against the wooden wall. The soldiers who'd been getting pulled over the defences soon learned to drop their weight if their weapon was grabbed, or simply to let go of it. The blighted were dying in droves, but that just meant the ones that came after them had more to stand on. Some were already able to jump from the heaped-up bodies and vault over the palisade, where they grabbed soldiers and threw them down to their pale kin on the other side, or ripped at everyone around them in a bloodthirsty frenzy. Ether flashed from within the liches' formations, inasmuch as they could be called formations. Cries went up among the priests, who pointed toward the gathering power. Shadows swept along the rampart. Ether streaked toward them like lightning bolts made of ninety-degree angles. Dante backed away from the palisade, clasping the nether in his hand, then releasing it toward an incoming bolt. 
The bolt broke apart in a white flash, forcing both blighted and soldiers to avert their eyes. Others burst up and down the lines. They hadn't knocked down the last one before the enemies launched another barrage. The priests and monks remained disciplined, employing just enough nether to neutralize the light. There were now enough dead blighted lumped on the other side for the others to handily leap the barrier, but the jump left them exposed to attack, and they were losing multiple troops for every one they claimed from the defenders. Dante wasn't sure how much longer the lich could afford to press the attack. A third wave of the strangely angled lightning soared toward them. Dante drew Nether from the Shorden and released it at his target. Light flashed over the field, low in the sky. Dante averted his gaze. To his right, another light seared to brief life. But it wasn't forty feet up like the others. It was at the ground. At the wall. With a rolling boom, the palisade and the earth around it was flung into the air. Bodies were blasted skyward with it, flopping head over heels. People were screaming, scrambling back from the attack on hands and knees. The blighted that had been fighting there had been pulped into chunks. But that did nothing to discourage those behind them from trampling over what was left of their bodies as they raced through the gap in the defenses to attack the soldiers on either side. Blaze didn't look away from his butchery of the blighted atop the wall. How screwed are we? Not completely. Inside, Dante was screaming, but his mind had already conjured a plan and moved on to telling the panicked parts of him to shut up. I'll just raise a rock wall there, sealing the gap, and sixty feet further south from where the first attack had gone off, ether blazed from the foot of the palisade. Earth and flesh were hurled high into the air, smoking posts spinning crazily in all directions. Another mass of blighted sprinted into the opening while the debris was still raining down on their heads. Gods, damn it, Dante said. I don't see a lich anywhere near the strikes. That's because it doesn't look like a lich. Blaze cleaved through the snarling head of an undead, then used his fouled blade to point south. It looks like a blighted. Dante gazed dumbly, mouth half open. Through the swirling dust and crush of bodies, he made out the faintest flicker of light from the hands of one of the blighted, or at least something made to look like one of them. Come on, before it loses itself in the crowd. He abandoned the palisade and ran for his horse. He vaulted into the saddle and spurred his mount toward the site of the second explosion, cutting down a blighted as it prepared to leap at him while doing his best to keep his eyes trained on the disguised lich. Hoofbeats stomped behind him. They'd hardly gotten underway before the defenders at the palisade they'd just left called for a retreat. Dante didn't look back. He galloped into the chaos where the first attack had taken place. His soldiers had all but abandoned the site, and blighted were hurtling through the broken defenses with such reckless speed that more than a few of them were tripping in the churned earth. Some swerved toward Dante and his escort, which turned out to be both Blaze and Gladick. Dante and Blaze laid about with their swords, while Gladick slew his targets with pinpoint strikes of ether. Surrounded on all sides as they were by inhuman monsters— most horses would have been pissing into their horse pants, but they were riding Destria so muscular and battle-bred that they seemed half monsters themselves. 
They rode down any blighted stupid enough to run at them head on. They broke through the horde and into the relatively empty ground behind an abandoned palisade. Ahead, the disguised lich moved further south along the defences. It mixed with a crowd of blighted pressing against the palisade. For a moment, Dante lost it. The palisade went up with a roar and a flash. Scores of blighted ran through it, inadvertently isolating the lich, for the disguised lich was moving parallel to the defenders, intending to open a fourth hole through the earthworks, and every other blighted was charging headlong into the hole it had just opened. Dante headed straight for it, coming to the site of the second attack. Blighted ran at them by the dozens. Gladick lashed at them with a long blade of ether, cutting through the entire front line and dashing the line behind it with remains. Blaze edged to Dante's left, riding slightly ahead. Between their speed and the nether-heightened Odosein weapon, he barely had to do more than hold his sword steady to cut through anything that came at them. They exited the breach and entered another relatively clear spot of unmanned palisade. The disguised lich was just eighty feet ahead, sneaking up toward a wall where soldiers in black and silver fought for their lives. Hearing the hoofbeats, the lesser lich glanced at the three riders, then popped to its feet. It turned and bolted into the throng. Dante felt Gladick reach into the ether. A beam of light climbed from the lesser lich's head, marking him. The lich waved his hand, dispelling it. But the twinkle of ether he spent to do so marked him just as well, and Gladick simply replaced the beam an instant later. The lich seemed to give up most likely counting on the thousands of blighted it was about to be surrounded by to protect it instead. Were you intending to ride into that? Blay said. In case you hadn't noticed the army, they've got a whole army. We don't have a choice. Dante brought the shadows to him. If it escapes, it'll come back to punch through our next line of defenses as well. For all their spirit, the Destria slowed at the solid lines of blighted in front of them. Blaze chopped to his right and left, but the undead were so many that some slipped past his guard to rake his mount with their claws. Light gleamed from behind Dante. Gladick hurled a storm of straight lines into the crowd between them and the retreating lesser lich. These ripped into the enemy, opening a pocket of clear ground for the horses to ride into, but the fearless blighted filled the hole in moments. Dante drew on the shorden launching bolts at the lesser lich's back, but the enemy's sorcerer deflected them, beginning to open ground between himself and his pursuit. The horses kicked and stomped. They were bleeding from multiple scratches. If they waded in any further, there would be no keeping the blighted at bay. They were too many to clear a path to ride through, though. Then again, there was no need to ride through them. Pulling more nether from the seashell, Dante moved into the earth. With a low rumble, he lifted a ramp in front of him, unrolling a path straight ahead. Dust fell away from the steep sides. Blaze whooped with laughter and charged forward, trampling and slashing at the blighted. Once the causeway was ten feet high, Dante leveled it out. He and Gladick scampered after Blaze, who was doing a fine job sweeping the way forward of any and all undead that had kept their footing during the raising of the path. That left Dante free to continue extending the causeway. Bloodied and angry, 
the Destriers galloped ahead, closing in on the Lich. The Lich again dispelled the beam of ether from its head and dived forward, attempting to hide within the masses. Dante walloped at it with a hammer of nether. The Lich parried the portion coming for him, but could do nothing to save the blighted around it, who were knocked flying. Exposed, the lesser Lich summoned a cage of ether over its head, but whatever purpose it intended for these energies was lost to the ages, as Gladick had already loosed with a storm of darkness and light. The Lich, who had flung himself to the ground, rolled over and sat up, lifting his light-filled hands above his head. The air about him went crazed with the crackle and flare of competing magics. When it faded, the lesser Lich was lying on his back, right leg separated from his body, and the left half of his head nowhere to be seen. Congratulations! You found a way to make him even uglier, they said. Now let's get out of here before we find out what being inside a hundred different stomachs feels like. Blighted were piling themselves against the edge of the causeway, boosting and climbing on top of each other to haul themselves to the surface. There wasn't space for the horses to turn around, so Dante extended the end of the path into a loop. They rode about the circle and galloped back the way they'd come. Blaze was still at the head, scything his way through the teeming enemy. Dante and Gladick knocked down anything that managed to avoid his blades and his mount's hooves, but they barely had to lift a finger until they returned to the foot of the ramp, where a few pulses of shadows flattened the blighted that had congregated there into a fleshy carpet. All in all, their excursion had barely taken two minutes. But the Narashtavikas had had to all but completely abandon the ground behind the outermost fourth layer that the now-dead sorcerer had breached, retreating to the defences of the third ring instead. Dante was afraid they were going to have to hack, trample, and benether their way through the blighted clogging the area. But Knack led a sally of soldiers and nethermancers out from the ramparts. Dante rarely enjoyed large-scale war, per se— but he wasn't sure that he'd ever felt the same pride and valour that swelled in him as his soldiers ran from behind safety to come to his aid, each one of them dressed in the black and silver of their homeland and ready to deal death to anyone that threatened the people of that land. The Blighted fought back viciously, but they didn't have the full strength of their numbers behind them yet. As Dante neared, Knack ordered his people to swing about, and they dovetailed together. Knack bounced in the saddle of his warhorse, not unlike a child's ball tethered to a paddle. Did you get lost? You seem to have ridden out into the middle of the invasion. The white lich altered one of his sorcerers to look like a blighted, Dante said. He blended in with the others to blow up our defenses. Blaze sheathed his swords, ending their draw on his trace. Don't worry, we won't be seeing him again. Not until he relocates the other half of his head. Knack crinkled his brow. That sounds like a very effective tactic, which is to say, very bad for us. There can't be any doubt the White Lich will try again. I don't know that he can, Dante said. Maybe that one lesser Lich just looked like a blighted, but get word to everyone to watch out for it. If they see any sign of sorcery along the walls, crush it with everything they have. Blaze glanced up and behind him. Speaking of being crushed, Feel like stopping that? He'd only gotten the first words out when Dante felt the ether surging through the sky. 
Behind them, the night was afire with blues and greens, just like those that sometimes danced above the mountains north of Narashtivik in the winter. But these lights were much lower in the sky, and streaking down toward them. Incoming! Dante scooped up Nether and shot it up at the gigantic wave of ether. He was joined by Gladic, Nack, and the multiple priests who had come out with Nack. Their attacks sliced into the lights, cleaving off a third of them, but the rest rushed on. Save your strength, Dante said. It's not going to hit us. Some of the priests looked skeptical, but the green and blue light was now streaming straight down. It made impact, cracking into the ground, and several of the blighted that had been chasing after them. Earth flew up from the strike, leaving massive furrows in the dirt, as if someone had dragged a giant rake across it. Slabs of stone broke and tilted, leaving the grounds looking like an abandoned graveyard. They came to the next palisade, galloping through the gate. Behind it, archers were already firing on the blighted, running toward them. As soon as the last Norashtaveka was through, the soldiers slammed and barred the gate. Dante dismounted making a quick check of himself for wounds that his body might have ignored in the throes of battle. A lot of scratches, but that was just fine. It meant he wouldn't have to nick himself to feed the nether any time soon. Blaze and Gladic looked to be in similar shape. He sent riders to the north and south to warn the others to watch for lesser liches disguised as blighted, then took to the wooden wall. I barely saw any of our dead out there, Nack. What were the blighted doing after they broke through? Fighting over somebody's big toe? Nack shook his head. Oh, we lost many, but the blighted didn't kill many of them. Instead, they disarmed them, then grabbed them up and ran away like they were carrying a sack of potatoes. To be blighted. You would know better than I. Is there a way to undo the condition? Yes, I think so. But it's extremely dangerous— as likely to kill the nethermancer who tries it as it is to save the victim. Ah, Nack said quietly. Then when we see our own, we should kill them? As a mercy? That would be for the best. These were grim thoughts, but Dante had no time to dwell on them, as the blighted were already flooding across the open space between the abandoned fourth ring and the newly fortified third ring, he now saw what the White Lich's blue and green assault had been about. While its primary intention might have been to kill them, as soon as the Lich saw that they were probably going to fight it off, he diverted it to smash up the ground instead. The Blighted now ran through the furrows and behind the cover of the cracked stone, partially shielded from both archery and sorcery. Within a matter of a minute, they were throwing themselves against the palisade and the assaults of the liches were already storming down from above. While the soldiers held the wall, the priests held the air above it, with a few watchful monks mixed in among the men-at-arms to keep a sharp eye out for any more incursions from lesser liches. Just as the soldiers were rotated from the front when they were injured or exhausted, Dante rotated out the monks and priests who'd spent all their nether, ordering them back to the camp behind the city's original wall to rest up the best they could. For now, he allotted a single Chardon each to Nack, Somber, and the other most talented among them. There was a great deal of light flashing to the north, where the Malish held their lines, 
and rather less of it to the south, where the drake bane was positioned. The lich had been forced to divert his lieutenants to support the blighted, to prevent them from being completely torn to shreds by the defender's sorcery. For the moment, it seemed to be resulting in a stalemate on all three fronts. Why is he pressing so hard at our center? Dante said, after several minutes. It's our strongest holding. I suspect it is just as you told Lord Pressings, Gladick said. The Aedan Rane, facing his stiffest resistance, would rather test it than assume he has the means to break it outright. Remember that he does not think on the same scale of time that we do. He has the patience of mountains. That's one option, Blaze said from the wall, not interrupting the steady stab and slash of his swords. The other is he just really hates you two. Dead blighted were beginning to pile up at the foot of the palisades. Within another minute, they had a full-fledged ramp of their own corpses, which they scrambled up at close to a run. The line of defenders bent, pushed back from the wall. A little help, Blaze called. Otherwise, we're about to be shredded into the confetti which the lich will throw to celebrate his victory. Dante glanced at the latest salvo of ether from the white lich, who was standing well back from the point of conflict. Judging the others had enough power to deal with it, he delved into the dirt just in front of the palisade, yanking it downward. The bodies of the blighted fell into the pit, while the live ones on top of them were lowered to what had previously been ground level. The blighted smashed their fists against the palisade, then bent at the waist and braced themselves against it, letting those behind them use their backs as a platform to leap over the wall. Scowling, Dante pulled the earth back, sending them all falling into it, then clapped it shut like a champing jaw. When he opened it again, the interior was a bloody, fleshy mess. A volley of ether rained toward them, forcing Dante to back up and redirect his nether to the sky. He was drawing exclusively on a shorden for now, leaving the remainder of his ability in reserve. The nether found the lich's missiles, sparks sputtering heavily as they were broken apart. But a few slipped through, splintering chunks from the top of the palisade and plowing through the soldiers. A priest was knocked backward, dead before he hit the ground. Another volley was already coming in behind the first. Dante sucked the shorden dry and cast it aside, calling to his servant for another, even as he spewed his shadows forth to meet the white lich's assault. Soldiers reeled back from the wall. Dante wanted to yell at them to hold position, but instants later, bolts of nether snapped into the very spot they'd been occupying. He held his place averting the worst of the damage. Glowing ashes of sorcery faded from the air. Splinters of wood and clods of dirt thumped and fluttered to earth. Dante jogged forward, expecting the barrage to be followed up by a wave of blighted, but instead the pale undead were pulling back. And thousands upon thousands of others were circling northwest to attack the Malish soldiers' flank or bypass them altogether. The Malish were already calling in their reserves to help buttress their left side. In terms of pure maneuvers, it might have been best to keep the Norashtavikas in place and send up the Tenarians, but Dante considered his people the strongest of the three and wanted to keep them engaged with the Aedan Rane whenever possible. 
he instructed his flagman to signal the Drakebane. The Drakebane signaled back his agreement. Dante called his men to march along the rear of the Mellish and form up on their left. The Tenarians were already on the move to flow into the gap Narashtavik would leave as a result. Dante and his troops were still moving north behind the Malish when the Blighted broke from their maneuvers into an all-out charge on the Malish lines. Ether twinkled behind them. Priests, with me, Dante called. The rest of you keep moving into position. He swung his horse about and galloped toward one of the raised pathways he'd built as spokes between the layers of defenses, taking it toward the Malish front, his sorcerers parading behind him. The lookouts and messengers posted on the road scattered to make way. Geometric lightning burned across the front. Men cried out. Debris arced into the air, lit by the answering strikes of the Malish. The yells of fear and pain were replaced by those of battle. The Blighted had come to the barriers. There were a great deal of men between himself and the front, but from his saddle, Dante could see that the undead were already entering through a hole punched in the defenses. The front was a crush of soldiers, and he had never liked trying to wield the nether while mounted. The shifting and jarring of the horse made it hard to concentrate. So he jumped from the saddle and ran forward on foot, the nether swirling about him. Blaze caught up to him, swords sheathed for the moment. Ether was still harrowing into the Malish soldiers, driving them away from the wreckage of the palisade and making it hard to see. Yet one thing was clear. The city's priests were lacking in ether. With no shorden to supplement them, the clergy was able to do little more than keep themselves alive as the White Lich and his lieutenants tore into the soldiers. The entire front line felt like they'd been held up by the same just-clipped string— the Blighted bounded over the dead and into the next line of soldiers, whose faces were pallid, frozen with the terror of troops about to break. Dante pulled Nether from the Shorden in a steady draft and fired off bolts as fast as he could shape them. This time, it was the entire front line of Blighted who fell. The Malish, who'd been leaning back about to retreat further, edged forward. Another blade of ether swooped at them from above, but Gladick was already on it, breaking it with a shod and augmented repost of shadows. Other nethermancers were arriving behind them, slugging it out with the lesser liches. The beleaguered Malish priests thrust their fists in the air and cheered, grey robes flapping. They let loose as they could, giving the soldiers a bit of breathing room, even as more blighted poured through the bridge. With the others holding off the enemy's sorcery, Dante ducked his mind into the ground where the palisade had been ripped out, intending to sink it and duplicate the chewing jaws trick he'd pulled off just minutes earlier. The power of the white lich crashed into him like a flail. Dante reeled back, gasping for breath. Someone ran to his side, knack, judging by the man's round shape, but Dante's eyes weren't quite working. No, his eyes were fine but his mind couldn't decipher what they were telling him. Without warning, everything snapped back into place. It felt like some seconds had passed. A new wave of darkness and light rolled from the liches, bowling over fifty men. Its edge flashed toward Blaze, who'd been holding out near the end of the line. He swore and blinked into the shadows. The pocket of Blighted who'd made it through swelled into a bulge. 
the Malish were getting that look on their faces again. Several Malish priests retreated from the fray, their powers tapped out. Most of the remainder fought with shaky hands and sweating faces. Within minutes, they would exhaust themselves, and then Narashtivik would see how long they could hold out before they gave out too. The throng of blighted that had come through the gap swelled like a cyst about to burst. Two more Malish ethermancers turned to leave the fray, one of them limping, hanging onto the other's shoulder for support. To Dante's right, Gladick staggered back from a hammer blow of light, grimacing, smoke trailing from his hair. A slim figure dashed into the melee of men and blighted, dark hair streaming behind her. Her bone and steel bracers glinted in the light cast by the ether as she raised a shorden above her head. Nether flooded from the mouth of the shell, forming a vortex around her. Its swirling edges winked with silver and purple as she began to activate it. Dante swung his head toward the white lich, a glowing, towering figure standing fifty yards behind the front lines. He pulled ropes of nether from his own shorden and fired a cloud of bolts at the lich. The enemy raised his heavy hand and knocked each one down with ease. But the point hadn't been to hurt him, just to make him look away for a moment. Nether streamed from Winden to the broken and trampled remnants of the palisade. Dante had thought that harvesting required seeds or living plants, but some spark of life must have remained in the recently hewn logs, for they sprouted branches and leaves like mad, expanding across the gap as quickly as the arrival of a marine fog, crackling and groaning. The blighted who'd been pushed through were crushed and impaled between merciless boughs and trunks. In the span of seconds, a wall of living wood had grown across the breach, sealing it shut. Slaughter them all, Dante yelled. Sorcerers, do not let the lich break through. The blighted trapped on their side loped toward Linden, tearing at her cloak. Blazer's swords glowed as he cut down the undead and cleared a path for her escape. With a roar, Malin's soldiers charged against the blighted, who had been pushing them back only moments before. Priests of both Aron and Tame turned their powers to the defense of the Wall of Trees, knocking down the attacks from the Lich and his lieutenants. Dante hurled a host of black darts into the crowded Blighted, opening holes for the soldiers to pierce through. He sucked the last of the shadows from his shorden and slung them at an incoming column of light. The ether burst apart, burning sparks landing on the leaves of the wall but failing to catch fire. The troops churned their way forward, pushing the last of the blighted against the trees, and putting every last one of them down. Again the soldiers yelled out, this time in the triumph of blood, and ran to take position on the defences. There was a moment of relative calm, as if the world itself was taking a breath. Then the blighted on the other side of the wall fell back like a down blanket yanked from the end of the bed. The ground they opened behind them was awash in bodies and blood, the soil dirtied and churned. Archers loosed irregularly at the retreating foe. Dante ran over to Wyndon, whose well-tanned face was grimed with dirt and blood. What are you doing here? I told you to stay at the palace. She snorted, looking him up and down. You are mad at me for saving you? You did more than enough to bring us the dream flowers and Shorden. 
this isn't your fight. In the islands, the Tauren were not your fight. But there you fought for us. So now I fight for you. Well, thank you for disobeying me. Now, please don't do it again. Unless you're about to save everything again, in which case, do whatever the hell you want. Wyndon peered at him. You are saying to agree with you when you are right and disagree with you when you are wrong? That would seem to be the most efficient way to do things, yes. The Blighted withdrew to the fourth ring of defences. They and the Liches spent some time there, tearing down the palisades and pulling apart the earthworks as best they could, leaving nothing resembling a defence for the city's soldiers to return to. A few undead scouts roamed around the periphery of the ramparts, following the earthworks around the northern and then western ends of the city, but Lord Pressings kept them well shadowed by soldiers while the Nethermancers watched from above with a motley assortment of the insects. While they dug in, waiting for the next attack, crews of citizens gathered up the dead, treated the wounded, and distributed supplies brought from the city. Dante ordered half his priests to catch two hours of sleep, then returned to spell the others for two hours. He didn't expect the first shift to pass without a renewed attack from the lich, let alone the second. Yet, by the time the dawn broke, the field of battle remained as quiet as the skies above.